Recorded Books and R.B. Digital present Dark Age by Pierce Brown. Narrated by John Curlis, Renda Haywood, James Langton, Moira Quirk, and Tim Jared Reynolds. The Sovereign Citizens of the Solar Republic, this is your sovereign. I stare half-blind into a firing squad of fly-eyed cameras. Out the viewport behind my stage, battle stations and ships of war float beyond the upper atmosphere of Luna. Eight billion eyes watch me. On Friday evening last, the third day of the Mensis Martius, I received a brief indicating that a large-scale society military operation was underway in the orbit of Mercury, the largest in materiel and manpower since the Battle of Mars five long years ago. We are responsible for this crisis. Lured by the false promises of an enemy plenipotentiary, we allowed our resolve to weaken. We allowed ourselves to believe in the better virtues of our enemy and that peace was possible with tyrants. That lie, seductive though it was, has been exposed as a cruel machination of statecraft designed, perpetrated, and executed by the newly appointed dictator of the society remnant, Atalantia Au Grimus, daughter of the Ash Lord. Under her spell, we compromise with the agents of tyranny. We turned on our greatest general, the sword who broke the chains of bondage and demanded he accept a peace he knew to be a lie. When he did not, we cried traitor, tyrant, warmonger. In fear of him, we recalled the home guard elements of the White Fleet from Mercury back to Luna. We left Imperator Aquarii at half-strength, exposed, vulnerable. Now, her fleet... The fleet which freed all our homes floats in ruins. Two hundred of your ships of war destroyed. Thousands of your sailors killed. Millions of your brothers and sisters marooned upon a hostile sphere. Quadrillions of your wealth squandered. Not by virtue of enemy arms, but by the squabbling of your senate. I have heard it said in these last months, in the halls of the new forum on the streets of Hyperion, on the news channels across our republic, that we should abandon these sons and daughters of liberty, these free legions. I have heard them called, in public, without shame, the lost legions. Written off by you, despite the courage they have summoned, the endurance they have shown, the horrors they have suffered for you. Written off because we fear... To part with our ships will invite invasion of our homeworlds, because we fear to once again see society iron over our skies, because we fear to risk the comforts and freedoms the men and women of the free legions purchased for us with their blood. I will tell you what I fear. I fear time has diluted our dream. I fear that in our comfort we believe liberty to be self-fulfilling. I lean forward. I fear that the meekness of our resolve, the bickering and backbiting on which we have so decadently glutted ourselves, will rob us of the unity of will that moved the world forward to a fairer place, where respect for justice and freedom has found a foothold for the first time in a millennium. I fear that in this disunity 
we will sink back into the hideous epoch from which we escaped, and that the new dark age will be crueler, more sinister, and more protracted by the malice which we have awoken in our enemies. I call upon you, the people of the Republic, to stand united, to beseech your senators to reject fear, to reject this torpor of self-interest, to not quiver in primal trepidation at the thought of invasion, to not let your senators hoard your wealth for themselves and hide behind your ships of war, but to summon the more wrathful angels of their spirits and send forth the might of the Republic to scourge the engines of tyranny and oppression from the Mercurian sky and rescue our free legions. At that moment, 384,000 kilometers from my heart, in orbit 1,000 kilometers above the wayward continent of South Pacifica, projectiles skinned with Sun Industries stealth polymer race into the void at 320,000 kilometers per hour toward Mercury, ferrying not death, but supplies, radiation medicine, machines of war, and, if my husband is alive, a message of hope. You have not been abandoned. I will come for you. Until then, endure, my love. Endure. Prologue Two months earlier Darrow, blood red a graveyard of Republic warships floats in the shadow of Mercury. Of the triumphant white fleet that liberated Luna, Earth and Mars, nothing remains but twisted shards and blackened hollows. Shattered by the might of the Ash Armada, the broken ships spin in orbit around the planet they liberated only months before. No longer filled with Martian sailors and legionnaires loyal to Eo's dream, their cold halls are naked to vacuum and populated only by the dead. This is the last laugh of the Ash Lord and the debut of his heir. While I burned the old warlord to death in his bed on Venus with Apollonius and Severo, his daughter, Atalantia, stepped out from his shadow to take up his office of dictator. She slipped the greater part of their armada away from Venus and used the sun's sensor-distorting radiation to ambush the white fleet in orbit over Mercury. Orion, my fleet's commander, and the greatest naval tactician in the Republic, never saw them coming. It was a massacre, and I was three weeks too late to stop it. The frantic mayday calls of my friends tortured me as I crossed the void, slipping farther and farther away from my son and wife toward Bedlam. The White Fleet may be gone, but the free legions they ferried to Mercury are not dead yet. Soon I will join them on the surface of Mercury. But first, I have work to do. It would be easier with Severo. Everything violent is. My breath rasps in my vacuum-proof suit as I traverse the graveyard. My magnetic boots land silently along the broken spine of Republic Dreadnought, and I peer into a great fissure in the hull to check on the progress of my lancer. The wound in the hull is thirty decks deep. Jetsam floats in the darkness. Bits of metal, mattresses, coffee pots, frozen globes of machine fluid, and severed limbs. No sign of Alexander. 
The rigid corpse of a sailor in a mechanic's kit drifts upward feet first. His legs have been congealed into a single crooked stump from the heat of a particle blast. His mouth is locked on a silent scream, as if to ask, Where were you when the enemy came? Where was the reaper I swore to follow? He was deceived by his enemies, by his allies, by himself. While the Republic Senate fooled itself into believing peace could be made with fascist warlords, I pretended killing the Ashlord would end war in our time. That I held the key to unlocking a future where I could put down the sling blade and return to my child and wife to be a father and a husband. My desperation let me believe that lie. The Senate's naivete let them believe Atalantius. But I know the truth now. War is our time. Severo thought he could escape it. I thought I could end it. But our enemy is like the Hydra. Cut off one head, two more sprout. They will not sue for peace. They will not surrender. Their heart must be excised, their will to fight ground to the finest dust. Only then will there be peace. Lights flicker in the chasm beneath my feet. Several minutes later, a gold in an EVA suit drifts upward to set down with me on the hull. For fear of enemy sensors, he puts his faceplate to mine to give his sound waves a medium. Reactor is primed and ready for necromancy. Well done, Alexander. He nods stoically. The young soldier is no longer the callow, insecure youth who entered my service as a lancer four years ago. After war, most men shrink, some from the rending of flesh, some from the loss of fellows, some from the loss of autonomy, but most in shame at discovering their own impotence. Confronted with horror, their dreams of destiny crumple. Only a cursed few relish the dark thrill in discovering they are natural-born killers. Alexander is a killer. He has proven himself the worthy heir to the legacy of his grandfather, Lorne Al-Arcos. And I have begun to wonder if he will inherit my burden. He alone held back the tide atop the Ashlord's spire when Thraxa, Severo, and I had been knocked to our knees. It woke the hunger in him. Now he craves revenge on Atalantia for the murder of our fleet. I miss that purity of purpose. What was it that Lorne said again? The old rage in colder ways, where they alone decide how to spend the young. How many more must I spend? What is Alexander's life worth? What is mine worth? As if to find the answer... I glanced to my right. Past the hull of the drifting dreadnought, the eastern rim of Mercury throbs like a molten scythe. The planet is barely larger than Luna, but this close it seems a giant. The shadows of a society minesweeper pass over its face. It searches for the atomic mines Orion left in orbit to cover our army's frantic retreat after Atalantia's ambush. Few mines remain. When they are gone, only the tropospheric shields that cover the prized continent of Helios will forestall the wrath of the Ash Armada. 
the black ships prowl beyond the graveyard, safely out of reach of Republic ground cannons, waiting to launch an iron rain against my marooned army. When the shield falls, so will the planet. Ten million of my brothers and sisters will face annihilation. That is why Atalantia has come, to crush the White Fleet, to kill the Free Legions, to take back Mercury, and with its metals and factories, feed the gold war machine on Venus to prepare for a single, irresistible thrust toward the heart of the Republic. A tiny laser flickers against the hull between Alexander's feet. I put my helmet to his again. They're moving her, I say. His eyes harden. Time to go. Together, we push off the hull to float back into the graveyard. We cross through seas of frozen corpses and shattered rip-wings to land two kilometers from the dreadnought on the broken fuselage of a dead torch ship. We skip along its surface until we reach a dark hangar bay. Inside, a prototype black shuttle waits. The Necromancer, the personal deep space shuttle of the Ash Lord, which I stole from his fortress and rode from Venus to Mercury. Today, I will make it earn its name. Anteater to Dark Tango, do you register? The Fear Knight's voice is cold and intelligent as it echoes over the speakers in the necromancer's ready bay. The voice matches the man. Atlas Aura, Atalantia's most effective field commander, is a far cry from his honorable brother, Romulus. Implanted on the surface with his Zero Legion guerrillas, Atlas sows chaos behind our lines and is responsible for my delayed reunion with my army. They don't even know I am here, but neither does the enemy. The planet was blockaded by the Ash Armada when I arrived to Mercury three weeks ago. Fortunately, the Necromancer's stealth capabilities are the most advanced in the Society Armada, and the debris field hid our approach. Hiding in the graveyard, I've used the decryption software on the Necromancer to eavesdrop on the Fear Knight's correspondence. He reports his horrors, his impalements, his mutilations, with the detachment of a doctor administering medicine to a patient. Today he discusses a different matter. Dark Tango registers, go for Anteater. A thin copper voice answers for Atalantia. Some sinister black ops administrator on the Anihilo. Slave two is packaged and prepped for delivery. Atlas draws. Blood Medusa primed. Dance floors looking crowded. Confirm escort landfall and chaperone overwatch. Landfall confirmed. Escorts, love, death and storm delivered to chalk, minus twenty. ETA to handshake, forty minutes. Chaperone overwatch primed. Request escort handshake confirmation. Delivery active, pending your go. Registers. We'll confirm handshake. Anteater out. The audio clicks off. Slave two, they call my friend. Since the day Severo and I hijacked Orion's ship in our escape over Luna, the Blue has been my confidant, my stalwart ally, my saving grace against the incredible sophistication of gold naval praetors. Now she is their captive. Slave two. Those motherfuckers. Before we arrived, 
Orion was kidnapped by the Fear Knight from her headquarters in Mercury's capital of Tyche. Her personal guard slaughtered, her fingers left on her bed to mock the free legions. Unable to extract her to orbit, the Fear Knight managed to stay a step ahead of the trackers my commander sent in pursuit. I listened to the bastard's reports as he skinned some of them alive and tortured Orion in his hidden mountain bases. Today, he attempts to ferry her to orbit to face Atalantia's arcane psychotex. It will be a neural extraction, a science in which only my wife is Atalantia's equal. Orion may have resisted torture, but when Atalantia peels through the layers of her mind, the planetary defense architecture of the Republic will be laid bare. I cannot permit that to happen. Fascist assholes, my niece Rona mutters and tightens her synaptic gloves in Alexander's direction. It was the baked red peasants who gave up Orion, not golds, Alexander says as he scalps a warhawk onto the giant head of Thraxa Altelemanus with his razor. It matches my own. Thraxa admires it in the reflection of her notched warhammer. We lass. The whole planet is an asshole, Rona replies. You should think of buying a villa, princess. He blows her a kiss in reply. Atalantia's got some flair, at least, Colloway draws. Never one for wasted effort, the best fighter pilot in the Republic lies on a crate of pulse armor, smoking a burner. His slim limbs splay every direction, while pale blue eyes gaze dreamily at the curling smoke. Remember Dreadhammer and Lightbane. Jove was the Ash Lord on the nose. If he called it a nose, probably called it Air Devourer, or Consumer of Life Gas. Thrax's wee lass thumps the deck, leaving two big divots. Everyone shuts up. My apex killer is horny for battle. Thraxa's face is painted orange, her thigh-thick neck bent forward like a sun-blood stallion at the Hippodrome's starting block. While I regret my fondness for violence out of a red sense of guilt, the old blood gold bathes in its furor. Not the glory Cassius loved, or the noble fight Alexander chases, or the cathartic revenge Severo needs but the primal essence of battle itself. Never is Thraxa more alive than after thirty days in the field, crusted with saddle sores and sweat, hunting men who have never been prey. I like to kill people I don't like, she once said when Pax asked why she follows me. And your daddy brings them like flies. I survey the rest of my meager force. All save Colloway, where the warhawk Severo made famous. Alexander, Colloway, and Thraxa are ready. Arona and Tungless. The old obsidian sits cross-legged on the floor. From prison guard to prisoner to an unlikely acid, Tungless proved his worth on the Ashlord's island. He is a true patriot for the Republic. But I fear he may not be ready for what's coming. I fear we are not. Without Safi's mate, Valdir, and his obsidians, without Severo, Victra, Pebble, Clown, and Holiday, the company feels smaller than it should. I am missing my best weapons. And friends. The enemy is in motion, I say, 
the Fear Knight will attempt to deliver Orion to the Anihilo within the hour. If we can rescue her, we will. If we cannot, we terminate. They will not get that intel. I look them each in the eye to measure their will. You know the plan. You each have kill clearance. Remember why we are here. Our mission is not to save ourselves. It is to protect the Republic at any cost. They nod, but I wonder if they understand the extent to which I expect them to honor that principle. There will be those whose consciences will deceive them into holding higher, other principles. I need a core I can depend upon. Intel suggests we will encounter at least three Olympic Knights and Gorgon operators. The Gorgons comprise the Fair Knights' Black Ops Legion. Their ranks consist of shamed golds from the Institutes and greys and obsidians with antisocial tendencies deemed corrosive to the fighting spirit of the regular legions. No one is to engage an Olympic unless you're with me. Will Fear be there himself? Thraxa asks. His name is Atlas, I reply. It's possible, but I doubt Atalantia will give up her best ground operator before her reign. But she is sending Ajax. Alexander and Thraxa tense. Do we have confirmation from Screwface? Rona asks. Screwface is still silent, I say. She looks down, fearing the man is dead. It is likely, since our only mole on the Anihilo failed to warn us of Atalantia's ambush. Any more questions? None. Refreshing change of scenery. Good. To your slots. Let's get our girl back. Rona scoops up her vacuum sack, fist bumps char and tongueless, and slides down the ladder to the starshell bay. I feel a pang of guilt. I told my brother I'd keep her safe. If I wasn't so short-staffed, I could concoct a reason to keep her on the necromancer. But for Orion, even my niece is worth risking, especially considering her role today may be more important even than my own. I grab Alexander's arm as the rest head out and gesture to Thraxa's paint stamp. I ask him to do the honors. I know you were close to Kalimdora, I say, as he picks up the contraption. He nods at the mention of the love knight his mother's younger sister. He toggles through the options on the paint stamp. She spent every summer with us in Elysium, always begging Grandfather to train her. But she was best friends with Atalantia and Anastasia. He didn't want to give Octavia another weapon. Alexander looks up. When he took the house to Europa, he chose her sovereign over her family. She is no blood of mine. He points the paint gun at my face. What'll it be? Goblin black? Valkyrie blue? Minotaur purple? Julii jade? Blood red. In the spit tube again, waiting for the kill. I hate this part. A moving mind is always fed. At rest, mine eats itself. How many times have I been here? Sealed in a womb of metal not for birth, but to eat the living. The confines afflict me with dread. Dread not of what lies beyond. You can never prepare for that game. But that this will be my eternal tomb. Cursed 
to live, to kill. Is this who I will always be? Is this the life I crave? To rise before the sun, to smile at the cock-and-fart jokes of killers as they grow younger and I grow older? To sleep under tanks, in the ruins of cities, amongst the corpses? I no longer believe in the veil. I am the walking dead. Woe to those who cross my shadow. I miss the promise of life, the smell of rain, the murmur of waves on a shore, the sound of a full house. It is a life I have rented but never owned. My wife and son are real, not ghosts in my head. They are out there breathing right now. Where are you, Pax? Is it bright where you walk? Are you afraid? Has your mother found you? Your uncle? Do you wonder if your father will come? Do you hate him for having left? Will you ever understand? I have stolen pieces of him and his mother, which I hold for ransom, promising to one day return. I know that is a lie. Mercury will be my end. I reach for his key, forgetting I said it in my luggage three weeks ago. My thoughts drift to his mother. Unlike several, Virginia did not accuse me of parental malfeasance. She knows the shearing forces at work on my heart. How can I be a father to Pax if I abandon the millions who chose to follow me to Luna? The responsibility to many outweighs the responsibility to one, even though it breaks something inside me. I feel alone, knowing Severo would not make the sacrifice. Am I alone in my conviction, or have I gone mad? My wife and I correspond during my passage from Venus to Mercury, before I had to go dark before approaching the planet. Now it is too dangerous. I play the last words of her final correspondence. Her voice echoes through my helmet. Trust your wife to find our son. Trust your sovereign to bring the armada. Trust in me enough to stay alive. I trust my wife. I do not trust my sovereign. She will find Pax, with Victor and Severo. But no rescue fleet will come for my marooned army. Most have forgotten the sling blade of my people was not made to kill pit vipers. It was made for hacking off limbs of trapped miners. My old mentor, Dancer, has not forgotten. Now, the leading senator of the Vox Populi movement, he will amputate us to save the Republic. Atalantia expects this. If she breaks the free legions here, if she feeds Mercury's resources into her war machine, who can match her in space, and Atlas and the Ash Legion commanders on the ground, when they sail on my mother, my brother, my sister, my son, my wife, my friends, my home? I will not survive Mercury. I know that. The Free Legions will not survive Mercury. But we can make Atalantia pay so dearly for our deaths that we break the back of the gold military, and secure a chance for our families, for our republic and its fragile dream. I put away my wife's face, 
as I put away the key my son gave me for his grav-bike when I sailed for Mercury, and stare at the red light until the enemy calm crackles. Anteater to Dark Tango, escort handshake confirmed. We are go in three, two... Fury begins upon the planet with a spark. A lone frigate rises from a hangar hidden in the desert mountains. An escort of six Gorgon ripwings follows, burning low across the desert toward the Sycorax Sea, where the ground shields do not reach. In orbit above the planet, five dreadnoughts, led by Atalantius Anihilo, plunge toward the western hemisphere. Three legion contrails form over the sea in response. Atalantia's strike force of dreadnoughts bombards an unshielded sliver of the planet. Ground cannons reply as Republic squadrons close in on the escaping corvette. Society ripwings descend from the Anihilo. It will be a hell of a party over the Western Hemisphere. We won't be attending, and neither will the Olympic Knights. As the battle plays in the background, I follow Colloway's scrutiny of the waste of Ladon. Getting a ghost in the eastern Ladon. That's our bird. Hermes-class corvette. Wait for it to get into the debris field. Sure enough, the corvette has no interest in the scrum over the western hemisphere. It pierces orbit over the eastern hemisphere and sprints for the debris field. Char, sickum. Boom goes the ion. A thousand tons of high-grade engines and weaponry come alive in the hollow of the dead destroyer. Inertial dampeners throb as the necromancer explodes out of its hiding place. Chin to collar, I remind my howlers as Colloway weaves through the graveyard toward our quarry. They haven't spotted us yet in the debris. I am the tip of the spear. Move at my pace. Kill all hostiles. Momentum is everything. We stop, we die. There's a shudder as our ship hits debris. I see an open line between Alex and Rona. I click in. Here's hoping this one's worth a wolf cloak, Alexander says. Bah, he'll make us die puppies, Rona replies. Stay sharp, princess. And you, Rasta. I click out. Eyes on target, Colloway drones. Pricks and slits, guard your tenders, spit pending. The ship rumbles as its cannons fire. They've spotted us. It's a race now through the debris field toward their waiting armada. We spin like a top. Ordnance glancing off as the blood medusa returns fire. The seconds thicken. Each a test of patience. Three weeks I have waited. Three weeks in darkness. Three weeks in torment. Three weeks for this kill. A magnetic charge builds behind me. The lights go green, yellow, red. Gravity says hello. I launch from the spit tube. Momentum and sunlight and spinning metal. Our quarry barrel rolls through the shards of a torch ship, exchanging fire with the necromancer. Colloway sticks to its tail like a wicked shadow. The howler's signatures are lost in the debris. I take over my suit's side thrusters and lock onto the corvette, trusting my team to follow. Five hundred meters out. Debris careens past. Globules of frozen blood and water from ship stores become blurs. The heartbeat monitors of my howlers are jackhammering as they try to keep up. 
Match me, I say. Match me. In its desperation to escape the necromancer, the Medusa nearly collides with the engine block of a destroyer. It hammers its starboard thrusters and turns at a right angle. Damn fine pilot. But the men inside will be slammed into the walls if they're not secure. I seize the opportunity. Breach, I say, as I goose my grav boots and leap forward. The Medusa's hull grows larger. I aim for its centerline, directing Colloway to the breach point. Systemic rage builds as I prepare for contact. Atalantia thought she could steal my Imperator. That her fear knight could keep my friend as a toy for torture. That I would simply run back to Luna and let my men die. That she could steal my son and there would be no consequences. Well, here I am, you deviant bitch. Here I bloody am. The mother-fucking consequence. Five seconds to breach. The hull of the corvette rips open as Colloway sends a miracle shot home. His warhead sprays out molecular crash webbing. Two seconds, one, breach. I pierce the molten hull. The black blur of the molecular crash webbing expands like glossy, replicating fungus. I smash into the webbing. My teeth bite through my mouthguard. My internal organs throb. The webbing absorbed my crash, but quickly becomes a liability, as Alexander warned. It seals the breach and traps me upside down in its embrace. I can't reach the dispersal agent on my pulse armor's thigh. As the webbing expands, I see only blackness. Masked enemies in tattered desert gear crawl through it. A moment before, the Gorgons were being pushed out the breach into space. Now they are as trapped as I am. I can't reach the razor on my wrist. Not half a meter away, a sunburnt obsidian with chromed-out desert eyes points a pistol at my head. I push the barrel away and, slowed by the webbing, thrust my left hand into his stomach until the flesh gives. He screams as I reach under his ribcage and squeeze his liver. Sound off, I bark. Howler three, Thraxa says. Enemy contact releasing counteragent. Pup two, landfall, Rona says. Drilling on your go. Pup one, tongueless. Only static replies. The crash webbing bubbles. Thraxa's released the counteragent. It dissolves into a black soup that hisses against the deck. Sheets of steam roll up. Released, my armor clunks to the floor, my hand still inside the screaming slave knight. I pull out my razor and bury it in his face. Others move in the steam as he twitches. Six enemies, all coming for me. I struggle to stand. Then, one by one, the six shapes divide into twelve. A lean figure glides through them all like a Lycos dancer. Pop one reporting. Alexander, fresh from bisecting a half-dozen of the Fear Knight's best men, slams to a knee in front of me. He wipes the blood from his family blade and helps me to my feet. The whole colloway shot in the ship goes three decks deep. Sparks from broken instruments crackle. Molecular armor on the hull clatters as it seals the breach behind us, locking us in. Tongueless clicks over the comm and appears from two decks below. He boosts up and assembles the rip-wing cannon he and Rona harvested from the graveyard, hooking the man-sized gun to his armor's homemade exoskeleton. Thraxa pulls herself from a mangled wall. A fox war helm is dented. 
A sharp piece of metal sticks through her lower guts and out the back of her armour. She bends the points of the metal shard down and looks toward the sound of enemies coming up from the lower decks and down the main corridor. I toss a grenade down to the lower decks. White light flares and a concussion thunders. I peek out into the main corridor. Masked men in tactical gear move like a hunched organism down the hall. I dip my head back just as bullets chew into the wall and it starts to melt. Tongueless, give him a lick. Tongueless levers the rip-wing cannon forward on its hydraulic arm while Thraxa braces him from behind. The cannon is meant for ships, not men. It screams toroids of energy down the hall, bucking the obsidian into Thraxa. The frame rate of the world stutters. Behind Tongueless, Thraxa pulls her warhammer from its magnetic holster. Alexander salutes me with his blade and turns to the main corridor. Kaleidoscopic carnage unfolds before us. Pop two, go for drill, I say to Rona. Copy. Invert, I order. All except Tongueless rotate boots to ceiling. One hundred meters to the package. Push. We charge into the wake of Tongueless's maelstrom. Everything is upside down. The very air ripples with heat. Body parts steam all over the floor. Half-melted doorways tilt. The main corridor runs the spine of the ship. It is the most direct route to the prison cells. But it means we will be flanked in seconds. We must punch through, or it's all on Rona. There's a blur at the far end of the corridor. Drones scream for us, spitting munitions. Three of us open up with our pulse fists. Shrapnel pings everywhere. Then the Gorgons come to play. Dozens of elite gorillas fire around corners, but we roll down the ceiling like an upside-down wrecking ball made of energy, razors, and hammers. I fire point-blank into a Gorgon's chest, killing the armored man behind him as well. The third bends impossibly and squeezes three shots at my head, but I'm already past him and firing my fist at an obsidian. A homing grenade clatters against my right thigh. I cut it off with my razor, and Alexander kicks it. It detonates ten meters in front of us, lifting us backward. Push! I was a killer at sixteen. A warlord by twenty. But the younger me wasn't this. He was still tender and new to war. If he was the Helldiver, I am the Claw Drill. I carve through hardcore veterans of the Zero Legion as if they were made of pastry. Still they pour from every hall. Existence is smoke and fire. My armor pings. Internal warnings scream. I flicker my pulse shields on and off, letting them cool so I don't cook. The Gorgons will not die easy, and there are too many. We're pinned, flanked on three sides and can't push forward. Tongueless fires back down the main corridor, sweeping it clear. Something hits him from his right. A hole smokes in his armor. He stumbles as I fire at his assailant and overlap my shields to guard him as he recovers. Slide! Alexander seamlessly takes point and fires down the hall. Thraxa rotates to take his position. Tongueless recovers and takes hers. Alexander flickers down the hall like a possessed flame, lashing out his razor in abject slaughter, inverting gravity better than any man I've ever seen save maybe several. He tries to break through the crack fire team barring our path. 
All penetration, Rona intones. Breaching. The Gorgon fire team perform a perfect Flavinian armor kill on Alexander. Three nail him with electrical rounds before he reaches them, lowering his pulse shield. Two deliver mass slugs that stun him senseless. He teeters there like a drunk. Their centurion delivers the coup de grace. His muzzle flashes. Three armor-penetrating digger rounds screen toward Alexander's head. Thraxa bolts forward, and the rounds sizzle as they ricochet off her intact pulse shield. One penetrates and rips a hole through her left shoulder, spinning her sideways. Slide! I rotate into her place, rocketing into that damn fire team on my grav boots to kill the entire lot. As their bodies drip off my armor and my friends fight behind me, I look down the smoke-filled corridor to see a red heart burning in the gloom. A white skull joins it. Two silhouettes bar our path to the prisons. The razors of the Olympic knights glimmer like teeth. The heart and skull emblems of their office glow on their breastplates. The love knight and the death knight. Where is the storm knight? Where is Aja's only son? I pray to a silent god he is not with Orion. I look left. Gorgons. Right. Gorgons. Then behind us, to see three hundred and fifty pounds of apex predator crouched in the corridor, his black and grey leopard warhelm lowered for the hunt. Ajax. Top two! We've got the Olympics! You're clear! On me! I bark. We launch away from Ajax for love and death, each side in grav boots and inverting gravity at will. Metal rings as we crash together. Death and I slam into the wall, the ceiling, the floor, smashing gorgons still in their desert gear. We fire our pulse fists the same time and melt each other's into oblivion. The force sends us reeling into the Love Knight and Alexander, who engage in a far more graceful duel of blades. Alexander turns love to Thraxa, who is just completing a huge swing of her hammer. Then death bowls into Thraxa from the side, guarding his wingman's back. Behind them, Tongueless unloads his cannon on Ajax. I've never seen one close so fast as Azure's boy. He ricochets along the ceiling toward Tongueless, and then slashes down to slide sparking across the floor, flat on his back. Because the recoil of the cannon pulls its barrel upward, Tongueless is slow to angle it back down. Ajax counted on it. He slides past Tongueless. His wrist flicks, his slide stops, and he pivots to the root-cutter stance of the Willow Way. One of the last and most complicated forms his mother would have taught him before my friends and I killed her. Tongueless falls into four pieces, dead before he even hits the floor. Thraxa! Hold for me! I shout as she charges Ajax. She is fast, impossibly strong, tough as nails. But Ajax was born of the unholy genetic union of two apex bloodlines, Ra and Grimace. He is her superior in every martial way except experience, and in that he's gaining. He swims past her hammer and scores two strikes to her armor. She reels back, shocked by his speed. I rush to help, but Alexander is pinned back by death and love. They block my way. Ajax has Thraxa on the ground. He bats her hammer to the side. I go blood red.
The razor blows shiver up my arm as I give the Death Knight my undivided attention. He does well to last seven seconds. The opening is small and inelegant. He meets a crashing overhead and tries to deflect it instead of absorb the blow. He forgets the curve. My blade doesn't turn, and my full weight jars his own blade into his armor. Before he can pull it out, I pivot and chop Death's head off. I wheel around. Ajax was fifteen meters down the hall when I last saw him. He almost takes my head off as he passes above. I deflect his blade at the last millisecond, but the salvo we share would make his mother's eyes gleam. A very good killer can string together a set of three moves in an onset, a one-second set of pre-programmed, carefully cultivated strikes. Everyone has their signature. As one of the top fifty with a blade in the core, Cassius could do five. I once saw Lorne do eight. Ajax does eight. It isn't to say he's as good as Lorne, but he is as fast, and fighting him is like being plunged into cold water. Pure shock. I don't really see the moves at this point. Even gold eyes can't track blades this fast. By the time he flips down to bar my way to the prison block, I'm nicked three times, but so is he. He swishes his blade like a walking stick as the Love Knight takes the opportunity to pair up with him and form the Hydra fighting stance. Alexander limps to my side. Thraxa groans from behind us as she stumbles to join us. The two parties stare each other down in the narrow corridor. Everyone bleeds. Come on, Rona, I don't want to pay this toll yet. I hoped it would be like this. Ajax says from behind his helmet. His voice is almost as deep as his grandfather's. First you. Then I work my way down the food chain. Your wife. Your shadow. Your Bologna. As much as I want to cut off Atalantia's left and right hands by killing her best two knights, as much as I want to end Ajax before he becomes something I can't handle, dying here doesn't end the war. I hail Rona. Pop two. Status, I say without taking my eyes off Ajax. Packages wrapped, present deposited, attaching cord now. Char, any time, please. Coming in hot, getting frisky out here. Two destroyers and four torches inbound. Popping off. Three, two, one. I turn from Ajax and wrap Alexander and Thrax in a hug. I had hoped my presence would draw the Olympic Knights. They all want to be the one who takes me down. I thought I could still punch through, but with the knights the Corps has these days, you always buy insurance. While I drew their eyes, Rona's starshell landed on the hull beyond the prison block and welded through to steal Orion from behind their backs. Doom! The aft section of the ship vaporizes behind Ajax and the Love Knight as Rona's bomb detonates. A mortar space opens and the pressure of the ship rips them out into vacuum. We tumble with them into the debris field, everything spinning, and all we can do is hold on to one another. I see flashes of the oncoming enemy ships, rip wings, slip through the darkness, and the necromancer races toward us. Just when I think it will hit us, it tips on its nose, inverts, and inhales us into its back-facing garage. The doors seal instantly, and we ricochet like marbles. 
Rona's mech is locked magnetically to the floor with arms around a bag as if it were a baby. I grip a rung to pull myself to the viewport, just as the reactors Alexandra and I retrofitted activate. A dozen dead ships glow with sudden light. Their hulks begin to crumble from the inside, and then the reactors overload in a wash of blinding light. The two onrushing destroyers and torch ships ripple as the energy waves wash across the graveyard. The corpses of my dead starships animate into frantic contortions. I howl with Alexander and Thraxa as the derelict hulks splinter apart to cover our retreat, sending hundred-meter shards flailing into the enemy ships Atalantia sent into the graveyard. From the other side of the graveyard, her fleet watches the kilometer-long destroyers burn as we roar for Mercury. Holloway hails all Republic craft that the Reaper is inbound. We need cover fire. Dripping with sweat, I jump down to the floor. Alexander helps pull Rona from her mech. Thraxa winces as she pulls the vacuum bag free of the mech's embrace. We set it gently on the floor. I close my eyes before I open the seal. Tongueless died for this. Though I knew him less well than he deserved, he will have saved more lives today than he'll ever know. I unzip the bag. Inside is a shriveled woman in a prisoner jumpsuit. An oxygen globe sealed over her head. I remove it. Her skin is ashen. Her face is half gone. It looks as if it has been eaten. But her eyes are as blue as I remember. They fill with tears as Orion reaches to touch my face with the stumps of her fingers. Through tattered lips, she sneers, Hail Reaper! Part One Mischief From Ovid, Metamorphosis Chapter One, Lines 129 through 134 Of iron is the last in no part good and tractable as former ages past. For when that of this wicked age once opened was the vein, therein all mischief rushed forth, then faith and truth were fain, and honest shame to hide their heads, for whom stepped stoutly in craft, treason, violence, envy, pride, and wicked lust to win. Chapter One Darrow Till the Veil I stand amidst the blind. Cloudy eyes set in sun-ravaged faces stare up at the sun, at the stone obelisks, at the meager cubes of protein cupped in their blistered hands, at their leader who brought them to this cursed place, and see nothing but darkness. Their retinas have been fried by the ordinance of our enemies. They reach to touch my red cloak as if it will heal them. They are reds, greys, browns, coppers, and the few obsidians who chose not to heed their queen's call to return to Earth. The legionnaires survived the fear knight's ambush in the western Ladon, only to become 2,301 casualties that we must continue to feed, supply with medical aid, and protect. Why would Atlas, our Ra, kill 
when maiming pays dividends. My men look on the living casualties with despair. Others turn their heads away, as if looking at them might invite the same fate upon themselves. Drop by drop he blackens the pigment of our souls. I bend in front of a grey with two cauterized stumps for legs. You look like you got between a telemanus and a pint of whiskey, legionnaire. Fear so, sir. I'd be back in the fight had we the gear. If he were a gold or obsidian, he'd be back in the fight by month's end. But we can't spend our near-extinguished supply of prosthetics on regular infantry. Bad investment. I once thought the greatest sin of war was violence. It isn't. The greatest sin is it requires good men to become practical. I still see it, sir, like a ghost trail. The grey rubs his eyes, remembering the fear knight's firebrand. Bright as day. Can't sleep a wink. You and me both. But next time you open your eyes, it'll be Mars, you see. You're from Hippolyte, yes? Born and bred in the Jade City, sir? Then we'll share oysters and cigars there soon. I promise. I pat him on the shoulder, murmur something inconsequential, and move on. I stop before an old red man with a thin quilt about his shoulders, despite the heat. Bald, but for a crescent of thin grey hair, he rolls a burner with practised ease. His eyes flick back and forth as he realises I am there. He takes in a sharp breath. Is it you? He holds out a hand. I take it in mine. His burner begins to shake from nerves. I set my hand on his and motion a woman to toss me her ring lighter. The end of the burner curls with smoke as I give the old red a light and toss the lighter back. Looks like you've had a day, I say. He takes a deep drag. His hand steadies. I'm red, sir. Been blind most of me life. I'll get on fine, like. If those other mouths need feeding, don't worry about me. I don't die. His accent. What mine are you from, Legionnaire? He grins. Yours, as it happens. Lycos. I search his face. The crow's feet around his eyes are peppered with blood fly bites. What's your name? Don't you recognize me, sir? He takes another drag from his burner. It glows, burning hot and fast. His hand holds it, the same way it did the day Eo died, between his ring and pinky fingers. I feel the movement of the deep mine winds, the smell of rust and swill, an echo of Eo's laughter. It's been a long time. Dago, I whisper. Dago of Gamma. Could it really be the hell-diver I worshipped and loathed as a child? The man who taught me the meaning of defeat, who won thirty-two laurels. Now here, on Mercury, in my army. Fifteen years later. For him it looks like it's been forty. His age makes me feel the years. In the bloody damn flesh, sir. He shivers from his wound, but manages that slash of a smile 
Few teeth remain. What are... How long have you been... Since Mars, sir? Five years. And you never thought to find me? Man ain't shit if he slags with a hell diver that's got his eye on the laurel. His laugh becomes a cough. But you got it now, sir. Damn well you do. Sir? Felix, a pristine gold of my bodyguard, appears behind me. Hailing from a minor house pledged to House Augustus, he is a door cynic of a man. Just past forty, he has little love of the low colours. But he is loyal to my wife, and he is Martian. These days, there is no more trustworthy a breed. Two dozen more gold bodyguards tower clean and strong as gods at the edge of the Sea of the Blind, the zenith and dregs of humanity. I feel guilt that I chose the zenith instead of my own people for protection. Practicality again. Your shuttle is ready to depart. Your fellow traveller is growing restless. I want to stay. Ask a thousand things of Dago, but I can't. I barely have time to visit the men as it is. Time was you could walk among the wounded and find several sprawled in drink with them, playing Karachi, poorly. His absence is felt everywhere, not just in the field. So many gaps for me to fill. Reaper! Dago motions to me. I crouch back down. He pulls open his thigh pack. Two canisters sit inside, one filled with Martian soil, the other empty for his own ash. Most Martian soldiers fear dying on an alien sphere. How many corpses have I seen shriveled after bombardments, their hands clutched around home soil? How many cans of ash have I sent back to Mars to be spread in the sea? Dago offers me his home soil. It even smells of Mars, that faint hint of iron. I can't take that, I say. Where's your can, then, eh? Left it on Luna. This vacation was unexpected. He takes a handful of the soil and reaches out to me. It's from Lycos. He coughs blood into his quilt. Yours as much as mine. Bring it back, and we'll share a dram and some gob, eh? He reaches for my hand and flattens it so he can give me half of his dust. Mars is with you, till the veil. Others hear his words and begin to thump their chests over their hearts in the fading dirge. Except it is an inversion. Not the fast beating to a slow stop as in death, but a slow pace quickening to a racing beat. I'm about to say something to Dago, when he lights another burner and blows the smoke in my face like old times. No time for words, sir. You got killing to do. I clench my fist around the dirt. Till the veil. With Lyco's soil in a secure pouch, I depart the desert, spoiling for a fight. My shuttle bears north over the desert chalk. Behind, Heliopolis trembles in the warped horizon. A great shield wall, a kilometre high and fifteen long, blocks the mouth of the two converging mountain ranges. House Votum crafted the wall to shield Heliopolis from the desert storms 
that come when spring cyclones descend from the Sycorax Sea in the far north to tear south through the waste of Ledon down onto Heliopolis. Sparks shiver along the wall's crest as engineers weld guns from broken ships into place. I lament the waste of firepower. The guns are only there to satisfy the demands of Heliopolis's inhabitants and the master-maker Glerastes, not to counter an invasion. Heliopolis is the second wealthiest city of Mercury, rich with architecture, famous for its chariot races, and the gateway to the coastal mines. But it is strategically insignificant for my aims. To the north is where I will break the enemy. Heliopolis is a thorn in my boot, a hotbed of loyalist insurrection, plots, and back-alley murders. Behind its wall, the haughty city of Limestone slouches south toward the Bay of Sirens and then the Caliban Sea. Refugees and soldiers boil through the dusty streets and stuff the city with a ripe summer stink. But there is another scent there in that desert city. Not gull shit or fish markets or the exhaust of war machines, but something else, something creeping that clings to the root of the brain. Fear. Fear in the eyes of my legions as they look up to orbit where Atalantia fine-tunes her invasion plans, or to the shadowed mountains where the fair knight and his guerrillas sharpen their impaling stakes, or to the streets filled with Mercurians, any of whom could be a spy or an assassin. If the death of the fleet was an amputation, this siege is death by exsanguination. Bit by bit, frontline exposure to the perversions of the Fear Knight's guerrillas and waiting for the rain deteriorates their psyches. My loyal Martians patrol deserts and mountains and erect war machines and battleworks, waiting to be shot by snipers or hear the bug scream, that dread keening which signals a spider-mind's activation. Each a better fate than being captured by the Gorgons, the Fear Knight's veteran impalers of Zero Legion. Fear robs my men of their dignity, their nobility of purpose, their belief in our cause. Who can believe in the intangible with a garrote around their neck? They wait to die, slowly strangled by Atalantia and Atlas. Some hold out hope that the Republic will send a fleet. There is a small chance, but if I hunker down and wait for my wife to move the gears of democracy, there will be nothing left of us when the enemy strikes. We will die like flies, and fear will spread as the shadows of Atalantia's fleet creep across the steps of the new Forum, and their titanium boots tread the shores of my home. So that makes it all very simple. I must kill it before it kills us. Our flight path takes us over the waste of Ledon, the sunbelt that chokes the center of Mercury's main continent, Helios. Half buried in its sands lie the remains of the three armies the waste has swallowed in its time. Soon I will feed it a fourth. Somewhere in the waste's axe-blade central mountains, my howlers heard the fear night toward the tripwire of my trap, the mining city of Eleusis. Severo should have been leading them. 
Four commanders and two planets I've sent against Atlas. Four have been returned impaled, hole to hole. Only Severo and I can match the brutality of the Fear Knight. But I have too much weight to bear alone, so I have dispatched my best remaining small group commander, Thraxa, to lead, and my best sword, Alexander, in case it comes to blows. To the south, past Heliopolis, commandos install missile systems, mines, and anti-infantry microwave cannons on the tropic archipelagos and deep jungles that sprawl into the Caliban Sea. To the northeast, along the Petasos Peninsula, are the rising elevations and temperate climes of a tiara of heavily populated cities called the Children. The capital of the planet and headquarters for my army remains Tyche. We have made the treasured seaside home of the Votum into a fortress. Even as we pass over Crop Latifundia, far to its east, you can catch the glint of its spires and the soothing sight of its guardian mountain, the Morning Star. Due to Orion's free-fall maneuver, the flagship of my fleet survived Atlantius' ambush. What the troops are calling the Battle of Caliban, for all the ships that fell through the atmosphere into the sea— and now keeps watch over Tyche, as her systems undergo repairs, with hopes of one day returning her to the stars. Tyche is crucial, not just as a fallback citadel, but for the grav loop that runs south under the Hesperides Mountains, connecting Tyche to Heliopolis. Safe from bombardment, it will be the single artery for reinforcements if the fight reaches Tyche. And... It will serve as our escape route to Heliopolis if Tyche falls. The only other path is across the waste of Ladon, and I'd rather have dinner with the Fear Knight than dare cross that devourer of armies. I busy myself with reports in the Necromancer's war room as the shuttle flies north. Beacons from submerged torchships blink on the command display as we reach the northern extremity of the Sycorax Sea. Across the war room's data display, a silver aide drones on about shortages of anti-radiation meds in the south. Most are being hoarded in Tyche for the inevitable fallout. Soon we'll have a surplus, I say. Have you discovered a new supply, sir? No. His eyes flutter as he understands. I feel stuffy. My spirit aches to be released from this endless stream of supply logistics and construction delays. I need fresh air. I find Rona outside the entrance to the garage bay. Orion must be inside. My niece issues a crisp salute. Since her part in Orion's rescue, her popularity with the army has increased, especially with the blue and orange sailors and officers. So far, it hasn't gone to her head, Credit her father, Kieran, for that. How's she looking? I ask. Quiet, sir. Rona replies. Eats alone, when she eats. Spends more time in the shower than the mess. Like she can't get clean. Avoids the men when she can. Night terrors make her dope up to sleep. Never dozes in quarters. New spot every night. Guard detail can barely keep tabs on her. Atlas did take her from her quarters, I say. I wouldn't be able to use a bed either. Have you told anyone about your orders? No, sir. 
I know you told Imperator Harnassus she passed her psych evaluation. Quiets the game. Good. Good. Has she spotted you? Did you spot me yesterday when you were listening to Aunt V's hologram, instead of sleeping like the medic I ordered, sir? I frown. Window? Topiaries? I rub my eyes. Shit. I'm getting old. Or I'm getting quieter. I suppose it was only a matter of time before everyone started catching up. I consider how young she looks, and how old I must be in her eyes. Did you know I'm older than my father was when he died? Still think of him as an old man. I chuckle. He'd be closer to your age, I reckon. She glances down the corridor and chews her lip. Permission to speak like we're blood, sir. Don't like me discussing mortality. She waits for my answer. Granted. I didn't get you until we came back here. You were dead to us till I was near on nine. Everyone ran their gobs about you in Tinos. But I didn't get it. I didn't get that. She points at the sling blade, asleep like a pale snake around my arm. You were just my uncle. Then we came down with Orion, and I could see it. Every bloody soul was waiting to give Mercury their carbon. Then they saw you jump out this ship. The hairs on her forearms stand on end at the memory. You ain't old. You just need to let others haul their freight. Even the Reaper needs sleep, sir. Especially if he's gonna get us all home. She still believes I can work miracles. But my exhaustion isn't made by these last days. A life of war is catching up with me. She doesn't know the weight I carry. How much I relied on Severo to help carry it. How damaged our legions really are. How tactically sophisticated even the most basic grey infantry centurion of the enemy is compared with ours. Not to mention their golds. We just don't have the same distribution of brain power. Or firepower. Thank you for the concern, Lancer. But I'd caution you against spying on me again. I move toward the door. Sir! I turn, growing annoyed. She stands at attention again. When the rain falls, I request permission to ride with my cohort. No, I need you at my side. Because it's safer there? She watches me with the same hard scrutiny my mother wields. Aside from Victra, Lycos women are the most stubborn breed. You need your men to do their jobs. That's why you let Alexander tail you onto the Medusa. It's why you sent him off with Thraxa, to do his job. You can't protect us from this. You're not, Alexander. Yet you put me in a star shell and sent me at the Medusa. She leans forward. And now you feel guilt for that, for letting me come to Mercury at all. She hits the mark. She knows the promise I made her father. Sir, at your side, I'm a 1.2 meter, 40 kilogram liability with quiet feet and a dirty gob. In a star shell, I'm decent. In a Drakenjäger, I'm a full metal god. Blood flushes her cheeks. I know you're worried about my pa, but it was my choice to join you when Severo bailed. 
My choice to be here. My choice to fight. A voice hardens. And if they get through us, it'll be iron over my pa's head, over Dio's head, my brother's and sister's heads. So fuck your guilt and let me do my job. I didn't have a choice but to use her to rescue Orion. I have a choice now. My pulse fist's recoil stabilizer is still touchy, I say. See if you can calibrate it, Lancer. I couldn't protect my son. So long as I have the power to protect my brother's daughter, I will. When the rain comes, she'll be sent to Heliopolis to wait out the storm. I leave Rona steaming mad to find Orion sitting alone in the back of the cargo hold. Always stout, now stick thin. The blue woman is darker than the gloom outside. Her bare feet dangle out the open door. Orion hears me enter and looks back. Her face is mottled with the res flesh that has replaced the chunks Atlas took out. New metal fingers extend from her knuckles. Trouble? she asks. Pushy relations. Without a smile, she turns back to watch the polar sky. Beyond the atmosphere of the planet, Atlantia's warships rove, waiting for us to just nip our heads outside the giant shield chains so they can drop mass drivers down and make craters of us. Cold back here, I say over the whistling wind. Our ship passes over the edge of an ice shelf. Why don't you head to mess? Colloway says it's bad to sink on an empty stomach. I like the cold, she replies distantly, and my autonomy. Fair enough. I settle in beside her to dangle my legs. I didn't lie to Harnassus and my high command. She did pass her first psych evaluation, but I have the suspicion Colloway helped her cheat. For five days after her rescue, she spoke only in brittle, pixelated sentences, preferring the company of her protégé, Colloway, to any other. Then she asked to return to duty. I thought it would bring her back to herself. It hasn't. Her duties may be completed on schedule, but she remains the same as all who survive the fear night. Altered. I squint at mathematical notations written in the frost on the ship's hull. Reminds me of home when they would turn off the heating, Orion murmurs. They like to find new reasons to do that. First calculus I learned was on hull frost. Fingers so numb I could barely hold the stylus. Calculus? Poor lass. I only needed algebra, I say trying to draw her out of her daze. I wish I could say it was solely for her benefit. Do it in marker, on the side of the claw drill cockpit, with one hand. I make a motion of digging with the other. Can't stop the drill, you see. Stop too long, and you're jammed. You would need calculus to properly operate a claw drill apparatus, she replies. Yeah, well, Pa said the rest is all instinct. Disagree. Maybe you and I can have a duel back on Mars. There'll be new bunkers that need excavating. She ignores the challenge 
and watches a herd of pale seahorses crossing an archipelago of ice. They shake their manes and angle their fins as their stunted legs launch them off the ice back into the water. Fathers are important, she says. My kind think the notion perverse. She goes to chew her fingernails, only to bite the metal of her prosthetics. She looks at the digits, as if seeing them for the first time. Still, they call me mother, don't they? That's the civil half of the name, she shrugs. Children are disgusting. I would never have them. I cannot abide selfishness. There is no way, gold or red, to understand the empathetic connection minds make in the synaptic drift. Orion's communication with her pilots in battle is non-verbal. Instead, it is formed of a web where the electric currents in her brain bond and interact with those of others. To have one side cut short is the cruelest of amputations. The ghosts of the dead linger in her synapses. I wonder if she thinks of the sailors she lost in the ambush, if she felt like a mother when she saw the Anihilo break the dream of Iho in half. If it is selfishness she cannot stand in children, or if it is the fear of losing them. The Senate recalled too many ships. Even if you saw Atalantia coming, she would have held the orbit. The Senate lost that battle, not you. Her head snaps in my direction. Parnassus lost that battle when he didn't spit on the Senate's orders and sent half my fleet to Luna. Your wife lost the battle when she did not override the Senate. She will not break the new compact. And you think that a quality? Her precious morality for the price of my sailors? Or is it fear of becoming her father? She shakes her head. Parnassus and Virginia bear the guilt. I feel none. I do. Often. For the sons of the Rim. For the dockyards of Ganymede. Then you squander neurons. Her hard shell has always existed, but not to this extreme. It is easy to forget Orion's roots. From an unsanctioned birth, then childhood, in the dim frost of Phobos's hive city, destined to pilot garbage haulers and take a government stipend till death, to the commander of the most successful fleet since Selenius's Iron Armada. Amongst my own people, I had a home. Orion was never accepted by hers, until she climbed over their backs to the top and looked down to see them all pretending to have lifted her up. Of all the soldiers left in my army, I trust her the most, because she alone has never let me down. Any other astral commander, including me, would have lost the Morning Star, the surviving ships, and the army itself. Rail against my wife all you like. She's what keeps the Republic together, I reply. And Harnassus kept his army together when I wasn't here, and you were captured. Harnassus, please. Oranges are pedantic apes with opposable thumbs used for two ventures. To spin wrenches and climb union ladders. He did what is in his nature. She runs a hand along her head 
as if feeling for cracks in the skull. And what is your nature? The same as yours, to kill the enemy. As her eyes go distant, her voice softens. Can you think in space? Depends on who you ask. I can't think on the ground. Too much weight. Too many disgusting people and their refuse. She wipes her calculus off the hull. I know you think Atlas broke me. If I thought you were broken, you'd be in sickbay. I think you're dented. She likes that. He is an effective operator, to be certain. He presented me with a hideous desert rodent and said my pain would last only as long as the rat ate. It gnawed the flesh off my calves, nose, and cheeks before it split its stomach and died. It was effective. It horrified. It degraded. She looks over at me. Don't you see? I frown and shake my head. Together, you and I, we've broken worlds. Who can do what we have done, what our men have done? Yet we put ourselves at the mercy of rats. We free them, protect them, die for them, and when we turn our backs, they unveil their little teeth and gnaw at us one bite at a time. And when we turn to face them, they cheer, and we pretend their gnawing hasn't made us weaker. Rats cannot even govern their own appetite. How can they govern themselves? You sound like one of them. I say so low it's almost a growl. Is a doctor wrong when he tells you what you don't want to hear? We don't have a monopoly on truth just because our aims are pretty, young man. If I were wrong, this planet would embrace us. Instead, it gnaws at us. If I were wrong, the Republic's fleet would already be here. She looks to the sky. Where is it, Darrow? Where is our democracy? My hand drifts to the hollow drop in my pocket. The small teardrop of metal holds the face of my wife. I ache to watch her messages again, to drink in her last words to me, her face, the lines that web around her eyes, to somehow evoke the warmth of her skin and breath. But I fear to do so all the same. Sixty-five million kilometers of space separate Luna and Mercury at current orbit. An even wider gulf divides me from her. I do not doubt her, but I doubt she will do what must be done. Orion hit the truth of it. She fears too much to see her father and brother in the mirror to dissolve the Senate. I know she thinks her virtue is contagious but I fear it merely emboldens the covetous nature in mortals of weaker substance. My wife promised that she would wrangle the senators, I say without conviction, that she would bring the armada. Then why did you design operations Voyager Cloak and Tartarus? Why not just wait for salvation? I take my hand off the hollow drop, because hope is an opiate, not a plan. Agreed. So how much longer can you hope, absent any evidence, that the people of the Republic are good, 
that they will finally start pulling their own weight. When I do not answer, she stands, putting a hand on my shoulder in empathy. As Severa became softer, I found solace in Orion. We have always been alike, particularly in our growing suspicions of democracy. But it was always said in a grumble over a bottle of whiskey, never in a screed like this. Her doubt troubles me, and I don't know how to ease it when the same doubts echo unspoken inside me. How long will it take to sink your blues? I ask. About ninety minutes for full fidelity. I'll handle Harnassus today. Her lips curl at his name. You know his opinions on Tartarus. Last thing I need is you two clawing each other's eyes out. You just sink up and get back to quarters. You need rest. She walks away like a petulant child. I stand. Imperator, your commanding officer is speaking. She stops and turns. According to our Senate, you're not my commanding officer. You're a traitor. There's only one thing to do with doubt. Stomp on it. Imperator, I don't need your opinions. I don't care about your feelings. I don't care if you doubt the Republic. I don't care if you hate its people. For this army, this is an extinction event. My only care is that my best weapon is sharp before zero hour. Will you be sharp, Imperator? She snaps to attention. As a rat's teeth, sir. Chapter 2 Lysander Anihilo A famed old behemoth floats over the mottled planet. It waits to swallow the corvette that ferried us from Io to Mercury. At just under four kilometers in length, the behemoth is shaped like an atavistic spear. Her battered hull is sable, like the seashells I used to collect with my father on the shores of Luna's Sea of Serenity. Unlike those glossy shells, she reflects no light. Her name is Annihilo. I annihilate. I hope that annihilation is not the total extent of Atalantia's designs. Big beast, the man beside me says, as if discussing the weather. That killed Rhea? I turn, wishing he were Cassius, but Cassius died trying to prevent this very moment. The rim has come to make peace with the profligate core. Instead of my old friend, mentor, and guardian, it is the eldest son of Romulus Aura who stands beside me on the bridge of the Ionian corvette. Of all the golds of the rim, only Diomedes was deemed fit to serve as ambassador for this dire mission. I believe the choice well made. The man has gravitas. He wears a look of wary bemusement. His dark gold hair is streaked with black and tamed by a knot. His scarred, blunt face is not handsome, according to palatine tastes, but, like his slumped shoulders and brutish hands, it belies a quiet, terrible potential. From the brief flicker of swordsmanship he demonstrated on Io, and the reverence paid to his skills by his fellows, 
I judge Diomedes to be the only rim knight, equal to Cassius in the ways of the blade. Yet he alone refused to fight my friend, even at cost to his own family. For that, Diomedes will always have my respect. The Anihilo was the flagship of the Armada that burned Rhea. Others contributed, I replied. It is hideous. Of course it does come from Venus. My godfather never cared much about how something looked, only if it worked. He chuckles at that. When first I saw Diomedes, I thought he was yet another brute, like so many of the core duelists, with more testosterone than brain. I was wrong. The man is an enigma somewhere between monk and barroom brawler. He shares meals with his greys and obsidians. He is never the first to speak or last to laugh. When he tells jokes, they usually come as blunt elliptical rejoinders. He can be endearing, unnerving, and brutal. Yet when news reached us that Darrow, Severo, and Apollonius Auvalii Wrath immolated my godfather in his sickbed, Diomedes did not rejoice, as did his sister and many of his compatriots. Instead, he came to offer his respects. They were a peculiar comfort. I loved my godfather, despite his deeds. Whether that is evidence of a personal failing or a moral imperative to love those who were kind to one as a child, I may never know. At the Battle of Ceres, the Anihilo was broken nearly in half by Darrow's flagship, I continue. She still managed to destroy two New Republic destroyers and hold off his fleet until Carthi reinforcements arrived. She is durable. He leans forward gamely. It would be interesting to board her. How would you do it? His eyes trace her instruments of death. Quickly. There's that moony dry wit. I have grown fond of the man and his taciturn demeanour, but worry his blunt form of honesty will prove a poor fit for the games of the corps. As Grandmother said, a courtier without a dancing mask is as vulnerable as a praetor without armour. Still, Atalantia would be unwise to underestimate the razor master of the rim. Not two months ago he watched his father walk to his own death as a matter of honour. I would not cross him lightly. When Atalantia asks how long the journey took, you will tell her three months, Diomedes says. You don't want her to know how fast your ships are. Strength always fears speed. His heavy eyes search mine. You profess a desire to make gold whole. We are not fools. We know Atalantia will turn on us when she has the upper hand. Helios and the Council believe you may be able to convince her against... Rash action. And what does Dido think? He ignores that. I will do all in my power. You have my word. My mother believes this is a ploy for you to seize the throne. But remember, we will have no part in king-making. You have my word on that as well. I mean it. And I think Diomedes believes me. Damn my inheritance! All that matters is that we still the turmoil that racks the worlds. Gold remains the only viable peacemaker, but not while gold is itself divided. To defeat Darrow, 
We must heal the wounds between the rim and the core. For that I sacrificed Cassius. For that I would sacrifice myself. But would Atalantia sacrifice herself for anything? I doubt it. His word, a low voice drawls. His sister Seraphina joins us from the main compartment. We've seen how mercurial that is firsthand. Salve, Accipita Vega. She leans past me to pat the pilot's shoulder with affection. Our pilot, Vega, is a child with ancient eyes. On the rim, they believe the best pilots start at age ten and end at twenty. Vega is not yet twelve years standard. My own pilot, Pytha, is superstitious of rim blues and has not yet lost her terror of the moonies after their Cryptea secret police tortured her. Understandable. So for the duration of the journey she has secluded herself in my quarters, watching fifty-year-old Venusian hollow films and eating meditation mushrooms gifted to her by Diomedes' grandmother, Gaia. The sound of Gaia's piano echoes in my memory. Perhaps Atalantia will know if I played it as a child, and how I could have forgotten. There are chasms inside that I cannot explore, hidden truths or lies or evils my brain has hidden in shadow to protect myself. What lies beneath the shadow? If it is a construct of my grandmother's, Atalantia will know. We should trust him as little as we trust that coarse slut, Seraphina says to her brother. Her eyes dress me down, less even. At least she has soldiers' blood, not a politician's. And soldiers are more noble by default, I ask. She blinks and turns to Diomedes. If I have to share air with this coarse spawn any longer, I'll castrate him. She looks between my legs and raises a notched eyebrow, if anatomically possible. At the end of our journey together, I find myself unusually embarrassed by my initial attraction to the vicious woman. Upon close quarters inspection, I have discovered she has few of the virtues I respect. Patience, prudence, grace, humility, compassion. What virtues she does have, honesty, loyalty, courage, are contorted by her natural disposition, diabolical hunger. But my attraction still persists. Credit ten years' separation from my own species, I suppose. Either that, or I've discovered a latent predisposition for wild things, and shall be doomed for life by my taste in precocious women. If you can't share air, hold your breath, Diomedes mutters to his sister. We should not be here, she presses. We're not ambassadors. I should be with the forward commandos, and you at Lux's side leading the legions, not glad-handing Sybarites. Diomedes needs the joints of his jaw. We are what our leaders ask us to be, he replies. And if they told you to clean latrines again, then I would be beloved by all browns, and pray the mess cooks don't serve Venusian food too often for supper. She snorts at that. This isn't a dishonor, Sarah. 
I was chosen by the council to represent the Rim. You were chosen by a consul. It is an honor. It is the honor. Even though you don't believe in this war? Her eyebrows crawl upward. Well, don't worry, brother. I doubt you will see much of it. Damn Lux's honor, sending Ra when a copper would have sufficed. We're going to be hostages. Even if this core tramp decides she wants to ally with us before she sticks a razor in our backs. I rather think it would be poison, Diomedes replies. Seraphina pats her brother's cheek. Either way, you'll be a fine hostage. So good at following orders. She stalks back to join the escort soldiers. The Corps isn't like the Rim, I say after she has gone, choosing my words carefully. Diomedes despises only one thing more than gossip. Blood bubbles from spilled wine. You worry that Seraphina will provoke someone into a duel. Everyone, actually. She is violent, not stupid. She demurs to me. And if Dido gave her directives that contradict your own? He ignores my comment. But I know it strikes home. While Diomedes represents the Moon Council, his sister has only one master, her mother. And Dido is anything but conciliatory to the Gens' grimace. After all, along with the Jackal of Mars, they organized the affair at Darrow's first triumph, where Dido's eldest daughter and her father-in-law were butchered. Dido has not forgotten, nor has Diomedes. He stares at the Anihilo. My father once said, Anyone interesting is at war with themselves, and can thus be described in just two words. What are Atalantias? Velvet Busso. He says nothing in reply. Atalantia has a savage brain and immensely contagious charisma. She is hindered by neither guilt nor doubt. She knows no half-measures. She is a social strategist, a herpetologist, a sculptor, a laughing, masterful woman in love with the sound of her own voice, and convinced that beauty is the pinnacle of existence in any form. I do not speak of her vices. It would be improper for him to ask, so he does not. He lets the silence stretch and then looks over at me. Do you know what I learned from my father's death? I wait for him to tell me. Not to ramble. Exposed to the harsh elements of Io, Romulus wasted precious air on his last proclamations, and fell short of reaching the tomb of his ancestor, Akari. I swallow my reply. Lost in thought, Diomedes looks back at Atalantia's ship. After a time of consideration, he speaks. You are the legal heir of House Loon, and stand to inherit whatever remains of its possessions. He means ships, legions, oaths that have no doubt passed to House Grimace. Any inheritance I am due will cost Atalantia dearly. Will she see you as ally or rival? I do not know. I embarked upon this course believing I could reason with my godfather. He was always rational. But now he is dead. Atalantia, as dictator, is far more unpredictable. Ten years changed me.
Did it change her? Though Atalantia detested children on general principle, she made an exception for her nephew, Ajax, and for me, the son of her best friend and heir of her mentor. I was Atalantia's favourite, because, unlike Ajax, I won the affection of the only mid-colour Atalantia has ever respected, Glerastes of Heliopolis. A hybrid architect-physicist, Glerastes was the greatest master-maker in centuries, and the taste-maker of an age. And because Grandmother chose me to be the sole inheritor of the mind's eye, the secrets to which Atalantia always coveted. Despite that affection, nothing from my childhood with Atalantia, not our nights at the Hyperion Opera, not our hand-in-hand -hand critiques of violet exhibitions, nor even our mutual affection for equestrian husbandry, could disabuse me of the suspicion that I was little more than a doll for her to dress up and parade around. I'm ashamed to admit I let her. With my parents dead and Aja often away, I found myself willing to go to great lengths for a kind word. And Atalantia gave so many. Grandmother, so few. Yet one of Octavia's axioms haunts me. Fear those who seek your company for their own vanity. As soon as you eclipse them in the mirror, it won't be the mirror they break. I have no designs for rule, but convincing Atalantia of that is another matter entirely. I cannot say how she will react, I reply at last, but so long as there is no scar on my face, I cannot inherit anything. I chew the inside of my cheek. Are you frightened? To meet Atalantia? Conditionally, he pauses. To see my uncle again? Certainly. I am a little worried to meet the Fear Knight as well. Chapter 3 Darrow Storm God Owing to its traumatic rebirth, Mercury is a temperamental planet of moods and stark climate zones. Deeming it easier to change a planet than human nature, gold world-makers employed mass drivers on Mercury to alter her rotational period to match Earth's. Such heavy-handed terraforming is sometimes necessary, but it leaves visible seams. At the seam where the Sycorax Sea meets the polar ice, Steam seeps from the wide mouth, Harnassus's blacksmith's cut into the facade of a glacier. Landing lights invite us into the glacier, where a makeshift industrial world bustles around an excavation site. As we land, the sprawling barracks and engineering garages and mess halls on the floor look like toy blocks compared to the massive metal being dug out of the ice. The ancient engine looks like an upside-down turtle shell pierced with a trident. Imperator Cardus Harnassus, the Terran hero of old Tokyo, meets me on the sand-strewn tarmac. He is a geode of a man, slump-shouldered, slow-walking, with umber skin and a bulbous drinker's nose set in a face that looks increasingly like an angry puppy's the deeper he plunges into his fifties, all of which belies the intricate intelligence of a star-shell engineer who became the hero of his caste. For eight years he's kept his 
cherished Terran Second Legion blacksmiths intact. In this war, gold may hold a monopoly on super-soldiers and military doctrine, but we have won on creativity. Wary as I am to admit it, much of that is thanks to Harnassus. I've had brilliant commanders, stupid commanders, and bloody commanders, but finding a steady commander is as rare as an honest man in a silver guildhouse. If only this steady commander didn't have ambitions of one day sitting in my wife's chair. Formally speaking, he is the arch-imperator of this army, and I am an outlaw. It was Harnassus whom the Senate formally anointed my successor when I went rogue. Orion, they knew, was far too loyal to me. And it was Harnassus who, either for political gain or out of pedantic obedience to the law, overruled Orion and sent nearly half the fleet back to Luna, setting the stage for Atlantia's attack on the remnant. Gone are the days when he could sit at any table and chew the fat with the infantry. The men, like Orion, blame him for this. But in the end, it wasn't Harnassus who chose to invade Mercury. That's on me. Look at that! The myth and his puppy! Harnassus's orange eyes dance over Rona and me, as if he knows a private joke. Have you come to join me in my northern banishment? You're behind schedule, Imperator, I say with a salute. He returns a half-hearted one and spits out a stream of tobacco juice. It freezes in his tangled beard. Then the schedule's wrong. He scratches his head and pulls out a hair. Not that he can spare many. My lads are worked to the bone for this damn insanity you and the airhead cooked up. I jerk my head to the engineers that disembark from the steaming shuttles. That's why I brought more. The seventeenth is all yours. Their storm engine in the waste is primed and ready. Orionis had four of hers in the Sycorax burning two clicks deep for a week. He frowns. There's five others. You might have told me. There are six others. Operational security is paramount. Fancy way of saying you don't trust me. I trusted you with this one, didn't I? So much you came yourself. Seven all told, then. His mind goes to work. How hot's that witch's cauldron? Forty? Forty-one? Forty-three Celsius, Orion says, as she comes off the pale behind me. Her six storm pilots flank her. I hide my irritation. She was supposed to wait. Arnassus eyes her. Privately, he expressed his doubts of her mental readiness for duty. Publicly, he salutes his equal rank. I was rounding, he says. Well, your kind can afford to round, not you who does the dying. Surprised to see you in the field, Imperator Aquarii. Anassus wheels those slumped shoulders toward me. Why is she here? I'll tell you in the briefing. Right, operational security. Well, their meteorologists will have caught that spike. Aquarii might be evil little brainwashed warlocks, but they ain't fools like the two of you. Flying in the same shuttle. Shit. What if the fear knight got both of you? Then your dreams would come true, 
Orion says. And you'd lead the army. My engines are along the volcanic range. Your warlocks will think it's hydrothermal vents. They'll never suspect it could creep to fifty Celsius. Then what the hell do you need this one for? Total control, Orion says. Total control? Onassis's suspicions of being kept in the dark are confirmed. He glowers back at the engine. Didn't you two read the stories? Pandora doesn't like it when you play with her box. Orion regards him with as much respect as Severo would a particularly small turd. Pandora was a fiction written by men to blame the miseries of the world on women. I am not a fiction. So can we see the merchandise? Or do you want to stand here bickering semantics and freezing our dicks off as I pretend a hundred thousand of my sailors didn't die for your political wet dreams? The two unmovable objects glare at each other. You two done? I ask. Yeah, you're done. I want that machine in the air. Now. The ice is the color of cold lips as the men and women of the famed second swarm over the metal hull of an unearthed colossus. Imprisoned for centuries in the ice, the curvature of the machine's top hull, nearly a kilometer in diameter, is warped and rife with fissures. Arnassus roves the perimeter of the dig side, bellowing gear slang. He's been in a state of agitation since Orion and her blues entered the machine more than two hours ago. The master maker Glirastes stands wrapped in the fur of a polar bear. Lean, bald, and as cruel-looking as a vulture, the most famous artificer in the society wrinkles his nose and sniffs a line of demon dust from a dispenser. Orange, like Harnassus, he is of an entirely different class, one that rubbed shoulders with gold autarchs and sculpted libraries and arcane devices for their pleasure, from Mercury to Luna. He is not of the Rising, though his cooperation was vital for my reign on the planet. You've worked a miracle, I say to him. A miracle, he says. The Master Maker snorts in derision, and to claim the last of the narcotics from the right nostril of his hooked nose. When you took this planet, you said in one year's time I would weep in joy at the fruits a single year of liberty would bring. Peer upon this visage, young warlord. Is it one in thrall to joy? Year's not up yet, I say. These machines are of a primordial power not in concert with human affairs, he says, turning to me with that withering, pinched gaze. Considering my labors, I trust your promise holds. Before my legions took the planet, I made a promise to Glirastes to avoid bombardment of population centers. Because of that promise, hundreds of thousands of my men died in our reign, but millions of civilians were kept from the crossfire. That I honored the promise despite its dire cost is the only reason he trusts me enough to help restart the arcane tech within the engines. That and his fear of what Atalantia will do to collaborators, especially ones as famous as Glirastes, the master maker of Mercury. The promise I made him, then, has extended to the storm gods. It holds, I say. We won't exceed primary horizon. 
I will not be party to genocide. You know what will happen if, believe it or not, Mercury is as valuable to my cause as its people are to your sterling heart. He senses my sarcasm and scowls. Gods know why Octavia kept these infernal beasts enchained, he says, turning back to the engine with a gaze that is equal parts adoration, envy, and fear. Even the Votum did not know what lay beneath the surface of their planet. Even I did not know. I hope that means Atalantia does not know. Why does a gold do anything? I ask him. For control. The storm gods are leftover weather shapers from the terraforming of the planet. They worked in lockstep with the Lovelock engines to make Mercury habitable. It took my wife four years and the labor of two hundred greens to crack Octavia's crescent vault in the citadel. The secret treasures we found inside were worth a fleet of starships. I'm betting ten million lives that Octavia was too paranoid to let anyone but blood in on her family secrets. Glirastis stares at the storm god, as if waiting for its colossal mass to whisper a secret to him. Then he crosses his arms and recedes into the depths of his mental labyrinth. The Maker is a temperamental genius, but he cares about the people of this planet. Thank the Vale for that. At the wail of a siren, the blacksmiths begin evacuation of the pit via gravlifts. Above, the last of the claw drills drift through the air, ferried by heavy-duty cargo haulers bound south, to be stored at our supply depot in Heliopolis. Orion and her blues are the last to depart the engine. The engineers watch territorially as they float back to me on a grav sled. Glerastis sips the coffee his slave brings. Hardware is installed and operational, Orion says. So much for Harnassus's whinging. Work to the bone, indeed. His blacksmiths did fine work. For greasers. They're doped out of their minds, Glerastis adds. He's right. If I were younger, I'd think valiant rage or purpose kept them steady. But I'm not the only one light on sleep. My army is a band of marionettes held up by strings called Nazopran, Dolomine, and Zolodone. Will it work? I asked Glerastis. I ran five million simulations, only two million of which ended in the engines imploding, killing all aboard, Glerastis says. So in theory, yes. Comforting, I mutter. Arnassus trudges over, trying to catch our conversation. Will you do the honours, Imperator? I ask. This is your monster. You wake it up. He tosses the control pad to me. Annoyed, I activate the flight protocol. Arnassus doesn't even watch to see the gravity engines flare underneath the ancient machine. For a dreadful moment, nothing happens. I stare down. Rise, you bastard, rise! I told you it was a mistake including Harnassus, Orion whispers. He thought this was the only engine. He sabotaged it. He's an ass, not a traitor, I say. Then the storm god lets loose a terrible groan 
as it feels the force of Sun Industries' gravity engines, urging it to waken from its slumber. Except for Harnassus, all the aides and commanders beside me step back. With a shriek of metal, the machine begins to rise, climbing up and up until it hangs a hundred meters above, blocking the roof of the man-made cavern. Until its gravity engines created a languid field of low gravity beneath it, suspending blocks of ice. Soon, the engine will be ready to join its brethren in the sea. I smile in satisfaction. Chapter 4 Lysander Ajax, Son of Aja Upon landing on the Anihilo, Diomedes and I lead the rim deputation down a corridor of Ashgard. Instead of the ceremonial armor appropriate for the reception of enemy dignitaries, Atalantia's elite wear field armor. Perhaps that is because they do not formally recognize the rim's independence. The beetle-black metal of the field armor is dented and scuffed from war on four spheres, but the pearl-house grimace skulls upon their breastplates are polished to a gleam. The slight was not meant to go unnoticed, nor does it. This is not the welcome for a prodigal son or an old ally. This is a presentation of force to blood traitors. As we pass the rows of hostile greys, I wonder how many of them Atalantia pillaged from my Praetorians and my family legions. I search, but find no Praetorians, no Ronti Flavinius, no Exter Tican, nor even Fausta Hugh, standing as officers before the ranks. At the end of the corridor of Ashgard, Ten calamitously large obsidian-stained stomp their axe-hafts into the deck to bar our path to the waiting cadre of core golds. The stained step to the side, and for the first time in a decade, the two breeds of Oriot measure one another face to face. The golds of the core, battle-scarred and vain, drip in priceless armor gilded and monstrously shaped, by the finest artificers the worlds have ever seen. Most wear their hair short, in war fashion, and their eyebrows notched. Their thick-boned frames are fortressed by heavy muscle, grown under strict prenatal observation, esoteric chemical protocols, and tenacious physical competition with their peers. I would not say they are humanity perfected. They seem more like racing thoroughbreds, jockeying for position. In comparison, the golds of the rim are lean and shabby, their bodies, like their culture, hardened by privation and self-discipline. They wear their hair long, preferring to comb it before battle, in the way of the Peloponnesians. They are clad in simple leather boots and drab robes they sewed themselves. Not one amongst them wears anything that couldn't be bought at a low-colour bazaar for fifty credits— except their Kitari short-swords and their long razors, which they call Hasta. The silence between the two parties stretches with contempt. When at last one of the core golds speaks, it is a Martian I long thought dead. The winged shoulders of her swan armor are dented, but the flaming heart of her breastplate burns bright in the drab hanger. Her face 
smooth as alabaster in memory, is now tough as a miner's heel. But not even war could dim the spark in the eyes of Kalindora Ausan, the love knight. I remember her as a demure, gentle creature in love not with glory of war, but the grace of poetry and architecture. When I was a boy, I held only one other woman her age in equal esteem, Virginia Our Augustus, the wife of the reaper, and my grandmother's usurper. As a man, I behold Kalindora far differently. Even Diomedes takes a second look. Her lips, though riven by two scars, are full, and seem only capable of whispers. Her nose is small and sharp, but her defining characteristic is her eyes. Every gradient of gold that exists spirals toward the pit of her pupils, hailing in hue as they approach that darkness, so it seems as if one stares at an eclipse. Is it him? Kalindora asks a taller, younger knight in armour the colour of a storm cloud. His skin is black, his eyes vile and amber. The pelt of a pearl leopard sways from his powerful shoulders as he steps forward to examine me. For a moment it feels as if we're both looking through a dirty pane of glass, leaning and squinting to see if the apparition on the other side is really a long-lost friend, or merely some trick. I barely recognize the man I once called brother. Only the long lashes of his eyes are the same. In the eleven years since I last saw him, his plump features, often an item of hushed ridicule on the Palatine, have melted away to reveal an Adanic visage so surly, so passionate, so manly, even Cassius might, in a drunken moment, declare some minor flaw in the man in hopes of diluting his own utter jealousy. Octavia was always disappointed in her little genetic experiment. She would not be now. Ajax, son of the loveless genetic union of Aja and Atlas Aura, is a masculine specimen. By the phalera that bedeck Ajax's armour, I see he has already fulfilled his childhood dreams. He wears not just his peerless scar, but insignia signifying the office of Storm Knight, and the rank of a full-legate infantry commander. With my scarless face and my drab civilian vestments, before the two Olympic knights, I feel my ten-year absence more acutely than ever. "'You are the man who claims to be Lysander Aulun,' Ajax sneers. "'Ajax!' Mistaking his tone for banter, I reach to embrace him. The stained block my path. I actually feel wounded. Don't you recognize me? Ajax's eyes narrow to slits. Test him with the mantel. In Greek, it means oracle. I've played with oracles before. My heart sinks. Then a pink slave glides forward to present me, not with one of grandmother's, pale, truth-measuring creatures, but with a black metal orb ringed with serpents. In the centre of the orb is an upturned needle. A drop of blood, if it please, the Dominus. Though it may look kinder than my grandmother's oracles, I suffer no delusions. The needle will be coated with a DNA-coded poison. 
If I prove an impostor, my death will be a misery so profane it could only be designed by the cruelest of Venusian alchemists, the best of which Atalantia has on permanent retainer. Even if I prove my identity, the fate may be the same. The fact that Atalantia has my DNA at all suggests the depth of her intelligence operations. Owing to two sophisticated poisonings of sovereigns and one dreadful incident of cloning, my family guards their DNA as if it were life itself. Why else would we convince the rest of the Oriot to embrace the ritual of shooting the deceased into the sun? Because it looks pretty? Nothing is to be left behind. I prick a thumb with the needle. The core golds watch as a single drop of blood rolls down the needle to be absorbed into the metal. Whatever poison it contained does not activate. If Atalantia didn't have my DNA before, now she does. The orb ripples with wonderful ingenuity as the serpents carve paths along its exterior until a bust of my pre-adolescent face stares back at me. The slave returns it to Ajax. He examines the face. DNA profile confirmed, a bald green adjunct says. His pupils glow from his uplink. Security helix processing. A lengthy pause. Carlindora turns, but Ajax's eyes never leave my face. DNA profile authenticated. Forgery probability one in thirteen trillion. I concur, Carlindora says. Her demeanour softens. The core golds stiffen at the news, their competitive brains calculating how my return affects their individual machinations. Still unconvinced, Ajax tosses the manteo to the slave. What did my grandfather say to my mother the night he had her execute Flavius Algreco? I don't smile at the memory. Now that the pig is filleted and eaten. What's for dessert? His eyes widen. Brother! He springs through the obsidians to rattle my bones with a powerful hug that lifts my feet clean off the deck. This is the Ajax I remember, the kind, generous brother who could never bridle either affection or fury. I'm sorry. We had to be certain. The enemy is devious in his gambits. When he sets me down, he clutches my face between his long-fingered hands and kisses me firmly on the mouth. Little Lysander! Ha-ha! They said you were dead, but look at you! He dusts off my shoulders, corporeal as a cormorant, and still a spry dandy of a thing after so long in captivity. He makes a feint at my face. Not that spry. Captivity? Cassius would laugh. I'm not eager to disabuse Ajax of the notion just yet. They said you were your mother's spitting image, I reply. They didn't say you were taller. It's an understatement. He's far larger. Awash with joy, he claps my shoulders and leans his forehead down to press it against mine. He breathes deep. Scent has always been his favourite sense. When we received the family code, we thought it was one of the slave king's tricks— then we saw your signifier. The complexity of the code was a symphony upon my heartstrings. He closes his eyes. Together again.
Together again, brother, I say. It still seems impossible to me, and I hold back because I know the revelations I must share will be held against me. Only when Ajax hugs me after I have shared those revelations will this reunion be real. I mourned for your grandfather. He deserved far better. Ajax pulls away, his face downcast. Yes, well, he made his mark, didn't he? Now it is our turn. His eyes break away from our private moment long enough to survey the Ra. His voice becomes truculent. Unless you have a new family. Kalindora clears her throat. With apologies, I greet her with less informality than I would like, and introduce Diomedes and the Rim deputation. In reply to Diomedes's formal bow, Kalindora merely clicks her tongue. When we received Lysander's communique, we thought you were mummer's fiction, but here you are, bold as alley cats, and just as dusty. On behalf of the Rim Dominion, Diomedes begins before Kalindora interrupts him, your uncle extends his apologies. Atlas would be here to greet you himself, but war is a consuming affair. Her lovely eyes narrow. I'm sure you wouldn't know. Ajax steps territorially between Diomedes and me to measure the Rim Knight. So you're the eldest spawn of Romulus, and that Venusian whore. How bold you must be to liberate Lysander from the captivity of the traitor. So that is what they call Cassius. Not ideal. I suppose I owe you a debt, cousin. Odd as it is to hear aloud, they are cousins, both with the pure Ra blood of the conquerors in their veins, but, like so many of the dwindling apex genetic lines, they hold little in common except that shared lineage and the layered animosity of ancestral infighting. Diomedes looks at me, then back to Ajax. I hold no man in my debt, he replies. I assume the traitor is dead, Ajax asks. Diomedes nods. Did you deliver the killing blow? Did he squeal? Diomedes does not reply. I see your aesthetic penury extends to your vocabulary. In the core, it is polite to answer a question when asked. Serafina's jaw muscles work as she watches her brother suffer the insult. I take no joy in the demise of an honourable man, Diomedes says to the taller man with princely dignity. But I fear before he fell, he... Slew your half-brother, Bellerophon. Ajax startles Diomedes with a laugh. Despite his admitted dislike for his cousin Bellerophon, seeing amusement at the death of a man he knew all his life, fills Diomedes with a sense of disappointed understanding. He's in a different world now, where down is up and up is down. One can never really prepare for that. Bellerophon, Ajax laughs. Never knew the spawn. Our spies say you were barely better than him with a blade. Tell me, who is the most exemplary of the Rim Knights? You? I would be a poor judge. But if you measure the worth of a man by his skill with a blade, then I imagine 
It is the person least like you. Serafina blinks at her brother as if he just grew horns. A slow smile grows. The rim is not here to be pushed around. Carlindora raises an eyebrow at me. Ajax, on the other hand, well, he was mocked as a child and does not like it any better as a man. He circles Diomedes and succumbs to mock rage when he spies the lightning and clouds on Diomedes' cloak. It seems you wear my crest, good man. It is not your crest, any more than it was the crest of the man who came before you. It represents an idea. In our case, humility. Humility? And how is that? A man is nothing before the storm. Ajax stands nose to nose with the smaller man. I am the storm. Take it off. Oh, Hades, is the shared thought of every single person watching, maybe even Ajax. Atalantia certainly doesn't want him killing or getting killed by a Ra in a hangar bay. Never deny your enemy a chance for retreat. Victory may cost too much. Why? Diomedes replies evenly. I am the Storm Knight of the Rim Dominion. I make no claim to be that of the Core. Yet you are wearing it in the Core, my good man. How could I bear such a slight to me and to an office which I hold in such high esteem? To do so would curl my cock with indignity. It's a clever move by Ajax, and a credit to how bright he is. It allows Diomedes a way out. At a toll, Diomedes recognizes it and pays willingly. He removes his cloak and folds it in his hands. Ajax spoils his victory and loses the respect of all but sadists by ripping the cloak from Diomedes' hands and pissing on it. Then Ajax seals up his pelvic armor and looks at me. Do you defend him? With Ajax you're either with him or against him. Today I cannot afford the latter, and recognize the social stratagem he uses now. It is called Requisite Disrespect, a protocol of the Dancing Mask, one of Atalantia's favorite ploys. Are you quite done, Ajax? Kalindora asks with a sigh. Ajax wipes his hands on Diomedes' homespun tunic. Quite. Serafina has had enough. She steps forward, hand on Kitari, stopped only by a quiet click of her brother's tongue, whatever that click means. She takes it very seriously. Ten obsidian-stained make a guttural sound as they lower their axes. But Ajax and the core golds simply watch like a row of patient crocodiles. Now they know there is some hot blood in the rim after all. Whether it is in an hour or five years, they will exploit it, either collectively or individually. I warned Diomedes. By Juno's cunt! Your catamite is sensitive, Ra, Ajax purrs, playing it off as a farce. Instead, of a temperament reconnoiter. My sister is merely stretching. After her long journey, Diomedes replies, Sister? Sister? 
Ajax asks. But where are the tits? Do you now sear them off, like Sephi's winged lesbians? No, but on the rim we geld unctuous obsidians, Seraphina replies. Step closer, Gaja. I'll muster a tutorial. Ajax bows in amusement at the invitation. Perhaps later, cousin. But for now I believe Kalindora is at her wit's end with me. Apologies, of course. It is just so exciting to have Ra back in the fold. The last ones were too short-lived. With large stepping motions, he mocks how a Juliite boot famously stomped Diomedes and Seraphina's elder sister to death. Then he throws an arm around me, and motions the Ra to follow. Welcome to the Ash Legions. Chapter 5 Darrow Voyager Cloak Operation Voyager Cloak is live, I tell the cluster of officers who gather in the mess hall of the construction site. Glerastis has been removed, bound for Heliopolis, where he'll be under guard until the operation is complete. Those who remain are engineering legates, blue flight commanders and cocky sky rangers, all veterans of at least two campaigns. Reliable, in other words. Onassis sits in stony silence. You have been laboring in darkness. The details of Voyager Cloak have been compartmentalized for security reasons. Allow me to paint the full picture. What you know. Atlantia's meticulous. After our little dance in the graveyard, she has cleared the debris field and the mines. Mercury is fully blockaded. She has tactical and numerical superiority, likely two to one on the ground. From her position, she can destroy any ship that attempts to breach orbit and launch a rain to reinforce any point on the planet within twenty minutes. Our ability to respond pales in comparison. Effectively, this gives her the ability to flank any of our units at leisure. Our shields are our only advantage. As long as they are up, she has no artillery support and will not risk landing ground elements. If our shield chain falls, we lose. Full stop. Once she has destroyed us, she will turn her eyes on the Republic. Some of you believe we should hold tight for reinforcements from Luna. I avoid looking at Harnassus. It isn't time to dress him down. Let me dispel that notion. If reinforcements come, Atalantia will know and launch an invasion on her terms before they can arrive. By that time, the Fear Knight will have already taken steps to weaken our position in ways we cannot counter. They will have the initiative and the sky. Again, we lose. We cannot retreat, we cannot surrender, we cannot attack, we cannot wait. Our only option is to define the terms of engagement. We will invite them in. They lean forward. The tanks and infantry, meant for Mars, Luna and Earth, will die here, on Mercury. I am proud that the officers do not flinch. Any illusions of rescue that my return might have awoken now dispel. 
I cannot wave my hands and whisk them back to Mars. This is no tale of salvation. It is one of sacrifice. This is our Thermopylae. What you don't know. Several nights ago, the first stage of Operation Voyager Cloak went into effect when the Fear Knight shot down a black sparrow east of the Hesperides. On board was a corpse planted by Howler intelligence agents with a data stack of intelligence information regarding a vulnerability within our shield chain. It appears the Fear Knight has taken the bait. As we speak, he is being herded by the Howlers toward Eleusis, which, once destroyed, will lead to a chain overload of the shield generators, creating a small gap south of Pan in the plains of Caduceus that Atalantia will find impossible to resist. The terrain is perfect landfall. It is flat enough for her tanks, dry enough for her titans, wide enough to land ten legions at a time, and in perfect position to split our northern forces, overrun our defences on the children on the Petasus Peninsula with aerial infantry, and roll tanks westward down the coast to hit Tyche. That landfall is our kill box. It is mined with atomics, surrounded by two hidden army groups supported by six of our ten remaining torch ships and Red Reach base. When Atalantia's army lands there, it will be annihilated from three sides. She will retreat along the only route available, south, into the waste of Ladon. They say that desert eats armies. I mean to feed it another. They grin and wait for the reason they've been gathered four hundred clicks north, barred from the field of battle by an entire sea. Why, then, are you here? I take a moment to look each of them in the eyes. You are not part of Operation Voyager Cloak. The men and women in this room will form Blue Reach 7, under direct command of Orion from Blue Reach 1, off the coast of Tyche. If all else fails, you are my insurance policy. You are Operation Tartarus. After the officers dispersed to receive direct orders from Orion, I motion Harnassus to take a walk with me along the excavation site. We have business to finish, and I want witnesses. The engine has settled back into its berth after its test run. Engineers call to one another as they make last-minute adjustments. So, you figured a way to make them sync-compatible, Anasa says, and a way to handle the data load. It will be terabytes per second. I know. My blacksmith saw them installing foreign tech in the control room. If not my men, who designed it? We had to use all available resources on such short notice. What resources? The mastermaker Glerastes. His face goes blank. Glerastes. He's already tinkered with enough, don't you think? He is the only man on Mercury who studies ancient tech for pleasure, I say. If you could have done it, I'd have asked you. He is a gold pet. I know you disagree with this course. That is an abuse of language. Anassus's voice doesn't rise a decibel. When you said we would let them inside our shields, I thought I misheard. When you told me what we were unearthing, I thought I'd gone mad. Now you're telling me there's not one engine, but seven, run with the tech of a gold pet. 
I haven't gone mad. He jabs a finger up into my chest and calmly says, You have. I look down at his puny finger. Control yourself, Imperator. We set the tone. Tartarus is merely, Insurance, yeah, I heard. You don't think we can match them on the ground? No. Need I remind you this is still the army that freed both our homes? Except no Sefi, no Severo, no Seventh. The crossed wrenches on his uniform glint as the Terran folds his thick forearms over each other. The enemy is freshly provisioned from Venus, her legions replenished, her machines serviced. These aren't soft-foot pixies. These are the full Ash legions. That means Legius twenty, Fulminata. Thirteen, Draconis. Ten, Perdus. On our best day, any of those would test our mettle. But she's brought all of them. And this isn't our best day. Just a week ago, my men were melting down scrap metal so we could fill the twenty-thirds magazines. Scrap metal. Not depleted uranium. Scrap metal. Daryl, you know I am no Cassandra. But the moment the first peerless boot touches Mercurian soil, we've lost the planet. This isn't Thermopylae. This is Canny. We will die in the Ladon. I ignore the appeal to the classical obsession I share with the Golds. Parnassus, we lost the planet the moment you sent half the fleet home. He appraises me coolly. So there it is. You want to flog me for it? You want an apology? Fuck you. There's your apology. I obeyed my oath. The sword of the people should never silence its voice. And the voice of the people is the Senate, not you. And what does the Senate tell you now? I cup my ear. The voice isn't speaking, so the sword will. You know why I prefer Severo to you? He might burn hot, but you go cold. There's no talking to you when you're like this. You're inhuman. You're a god-emperor. His blacksmiths have noticed the tenor of our conversation, if not its content. Thraxa worried over my choice of theatre for this game, surrounded by Hanassus's men. But you don't get the wolf by the tongue without reaching through its teeth. He steps close to me. You didn't come back to save us. You came back to kill them. He suppresses a shudder of anger. You're rolling dice in the dark. Reinforcements may already be en route. At least try to run their blockade. Get a signal out. Contact the Senate. Learn their intentions. You have a solemn duty to keep the men alive as long as possible. And if you use those engines, we're as bad as the enemy. Arnassus, look around. Does today look like a day where I am inclined to entertain anyone's moral protestations? I am going forward. Are you with me, Imperator? And if I'm not, my left hand can't have a mind of its own. At my command, ten black-clad howlers file out of the necromancer. The chameleon properties of their pulse armor ripple to match the pale ice. 
Felix tilts his buzzed head. Anassus's face falls. You would use howlers. On me. That choice is yours. The most terrifying golds, obsidians, and greys in the legions stare him down. Each one would kill him for me, or slam cuffs on his wrists and throw him in the brig. Anassas glances at his blacksmiths, wondering if they would do the same. He comes to the correct conclusion and lowers his voice. If you are forced to choose between saving our army and killing theirs, I need your word you will choose us. We are an expeditionary force. Our mission is to find and destroy the enemy. I grin. Well, we've found them. Your answer, Imperator. He stares at the ground, hands quivering at his sides. He lost the army as soon as I returned. I understand him well enough to know he once harboured thoughts of stepping in if I took us to the edge. Now he knows that was never an option. Damn you, he says, and looks up. Damn you. Though the anger never leaves his eyes, he delivers his salute with a precision few would think his slumped body could manage. He holds it for far too long for my tastes. Hail, Reaper! Sir, Rona says from behind, it's Pup One. In the necromancer's communications bay, a meter-tall hologram of Alexander warps in and out, eroded by the jamming tech from Atalantia's fleet. Harnassus and Orion crowd in behind me. Lost. Fear. In the... Ladon. Does that mean fear's going after Eleusis? I ask. Did he take the bait? Bait? No. From... Ange... Harnassus crosses his arms and strains to hear Alexander. Distress! From... No. Cation. Repeat. Pup one. Repeat. Did not take bait. No movement on Eleusis. Received a distress call from Angelia. Communication from... Angelia. Since 06. Angelia, I murmur. Angelia is a small city in the mid-eastern Ladon, one we used for civilian evacuation from the city surrounding our killbox. It's under the northern shield chain, but not a generator nexus like Eleusis. Atlas was supposed to attack Eleusis. I left it wide open for him, practically begging to be assaulted. Perhaps it begged too much. Anassus's jaw muscles work overtime. The bastard knows. He guessed your plan. Specious assumption, Orion replies. Angelia doesn't have a generator like Eleusis. It's under the shadow of Kaidong's. Then what does he want there? Anassus asks. What does it have? Darrow? I can't wait for further intel. A decision must be made. But if I play my hand too soon, it all falls apart. Damn it! What went wrong? Arnassus, you're done here. I want you back in Heliopolis. Away from the fight with the civilians and rear echelon, he asks. 
the fight will be at Taiki. When we lose the air, we'll need you to continue to supply us reinforcements via the grav loop. And we need to protect the integrity of the command chain. If I fall in the desert, and Orion falls with the engines, the army must have a commander. That's the thing about Harnassus. Whatever our differences, when the enemy comes, he's got my back. He snaps a salute. As he turns, he glares at Orion. I watch her as he departs. One by one, my bodyguards slide down the passage into the garage below. They know what's coming. Here we go again. The thought fills me with exhaustion. I need you at Blue Ridge One, I tell Orion. Take any of the shuttles. Get the rest of the pilots to their engines. I grab her arm as she moves to the passage. We do not raise the storm gods above primary horizon. Swear to me. On my life. I bring her forehead to mine. From vanguard till veil, sister. She smiles in remembrance of that old ship where we met. Vanguard till veil, brother. She departs and takes something of me with her. You never know any more when you will see a friend again. Or if. Of all the people I know, Orion has never said what she would do after the war. I feel a need to know now. But she's already calling to her storm pilots and shoving them toward shuttles. You think she's all there? Rana says from the disembarkation plank. If she goes blood red, I have an insurance plan. Course you do. I turn to her, about to tell her to go with Harnassus, when I see she understands what I mean, what exactly I mean by insurance plan on Orion. Fuck. She sees right through me. Where is it? she asks. Just in case. In case I lie dead on the battlefield, she means. When I asked Glerastes to build the sink hardware for the storm gods, I had him construct a safety valve so that the blues running it couldn't decide the fate of the planet without me. I pull the master switch from my coat and brandish it at Rona. And in armor, she asks. Second thigh box, right leg. And like that, she ensures her place at my side. I'm sorry, brother. I send a message to the howlers. Alexander, tell Thraxa to reconnoiter Angelia. Do not engage the fear knight. I'm on my way. Chapter 6 Lysander Carnivores Lysander Aulun, how vital you look for a ghost. Atalantia lifts me from my knees to embrace me in her meditation chamber. Look, Hypatia, our old friend, she croons. The tamed black vaster serpent that coils about Atalantia's throat like a necklace eyes me with reptilian indifference. Go on, my dear. Give dear Lysander a kiss. I'd forgotten how terrifying it is to feel the cold scales of Venus's most venomous creature against your lips. 
As I pull back from the kiss, I watch the snake's chameleon scales wash pale to match my skin tone and then darken as it coils back around Atalantia's neck. She remembers you, Atalantia croons. Her meditation chamber is more pleasant than her jewellery. Unlike Grandmother, Atalantia enjoys a little chaos. Her chamber is a garden with some of the most esoteric vegetation I have ever seen. Under a dome of stars, helix trees with violet leaves, wend like DNA strands. Birds sing, and even a monkey or two swings in the trees. Were it not for Mercury turning outside the viewport, I would not know I was on a battleship. My favourite touch is the carnivorous orchids perched upon babbling cupid fountains. Their tongues reach for me as I look at Atalantia. Like Ajax, Atalantia has changed in my absence. Now in her late forties, the youngest Grimace sister is lean and hungry-looking. She looks not a day over twenty-five, except in the eyes. But where once reclined the whimsical heartbreaker of the Palatine, now stands a soldier. Gone are the gowns and the jewels and the hair swaying in braids down past her lower back. Gone are the diamond nails and spiced champagne flutes, and the halls filled with muscled pink paramours. The gowns have been replaced by a dramatic black uniform with rows of golden spikes and a death's head on each shoulder, and the paramours by a ship full of the intrepid killers from my generation, the ice-eyed veterans of her own, and the remaining legends of the one before. Atalantia's hair is faded on the sides, in short braids on the top. One could almost mistake her for one of those humorless martial Martians she used to mock. Seeing her again is like touching a fragment of home, more even than seeing Ajax or Kalindora. She was close with my parents. While I have always feared Atlas, my father's best friend, I have never feared my mother's. In many ways, Atalantia was as much a protector to me as Aja was. We are joined by Ajax, Kalindora, and, via hologram, an endangered species, the primacies of the remaining houses of the conquering. They are Carfii, the rich and licentious shipbuilders of Venus, the purity-obsessed Falth, nomadic after their lands on earth fell, and Votum, the poetic, yet ultimately practical metal-mining magnets and builders of Mercury, recently evicted, of course. Absent are the upstart families, who have risen through war still deemed petty by this lot, and, most notably, the ancient Saud, the infantry purveyors of Venus. Dido's family are the chief rivals of the Carthii, Atalantia's strongest allies. Their absence speaks volumes. So this is still a den of carnivores. It will prove a difficult audience. At least I am spared from telling Julia Albellona of Cassius's fate at the hands of the rim. She is not here. I grieved to hear of your father's death, I say to Atalantia according to court protocol. Long was his toil, great were his deeds. May he rest unburdened in the void. Beneath heavy lids, her eyes flash like match-heads. 
They search my face, the room, for more fuel to burn. They fall on my vestments and dance with fire. Dear child, I do say your fashion seems to have become rather bleak. Your father, did I teach you nothing, sweet Lysander? Idleness is no reason to discount the hoof-maintenance of your steed, just as war is no excuse for poor tailoring. We will have to amend your sins at once. It is a matter of self-respect. I have three of the premier tailors in all Venus aboard. One week with them, and you will look like a king. That is a dangerous word in this company. It is better I say nothing. She sighs and looks up at the stars. I spare a glance for the giant mural that dominates the far wall. It is the one Octavia commissioned for our family, and our closest allies, the Gens Grimace. Ajax, Atlas, and Aja stare out, but of the dead, nothing can be seen of their faces. Atalantia has painted them out, including mine. Father always thought it would be Lorne who would do him in, one way or another, she says, noting my interest in the painting and looking at her father, whose death shroud is freshly painted. He wouldn't have minded that, or even Nero, but a cur, a half-breed, and a slave. She makes a faint, sibilant sound. What an indecorous age we inhabit, dear boy. No one gets the death they deserve. It is most uncouth. What sort of farce is this, Atalantia? mutters Scorpio Alvotum's hologram. He has always been a pedantic mathematical creature. He has also just eclipsed one hundred years of age, and is on his sixteenth paramour. We hardly have the time for this sideshow. There are logistics to discuss. Atalantia rolls her eyes to me, as if saying, Look what I must bear. But there's still a gulf between us. She is wary of my intentions, as is only natural. Farce, Ajax hisses, coming to my defence. And what is farcical about Lysander returning from the grave, Scorpio? At this late hour, a lost boy stumbles to us from the fringes of civilization on an enemy ship. Scorpio scoffs. Pardon my incredulity, but it seems devious engines are at work. How I love the mausoleum of conspiracies in your mind, Scorpio. Such a delight. But I wonder, do you intend to accuse me of devious engineering? Adelantia asks. I was suggesting the lupine variety. He wasn't. But since you ask, I would remind you that Mercury belongs to my family, not the Gens Grimace, not the Gens Loon, not this confederacy of two hundred we have cobbled together to include even the most diluted blood. We built Mercury. We tamed its orbit. Selenius and his heirs did pay for it, Kalindora adds. In the mind of the Votum Primus, the youth of Kalindora and her pitiful bloodline, one a scant three hundred years old, is of little concern. Pray tell, Atalantia, 
Do you truly believe the support of the air will make us forget our deed to this planet? No, no, precocious as you are, you are not the only one with an army. You are first among equals, but that does not make you our sovereign, nor will it ever. Atalantia smiles at him. If I mistook that for a threat, Scorpio, I might insist you have Atlas over for a midnight tea. I know you can invite your lovely children, Cicero, Portia, Ovidius, Horatia. Why not just invite the whole lot? Atlas's name has a chilling effect on the room, but it goes deeper than their fear of just that man. In an era in which these primacies have witnessed the extinction of genetic lines as old as their own, threats to family do not just endanger the heart, but the survival of their ancient names. Of course, I am no sovereign, Atalantia says, sharp as a tack now. What need have I of groveling sycophants, or the burden of planetary management, my province, is war, my good man, only war. In it I have proven myself your superior, and enjoy your confidence in its prosecution. None disagree, not even Falf, and he's seen as many battles as the Reaper himself. This pertains to war, and I say this is Lysander, and this is the first time I have seen him in ten long years yet I am generous enough to shame with you. Why? Because I value your opinions? But if it is accusations you seek to levy at me, well, that would be disappointing. Silence. Ajax looms behind Atalantia like an unshaken fist. Atlas like an unseen one. Yet for all that menace, the gold's no Atalantia could only kill them at gravest cost to herself. And it is not in the nature of those who rule planets to tuck their tails, nor do they. However, Scorpio's reply is markedly more judicious. Lysander Aulun was in the Dragonmoor when it fell. Since he is here, one wonders how he survived. How do we know he is not an agent of the Rising? He may not even know himself. I know I need not remind you of the ruthlessness of our enemy, or that you no longer hold the monopoly on certain technologies. I am willing to accept that he is Lysander, Pers Asmodeus Aucathii. Scorpio is just a paranoid arachnid. As Atalantia's strongest ally, Asmodeus will seek to support her, at my cost. He looks the same since I saw him last, drunk in the gardens of the Palatine with drugged young pinks on each arm. Though well over one hundred, the eerie creature has the tanned, unnatural face of a forty-year-old, the blue veins of age rejuvenation, no doubt covered by concealer. The Carthii, while always dear to Atalantia, are the very worst of the core. I let him spill his poison, but remember to look out for the more dire variety. We all know that Valona just barely escaped Gorgo and his assassins on Ceres, 
Not three years ago, Asmodeus says, the beast reported a sprightly catamite nipping at Bellona's heels. The famous lech gazes at me in the same hungry way he did when I was a boy. I believe we now know the identity of that catamite. Kalindora laughs and slaps her armoured thigh. You old pervert! You sure that wasn't a dream of yours? Ajax snorts a surprised laugh. Asmodeus looks irritated but does not interrupt the soldier. Neither Lysander nor the traitor would so debase themselves. She gives me a wink. But maybe we should ask the man himself. I suppose he may have some information on the subject, no? When I was a boy, Kalindora served on my protection unit before rising to the rank of Olympic knight. I see she's not lost her touch. Honoured primacies, I say, loud and clear. I apologise for my tardiness to the war, but I fear I must clarify my absence. I was not kept prisoner of the Republic, nor was I Cassius's catamite. After the murders of Aja and Octavia, Darrow gave me to Cassius as a ward after he killed my grandmother. It was with him that I have spent these last ten years in the belt. It was not exactly the reply Kalindora had in mind. Instead of diffusing the golds, it sends them into amazed laughter. Atalantia's eyes widen slightly, while Ajax turns very slowly to face me. Ward! Yes. He goes silent, knowing better than to air our dirty laundry before the others. So he's learned discretion. Perhaps I should have tried that instead of honesty. But it all would have come out eventually. Diomedes may be honourable, but if his duty required him to drop this bomb to gain leverage in the negotiations, he'd do it without flinching. Seraphina might tell them just for fun. The arch-traitor of my people raised me just as long as our dead sovereign did, while they might spit at me. It has a corrosive effect on their condescension. Bologna's blood was as old as theirs, and he was a very dangerous man. What did he help raise? Well, that is truly abhorrent, Atalantia says with a whistle. But from what your communique relayed, we are to believe Cassius is dead? Yes. She and Ajax share an intense look. Good. We will take custody of the body so that his mother may honour it with sun death, if she so chooses. I do not have the body. Atalantia's eyebrows float upward, and around her neck Hypatia begins to slither counterclockwise in agitation. Why not? The body was stolen and desecrated by familiars of Bellerophon Aura, whom Cassius killed. Desecrated in what manner? I do not— Asmodeus hijacks the conversation with a cackle. His jewel rings sparkle as he plays with his smooth chin. Gone for a decade, ward to Bellona, no care to return. But now that you see a vacuum in power, you rush back like an eager little piglet to claim your throne. We have our leader, 
foul boy. Her name is Atalantia. I did not return to claim anything, I say. I have no scar, no inheritance, no right. I have come only to heal the divide that created the rising. I look to Atalantia. If I may. She nods. This will be fun. The doors open, and Diomedes and Seraphina are ushered through. Animosity floods the room. I step back, allowing Diomedes the floor. Seraphina broods at his side. By Jove, Atalantia mutters, dour as a cloud, pale as a corpse. Is that a Ra, or the spirit of Akari himself? He's far less talkative, Ajax says. Salve, Oriat. Diomedes dips his head in respect. I stand, Diomedes Aura, son of Romulus and Dido, storm knight of the Rim Dominion. Taxiarchos of the Lightning Phalanx. Ooh, what's that? Atalantia asks. Diomedes is caught off guard. A specialized mobile legion. Aren't all legions mobile? Or do you have new flight hardware? He blinks at the pivot, then clears his throat. This is my sister Seraphina. Loka ghosts of the Eleventh Dust Walkers. He waits for another interruption. Go on, Atalantia encourages. You're doing splendidly, young man. It is our duty to bring you the tidings of the Moon Council and the Consuls Dido Aura and Helios Aulux. They have given us the Dominion Seal. He lifts his fist to show a huge iron gauntlet implanted with rotating stones. I am authorized to engage in parley, with intent to find an agreeable and lasting truce between the Rim Dominion and the society remnant in order to counter the disease of democracy. The stunned silence. I'll be damned! Scorpio mutters. It is true! Asmodeus cackles in disbelief. Dido Ausaud, a consul? Impossible. Those heathens despise civilized company. Prithee, has Romulus gone mad? Secretly he is worried. Dido betrayed her family by marrying Ara. If she were to ally the rim with Saud, oh dear, his predominancy on Venus may be threatened. Kalindora seems to enjoy Asmodeus's vexation. Asmodeus, please, desist, Atalantia says. She turns back to Diomedes. Well, you certainly have your father's presence. But tell me, why is Romulus the Bold no longer sovereign? Did he grow weary of pontificating? Atlas won't believe it. Our father is dead, Seraphina replies. I did not include that in my communique. No one speaks until Atalantia raises a hand like a pupil. Dead? Diomedes nods. 
Under an oath of truth, he revealed that he knew the destruction of the Ganymede dockyards was perpetrated by Darrow of Lycos and Victra Al Juliae, not Roque Al Fabii. Darrow did that? Atalantia laughs and claps her hands together. Hypatia's tongue licks outward at her mistress's delight. Father was right. I knew it wasn't Fabii. Darrow, 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 that mischievous little cockroach. I'm almost proud of him. One trick too far, it seems. Well, we've all been there. But Romulus dead? Dead? I did not think Romulus could die. Tell me, how did he go? Civil war? Assassination? Or did your mother finally eat him right up? After admitting his deceit and his slaughter of white arbiters, there was only one way to reclaim his honor, Diomedes explains. He walked Akari's path to the dragon tomb and succumbed to the elements. They stare at him, like he's gone raving mad. Did he reach it? Ajax asks. Diomedes swallows. No. Then, as one, they begin to laugh. It fills me with loathing to see their disrespect for the man I admired nearly as much as I admired Cassius. Seraphina looks like she would draw her razor if she had one. Only Diomedes stands unmoved. He's learned from his little talk with Ajax, and he's learning what to expect from the rest of them. My respect for the man grows, as does Kalindora's, it seems. There is your monster in the shadows, waiting to strike at Venus, as Medeus, Atalantia laughs. All that fretting over a delusional suicide. Why? I dare say we shan't ever need bring the fight to the rim, if we can just get them to all lie to one another. Their honour will take care of the rest. Romulus was an iron gold, I say, honourable by any measure. Several steps short, it seems, Ajax corrects. He deserves your respect, I snap, or at the very least, the courtesy of not laughing before his progeny. The militant Falth finally breaks his silence. I will not be lectured about honour by a scarless boy, no matter his name. I was at Ilium, young man. Romulus slew my sister. He drew his blade across her belly until her spine cut down the middle, until you were fought these woe-begone ruminants in a corridor. You know nothing. You ask us? To respect Romulus, Lysander? Atalantia asks. Respect for a man whose honour outweighed the common good. Respect for the fool whose very rebellion allowed for the reaper to rise. Respect for the traitor who fought side by side with the slave hordes at Ilium, who forsook his duty so terribly that even his own brother could not stand at his side. She wags a slender finger at me. I think you're still lost, Lysander. Or are you as mad as them? What do you think, nephew? Ajax tongues his teeth in contemplation. He doesn't look mad. So you're not mad, Atalantia says. 
She comes nose to nose with me, her tone warm and confiding. Then what are you? Confused? Did they torture you? Her eyes flicked the Diomedes and Seraphina. Was it the brute or the dusty little mouse? We'll peel them apart if you like. Put them on one of Atlas's poles. You need an ally to tip the scales. She frowns. No. All I needed was Imperium. For years, Father kept me on a leash as he waged his conventional retreat. Apologies. War. For a hybrid foe, you need a hybrid warrior. I have turned the tide, Lysander. My agents spread poison in the enemy's citadel. Atlas spreads it to the cradle of their birth. Soon the rabble will slaughter one another. We need no traitors here. We are upon the cusp of victory. I search their faces and find nothing but arrogant isolation. Each is barricaded behind their own power and prejudice. It is warranted. Some recall relatives lost in the rims to rebellions. Many believe in the cultural superiority of the Corps. But all remember the taxes the rims' rebellions cost them. They cannot stand to admit the rim would be helpful, so they must be humbled first. It would be far easier had I battles to my name, legions at my call, a scar on my face. But the tools I do possess are not exactly toothless. Perhaps you are right. Perhaps you do not need the rim, but— Atalantia turns on me with a warning look. If you have all you need, then why are there so many ships still damaged by the Battle of Caliban? I ask. Orion did not go down without a fight. Why not send the crippled ships back to the dockyards of Venus for retrofit? I look around innocently. No one answers. Unless there is some reason you cannot. Perhaps the Minotaur did more than kill Magnus after he was freed by Darrow. Did he, by chance, take the dockyards while he was on Venus? You little scheming weasel, as Medeus cries. How could he possibly know that? How many ships did the Minotaur take, I press? All that were in dock? Clearly this play against the free legions is a trap, to lure the Republic fleets, draw their main might and sneak around to raise their planets, but without support from Venus. You can't sail on Mars or Luna. The jaws of the trap are set, but your foot is in it too. Lysander, please, enough showing off, Atalantius says. After the Minotaur's capture, many of his men must have gone over to you, Atalantia. How many swell to his banner now? How many ships have slipped away? Apollonius was a popular man, and it would make a curious mind wonder why he would be so eager to kill Magnus. Perhaps he was betrayed, given over to the enemy. They look at me as if I have suddenly grown fangs. I may not know the rules of the rim, but I know the core, and I was right. Apollonius was betrayed, likely because of his popularity. I feel a sense of loneliness, 
These are the people who Cassius thought would send assassins for him. The ones he judged so much worse than the Rising, that he gave his life to ensure they never won this war. If they do not even agree to entertain the idea of allying with the Rim, then he died for nothing. My good men, you are mid-stride into a campaign, one which I assume was intended to be an unrelenting advance. But without lifting a finger, Darrow has cut off your back foot. Without your docks and reinforcements, you are unable to go forward or backward. I offer you an ally ten years fresh, one with no claim, nor desire, nor manpower to rule your spheres. They have been spit upon, and they have come for satisfaction. Refuse them if you must. It is your choice to make, not mine. The crickets by the fountain carry the conversation. Ajax is the first to speak. If we destroy the free legions as they strike the belt bastions and the dockyards of Phobos, the trauma to the Republic would be absolute. Lysander's argument is not without virtue, nor does it detract from our imminent endeavour. I know his argument has virtue, Atalantia snaps. It's obvious to a genital wart it has virtue. I just hate Moonies. Her fingers trace Hypatia's scales as she thinks. I will be terribly honest, young Diomedes. I don't think it wise to dance with venomous creatures I didn't nurture as pups. But you did not kill my father, did you? Nor Octavia, for that matter, nor Aja, nor Moira. Murdering you would be to court Quagmire, and there are so many others you can help me kill. Answer me this. Your docks were destroyed, yet somehow you found a way to build new ships, like that curious corvette in my hangar. No, I will not dissect it, because it will likely detonate if I do. Yes? Diomedes shrugs. Clearly you have an energy source to make war feasible, even though the termites have made Mars an impregnable bastion. How? Are you using foil caraval to skim helium from the gas giants? She bares her teeth. I know Atlas would know if you dared mine the Kuiper. Diomedes remains motionless as Atalantia's queries multiply. How many warships does the Rim possess? How many legions? These are things I need to know. Diomedes is amused. She thinks he would ever tell her. In the event of an alliance, any tasks given to the Rim necessary to the agreed-upon strategy will be fulfilled. That is all I will say. Oh, to be young and think you know how things are done, she says to the Primuses. These are not injurious queries, Diomedes. If you don't know how strong you are, why would I choose you for a dancing partner, young man? Because all others are taken, and the song creeps upon crescendo. Atalantia watches him with a growing smile. Wait till Atlas sees you. She sighs. There you have it, good men, the ugly truth. To the boudoir we go again, 
with our ugly cousins? Kafia tries to interrupt. I am dictator, Asmodeus. My war powers are absolute. To protect our predominance tomorrow, we must make concessions to pragmatism today. Only after Atalantia assures the primacies they will have a hand in crafting the treaty after their imminent endeavour do their holograms disappear one by one. It is not done. There will be weeks of negotiations. Neither side will budge, and eventually they will both leave feeling cheated. But the alliance will happen. What's more, I believe Atalantia wanted it to happen as soon as she heard it was a possibility. She does not celebrate, but in her mind she has just won this war and now has an angle on the next. First the rising, then the rim. I feel suddenly very heavy, wondering how I will manage to convince her not to turn on the Ra as soon as she sees profit in it. One of Atalantia's muscular male slaves brings her a piece of bread on a platter. She breaks several pieces to share with the Ra. Once they have eaten, they are formally her guests, and under Jen's grimmest protection. Whoever means them harm is her enemy. It is a formality that actually bears weight, as it did for our ancestors. Atalantia can hardly accommodate another enemy at this stage. We will begin discussion tomorrow, atop the water colossus of Tyche, Atalantia says. The Ra look at each other, then at the planet below. Today, however, I require a demonstration of good faith. She snaps her fingers, and a hologram of mercury three stories tall fills the star globe. It is stained with markers for known enemy strongholds and legions, and wrapped with thousands of dropship and starshell trajectories. I knew something was afoot by the battle readiness within the Anihilo, but I did not expect this. So it will be an iron rain. It is a risky and declarative gamble that could prove very expensive, so either Atalantia is swollen with confidence, or she thinks her window is closing. I suspect I know where Atlas is now. Diomedes takes in the battle plan and frowns. Our instruments suggested the planet was shielded by a fortified land chain of shield generators. All suitable landfalls, yes, Atalantia says. For now? But how will you? She smiles. Do you think Atlas returned from his Kuiper sojourn just to tan in the desert? We have over nine million Martian slaves trapped. I broke Darrow's armada. I broke Darrow's heart. Now I break his back. If we kill him and destroy the legions here, we shatter the alliance between Mars and Luna. Virginia will see her little rebellion split right down the center. And you need the tank factories of Heliopolis, and your dockyards need Mercury's metal to further your campaign, Diomedes adds. It has been a long war, she allows. You say you wish to fight with us at the end, Ra? Here it comes, the proverbial snake-bite. Prove it. Fall with us in an iron rain, shed blood at my side, 
and I will know I have a true ally. The silence grows as Diomedes considers. I am sorry, but I cannot. Of course not, Ajax says with a laugh. The sword of Io is best in its sheath. I was trusted to be a voice, not a sword. It is impossible. Atalantia raises her eyebrows, dangling the bait. A pity. I saw such promise in our union. But how can I trust an ally tomorrow who will not fight with me today? Ajax, please escort them to their ship and send them back to their dust bowl. I watch Kalindora as Seraphina thinks. Is Kalindora like the rest of these predators, enjoying the hunt, watching for the takedown? Her face remains the same, but her eyes search the shadows cast by Atalantia's braziers as Seraphina steps forward. I will do it. Her brother wheels on her, overestimating yet again the patience of the women in his family. You are the voice of the rim, Diomedes. I am here only to assist you in your mission. If I die, what of it? She holds one hand over the other hand in her family's private way of saying shadows and dust. You desire a quota of blood, Grimace? You may have all of mine. Does that satisfy? Atalantia smiles. It satisfies. As Diomedes realizes his sister will fall amidst an army of men who would proudly mount the head of his father among their mantles, he grows very still. I feel for him. But after seeing Seraphina amongst the Azkamani, if anyone can survive their first reign, it is her. Diomedes gives me a dark look, as he and his sister are ushered toward the door by Ashguards. Atalantia nods for Kalindora to leave. I am left alone with her and Ajax to watch the door close. Atalantia drifts to the viewport to stare down at the planet. She will be wondering what machinations move in Darrow's mind. I wonder the same. Ward, Ajax says suddenly. I expected his anger, but that did not diminish my dread of it. I... He moves with the sort of staggering velocity that is impossible in the low gravity of the rim. His fist cracks against my jaw so fast... Only the willow-way's instinct to go with the blow saves me from having my jaw shattered and my neck fractured. I slam into the ground nonetheless. Ward! he roars. Atalantia doesn't even watch the reflection of the violence in the viewport. I lift a hand toward Ajax. Lovely as he was as a child, his moods could switch at the drop of a pin. It's far more noticeable now. Ajax, that Bellona cunt killed my mother, he growls, stepping on my groin. She was more a mother to you than your own, you cockless cur. Yes, she was, I wheeze. And yet you tagged at Bellona's heels for ten years, ten fucking years. I had few alternatives. You could have returned to us, to me, brother. I am sorry, Ajax. I should have, but— 
He pushes down harder, causing nausea to cascade up my belly and my lower back to ache. I was afraid. He's horrified by the admission and almost takes his boot off me completely. Of what? Us? Not you, Ajax. Never you. Of court. Of gold. Eating gold. I try to stand, but he pushes me back down, more gently this time. You think I enjoyed seeing Aja cut the ribbons? You think it meant nothing seeing Octavia hewn from groin to stern? You think I did not see how we did the rising to ourselves? The jackal, Fitchner, Cassius, the Martian feud, all symptoms of the same disease. I wanted no part of it. That he understands. As children we mocked all the scheming snakes of the court. Only Atalantia ever made it look good anyway, and she did it for laughs. Moira was pure in her obsession for truth, Aja pure in her duty to grandmother, Lorne pure in his honour, even Darrow was pure in his then inexplicable lust to win. Those were the people we admired, not the snakes. Then why return now? Atalantia asks. She senses, but cannot identify the private understanding Ajax and I share. Is she jealous of it? Or suspicious? Either way, she turns from the viewport. Because I believe it can be different, I say. The Rising has shown itself incapable of rule. While there were injustices in Octavius' time, there were not two hundred million dead. Two fifty? Atalantia says. We hid a famine on Venus. That the death of so many could be unknown staggers me. It may not have been perfect, but it wasn't this, I say. I believe if we quell the rising, we have a chance to fix what was broken not just by them, but by us. Gods, Ajax mutters, he hasn't changed a damn bit. Told you... Atalantia replies. Ajax hauls me up by my jacket. Still wants to be Marcus Aurelius, I suppose. He leans close, his voice confiding. The fact is, my mother spoke for Cassius. You remember? When Octavia questioned his loyalty, my mother begged her to give him a chance. She saw Lorne in his heart, I wager, and he showed his gratitude by feeding her to the wolves. I know you rationalized it away, because you think your emotions are secondary programs or something. But look at what I am. What I have become. He gestures to the kill marks, his dented armor, the double thick gray razor on his hip. Do you think I became this for pleasure? We understand the war inside you, Lysander. We always have. Atalantia says. But that does not change that this is not the return you should have had. Not for you. Not for us. Not with them. You squandered yourself. You could have come back a god. Think how I could have used that. Think how your high-minded dream could have benefited from that. She sighs and lifts her hand like an opera singer. Of course the legions will rejoice at your return, if used properly. The return of the heir of Selenius could still inspire the worlds, 
I hear the songs even now. But you have much to prove. People will wonder, not me, but others, if you are not a lackey of the rim. She flings her hands about. Is he perhaps the traitor's trained monkey? Perhaps even the slave king's puppet? They will wonder, is Lysander really an iron gold? Ajax takes offence on my behalf. He may be an egregiously pretentious Quisby, but he's no puppet of the slave. She cuts him off with a look. Until the answers are incontrovertible, I fear I cannot allow your return to become known, Lysander. She makes it seem like it's for my own good, and succeeds almost. I go very quiet inside, recognising Selenius's stiletto when I see it. My path will grow very narrow very quickly, and it will certainly cut my feet. There is only one way forward. I did not come back to be her rival, and so long as I do not have a scar, I could never be. But if I survive what she asks, by the traditions that have guided my people since Selenius, I will earn a scar, and my inheritance at great cost to her own strength. The other gold families will choose a side if they see but the tiniest crack of daylight between us. She knows that. This is a sign of trust. She could do with my support. Or it is a trap. I cannot believe that. I will not. Atalantia was there the day I was born. She was the first to set me upon a horse. What she offers is an opportunity to shepherd the alliance and take back the mantle of justice from the rising. But to do that, I must take the leap. I bend again on my knee. I was a fool declaring myself an iron gold to Dido, and I feel a fool now. Dictator, I ask your leave for House Loon to fall in the iron rain. Oh, he's going to pop his cherry, Ajax purrs. Atalantia's smile is incandescent. Granted, son of Luna. She pulls me to my feet and kisses me softly on the mouth. Ice, guilty excitement, and bewilderment race through my veins as she lingers there, her mouth open, lips wrapped around mine longer than appropriate, even by Venusian standards. When she pulls back, she stares at me in pride. My little Lysander! Today you will earn your scar, I have no doubts. Ajax has grown quiet. With whom will he fall? Still a little bewildered, I nod to him. With you, brother, if you will have me. He considers for a moment, suddenly very internal, and then nods. About gory time. With a good scar, maybe you will look less like a pink harlot. With a melancholy smile, Atalantia takes our hands and guides us to the family mural. It is oddly stirring to stand before what we considered our family. I remember the day we all posed for Glerastes. Atalantia had six pinks fanning her with peacock feathers. My father teased her mercilessly and apparently farted in her general direction. Atlas even cracked a smile. I see him up there 
a wan man leaning on the far end of the frame beside Aja and chubby little Ajax. He's smiling at my father, likely because of the fart. I cannot see my mother. Her face is hidden behind a veil of grey paint. Octavia, Aja, Moira, Anastasia, Brutus, my father, all gone, Atalantia whispers. She grips our hands as if she never wanted to let them go. Only we and Atlas remain, but where there were three, there are now four. Let the slaves tremble. She pauses, then she rips her hands away from ours, as if we were the ones who pulled us all together. Right, well, off to war now, boys. I'll meet you in Tyche. She smiles at Ajax. Or somewhere a bit warmer. Chapter 7 Darrow The Calm The sun hangs low and swollen over the desert as I roar out the garage ramp. More engines whine behind me as Rona and twenty bodyguards follow. Guided by Colloway, Fist-sized drones careen through the sky to feed data into my helmet. They sight gravbike signatures, winding through the sand like rectilinear snake tracks. In their troughs are small depressions, telltale sign of gorgon skipper boots. Skip trace, I say. Stick tight. We abandon the tracks and push toward a string of axe-blade mountains. Following Alexander's coordinates, we ditch the bikes at the base of the mountains and use our grav boots to scale the escarpments, careful to not fly too high for fear of ground-to-air missiles. In short order, we find Alexander sitting with his helmet off in the shadows of an arroyo. He wears lizard-skin light armor, thinner and more sustainable long-term in the desert than my pulse armor. His looks to be held together more by field patches and dirt than nanofiber. Only his iron lancer badge, a sword against a flying pegasus, is clean. Four weeks tracking the fear knight with Thraxa seem to have worn him down to his essential elements. He's even thinner and taller than his grandfather. His sunburnt skin is drawn tight and flakes around patrician cheekbones. On his neck, a wretched scab weeps pus. His warhawk is smashed flat and dark with helmet sweat. He looks up as we scramble down. I recall my helmet into its catch and wince at the heat, squinting hard until I step into the shadows where it is fifty degrees cooler. Alexander bolts to his feet. Beneath his chrome desert contacts, his eyes are haunted. Bloody hell! Just sprawled out fury maker, Rona says a multi-rifle on her shoulder. Her eyes scan the rocks. Fear night's gonna gut you while you have your picnic, princess. His face is too haunted to feign a smile. We have pathfinders. She half-lowers her rifle. You look a ghost. You prime. Not long ago he would have bitten her head clean off with a classist retort. Now he stares at her, as if trying to remember who she is. What has he seen out here? Thraxa is this way, sir. I find Thraxa lying belly down on a ridge overlooking a plain stretching from the mountains to Angelia. 
she props herself up on her elbows. One is made of flesh. The other is unpolished asteroid metal, etched with obsidian runes by Valdir Unshorn, Sephi's mate, after Thraxa saved his life in the running skirmishes over the Bay of Bengal. The mountain ridge is littered with boulders and spiked ephedra, but empty of howlers. I toggle my right ocular implant. Throbbing red embers from the quantum ID dots in their skulls fleck the ridgeline. Severo's little monsters. They don't feel whole without him. The army may miss its mascot, but the pack misses its big brother. I've been too much a distant father of late. Reap, the large Telemannus acknowledges me without looking. A wolf cloak has taken on the color of the desert, thanks to its chameleon properties. The two obsidian pathfinders move for me, and I crawl even with her as my own cloak turns brown. Thraxa squints through a pair of optics. Freckles form a mask over her face. She hands me her optic set. Knowing what I'll see, I put the optics to my eyes. An all-too-familiar forest has been erected in front of the city. I feel nothing. But then again, I don't smell it yet. He did this while you slept, I ask. He would have needed hours. I shit the pot, Thraxa mutters. I lower the optics. We lost him in the Buonides range when he left the shield shadow to cross a death valley. She means the narrow gaps exposed to Atalantia's guns between our shield chain. I told you not to let him out of your sight. The valley was too exposed. We had drones, and I sent a man. By the time we found his trail, he'd abandoned his course for Eleusis, and had already reached Angelia. The wrong city. She swats pointlessly at a skrill on her neck. More of the two-headed bloodsuckers make homes in her wolf cloak. And your man lost them. Which? Alexander. I can't hide my surprise. How? He crashed his bike into a hoodoo, fell asleep at the stick. One is none. Two is one, Thraxa. We were a hundred forty hours without sleep. Even with the Nazopran, the lows were hallucinating. Had to rest them in the cargo bins as we rode. Even the grave. Goals were barely upright. Had to run solo. Alex is the best soldier I've ever seen at his age, including you. Still, she spits in the dirt. We're all blood and bone. I pushed them too hard. I thought Alex invulnerable. We all did. But even with the proper gear, this desert eats men. Where is Atlas now? Gone. Tracks lead north, bearing for Angelia. She nods to the fair knight's display before the city. Should I call Madships? No. He came here for a reason, and it wasn't a torture. Get him ready. We're pushing in. She rallies the howlers as I raise my helmet and hail Orion. She's only just made it back to Blue Reach One. Trouble? she asks. Is there a way to spool up the storm gods without showing our hand? The black slag you think these things are. They aren't a grunt's hair trigger. We can't cool as fast as we can heat. 
Once we ramp it up, it's a runaway to primary horizon. What's the lag on cloud coverage? I'm told soon as the pressure systems activate, an hour. Electrical in two. What happened? Unclear. Orders? I hesitate. If it's activated too early, Atalantia will notice the unnatural nature of the storm and call off the invasion. Activated too late, the storm won't matter. Watch how a pit viper strikes, my son, father said once, as he clutched my wrist and made me play his game. Watch it coil upward and upward till it reaches its crest. Don't move before then. Don't strike out with your sling blade. If you do, then it'll get you. Move just when it's coming down. I looked down at the city the fear knight killed. Initiate Operation Tartarus. Give me a storm. Chapter 8 Lysander The Machine You're going to die, Pyther says. It is easy to believe her. To be ingested by the military machine is to see the last hidden gear of the world. All is loud, yet lonely. Chaos, yet order. Functional, yet dirty. Fast, yet slow. All is big, except you. I am thrust into an assembly line of muscled predators. There is little jocularity amongst the lines of gold, as they are given injections for mercurian diseases, chemical weapons, and flight sickness, followed by conditioning enhancement cocktails. Then comes implantation of comms and overwatch, mission debriefing and caloric ingestion, measurements for gear, fitting for gear. Without my name, I am no one. There goes another fresh-faced sacrifice, the veterans think. No, they don't even see me. Their eyes are focused two hours from now. I do not matter. I am chaff. Atlas's countdown has begun. You're going to perish. Die in a ball of fire, Pyther says, as one of the four orange techs seals the greaves of the pulse armor around my shins. On either side, hundreds of golds, iron up in fitting bays. I didn't even see this many peerless, scarred, assemble for the defense of Lunar against the Rising. It was seen as somewhat of a fuss. They don't underestimate the Reaper any longer. But it makes me wonder, if the golds are this scary, how bad has Darrow become? Are you always this familiar with your superior's pilot? Kalindora says from the wall. Atalantia has sent her to watch over me in the rain. No, Domina. Kalindora does not buy the formality. I recommend reminding your retainer of her place and yours. She glances at the text. This is not the belt. Now, if you will excuse me, I must tend to a pressing matter. If you lose your way to the tubes, just follow the stench of big humans. I'm sorry to see her go. Yet I'm pleased to have a moment alone with Pytha. Bloody terrifying woman, Pytha mutters after her. I think she is sad, rather. It wasn't always. Pytha watches me with unease. It will probably be safer for you to stay in my quarters while I'm away, I suggest. 
The low colours on the Anihilo are like drones. The mids barely better. There's a hierarchical terror in the very air, one that never existed in the Citadel. Can't believe she's making you do this, Pythor mutters. I volunteered. You little shit! Hold, I say to the oranges crawling over me. They don't know who I am, but my caste and Kalindora's presence are enough for them to stop as if controlled by a remote and stand at the edge of the bay adjusting their tools. I glance at the grizzled golds fitting up to either side of me. Lower your voice, Pytha. You little shit, she whispers. If we were on the Archie, I would slap you. What do you even know about Iron Reigns? My studies weren't isolated to political theory. It's an understatement. It's not like a simulator, her voice has softened. And you glean this from your own extensive experience, I say as I flex my leg to test the fit of the greaves. I've been in a rain. I look up in confusion. I thought you were expelled from the academy. Snake shit. Before I was a pirate, I was an equities. Her chin lifts in pride. First Decurion, twelfth squadron of the Bologna-like destroyer, Dignitas. Cassius said, Cassius didn't want you to know only warriors. She sighs. This isn't what he would have wanted for you. Ever since he died, something's woken up in you. A machine in your brain. It's not you. This isn't you. Or have you just always been desperate to be an iron gold? I nod slowly. I won't lie and say that's not a small part of it. But that's not why I must do this. Gold hasn't changed. If anything, the sickness has metastasized. They uphold the wrong virtues. I lean forward and lower my voice. If Seraphina dies down there, if Atalantia betrays the Ra, if Darrow wins, mankind will disintegrate. So what? That's not your burden. Look around, Pytha. We teeter upon oblivion. Everything humanity has built, all the sacrifices, the hierarchy, the wars, for what? If gold loses, the Republic will fracture into kingdoms, the kingdoms to fiefdoms, the fiefdoms to tribes. It will become a dark age of fractured planets and war for three hundred years. Three hundred years? I nod. According to precedence, longer, but I've run the simulation as many times and ways as I know how. She knows I don't say that lightly. You think this is about me. It isn't. Darrow thinks this is about good and evil. It isn't. This is about order and chaos. I have chosen my side, but to have a voice, I must have a scar. And you think Cassius was arrogant? She looks at the ground, shaking her head at some unspoken thought. Eventually she looks up. Fear. I beg your pardon? You think if you gain respect, you'll be able to change them? Nah, it's about fear. You pretend Lorn our Arcos was the picture of an iron gold because he was wise and honorable. She jams a thin thumb into her sternum. 
We know the truth. He boarded our ship. Our coast in a corridor was death incarnate. You want to play the big game? Fine. But you play to win. You make them fear you. I am not that man. Then you're for the worms, Dominus, and I'm out my last friend. I kneel amongst killers, Serafina to my left, Kalindora to my right. All is silent but for the children as they perform the blood benediction that has been carried down the generations from Selenius to us. The voices of children drift through the air. My son, my daughter, now that you bleed, you shall know no fear. A dozen virgin girls with hair and eyes of milky white walk barefoot through the kneeling legions. Iron daggers are clutched in their hands. No defeat, only victory. Blood drips from my hand as a girl drags the blade across it. Your cowardice seeps from you. Ajax's eyes are fixed on the floor, his bleeding hand clutched in a fist. Clustered about him are his hungry young friends and the grizzled gold and grey officers of the double-strong Tenth Expeditionary Legion, the Terran-born Iron Leopards. Your rage burns bright. I feel every tremor of my muscles, every kilogram of my armor, but I do not feel the words. Rise, children of gold, warriors of earth, and take with you your ancestors' might. A chill spreads through me as one hundred thousand legionnaires from the grimmest lands of Africa and the Americas come to their feet. Not a man or woman amongst them has seen their home in over five years. They do not know when they will see earth again, but they know their path home goes through the free legions. Kalindora moans as Ajax activates his grav boots and articulates himself into the air. Here he goes again. In his storm armor, with its thunder-head shoulders, Ajax looks like Jupiter reborn with snowy teeth and inky skin. He bathes in the roars of his men, as can only a man who thinks himself entitled to worship, yet earned it anyway. Beside me, I see envy creep over Seraphina's face. I feel the human flaw in myself, but I resist its dark waters and allow myself to bathe in my friend's risen stature. He is young wrath manifest. My brothers, my sisters, my iron leopards, the battle today is to decide the fate of our society, whether we cave to the tide of anarchy, the despoiling mob, he points his arm, or whether we carve our own destiny and build a second age of order upon the bodies of the slave horde. We have shattered their fleet, but soon more ships will come from their infernal restless factories to rescue the slave king and his horde. When they come, what will they find? Ash, the legion booms. The skin on Seraphina's neck prickles with goosebumps. Severo Aubaca, Orion the Aquarii, Cadus Harnassus, Thraxa Al Telemanus, Alexander Al Arcos, Felix Al Dan, Coloway Zichar, 
Darrow of Lycos! Kalindora fingers the flame-etched hilt of her razor. These are wanted lives. Bring them to me. Bring them to me. Bring them to me. The legions roar, and Ajax's dark face splits into a death's head smile. A golem of a gold man takes over. He sighs his simian shoulders back and stomps before the cadres of elite gold knights, smiling like a bulldog chewing a hornet. We are Legio Ten Pardu. We are the vanguard. Ours is a place of honor. Anti-mortem, he bellows to the golds. Gloria, they roar. He wheels on the greys. Anti-mortem. Gloria, he turns to the obsidians. Anti-mortem. Gloria. Ajax lands beside the golem. With a man at his hip, he sways over to his clustering officers. They are a crusty, tight-knit breed. Serafina and I are total outsiders. Kalindora, conditionally so. They give us no room near the front except for Kalindora. She declines and stays at my side. You all know our objective. We're to lend rear-guard support to the Votum as they press for Tyche from the east. I'm here to tell you that's all bullshit. Scorpio can fuck off to Tyche on his own. Through armoured shoulders, I see Ajax grin. We're going to take Heliopolis, my good men. There are murmurs of excitement. But not from me. Instead I feel a sinking disappointment. Scorpio, our votum was right. Atalantia does want his planet, or parts of it. Serafina glances my way with a sneer. So this is how Atalantia treats her allies. Heliopolis is their lone fallback bastion in the south. We take it, they're trapped in the desert. And Atalantia gets the coveted factories and the mines of the south. Now the yellows are squawking about weather, but it's mercury, and our timetable is set in stone, so it may get choppy. Any questions? Kalindora raises her voice. Atalantia promised Scorpio... When Atalantia has Heliopolis, she won't need to promise Scorpio anything, Ajax says. Since you are sworn to her, you should welcome that future love knight. Kalindora stares gloomily ahead. Meanwhile, the monstrous man beside Ajax glares over at me through slitted eyes. Who the fuck are you? Three of his front teeth are missing. That is the least of the cosmetic damage. That's expensive armour for a pixie wastrel. Olympic night business, Kalindora replies. The big man wheels on Serafina. Who the fuck is she? Olympic night business, Seneca, Kalindora says. He does not look like a Seneca. He looks like a human boar. He winks at Kalindora. Oi, love, figure Reaper will be anything but atoms before we get down there. To avoid you, Seneca, I believe he just might. The beast chuckles, and Ajax returns to his brief. Seneca Alsan, Ajax's ducks, Kalindora whispers, after I quietly inquire about the man. 
His right hand of authority, then. Probably started as a bodyguard. They often do. Unremarkable? Except when he goes blood-red. The term is unfamiliar. Radio code for a red suicide wave. She looks back to Ajax. It's really not like anything you've ever seen. Ajax concludes his brief. To your shells, good men. We have termites to kill. As Ajax and I walk to the starshell ladders with Kalindora shadowing from behind, he glances at her in irritation, then clasps my shoulder. This is what you've been missing, little brother, the greatest show ever staged. But you look like you're about to fall asleep. Not nervous, are you? He leans forward. Or are you already in that brain's hole? The mind's eye, I correct. He knows what it's called. And no, not yet. He laughs. Stick close down there. If we get separated, try to link up. If you hear wolves, find me. It's no jest. Only a legion accompanying the slave king is permitted the howl. If you hear it, he's coming. I've seen that man carve through a platoon of Ashgard like a shark through tuna. You'll want me there. Will he be in Heliopolis? No, he says in disappointment. But fate is not without a sense of humour. Where the din of battle is the loudest, he will come. And today I plan on making such noise. He steps close to me. We will avenge our family together, then sort the rest of this shit out. Here? Thank you, I say, for letting me... He smacks my head. You're not forgiven yet, Pixie. But what you do today will make them forget all the rest. Let's have you return properly. He puts his head to mine, as we did as children before walking the line. The blood of giants fills our veins. Honour the valiant dead with your deeds. Honour the living with your might, I recite. He departs. Serafina stands at the foot of her own ladder, eclipsed by her grimace-painted starshell. Tex mill around its feet, making last-minute adjustments. She spits on the death's head sigil and examines the traction claws on the starshell. Good fortune down there, I say to her. She checks the hydraulics in the knees. Keep your fortune. Every scar I have earned has led me here. This war is my destiny. She turns. Cheer up, Gaja. The courage of a soldier is heightened by her knowledge of her profession. She looks me up and down. Go do your duty. I suspected it before, but I feel it now as I see the excitement on her face, as she turns back to the war machine. She didn't betray her father because she loves her mother. There was another, hidden reason, which was the source of the guilt I saw in her eyes as she watched Romulus walk to his death. It is the source of the anger she feels toward him, Toward me. Anger that should be for herself, because deep down she knows that it wasn't loyalty to the Rim or her mother that incited her to ferry evidence of Darrow's crimes against the Rim back to the Council. It was her hunger for war. Now, after weeks of starvation, she is about to be fed. Chapter 9 Darrow 
Angelia. The fear knight is a sadist. Unlike the vain goals of the Corps, he appreciates guerrilla warfare and its effect on armies. Though I met him only once in my days of service to Nero, I saw enough in him to know he put no stock in glory. When I squeezed his hand, eager to impress my strength on what then would have been a superior of stratospheric heights, he let his go limp. It embarrassed me. Little did I know then that the wan, plain-dressed man would someday skin, melt, castrate, rape, blind and mutilate my legionnaires by the thousands. Atlas's reputation was meager before the start of the Solo War. He was known primarily for three things. His patronage of the great library of Delphi, his inglorious position as a ward of the sovereign, and his abrupt disappearance one that was clarified when he returned after the fall of Earth from nearly a decade of banishment, fighting threats at the edge of the system. Born after the failed First Moon Lord's Rebellion, he was raised on Io with his more famous brother, Romulus. When he turned ten, his parents said their farewells and sent him to Luna to live in the court of the Sovereign as yet another noble hostage to ensure the Rim's obedience. Amongst the core goals, he was privileged and educated, yet derided for being the spawn of a traitor. It was there he met Atalantia, and there that Octavia made him an extension of her will, turning him against his traitor family and planting the seeds that would make him into the man behind the pale mask. Of all my enemies, I loathe him the most. We stand before his newest forest of corpses. Bodies hang impaled on vertical poles. There are more than two hundred, each with the fear brand on their bare chests, a fleshy wound in the shape of a child's face ringed with hair of serpents. A grisly promenade strewn with republic flags leads through the impaled bodies to Angelia. The white fabric of flags is tattered and fouled with boot prints and blood. It will be booby-trapped. I look at the bodies, at their faces. This is why I left Luna. Those glossy peacocks in the Senate read our reports. But the further you are away from it, the more war reads like arithmetic. And past that, it reads like fiction. Past that, it's just an annoying video on your info stream. How could they possibly imagine the anguish on the faces of the dead? How could the mob in the street demanding handouts ever know on a sensory level that when a human rots, it isn't just the skin that stinks, but the intestines, the stomach, the liver? How could they know that weird tremble of the soul when you realize there is no civilization? There's just a lock on a box, and inside the box is this. Virginia wanted me to reason with the senators. What common language would we speak, I wonder, when they have not seen inside the box, and I am its lock? It drives me fucking mad that they refuse to understand how sick and dogged and obsessed with our destruction our enemies are. Yet they live in a fantasy built on the bodies of my friends. The chatter of the carrion birds serrates the air along with the cries of the dying. Of the impaled soldiers, many still live, writhing like worms on a hook. 
our four obsidians stare up at the bodies and make a sign to their gods. The horror reaches deepest into the heart of Alexander and pulls him forward. Arcos, heels down, I bark. He stops, but turns to me, face ghostly vacant. They're still alive. And they're all booby-trapped, I say, though he knows it. Rana swallows as she watches Alexander blink at the result of his error. Fall asleep in the Ladon, you wake up to this. I walk up to him. We all carry weight. I need you to carry this. Can you? The eyes of his grandfather blink back at me as the impaled cry for help. Yes, sir. Goodman. I turn back to the howlers. They stand in a ragged line. Colloway brings the necromancer in for fire support. It's theatrics. He's buying time to distract us from his objective, I tell them. We can't help them. Go to air, packs of three. Use your thermals and sensors to scan for traps. Walk fast but soft, and for Jove's sake, keep your chrome in. I need your eyes. I designate the teams to search potential targets. Dust billows, as nearly two score of howlers jolt upward over their writhing comrades to disperse through the city. I wait behind with Thrax and Felix. I raise my voice so the impaled can hear me. How many of you saw gorgons around your feet? Raise your right hand. A sea of right hands. Some lie and keep theirs down. Could be a false positive. Atlas might have booby-trapped none of them, or all of them. You may be booby-trapped, I say. Medships are on the way. Hold out for them, and soon it'll be six weeks of pretty medici and ice frisee. We'll be back. I cast a dour look to Thrax and Felix, and we lift off for the city's communication center. I shoot a hole in the bronze dome with my pulse fist, scan and drop through to the marble floor. As sunlight washes in through the open door, we see them. Bodies strewn on the floor, ripped apart and chewed up. Heads caved in with all manner of improvised weapons. Bodies chewed upon, as if by animals. Atlas didn't do this. They butchered one another. The features of the dead are mottled and monstrously warped by some pathogen. Gods, what did Atalantia's warlocks cook up now? They were collaborator civilians we relocated to Angelia, far from any military facility. Put them out of harm's way, I said. If Severa had been there, he would have laughed. Where do you put a chicken shit officer if you need him to expire? He once asked me. Out of harm's way! Pax was out of harm's way, too. You ever seen anything like this? I ask Thraxa. She shakes her head. Maybe he was testing a new bioweapon. There are easier ways. I bark at my medici to take a sample and evac to Necromancer for transmission. Central Command needs to know. I start to laugh as I realize the game. It's all to buy time. Puzzles and pain. I look around. Facts. Don't add up. What is he buying time for? 
We could get an airdrop and catch up to him, so it wasn't to extend his lead. Eleusis was ripe for the picking. How does this side trip change the board? Thunder peals to the north. My storm is slowly forming. Hello, one, Alexander says in my earcom. We've got something at the ore refinery. Alexander, Rona, and several howlers are gathered in the control room of the city's ore refinery when Thraxa and I joined them. Disabled spider mines and microwave bombs lie on a table. Marbles, our green slicer and clown's best friend, is jacked into the central computer's input port. A worn black hardwire runs from the computer's port to a small port on his right temple. His eyes roll back in his head as he travels through a virtual landscape. His fingers tap on the plastic chair. After a moment, he sighs. His dry lips smack together, and he reverts. Some nasty foul dark pot, he says in staccato silicon slang, skipping past the words that make sentences intelligible to us carbon bodies, so that it sounds like his mouth is full of marbles. Rickety road, slip, package, uranium dance, destinations easy as zero one one zero 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 one zero one one zero 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 one zero zero one one zero 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 one one. He stutters the numbers out like a garment needle. Alexander, translate. Quick with low and mid-tongues, Alexander steps forward. No, Marble says, holding up a bony finger. The dark circles under his eyes war with his sunburn. I do this time. See, boss, like this. Angelia, dusty-ass work town. Systems all in a web. Redundancy protocol to keep hard grip. We cut web in rain. Didn't cut shadow web. There are latent systems, Alexander asks, first to understand. Old hardlines. Hardlines. Draxa looks amused. What dullard missed? Quiet, I snap. Marbles, you telling me the mining cities are still connected? Only some. Old system. Someone slagged it good. Missed shadow somehow. Stupid analogue, most like. Hardlines under the pan. So he sent a command to other mining cities via this console, I clarify. Yeah. What did he send? Thraxa asks. Nulls. Dunno. Mad encryption. Got slices with gorgons, right? Slick pricks. He taps his head. Give this silicon a week, plus three clicks for sleep, and I got your answer. There's only one message worth sending to the other cities. My gut sinks. Rona pieces it together. Could they send signals to the other reactors? Give me diagnostics in the mine's reactor, Thraxa says. Marbles turns to the computer just as I jerk the hard wire away from him. As soon as he checked the reactor, I've no doubt a neurological attack would fry his brain to jelly. Trap after trap after trap. He's going to overload this reactor and any connected by hardwire, I explain, and head for the door. It's going thermal. Angelia doesn't matter, but the cities it's hardwire to will. Those reactors are what fuel our shield chain. I open my general frequency. All howlers, evacuate the city. Body flights if you don't got boots. Colloway, bring the necro for air hook. By the time I make it out the door of the refinery, Half the howlers are already airborne. 
Those with grav boots lock the magnetic buddy belts around their waists to the howlers without them. They take off. Rona and Thraxa are the last pair away. Alexander waits for me. I turn around so he can link the metal coupling at his waist to the one at my tailbone. The magnets snap together. He wraps his arms around my shoulders and pats my chest. I lift off hard from the ground, my gut wrenching as the boots thrust us up till we're free of the city. Overhead, Colloway is scooping howlers into his shuttle's open garage. Alexander and I land smoothly and decouple. I look down at the city and shout for Colloway to get us clear. The logic is sinister. That forest of bodies and biological weapons were meant to bring medical and science teams, to slow us down as we patched our wounded and scratched our heads, focusing on the small game instead of the grand stage. The first explosion at Angelia's nuclear power plant, caused by the meltdown of its reactor, is not like that of an atomic warhead. It stutters outward from the domed building, first as steam, then as fire, lifting the roof of the complex and engulfing the city in a rolling wave. Those impaled soldiers disappear in a cloud, their flesh melted from their bones by the steam and the rest consumed by the slow rippling tide of fire. I will see you in the Vale, brothers. I patch into Central Command in Tyche. Panic creeps into the professional clip of officers as they report multiple reactor explosions around the waste of Ladon, stretching all the way to the Petasos Peninsula and the whole of the plains of Caduceus. Six cities have lost power. More will follow in a chain reaction. Without power, the whole northern shield chain will fall. I wanted a window but Atlas just kicked in the sky. Atalantia is coming. Someone betrayed us, Thraxa growls. Or Atalantia is smarter than her father. How many generators will fall? I ask Thraxa. She stares at Marble's information readout and makes a mental calculation. Too slow. I toss it to Alex. He barely blinks before he has an answer. It'll be everything north of Erebus, except Red Reach and Tyche. The domes are locally powered. They'll hold. Heliopolis is safe, then. Still protected south of Erebus. Which means the escape route through Tyche is viable if Tyche holds. But six million men will be cut off from the city by bombardment. How do I get them back? By the veil itself, someone whispers. The howlers watch in despair at the back of the shuttle, as the translucent shield that protected us from the might of the gold armada flickers and then disappears, one panel at a time, until the whole northern sky is naked to the armada above. My comm pings with incoming transmissions. Rona feels a call. Harnassus requests orders of retreat. Thraxa steps between me and the other aides fielding calls. Let him think. In her shadow, I watch the sky. Flashes in orbit. Friction trails scar the blue horizon. The first bombs begin to fall. The vanguard legions will come soon after. Bloody, peerless cohorts in fast boots and star shells, drop ships packed with veteran grey shock troops, obsidian slave knights stoked to mind-melting blood frenzy by the drugs of their masters, 
tanks, titans, esoteric war machines. The full might of a militarized empire out for revenge. We are out of position. Our mobility will be frozen by bombardment. Legions and static defenses erased by atomics. Those who don't die will be hopelessly shattered and fragmented. Then Atalantia's forces will flank and encircle the marooned remains of my army before we can attempt a breakout. There is only one option, and it isn't retreat. Thraxa, she steps up to me. We must take the punch. Can we? Yes. Atalantia needs Mercury. She won't nuke the children's cities. Red Reach and Tyche are independent of the shield chain. Their domes will hold. And soon, we'll have the storm. It will take hours for the— I started the engines two hours ago. She blinks in surprise. And the First Army? They won't make it to the cover of Red Reach. It comes out in a cold rattling of sentences. Then I'll bring them a shield. Atalantia will likely land south of Pan with at least a third of their army. She'll bottle up the children and take the cities one by one, trapping our garrisons. If we abandon the cities and mass the garrisons from the children at Kaidon, we can sally to Pan and make an oblique front. It won't hold, but if we hit them from behind with the second army out of Red Reach and drive them toward the sea, we can hurt her while the first army clears a route to Tyche from the north. I grip her shoulder. Take all six starshells. Go to Kaidong and lead the tank legions. You need the starshells. You need them more. I'll find a skyhook. I look at the darkening sky. You'll have cover soon. Hold, and I'll gut them from the southwest. Then we haul ass to Tyche together. A double atomic burst will signal my coming. Go. Stalwart Thraxa. Spine of the infantry, favorite of her father, knows I send her into the teeth of the enemy. She smiles at me nonetheless. Hail, Reaper! Hail, Telemannus! She rushes for the star-shell spit-tube, taking five of her golds. Severo, call her Nessus! I turn and find Rona at my shoulder instead of my trusted shadow. She looks like I've slapped her. Rona! Tell him to send reinforcements to Tyche via the loop. I want every single reserve ripper in the air and bound for the planes. Interdiction protocol. If they don't take out some of those missiles, we're done. Go! It will leave Heliopolis naked, but she isn't their target. Alex! He doesn't respond. His eyes are fixed on the bombs that already raced down through the atmosphere. This is my fault, he will think. I actually do slap him. His eyes light up in anger. Contact Foranis. Tell her to expect heavy mechanized assault from the northwest, from landfall on the Talarian Peninsula. She'll have to hold Tyche without the Morning Star. I need Star and the Drakenjäger cohorts at... I glance at the map. Intuits my purpose. Sector 17. I nod. And call your cousin. Tell him to meet us at Skyhook 11. I'll ride with the Arcosians today. He rushes to the communications room as I hail Orion. Her bright eyes are glazed. She's in the synaptic drift with the storm. 
How are your storm pilots holding up? Handling the flow. There have been spikes, but within range. How long till electronic interference? Ten minutes. Can you slow it to twenty? We will try. Must concentrate now. I click out. The rest of the howlers haven't moved. They watch the friction trails, a sense of doom upon them. You waiting for a formal invitation from the Fury? Ask us to the armory. Iron up. Finally, they move. I shout up the corridor to my pilot. Colloway, get me to my army. The ship accelerates, nearly knocking me from my feet. Steadying myself, I take the comm off the wall and patch my signal into the powerful transmitters on Tyche to speak to my army while I still can. This is Reaper. Broken sky. Repeat. Broken sky. The enemy has breached the northern shields. Missiles are already en route. Expect heavy bombardment of North Helios and comms blackout presently. Operation Voyager Cloak is cancelled. All officers, open your black packs. Keyword, Hazard Bedlam. Across Helios, thousands of low-ranking officers, from infantry centurions to rip-wing squadron captains, will be opening metal canisters to receive briefings on Operation Tartarus and the conditions they will soon face. Operation Tartarus is now live. Second Army, abandon your positions and rally at Red Reach. First Army and all other cloak units, rally at Sector 17. Cover is inbound. Third Army, hold in the children until the rain comes. Then rally to Kaidon. Legate Telemannus is on her way. About to bark out a curt farewell, I pause, seeing that none of my howlers have moved. The roughest veterans of a generation stare at me, knowing all is lost. Eight million more are out there in the desert, mountains, coastal jungles, without shields. They need more than orders. I rasp into the comm. Brothers and sisters, Atalantia has come for our lives. She thinks we wait looking at the sky for rescue, that fear has made a home in our hearts. She thinks we have forgotten ourselves, but I have not forgotten what we are. We fought in the ruins of Luna, on the plains and oceans of Earth, in the mountains and tunnels of Mars. Whatever soil we have stood upon, we have freed. We are not marooned refugees waiting for rescue. We are not prisoners waiting for chains. We are the free legions, and today we become the rock they break upon. All legions, prepare for rain. Then the horizon stutters with white light, and the mushrooms grow. Chapter 10 Lysander The Ash Rain Let fall the rain! The disembodied voice of Atalantia comes through the communications nodes secured on my auditory canals. Like a conductor's baton, it sweeps the music into motion. Thump, 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 go the spit tubes. My world turns and my star shell is ingested into the honeycomb of the wall. Outside the shell's facial shield, the throat of the spit tube pulses with red light. Thump, 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 another hundred men. When falls the rain, be brave. 
Be brave, my grandfather said. I do not feel brave. I am not the centre of this symphony. No one even cares I'm here. Where is the immortal majesty the poets promised me? Where is the stern will my ancestors preached to their children? It was just an illusion conjured by fools who never left their libraries, or by agents of necessity. This is the noble lie. Every frayed nerve, every quaking cell, screams in horror, urging me to crawl out of the tube to escape this insanity. Is a man a coward if he realizes that bravery is just a myth? The old tell the young, so they line up for the meat grinder. My first toy was a wooden sword. Adults think it adorable. Better dead than a coward, Aja would say when a member of the Palatine would fall in combat on some far-off sphere. Better rotting meat for worms than the butt of a passing joke or an embarrassment to the beloved dead. What hilarious things we do for people who will never know we did them. I have not used the mind's eye since the rim. It makes me feel like my grandmother's puppet. But in my fear, I have nothing else on which to rely. Fear is the torrent, I whisper. Fear is the torrent. Fear is the torrent. I am not here. I am no physical being, electricity tethered to carbon. I am a pattern. And so is the world. With that acceptance I release a measured breath, and sink molecule by molecule into the mind's eye. I see Octavia as if she were before me. She sits in her ocular sphere. The glass walls of the room are open, and the city laid out beneath her. Her eyes look down at the oracle on my wrist, its stinger waving. Do not let fear touch you, she whispers. The intricate creases in her face are like the spider web in the high corner of the room. Fear is the torrent, the raging river. To fight it is to break and drown, but to stand astride it is to see it, feel it, and use its course for your own whims. Now, Lysander, if you want me to lie to you, if you can. The memory sputters, invaded by another. Curtains waver like guttering candle flames. I'm walking down a hall toward a black door etched with a single phrase. Music tinkles behind the door. There is laughter. But as I reach forward with my little hand to push it open, I am swallowed by shadows. The spider web emerges from the shadows. A fly struggles to escape, but with each strain entangles himself further. Fear is the torrent, I rasp with Octavia. Fear is the torrent. Her face is bathed green. I surge forward. Urine streams into the catheter. My stomach drops to my heels. My vision flickers, a ball of vomit catches halfway up my esophagus as blackness crawls at the corner of my sight. By the time I remember to breathe, the Anihilo is already twenty kilometers behind me. My gut swirls again and I cough up bile. It sprays, murky brown, into a plastic catch over my mouth. Around me, my suit whirs and flashes 
with the non-verbal communication between blue pilots and gold flight leaders. Clipped commands crisscross over the comm. I narrow my mind's pupil to constrict the influx of information and collate in the background as I slip into the flight flow etched into me by midnight school aviators. My mind runs through a collection of instruction sequences, eyes siphoning and collecting data till I've assured myself and Overwatch, the maintenance support brigade on the Anihilo, that my systems are nominal. Only then do I look up and gape at the grandeur. The invasion sweeps along in its silent song. Ahead, the silhouette of Ajax's starshell is dark against the night side of the onrushing planet. It flickers like white phosphorus as the particle cannons of the Anihilo and her gunships lance diagonally across the horizon and toward the breach. The energy beams illuminate streams of starshells all around me, Hundreds of men in metal, and yet they form little more than a tributary of the great flooding river gushing from the fleets of the two hundred lesser houses and giants, Grimus, Falf, Carthii, and Votum. The vanguard of our force falls, uncontested. The ships become fainter than needles in the darkness behind. The planet grows. Its night face is black, the continents laid out like tatters of a death shroud, trimmed in gold by city lights along the coasts. Its north pole wears a mutating crown of electric green aurora. As we pass into the mesosphere, we cross the planet's meridian from night to day. A golden bow of sunlight blazes around the planet, as if it were Apollo's own and we, the children of Hyperion, racing our chariots home. For a moment, it makes me miss that far-off city and the home I haven't seen for half a life. The day face of the world reveals itself. Beneath the faint shimmer of Darrow's shifting tropospheric shields are small icy poles, strings of mountain ranges, temperate alpine elevations characterize the north, Jungles stretch to the south. Between them lies a mountain-studded equatorial desert. The infamous Ladan, Eater of Armies. The infant typhoon detailed in the mission data report does not look too menacing. It forms a thin spiral cloud layer over the Sycorax Sea. There is time enough to be lost in the majesty, and to remember nature did not provide this with her careless hand, my race of mortals carved this paradise from irradiated rock and violent gas by channeling the greatest virtues of all men in common cause. A patriotic pride that I did not know I possessed fills me. The same blood flows through my veins as the man who sent the last of the Lovelock engines and storm gods here but this zeal evaporates as soon as I realize I do not belong to the age of giants who made this, but to a smaller, meaner age, where men think war the height of human endeavor. I laugh at the cosmic joke. Only humanity could grasp the stars and then let them slip through its fingers for the pettiness in its heart. But I feel hope. That pettiness defined my grandmother's age, it may yet not define ours. 
Fine launch, good men. I trust everyone kept breakfasts down, dinners up, Ajax says convivially. There's a chorus of laughter and high lingo rebarbs. Do they really love this? What creatures could be so at ease here and now? Am I even the same species? Heliopolis will still be covered by the southern shield chain. We must penetrate via the breach and fly south, passing coordinates. The trajectory data appears on my display. His voice becomes solemn as he delivers the grimace creed. Should the void take you, celebrate, my friends, for before death there was glory. Prepare for atmospheric entry. I wait for him to hail my private channel, but when the light blinks, it's Kalindora, not Ajax. Don't burn your main thrusters till we go horizontal. Let gravity do the work, not your generator. Simulators underrepresent drag, and don't activate your pulse shield till breach. No telling when we'll get a recharge. Last thing you want is your suit dying in a firefight. Friction heat glows ahead of me as the first star shells begin their descent. I see Atalantia's ash legion descending to our left. The planet resists my entry. The star shell bucks as it enters with enough kinetic energy to compress the air in front of me and turn it into a furnace. A brittle layer of thermal soak tiles in the entry carapace absorbs the heat and sheds away. All around, scores of star shells burst from carapaces, winnowed by friction, to scream like wrathful locusts down into the blue sky. Wind and engines roar outside my shell as I join them. We do not come under fire. The Republic's shields that protect them from orbital bombardment also prevent them from contesting our descent. They shimmer fifty kilometers below, only eight kilometers above the planet's surface. Atalantia parts from us, heading to the northernmost part of the breach, as we head to the southernmost. Time to breach! Twenty seconds! Ajax intones as we pass over a mountain range toward the Ladan. The horizon toward which we fly is a holocaust of artillery. The concentrated firepower of the Ash Armada bludgeons the thousand-kilometre-wide breach. Particle beams divide reality. Mushrooms bloom on the surface. In all the war, no one has used more atomics than this. I am horrified. The atomics drop on depopulated zones, but the fallout will kill thousands before it is scrubbed and meds distributed. Maybe more. Impossibly. The Republic fires back. Particle beams lance up from the breach at strafing orbital torchships and high-altitude corvette gunships. Guided missiles chase bombers and send them spiralling down to crash into the southern shields like skipping stones. Atomics flash pale white in the troposphere. A beam connects with a Bologna corvette. Light ripples as the shield overloads and a second beam carves through the helm of the ship. Thirty million life-threads interweave, some carrying on, others clipped short. It is so horrible. Be a giant, Ajax said. How, in all this? 
Strategists, I understand. But warriors? I thought I did until now. The insidious arithmetic becomes apparent of how overwhelmingly visionary warriors like Darrow, the Minotaur, and Atlas must be able to shift the face of a battle once it's already begun. T.O.B. Ten! We're over the desert now, skimming the shield dome. A gap in the artillery barrage opens as orbital ships redirect their guns to create a hellmouth, a corridor of protective fire. A second later, the first century of star shells from a Carthii destroyer enters the hellmouth and disappears into the breach. Rip wings follow. The century after them disintegrates as a particle beam slashes up from the mountains. Breach, Ajax says. Our century streams into a hellmouth. My senses overload. Munitions blaze around us, blinding flashes, metal colliding and vaporizing. But we outrace the sounds of the explosions we see, only to cross into the rippling sound waves of prior explosions. I lose Ajax in the mayhem. Air-burst shells keen and explode to disperse harpies, fist-sized drones packed with EMP or explosive charges. I fire my left shoulder cannon at a swarm of them. A dozen slam into a ripwing. The engines die, and it careens out of the hellmouth into a friendly artillery shell. Then I'm through. Fracture, Ajax orders. The Legion's centuries splinter into hundreds of decades. I struggle to match their precision, nearly clipping Ajax's heels as I follow him. Kalindora and Serafina fall in behind me as we dive toward the jagged Hesperides range. Clear your peaks! Leave the air to the rippers! The comm clicks as he switches channels to our decade. Decade one, we're on our own. Head north by... Serafina's voice cuts him off. E-spike! Shatter! My instruments register the electrical spike of rail guns charging. Out of the corner of my eye, a pinprick of purple light flashes on a mountain ridge. I fire my left shoulder thruster and shoot out of formation as a blur of dense metal whips through now empty air. Four hundred slugs follow the first in three seconds. A star shell disappears in a shower of debris. I can't tell whose. Then Serafina's rockets slam into the gun installation and bloom over shielding as it continues to fire unaffected. I activate my targeting laser, but before I can light the installation up, Kalindoras illuminates it. An orbital strike falls. A beam of white light that would flash blind the naked eye cleaves the mountain peak like a hunk of cheese. Good spot for a moony. Compliments on the lightning, Anihilo, Ajax says. Decade one, cluster on me. We've a mountain range to clear. He lights up my personal channel. How's the war, little brother? I struggle to reply. Fast, he laughs. Tune down your inertial dampeners. It'll help you feel the maneuvers. You're flying that masterpiece like it's a cosmos hauler. You quite nearly tipped my heels. Twice. Apologies. It's touchier than the Sims. Touchier than the Sims. Ha! We'll make a peerless out of you yet. Now, belly down, good man. 
Welcome party of aerial termites inbound. Chapter 11 Darrow Red Reach My army dies. The world has become a garden for mushrooms. They bloom on the bruised horizon, swelling two hundred kilometers high, dwarfing the mountains. Shockwave after shockwave, diffused by distance, rack the necromancer as we streak north to get me back to Red Reach Base and the heart of my northern armies. With the shields down, we will be encircled. We must prepare to break out in the thin slip of time between bombardment and landfall. If we survive the bombardment. Desert sand streams underneath the shuttle. Fortified mining cities disappear in flashes of white light. Great desert gun emplacements with enough firepower to take down a torch ship stream fury into the sky, only to be turned into glass by pillars of light hotter than the sun. Colloway is silent and still wearing his synaptic halo. The ovular pilot's chair bathes the dark man in blue light, making the fighter ace look an elfin boy half his age. Untethered from his body, he is the ship, and the ship is him. Come on, midnight, I whisper. Almighty, give me space, the ship replies dreamily. This party makes Ilium look like a thermic sailing race. Oh, my! Incoming slags! I can't... Can't be right. Instruments are frazzed. A pause. Never mind. It is six hundred. Kilometers. Rip wings. Shit! In the wake of the first atomic barrage, the first river of enemy ripwings descend. Fifty squadrons stream down against the backdrop of a mushroom cloud like a school of piranha. Missiles stream from their bellies, cascading down on gun batteries and tank formations. Three squadrons peel off to engage us. I hope everyone relished their breakfast. You'll see it again soon. My boots lock to the deck. My gut jerks as we spin in a never-ending corkscrew. I am helpless behind Colloway, despite my blood-red pulse armor and all its armaments. Only the storm can stop what comes from the sky, and it is still in its infancy. You could run a war from the necromancer, survive almost any magnitude of EMP, outrace even a torch ship, but in atmosphere she's a big boat and the rip-wings gain on us fast. I hail Harnassus for long support and give him coordinates. Over the static, I can barely hear his affirmative. In the Hesperides range, hundreds of clicks to the southwest, under the cover of our intact southern shield chain, fifty-meter guns will swivel on their gyroscopes. Colloway thumbs up to show he heard me. My body leans sideways as he puts us into a steep climb straight at the enemy squadrons. As missiles leap from the rip wings, Colloway barrel rolls sideways and slams us into a nosedive. The missiles blink behind us, some slithering off to follow our countermeasure drones. The rest scream after, undistracted. 
the desert pan races up to meet us. A thousand meters, five hundred, one hundred. At fifty, Colloway activates the launch thrusters and the ship ricochets parallel to the ground like a skipped stone. My head jerks forward, chin slamming into the metal of my breastplate. I see stars and hear the concussion through the ship as the missiles plow into the ground. Those that follow are mowed down by Colloway's rear railguns. There are no cheers from the garage. Colloway redirects toward Harnassus's firing solution. Harnassus sends us a countdown. At three, we slip past the kill zone. The enemy squadrons scream behind, spewing railgun fire. Our shields buckle and fall. I throw my bulk in front of Colloway. A hundred slugs the size of fists tear through the ship. One hits my shoulder instead of the back of his chair, overloading the shield, buckling the armor as I twist and redirect it into the ceiling. Half my body goes numb. Auto-response needles in the suit inject adrenaline into my bloodstream. My world pulses. And... Boom! Through the sieve of slug holes, I glimpse the sky at the back of the ship, just in time to see the long malice rounds arch down and detonate, releasing clouds of smaller munitions. Rip wings disintegrate. Our tail free, Colloway accelerates in a straight line. We're out of the Ladon. The sky is blackening to the north. Faint traces of lightning slither through the firmament. The green grass of the plains of Caduceus unfolds in front of us. It is bedlam. In the shadow of mushroom clouds, lines of burning tanks and armoured personnel carriers spread across the ground like frayed rope. Hundreds of thousands of men run on foot. Gravbikes carrying four or five men apiece stutter toward Redreach Base. The shield is still up, Colloway murmurs from his sink as the field headquarters comes into view. I barely believe him. Gigajoules of kinetic energy from particle beams turn its dome shield a bloody crimson. But sure enough, Red Reach has not fallen. Thank the veil it wasn't hardlined to Angelia. Dozens of legions swarm under its protective shelter, forming a logjam of tanks and war machines, which overflow from her acres of guns, barracks, and defensive works. My second army is intact. Above the shield dome swells a dogfight of thousands. Ripwings churn through the vapor of cumulonimbus clouds that bloom to the north, in from the sea. More dogfights flash all the way up to the stratosphere, buying time for my squadrons to intercept atomic ordnance. As it has before, the grudge between the airheads and dustbacks vanishes. A blue shield of sacrifice protects their brothers on the ground. They disappear by the dozens, careless of enemy fighters, hunting nothing but the falling missiles. In a way, it is beautiful. In every other way, it is horrible to watch. I must make their sacrifice count. It's hard to see how. Pillars of white particle beams flare down from orbit, piercing clouds, vaporizing men and metal as they rake canyons in the ground. We are outmatched. There is no conventional answer to Atalantia's orbital guns. But if Red Reach can just last... To the south of Red Reach, in the mountains that overlook the northern plains, 
several ground-to-orbit batteries continue to fire upward. Colloway takes us through a mountain valley, aiming for one of the several dozen skyhooks I scattered across Helios. Of the five in our flight path, it is the only one that remains airborne, docked as it is under a leaning cleft of a mountain that also shelters a Drachenjäger garage. Thousands of starshell rigs await their pilots on the Skyhook's tarmac. Skyhook 11, necromancer coming in hot. Thirteen elves, five giants, ten dwarves and one reaper need heavy iron. Prep pit crews for emergency gear up. Copy. Bay 2 clear. Pit crew on standby. We make an emergency landing on the floating supply platform. Pit crews swarm its surface, shuttling munitions between the mountain supply depot and the skyhook. They load errant packs of aerial infantry into star shells and send them into the fray. The purple and silver banners of the Arcosian knights waver in the air as they land in grav boots on the far side. There are few actual Arcuses amongst them, but all hail from client houses loyal to the widows of Lorne's sons. I'll need my best men with me. As Colloway takes stock of damage done to Necromancer, I barrel out with the howlers. A pit boss directs us to a rank of the armored starshells lying on their backs just beneath the garage's vertical door. Inside the garage, the armored 15th Legion Helldivers will be sinking with their Drachenjägers. The 40-meter-tall machines are made to dominate battlefields. They are shaped like boxy humans wearing spiked backpacks, except there is no head or neck, simply a hunched pilot cockpit set low between the shoulders. They have six jointed arms multiple cannons at the elbows, and huge iron cleavers. I check to make sure the master storm switch is still in the second right thigh box of my pulse armor, and lie down in one of the star shells, a four-meter-tall mechanized suit capable of flight meant to make men mobile tanks. In concert with Drakenjägers, they make regular infantry nearly obsolete, but they are expensive, bulky, and eat fuel like mad. A crew of twelve oranges and reds go to work around me, jacking data links from the star shell into my pulse armor, attaching a double magazine, calibrating the gear, priming the fusion sword, and sealing on an extra battery. Ten seconds flat is all they need. They clear off and move to the next. A hydraulic lift punches the back of the star shell. I lever to my feet, flanked by nearly thirty armored howlers. Two reds, hang on to the front of the four-meter starshell, securing the canopy over me. Through their working arms, I see the enemy aircraft making a coordinated mass maneuver away from Red Reach. We call it a nuke flower. Atomic brace! I shout, and look frantically for Rona. I spot her rushing a wounded howler to the Skyhook's med bay, too far to make it back to the necromancer or in under the supply depot's closing blast doors. A siren screams. Hundreds of pitmen scramble for cover or to get off the exposed skyhook to the safety of the mountain garage doors. Rona won't make it there. Alexander! He's already moving, swinging the long arms of his starshell as he rushes to scoop her up and jump back to us. Colloway zips away on the necromancer to hide behind the mountain. One of the reds atop me seals my canopy, catching the other's arm in the sealing teeth. The red jerks at his arm, unable to get down. His hand flails inside the canopy, not far from my face. Blood trickles down his forearm. His fellow abandons him. He can't be more than twenty years old, 
An iron hemanthus pendant hangs from his neck. His eyes are wild with fear as they meet mine. He's jammed the canopy. I can't open it. I try to cover him with my arms. Alexander curls his star shell around Rona like a cocoon. The huge blast doors close behind us. Pitmen hammer at the doors from the outside. Poor bastards. Brace! I shout. Felix and an obsidian pathfinder kneel in their star shells with me, forming a wedge with me at the point, sheltering Alexander and Rona. Scores of other wedges form. Pitmen rush to take shelter behind them. The red outside my canopy screams. Even if I free him, he cannot be helped. He isn't in pulse armor, like Rona. My amplified optics see it now, over his shoulder. A lone, dagger-shaped speck, trailing vapor as it falls toward Red Reach base. Two rip-wing pilots chase after it, spraying fire. They overload its shield, pierce its casing, and then orbital artillery wipes them away. The bomb falls uncontested. I patch into Red Reach's central command. A war room fills my view. Three dozen Martian officers, representing eight colors, stand like ghosts in the pale light of the battle map, watching the atomic fall. An Omega atomic will impact in thirty seconds, I say quietly. The red outside my cockpit is listening, too, his face pressed to the glass just two handspans away from my own. Your fight is behind you. Remember now your beloved, your wife, your husband, your father, your mother, your daughter, your son. I meet his eyes. They look so much like my mother's. Remember the sea, the highland forests, Aegea at dawn, Olympia at twilight, Attica in spring, Thessalonica in harvest. As I speak, they close their eyes and unscrew the canisters of Martian soil to clench in their hands. Gold and red, blue and orange, grey and obsidian. My heart breaks in half. Remember home. Remember Mars. You go there now to rest under the shade of her. They disappear in a wash of static. Stillness, as if the sky inhaled sound and time. I close my eyes and hold the red as tight as I dare. Primordial light. Intense. Tiny, like the pupil of a god, followed by a second expanding flash, so brilliant and vast, it makes my eyelids transparent and reveals every bone, joint, and blood vessel in the red pitman stuck outside my canopy. I see the X-rayed bones of a dozen others through their flesh. A curled engineer makes a silhouette, transparent, like the image of a fetus asleep in the womb. The flash contracts to reveal a mutinous fireball at the hypocenter of the blast. Air, grass, rock, metal, and men vaporize as their matter heats to match the heart of a sun. A wall of thermal energy washes outward. A ghost of fire walks through me. The red's eyes that look like my mother's begin to bubble, and then they melt with the rest of him. In the wake of the heat, a colossal wave of pressure races toward us at the speed of sound. 
the skyhook rocks backward against the face of the mountain. The bones of the red shatter and blow away in the wind. His severed hand falls off inside the canopy. My boots spark on the flat-top surfaces as the shock wave pushes me back. I stagger, supported by the howlers. Pitmen who took shelter behind mechs in front of us look like autumn leaves as their tattered bodies are hurled off the floating platform down into the mountains. Others are lifted from their feet and slam into star shells, turning to pulp. Clothing is torn away. Blues and oranges with weaker bones are pulverized on the spot to become liquid bags held together by bubbling flesh. Then the debris. Charcoal birds fall from the sky and crumble to pieces on the concrete. Rip-wing detritus hails down. A flattened tank cartwheels past, thrown dozens of kilometers from the plains to crash into a mountain facade above our base. A great grumbling fills the mountain range as hundreds of avalanches roll down the sheer granite cliffs. I swear I even see the planet ripple. I look up and up and up through my starshell canopy. A fireball articulates skyward with a vortex of debris and smoke swirling around a molten heart of fire where once there was my second army. A million men, tanks and arms, to ash. The hollow abyss of despair calls to me. The voice that found me in the jackal's prison tomb. Reaper, 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 look what you have done. Look what you are. In your shadow, nothing can survive. Somewhere above, Atalantia will be smiling. Alexander's mech steps to my side. I search desperately for Rona. She staggers to her feet. Her pulse armor fried, but she is alive. Relief floods me. Your order, sir, Alexander asks. The mushroom is reflected in his canopy. Orders? What orders can be given in this madness? Our long-range comms are down. I cannot adjust my plan. Thraxa is unsupported, about to be cut off. I would pray if I knew any gods were listening. Let the First Army have survived the blast. Let the Morning Star have arrived in time for them to shelter under her shields. Let there be life in all this ash. No god listens. There are only men, and what one does, another may undo. That is my only religion. That of the hand and the lever. Midnight, are you out there? Barely. EMP nearly fried me. Ship is falling to pieces. Even at short range I can barely hear him. The storm is coming in earnest. Can you make it to Kaidon? If I have to flap the wings myself. When you get there, tell Thraxa to break off and make for Taiki. The second can't reinforce her. The first is coming to help her retreat to Taiki. Where are you going? To make sure Taiki is still ours when you get there. He says nothing for a moment. Happy travels, sir. Midnight out. His engines flare, and he lurches away. Only my star shells remain on the platform. I give them orders to abandon the stuttering skyhook and gather inside the opening blast doors of the garage.
Rona. She whirls to face me. The Helldivers are inside. See if they got a spare rig. I need a full metal god. Yes, sir. Five minutes later, I float over the star shells and the huge Drakenjägers behind them. They stretch into the mountain, rank upon metal rank. Helldiver Legion, the armored 15th, Martians all, my first and best Drakenjäger Legion. I rode with them to end the siege of Olympia, to chase the Minotaur out of Cassius's former home, and then again at Aegea, against Atlas and the Ashlord. Helldiver Legion, enemy iron is inbound. Our comms are down. Soon the storm will claim theirs. The first army will hit them at the children and then retreat to Tyche. The city will soon come under siege by at least one full army group. Legatilamanus believes the second army is now steaming to Tyche to relieve that siege and clear her path of retreat. Of the second army, we are all that remains. If Tyche falls, our brothers are lost. Will Tyche fall? In reply, five thousand Drakenjäger boots hammer the floor of the cavern with a seismic boom. Atalantia thinks the second army is ash. Are we ash? Boom, boom. Are we afraid? Boom, boom, boom. What are we? Hell divers! Form columns! The air warps with the thermal distortion of five thousand Draken engines growling to life. I see Rona slide into a black rig at the rear. Its arms pump as the bolts that stud her body sink with the Drakenjäger. My howlers rise around me. The Arcosian knights form columns in their star shells. At the vanguard, I turn to face the darkening world. Enemy iron streams down to the western and eastern horizons. Little more than gnats in the shadow of the atomics. Obelisks of radioactive smoke and debris grow upon the plains of Caduceus. High above their stalks, the bulbous heads of the mushroom clouds disappear into the thickening storm cover. Black clouds ride. Lightning shatters the sky. Atalantia has shattered our jaw with her first punch. Now it's our turn. I lift my sling blade. For the Republic! For Mars! Ride hell! Chapter 12 Lysander White Golems Twelve rippling rivers of shadow move across a desert of white chalk. The shadows are cast by six thousand star shells flying in twelve iron columns. It is two hours since breach, and I do not feel sane. My life has disintegrated into a series of fragmented moments of extreme fear and unreal violence. It is defined by new sensations. The crunching of ice under clawed titanium foot, the slip of snow, the scrape of rock, the whistling of air the tangy chlorine smell of ozone from my railgun, the ever-present tension that a benign ridge will suddenly come alive with anti-aircraft fire. I no longer trust stillness. Stillness is the enemy taking careful aim. After clearing the briar patch of mountain gun installations, our legion linked with our launch partners, 
the Terran-born Twenty Fulminata, the Thunderbolt Legion, to swell our numbers and drive north to make a secure landfall for the first wave of 150,000, and then the two million that will follow in the second and third waves to take Heliopolis. Sooty smoke rises from the ruins of Republic scoutcraft and gun batteries cleared by Fulminata. I am relieved to be out of the mountains. Amongst the icy peaks, Ajax took us headlong at any threat, like some possessed Homeric hero. I barely managed to keep pace, but my blade is well blooded from the bunker hunts. Kalindora shadowed me through it all, muttering about young pups wanting glory. Seraphina is keen for glory too, but not keen enough to override her discipline. She is a better soldier than she was a travelling companion. Twice she guarded my flank, once in the ruins of a mountain bunker when an obsidian charged from the rubble with an axe, once in the air when I didn't spot an anti-aircraft battery. By midday the first signs of civilization appear on the blasted landscape, a hotel for the wealthy beside a high mesa lake, water farms, ore refineries, and a mining town with gold pyramids painted on their roofs to ward off bombardment. Small arms fire flashes feebly at us from a rooftop. Leopard 11, engaging sniper, I intone. I have three rockets left. Thermal readings indicate multiple civilians in adjacent basements. Red and brown genus. Switching to guns. Carlindora shadows me as I bank to make a precision shot at the two men on the roof. A pillar of blinding light divides the horizon. I break off to avoid the rippling shockwave. When the orbital strike clears, the town is a molten crater. Too slow on the draw, Ajax draws as I reel. You'll have to be quicker than a cat to steal my kills. They were civilians. Sympathizers. Don't worry, you'll get half a notch. Used your targeting solution, didn't I? Only counts as one, Seneca adds. Hive mind. Laughter. Kalindora hails my private frequency, but I reject the request. Soon we are at the edge of the sky, still protected by the rising's southern shield chain. This deep in the Ladan, there is no sign of the enemy. Heliopolis is still a hundred clicks south. When we set down in a shallow plier west of a reservoir city, I am filled with contempt. I pop the starshell's top, desperate for fresh air. But the desert heat hits like an anvil. An ache fills my lungs. Already I feel the sun burning my ship-pale skin. I suck water from my suit's caches and step away from the commotion of the landing legions. Ajax calls to me but I ignore him. I count the thermal signatures from my mental picture. Three hundred and eleven, some too small to be anything other than children. I knew war wouldn't be clean, but he used my targeting data on children. The sense of certainty and purpose that brought me here is fading. I feel like a boy from the crowd who thought he could tame lions by stepping in the cage with them. Seraphina is fine in the cage. She stalks past with an excited glimmer in her eye. Ajax might hold the highest kill count, but she is not far behind. 
All will be recorded in holographic glory by their helmet cams, and tallied by administrators on their nihilo. War conforming to your expectations? I asked. Beautifully so, she says, between gulps of water. Beautifully so. As she walks away, I look out at the alien landscape. Between the Eagle Mountains and Hesperides is a flat belly of desert pavement broken only by dunes of white chalk, mushroom-shaped limestone hoodoos, and pale white cacti the size of houses. Mountains saw the horizon in half. Above them the sun squats malevolently. White golems trudge through this bleakness like the mechanized overseers of Dante's hell. Pale with desert chalk, the golds spike beacons into the hard clay of the playa. Elsewhere, scouts in light armor and optics helmets set drones loose as if they were pet falcons. Everyone's a hunter here. Seneca, Ajax's bodyguard, winks at me as his drones soar north. There's a crash to my right as Kalindora's star-shell lands in a cloud of dust. Don't waste the peace, Lysander. This grime will kill your shell, sure as a railgun. She bends her knees and uses her elbows to cushion her suit as it falls to a sitting position. I join her, and we crawl out of our star-shells to clean the outsides. I spare glances at Ajax, conversing with the fulminata legate. I know I should suck down my rising disgust, shadow him, learn from him, and make myself useful. But something about him out here makes me feel unwelcome. I have the sneaking suspicion that the orbital strike was more a message for me than a necessary military action. Could he really discount lives so flippantly? What's your core status? Kalindora asks. Sixty-six percent. So he still listens. She nods in disgust at the iron leopards. Most of those whelps are walking around sub-fifty, because they didn't hold their burn. They'll depend on recharge. That was a war crime, I say. It was only small arms fire. Only a crime if there's a cause. Eat. Kalindora tosses me a protein bar. You move well, she says. At any other time I'd bask in her compliments, as I did as a boy. Superb instincts. But you're clumsy in take-off, and need to expand your field of vision. You act like you want to use your razor instead of your gun. This isn't asteroid corridor fighting, or whatever the blazes Bellona had you at. You did prime work on that aerial infantry, though. I saw you put down four. Not your first kills, it seems. No. She sees me staring at the ground. Her voice approaches anger. What did you expect? I don't know. Why did you come back? she asks. When I don't answer, she turns her back and crawls into her mech. Your sense has picked up some people. She levers to her feet as I climb into my cockpit. Did your senses tell you they didn't have weapons? No. Did they tell you they weren't saboteurs or snipers? No. Or even howlers? No. So how can mercy exist when anyone could carry an atomic rocket and you don't know? That's the problem with this war. Cruelty is necessary, yet cruelty is a thermal runaway. 
The first wave of transports descends from the sky by the time I've sealed myself back in my star-shell. Those ships with thrusters kick clouds of debris into the air. The ones with gravity engines form floating cloaks of chalk. Grav-bikes roar out of pens. Grey legionnaires, skinned in desert armour and visor-bearing helmets, pour out of personnel carriers. Dozens of humanoid titans, hover-tanks and spider-tanks decouple from their transports and land on the dirt with a sound like hammers striking on wood. Then come the engineers. With a hundred fifty thousand men and women landed, the engineers rapidly begin securing and fortifying the landfall for the primary wave. I look past the disembarking troops to the north. There are shouts. Portable rail guns swivel on their gyroscopes. Signatures inbound, Serafina shouts from the perimeter. She bursts back. Friendlies, someone confirms. A swarm of star shells descend perpendicular to the main landing. They make landfall in a pyramid in front of Kalindora, nearly a thousand in armour of a dozen disparate houses. Not one amongst them is gold. Only the best and most loyal of greys are given license for star shells. Their leader clomps forward, his star shell viewport and the pulse armour helmet beneath retract and the face of a young gunslinger-turned-old centurion stares at me as if he's seen a man come back from the void. One thousand mech-suited Praetorians fall to their knees. Sub-legate, Rome T. Flavinius, and the first cohort Praetorian guard reporting for duty, my liege. His cheeks are covered with more black and gold teardrops than when he served as my shooting instructor in the Citadel. I didn't think there was any more room. The gold knights surrounding us look back and forth between the most famous grey alive, a thousand ex-Praetorians, and a scarless pixie, in borrowed armour, with the love knight at his side. They need no further explanation. Ronti Flavinius, I say. Hades didn't reclaim you yet. And lose his best recruiter. Perish the thought, my liege. His accent is pure loonies stock. Last in a long line of Praetorians, from birth he was sponsored by my family, and excelled in the ludus until he proved himself in battlefields across a dozen spheres under the command of Aja and Lorne. He rose so high as to become second officer under Aja of the thirteenth Traconis. There is no more famous a Praetorian, save perhaps his treasonous understudies, the Nakamuras. On the day my grandmother died, he was in orbit, preparing to face Virginia. He would have thought the line ended that day. I wave him to his feet and tell him to rise. I cannot, my liege. On behalf of the first cohort of the thirteenth and the scattered guard, it falls upon me to issue our grievous apologies for abandoning the search and presuming you dead. Our oath was till the extinguishment of the blood— if there's punishment due, it is my duty to bear it for my men, in place of decimation, and an honour that my last order come from the heir of Selenius. The dragoon commander produces a praetorian dagger, and puts it to the dragon tattoos that circle his neck. The fault lies not with you, but with your patron. I was the one who was lost. Now on your feet, praetorian. 
He stands. In his forties he's no longer the arrogant lurcher I remember winning the Legion Pyramid at the Summer Martial Games. War has aged him past his years, but the boyish glimmer remains in the sharpshooter's pale eyes. Exter? Fauster? I asked, searching behind him. Dead. Exter by the goblin on Luna. Fauster from an orbital strike on Mars. A shame. They were always kind to me, particularly Fauster. Kruger is still shooting the wings off flies. He's my decurion. How did you know I returned? I ask. He looks at Kalindora. I turn on her in surprise. Atalantia cares for Atalantia, she says, but there are many of us who would not see the heir die on the hour of his return. These men are sworn to you, as am I, my liege. Old oaths outweigh the new. Am I to take this to mean Atalantia means me harm? Of course not, she replies. She wept when she received your communique. But you are a loon, and scar or not, you have no right to prevent these men from honouring their oaths. This is not what I had in mind when I set out to prove my loyalty to Atalantia. It is a disaster. The Praetorians are not simply men sworn to my house. They are as much a symbol of the sovereignty as the morning chair itself. I search for Ajax, but cannot find him in the mill of his landing legions. Seraphina has wandered over. She recognizes Rhone and takes a step closer. I apologize I could not bring more men, and for the accoutrement, he says, frowning at the blue and silver armor he wears. We believed you dead. The most shameless have gone mercenary. Some have found work with the other houses. Most went to Atalantia. These here were with Julia Aubelona. Her house isn't what it was, but she doesn't spend men as quickly as the rest. She's terminated our contract as a gesture of fidelity to you. I feel a pang of guilt. My own family glowers at me with suspicion, and Cassius's mother sends me an olive branch. More, a backing of my claim. I know enough of the woman to know she's playing her own little game, but now she's beginning to interrupt mine. The Lady Bologna knows I've returned, then, I say to Roan. Little escapes Julia Albellona, he smiles. It was a long-range communique, but she says she will be joining you shortly. More of the guard will come from the other houses as soon as they hear of your return. He clears his throat, suddenly very serious. It will be as it was, my sovereign. I look past the man to see Ajax watching us. His eyes are filled with so much wrath, you would think I had just arranged for the morning chair to be delivered straight to the desert. So much for your word to my brother, Seraphina says. Her rim eyes are chromed out for the desert light and unreadable, but her look of disdain is total. Lower your voice, man. I am not the sovereign, I tell Roan, nor do I intend to be. Purge it from your thoughts, lest you wish to see me dead. I wheel on Kalindora. How dare you presume? Am I to be scolded like a child by a child? She asks. How odd this world is. Don't mock me. You know how this looks. Yes, she says. Yes, I do. Damn it all to Hades. 
I stomp away from her and the Praetorian, hoping to get a word with Ajax, but he is clustered in a thick knot of his officers. They sit on the edges of their cockpits. Seneca has produced a metal canteen from a thigh-storage pouch. Another gold supplies small tin cups, which Ajax fills. To life and landfall, he says, and they tip the whiskey. We'll finish the rest in Heliopolis. Sorry, little brother, lost you in the Sea of Praetorians. You should wear a crown so we can find you. No whiskey is poured for me. A woman gives me her own cup too eagerly. I'm wearing my suit, so I can't take it. The first suitor makes their bid poorly. Ajax notices. May we have a moment, Ajax? He ignores me to address his men. The intel and sensors didn't lie. We're five hundred kilometers from their nearest deployed force. We are in a slow tango with Heliopolis. They never thought we'd sneak our hand up the back of their skirt. Atalantia's gambit is bold. While the bulk of the army focuses on the battle with the Republic in the north, she looks beyond the battle. The capital, Tyche, is the emotional victory for Votum. But Heliopolis is the prize. Control it, control the south and her thousands of iron mines. Grimace troops will occupy the sun city, and they will stay for generations. The poor Votum have no idea what they're paying for her to take their planet back. It is shameful. And none of them care. As clients or clients of House Grimace, Atalantia, their patronus, owes them protection and sponsorship. She will be sure to richly reward their loyalty and service in arms. It will be an assault, Ajax says. Soon as the ground iron and infantry land, we push west in force. Seneca, take a century. Harass their vedette and drones. If it breathes or beeps, it dies. I want them blind as we— Ajax is interrupted as a signal comes over the general officer channel. The gold slide in unison back into their star shells and latch up as the message crackles. All officers is Fury Command. Have situation developing. Stand for update. This Archimunus Umberto's Fant Five Hyperkings formed over Sycorax. Anomalous pressure centers, eighty kilo, pascals, the largest wind speeds of eight hundred kilometers per, moving south. The signal cuts out and re-establishes. We'll make landfall on Helion Coast in twenty. Expect cloud cover to thirty kilometers, heavy, fall, turbulence, electrical, interference, and storm surges, secondary storm forming over west of Ladon. Confused glances are exchanged. Hypercane? Seneca frowns through his open cockpit. Those aren't possible except in the rim, Seraphina says, coming up from behind with Kalindora. But I alone know that they very much are. Grandmother, you left landmines everywhere. Perhaps we should delay landing, I offer neutrally. The officers glare as if I've spit in their eyes. Delay landing, Ajax asks, incredulous, and let a bit of weather steal our glory? 
I think your time amongst moonies has made you superstitious, good man. If there are five hypercanes over the Sycorax, that's a thousand kilometers from here. A storm with eighty kilopascals has the capacity to cover all of Helios, much less five of them. I do the math. Eight hundred kilometer per hour winds will pull down a ripwing. Electrical will slag any orbital relay. The immunes mentioned a secondary storm. If there are pressure anomalies in the desert, we should suspend the land. Lysander! Enough, Ajax says. It is the first time he's used my name in front of them, though they all know who I am by now. I pull it back. There's no way out of this, no way to avoid alienating him, except by playing dumb. But then men die. Ajax continues, Thank you. Seneca, I told you to take your men. Ajax, Seneca interrupts, The northern drones have gone down. Ajax bares his teeth. What do you mean, gone down? Did they report enemy contact? They're not responding to commands, and their feeds are static. They were picking up some sort of pressure anomaly. A pressure anomaly? Ajax glances at me as if I did this. Hail the scouts. They're not responding either. Something is interfering with their comms. Quiet, Serafina says. She lifts her hand to touch the wind, don't you feel it? What? Kalindora says. The storm. A stone clatters against Ajax's starshell. He looks down with a frown. Rocks bounce against my boots. Then all along the landfall men shout and point at something to the northwest. Ajax's eyes click upward to look past our semicircle of officers and then widen. By Jove! Out there, amongst the chalk, coming down the desert flats between the mountain ranges, is a storm like those I've seen only in terraforming hollows. A wall of sand rages across the desert. My feet root me to the ground as a great convulsive sigh of horror goes through the vanguard and the first wave. Serafina turns on Ajax. Take cover! Helmets up! Prepare for elements, Ajax shouts. Land those ships! I want those tanks on the ground! The army breaks into frantic contortions. I see the missing scouts as I shout to the Praetorians to take shelter. The scouts race ahead of the storm, burning their boots for all they're worth. Little dots chased by a great brown tide. One disappears into the darkness. Ajax shouts commands to the transport pilots, but they're caught in landing protocol. Some try to land ahead of the storm, only to make a logjam. Others peel off, but the winds knock them off course, and they clash together in the sky as the roaring of the sand wall encroaches. It is the end of the world. The sand hits us like a sweeping broom. I watch as three engineers, setting up a communications array, sprint back to their ship. The sand, travelling at hundreds of kilometres an hour, shreds their uniforms and bodies down to the bone, with the thoroughness of a decay time-lapse. Kalindora is with me. We brace ourselves, and the wall hits us. I'm kicked sideways, spinning on the ground, end over end, unable to stand or orient myself. 
Finally, after colliding with its door latch, I managed to crawl behind a heavy tank. Hidden from the winds, I watch as the wall hits the stream of transports. Decimation. Hundreds of spaceships with reinforced hulls, state-of-the-art ion propulsion engines, and the battle scars of a dozen engagements meet the force of the Mercurian desert. It clubs them to death with the carelessness of a gargantuan child. It throws a squadron of rip-wings into the mountainside, whips a hundred-metre tank carrier into a death spiral, smashing it into the ground, where it crushes half a legion of greys sheltering inside a ground transport. And, all at once, the mission that took a month to plan and half a year to prepare, one that was to be executed by men and women who've made a vocation of war, comes apart with no explanation, except that the Reaper is sharing our planet and that my family is a line of paranoid tyrants. A dark shape stumbles out of the storm to join me behind the tank. It's Ajax's starshell. He crashes down and sits, unmoving, unspeaking. Lightning flashes in the storm-obscured sky, illuminating his terrified face. His lips tremble. His eyes are wide and white and boyish. I've seen him like this only once before, frozen in place out there on the west line, a kilometre-high communications hard line we used to dare each other to walk as children. The first time we tried, he froze only a quarter of the way across. What began so confidently ended with his knuckles turning white as he gripped the edge and stared down at the thousand-metre drop. I walked out to him and set a hand on his shoulder, and told him only he could walk himself to safety, a quarter kilometre back, or three quarters forward and across. Which way he walked was up to him. He walked back. It was one of the defining moments of our childhood, when we both discovered the substance of his courage. I put a hand on his shoulder now. Our eyes meet, and I know he's back on the west line with me, Slowly the fear leaves him, and we share a moment of wordless comfort. Forgotten are the Praetorians, my absence, all of it. I have his back. He just has to go forward. With effort, Ajax manages to gather many of his officers in the garage bay of an infantry transport. The storm has raged for thirty minutes and shows no signs of abating. The hull creaks as we cluster together in the dim light. Seneca grumbles his way through his report. Sixty transports destroyed in the first minute. There's no accounting for the rest. We can't establish communications with the fleet, command, or the transports. I've never seen this much electrical interference from a storm. He did this, Ajax murmurs. His eyes are fixed on the roof of the transport. I'm sorry, sir. Seneca says. Darrow, Kalindora confirms. He's mad. It's just a storm, Seraphina says, from the corner in irritation. Unless the slave king can summon hypercanes at the drop of a pin, it's a freak occurrence. It will soon pass. This is Mercury, not the rim. We don't have hypercanes, ever. He can summon storms, I say. Ajax snorts. He's a man, not a nightmare. 
He's using storm gods, I say. The only storm gods left are on Triton and Pluto. Look at the patterns of the storm, I say, gesturing to the map. The Killzone Darrow intended to land us in was here. The storms form a circle. It can't be coincidence. Those temperature fluctuations in the ocean must be man-made, like this sandstorm. Their eyes go hard. He intended to pin us in, cut us off from the sky, trash our second wave, bar the landing of the third, and hunt us down inside the circle. But he didn't expect anyone this far south. I bet my life a storm god is out there somewhere to the northwest. It is likely to be only lightly defended. Where did he get a storm god, Lysander? Ajax asks quietly. Where it was buried, I imagine. And why would it be buried? As a safeguard against Votum Rebellion? They blink with irritating slowness, as though they are surprised that a sovereign who would annihilate Rhea would have moral objections to keeping her family's invisible leash on a planet as important as Mercury. The ocean storms will have a life cycle even if the storm god is downed. The desert storm will die quicker. We bring the engine down, the sandstorms will abate. How quickly? Serafina asks. An hour? Two? More likely several days. Maybe longer. The officers glower. This will ruin it all. Ajax watches me like he would a stranger. That this secret should be kept from House Grimace bespeaks suspicion, as if Octavia and the loons believed even they could not be trusted. I see my friend wrestling with the pressure of the men looking at him, the pressure of Atalantia's immense expectations, the pressure of gold society and his own fantasies, the child and then the man wove together in the moments before sleep, night after night, until they resembled nothing short of destiny. This was to be his moment of glory. Now he looks total annihilation in the eye. We were tasked with taking Heliopolis, he says. I will not disappoint my aunt. If Darrow planned this, if he is using a storm god, then he did it to freeze our movement. We must contradict his intentions with all our vigor. Surely you do not mean to attack Heliopolis now, Serafina says, coming off the wall. That storm is a monster. It'll pin the shells to the ground, sweep away the infantry. I've seen it before. You will die. So will your men. She's a moony, isn't she? Seneca growls. Newer eyes were too big. I am Serafina Aura, she snaps at the corps officers. For once it is not entirely unwelcome news. I've trained for Io storms, and if you attack Heliopolis in this wind, you'll all be corpses. You must wait for it to pass, or find a way to kill it. I concur with the rim on this one, Kalindora says. Star shells can't fly in this. It'll be chaos, and Heliopolis's storm wall is no mere palisade. Do you think I'm some vainglorious dullard? Ajax snaps at the women. They know where we landed. The Reaper would not let sand stop him from moving. He might have thermal grids in the desert by which to navigate, but he will expect the storm to stop us. He has the initiative. We must take it back, so when the sand's veil falls... We will not be here. We will be at the walls of Heliopolis, 
We will land whatever transports remain en masse and then assault the city when the storm dies. He looks around. I will need a commander to lead a cohort to destroy the storm god while the rest of us push south with the titans. His eyes settle on me and I feel the urgency behind them. Hostility has been replaced by desperate faith. Here is the chance to prove myself to Ajax and Atalantia. Lysander, will you and your Praetorians do this for me, for our family? Kalindora shakes her head at me. It would be our honour, I say. I will go with him, Seraphina mutters. This isn't my first storm crossing. Kaja might get lost. Two children leading the Praetorians, Kalindora laughs. Have all the jumped-up arrogance. I'll lead the party. No, I will need you here, Kalindora, Ajax says. The storm god will have a garrison, she says. My oath to Octavia still stands. I will defend the air with my life. And I'm going to kill a storm engine, Ajax. Got a problem with that? Chapter 13 Darrow Plains of Caduceus The door of my trap slams closed. The storm is here. Day has become night. Black thunderheads race off the sea to blind their armada. Lightning shatters the sky, disrupting communications between their landing parties, drones, and orbit support. Winds swirl and clash from multiple storm eyes. They toss rip wings and landing craft like toys. Their first wave is trapped beneath the storm. Their second is murdered within it. Their third dare not descend. Orion has given me my lever. I'm putting my full weight on it. Five thousand Drakenjägers pound for Tyche with half again as many starshells riding upon their backs. More survivors found us, swelling our ranks. We cut through the famed flower latifundia of Mercury, our titanium feet stomping orderly rows of sun blossoms. The flower pollen paints the clawed metal feet gold. From my perch on Rona's Meg, I spot ships struggling in the high winds. My columns hurdle the highway in a single bound and split up to form into wedges. This is not their first shockwave. The enemy lies ahead. An entire division. Four legions has made landfall between Tyche and the plains of Caduceus. In the gloom, thousands of ships bearing the golden hammers of Votum unload men and war machines onto rolling fields of lavender. They intended to mop up whatever remains of my legions, but their landing has been thrown into chaos by the storm. The customary gold landfall fortifications aren't complete. Tank wedges are only half-formed, War machines barely unloaded. Infantry sheltering from the wind behind grounded transports. They don't expect us yet. And they don't see us coming. We fall upon them with malice. A gold in a star shell with officer markings stands with his officers around a communications array in the shelter of a hill. One of his men points. He turns, just as lightning flashes, illuminating our tide of onrushing metal. Rona bounds forward and lands forty meters of war machine on the officers. I watch on her shoulder as the star shells crumple 
the first column of Drachenjägers fires four Alpha Omegas. The nukes detonate in the center and opposite flank of their landfall, just above their two groups of titans. Daylight. The heaviest armor, which would more than match ours, vaporizes. A rolling tide of devastation. The Draken wedges fire their particle cannons in tiers, targeting heavy armor. Five minutes before each can fire again, it makes no matter. Bedlam follows as the wedges hew through the enemy along a four-kilometer front, like one hundred spears into paper. The quad railguns fire into the confused mass of enemy. Infantry simply disappears. Grav bikes are cut in half. Transports peel away, only to clash against one another as the wind disrupts their flight paths. The Drakenjägers pull on their iron swords. Five thousand blue-white cleavers go to work. When the carnage itself slows the charge's momentum, and we flounder under the debris from the nukes, the star shells release. Alexander and I spin sideways together. I rip off the door of an infantry transport. A hundred greys in war gear stare at me in green light. Alexander opens fire with his railgun. Thunder booms overhead. Felix has fallen to a group of greys with uranium rifles. We send them scattering and haul him to his feet. Another second and he'd be dead. The golds are rallying to their legion standard. The standard rises from the spine of a giant blue titan. The titan is sixty meters tall, four legs and three main cannons, with disc-shaped alien cockpit. The standard is five meters tall and made of three emblems, the god Helios, a society pyramid, and a giant pair of golden hammers. A votum is with us. Please let it be Scorpio himself. Two Drachenjägers plunge toward the standard. As the Titan arrests their charge with its gravity gun, golds in star shells swarm over the Drachenjägers like a pack of velociraptors taking down a Tyrannosaurus. They jump onto the rightmost's back and hew through the spine armor to cut the power lines connecting the stomach generator to the cockpit. The Titan's third arm pulls the top half off the cockpit. A gold in a star shell reaches in and pulls the orange pilot in half with his armored hands and throws her body into the wind. Gods, can they kill? And I thank the veil that it is the Arcosian knights with me. Not a red I know could survive this outside a Drakenjäger. I search for Rona, but can't find her rig in the fray. I gather Alexander and a hundred of his kin, and we drive toward the rallying goals from the flank. Rona appears to the left, and her wedge draws their attention. By the time they see us coming to their right, we're amongst them, firing point-blank and drenching our blades. With Alexander, I mount the sixty-meter crest of the Titan and kill the two goals defending the height. Alexander carves the pilot out and holds him in the air. The gold man wears an incredible suit of armor that appears nearly translucent. He slashes at Alexander with his razor. Alexander bats the lightning-fast blade away and pins it in his star shell's hand. With his other hand, he squeezes the pulse helm of the gold until it shears off. That's quality there. The Primus himself! Alexander shouts above the wind. 
hiding in a titan. What a pixie! The veins in the forehead of the old tyrant pulse as he glares up at the mercy of a man a quarter his age. Blood traitor, he snarls. Then he sees my curved blade. Scorpio, I'll vote him, I warble at my speakers. Through the rain and spattered blood on my canopy, his vain eyes meet mine, and I drink in his fear. Blood leaks down his face. For a hundred and one years of rape, genocide, and enslavement of your fellow man, I sentence you to the mud. There, atop his titan, I cut him in half at the waist, and Alexander hurls him off the height. The blood of the conquerors thins. Alexander draws through the comms. He cuts the standard off the titan and hands it to me. One more for your collection, Goodman. I shove it back into his hands. Build your own. With a grin, he holds it up against the crackling sky and leaps off to land on Rona, who trudges to pick us up. He stabs it down into the thick shoulders of her drachenjäger, sharing the bounty. Tchaiki! I bellow. My men pick up the call, and we push through the shattered remains of the division to leave it thrashing in the mud. More landfalls lie ahead. More enemy to kill. More, more, more. A laughing zeal fills me. By the time we leave the flower fields, two hours later, only five hundred drachens have fallen, and the standards of fifteen legions decorate the shoulders of my rolling columns. Alexander has taken four with his own hand. I trail with three. His second cousin, Elanda, has two, along with the captain of the Drakenjägers, and Rona herself. We scalp the cores and battery shards from the dead for our own star shells, rearm when the winds abate, and push for the coastal highlands where Tyche and Atalantia await. I'm coming, Atalantia. I'm coming for your head. Chapter 14 Lysander Into the Storm One thousand Praetorians, the loved knight, and the daughter of Romulus, follow me west to seek the eye of the desert storm. It makes us a thousand and three worlds of misery. Serafina and Kalindora flank me, each man, each woman, alone in the darkness of their suits, imprisoned by the wind and sand. Left foot, right foot, left foot. Courtesy of Serafina's storm experience, we employ a rim trick. Towing wire holds us together like grapes, so we do not lose one another in the storm. Periodically, Serafina and Praetorians with storm experience detach to scout our perimeter. Still, our progress is slower than desired. Storm winds hit us head-on and increase to over 800 kilometers per hour with visibility of scarcely two meters. The storm robs us of the sky and our instruments. Bit by bit, trespassing against the wind drains our star shells. After eight hours of this, only the transition of the storm's dimness to absolute darkness denotes the arrival of night. When the wind lulls, we jog, tripling our pace by using the thrusters in small bursts. 
Several lines snap because of this, and we lose Praetorians in the storm. There is no going back for them or for us. The fear that gripped me in the tube of the Anihilo is gone. The sensation of standing on the edge of the cliff was worse than the fall. Life has winnowed down to a simple task and survival. That simplicity is a comfort. For years I was in a torpor and cowardly in indecision. Here I have certainty. I will prove myself to Ajax, to Atalantia. I am their family, not their rival. Forward, left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. Something is out there, Seraphina says. I peer into the darkness and see nothing. Still Kalindora gives the order to hunker down. We prime our weapons. Holy hells! Contact! There's a chorus of hold-fire calls from the scouts. Dread shapes move in the murk. Only when they come within five metres and they engage their lights can we see they are star-shells. Ten of them. Our headlamps illuminate votum hammer sigils painted on the chassis. Might be hundreds behind them for all we can see. One steps out before the others. My comm crackles, and a handsome sun-dark face illuminated by star-shell interior lights glows in my HUD. Ever the evening, good men, and we thought we were the only civil company for a thousand clicks. Is that not Kalindora herself I gaze upon? Cicero, you scoundrel! You're supposed to be in the plains of Caducius. Squeaks the mouse to the rat, he says with light menace. Mayhaps love is lost in the storm, my friends. Didn't you know Heliopolis is just a skip to the south? A beat of silence. I go where I am ordered. Like a good knight. The peril of oaths, no? But fear not, my intrepid father noticed a certain lack of leopards on his flank in the plains of Caducius, and has sent us to ensure that no skullduggery is afoot at the gates of Heliopolis. His voice lowers. The city belongs to my father, Scorpio, and House Votum. We are weary of Grimace henchmen skulking in the dark. Prepare to fire, Calendora says, over the private channel. I have them flanked. Seraphina in tones. I count four hundred. Could be more. Belay that, I snap. No Praetorian will fire on allies, nor will you, Seraphina. Yes, Dominus, Rome says, and gives the order for all Praetorians to stand down. Calendora goes into a stony silence. Private communications, eh, Calendora? I don't need to crack your code to know what you've said, Cicero says. Not enough that that loony's bitch tries to steal our city. She'll spill old blood like there's so much of it left. Salve, Cicero, I say, taking over from Calendora. And who's that? he asks. I share my face via hologram. I knew Cicero as a child. Not well, but on the occasions when his family visited Luna, Grandmother insisted I entertain the voluble heir of House Votum. To be honest, I found it tiresome, if not a little entertaining. He is ten years older, and thus his condescension is limitless and hilarious, yet unlike Ajax he recognises me immediately. Hades on high, he says, without an ounce of surprise. 
Is that Lysander Owloon in the pinkish flesh? So his father told him. You never do forget a face, Cicero. Not the pretty ones, at least. Father didn't lie. Not dead after all, my my. Atalantia has roped you into her schemes. How the beast now leads the master. We are en route to destroy the storm god, I say. There aren't any storm gods on our planet. There are. Explanations can wait. You want your city back. I won't stop you. But you won't get there if those engines are still running. I imagine your cores are as depleted as ours. He does not reply. We have a pickup scheduled. That gets his attention. What say you lend us a hand, and we ride for Heliopolis together in the morning? He laughs, as if he were on a beach. For such a dramatic union I'll play earnest, so long as you support our claim to Heliopolis when we find Ajax, that mischievous little tart. Kalindora reminds me that it would put me in direct conflict with Atalantia but she's already done that by summoning the Praetorians. Heliopolis was built by House Votum. With House Votum it should remain, I say. Splendid. Then the Scorpion Legion is at your service, my good man. Or is it my liege? I suppose Father will decide, if he survives the North. Calamity, good man. His mind darkens. Calamity. I cannot divine the strength of the Scorpion Legion, as they add their numbers to ours. Though Cicero continues to babble in my ear, I'm soon lost in the now familiar grind, left, right, left. I'm deep in the drudgery when a hand grips my armoured shoulder. I blink out of my daze to see that it is three in the morning. Landfall plus seventeen. I look back to see the Praetorians arrayed fifty deep to my right. The Scorpions emerge from the dust to my left. They must be several thousand in number. At dire cost to our energy cause, we have made it to the eye of the storm. I hadn't even realized. It is a different world. The eye is fifty kilometers in diameter, the air pacific and clear of sand, as if held in static twilight. A desert dealing watches us with suspicion. A formless beast lurks beneath the mass of a hoodoo, its eyes winking like coins. More beasts of all varieties float within the gravity shadow of the engines. They didn't even bother to diffuse the gravity shadow. All this is surrounded by a vortex of sand, which swirls around a monolith of grey metal. The storm god floats kilometers above the desert. Wreathing its shoulders and stretching toward the heavens is a swirling marble cloak of clouds veined with lightning. Beneath that, little more than a fringe to that cloak, is the swirling sand. Many of the animals who sought shelter here gather in the grip of its gravity engines. It breaks something inside me to see an instrument of creation perverted into a weapon. Whatever doubt I held vanishes. Darrow is no longer a good man. Even Atalantia declined to use her atomics on actual cities, but to kill us, Darrow will drown the northern coast of Helios. Tyche, Kaikos, Priapos, Arabos, 
We'll all be in the path of tidal waves. Millions will die. I do not know if it can be stopped, but he must be. This feels like a dream, Serafina whispers. This war is proving to be all she ever wanted. Cicero eyes the woman with interest and calls something to her. I can barely hear him for the wind. Our instruments are dazzled with false readings. I fear we will not be able to reach Ajax even in the morning, which is why he is scheduled to come with pickup at 0600, if we manage to down the engine. I find Kalindora at my side. Unlike Serafina, she is not in thrall to the storm god. Sorrow fills her eyes as she looks up and up. She has seen horror many times before. This is merely its bleakest evolution. Your thermal runway, I say. She turns with a grim expression and pulls Roan to her. Prepare to engage in six columns, double heavy fronts. Prep three wedges for a flank charge. She summons Cicero. Robbed of our orbital support, we will have to do this the old-fashioned way. I check my ammunition just as there's a flash from the storm god. Cicero ducks with me. At the great distance I cannot distinguish what it is. Before I can pull up my optics, Serafina tilts her head back to me. Gasha, don't be such a... And then the entire top half of her starshell disappears. As a rail slug the size of a man rips Romulus's daughter clean in half. My commands stick in the base of my throat as the legs of the mech teeter and collapse sideways, spilling her intestines out the top. Incoming! Kalindora bellows. Chapter 15 Darrow Tyche there is no place in all worlds like Tyche. Set on an incline between the mountains and the sea, on a great strip of lowland connecting it to the Talarian Peninsula, it is the ancestral home of the Gens Votum. Though the city is famed for its white sands and coral reefs, there is a reason the Votum family crest is a hammer. They are builders, and they built this city not for greed, but for beauty. And symmetry. Her old quarter is carved entirely of local stone and glass. Libraries, the size of starships but shaped like bizarre human heads, line the mountains behind the city. High arching bridges link complex systems of archipelagos, some of which migrate into the northern sea in the late summer. Forests and gardens burst from rooftops, and flowering plants creep down the narrow cobbled streets, which then wind in spirals up her twelve great hills. I remember the Liberation Day, nearly half a decade ago now, when I woke in the early morning before the parade and walked alone down to the shore to listen to the gulls. I only wish my wife and son could have been with me to see that sunrise. For once... I did not glare at the sea and wonder how many of my men it claimed. I did not resent the world because it was made by slaves. I saw only a multitude of splendors. I think that's what Severo called it. On that day, Tyche was the second most beautiful city I had ever seen. I wanted to share it with Pax and Virginia. 
Now I am in time to see the city die. As we pushed through the reeling legions, the storm mutated from friend to wild, convulsing savage. Lunging in from the sea, giant waves crash over the north coast of Helios. As we neared Tyche, a wall of water nearly half a kilometer high forced us to run to higher ground lest it smashes as it does the gold landing parties on the shore. Boats float in the center of fields. A shark snaps for air in a tree. Our star shells can no longer attempt the sky. Trees, rocks, and signposts flung at hundreds of kilometers an hour damage our suits, killing two of my precious obsidian pathfinders. This is not the storm I was promised. Orion has either disobeyed me or lost control. Now, with dread in my belly, I rise unsteadily through the howling wind to the crest of a hill where the Arcosian knights look down at a city drowning. From Tyche's southern wharf to the northern business district, a third of the city is underwater. The storm surge from the hypercane spreads east and shows no sign of stopping short of the mountains. Within hours, the entire city will be gone, with only the tallest towers peeking above the sea. The western reach of the city, where the lowlands connect with the Talarian Peninsula, is aflame and shattered by siege. Twisted wrecks of tanks and drachenjägers litter the ground between huge breaches and the defensive wall, where Ferranus's legions made its doomed last stand against an army thirty times its size, though only a small part was used to besiege the city. The rest assembles deeper inland on the peninsula high grounds. Huge, shadowy forms descend in the storm, their eldritch contours suggested by spasms of lightning, not the gilded might of the Venusian Carthii, which we smashed, but the ash legions of Luna and Earth, the heart of Atalantia's loyalist army. Her forward legions, which took the city, now choke on their victory. A sizable portion of their forces penetrated deep into the city, pressing for the mountains, but they are cut off from the main host. Thousands clog the waterlogged lowlands that connects Tyche to the Talarian Peninsula. The spider tanks and titans that broke the walls sink in the mire. Men pile onto hovercraft and into any airship that dares take flight. They stand no chance. As I watch, the sea ripples like a single organism and from the grey obscurity of the storm comes a wave that would make a European stop and stare. The tidal wave is a kilometre tall. It buckles the first twenty blocks of the city's oceanfront and sweeps uphill towards the mountains, to be stopped only by elevation just short of the Harper's Plaza. The greater body of the wave carries on toward the Ash Legions in the lowlands. A row of gold knights in black armour, stand on the peninsula's rocky heights to watch the legions below be swallowed by the sea. A hundred thousand men, gone in a moment. I should rejoice, but soon Tyche's population will follow. How many millions down there? How many millions along the coast? This will not be isolated mayhem. A chain of tidal waves will devastate northern Helios. My promise to Glerastes was broken, but not on my orders. 
I pull out the master switch I'd built in case it all went wrong. Turning it on is like killing part of myself. I never thought this moment could come. The moment where Orion failed me. She has no intention of leashing the storm. It was to be my lever. She uses it as a hammer not to punish just gold, but the planet she hates. With seas churned to madness by the storm generators, a coastline is murdered. The wind whips around us. This is genocide! Alexander roars into my ear. I push him off. Orion, what have you done? What did I let you do? I focus a comms laser out into the gloom to form a direct line on Orion's engine, which hovers twenty kilometers offshore. She appears on my screen. She is breathing heavily. Her skin is covered in sweat. She kneels in the center of her circular sink nest from where she guided the hive mind. Of the six hologram blues who should surround her, only one is not dead. He shivers on his knees, blood sheeting out his nose and ears from a cerebral hemorrhage. The blast doors of the nest are sealed. She's locked out my security teams. Orion, I say. Orion, can you hear me? If you can hear me, stick out your right thumb. Slowly, the thumb extends. I need to speak with you, Orion. Can you slip from the sink? I wait. Nothing happens. Suddenly, her eyes open. Her voice is a faint whisper. The data flow was too much. Orion, we're on second horizon, going straight for three. You swore we wouldn't pass primary. What happened? Four is desired. Her eyes closed to slits. Four will teach them. Four is terraforming level. The complete annihilation of the planet's surface by storm. Her eyes are nearly closed. She can't devote attention to anything beyond the drift much longer. Orion, it is Darrow. Listen to me. You must turn off the engines. Scale back the storm. Can you do that for me? They can't win with Venus alone, so I will take Mercury. Orion, think of the army. Think of the people. There's nearly a billion here. Rats are complicit. Rational transaction. I can stop you. Her eyes flutter. I told you I could. Don't make me do it. She no longer replies to me. She is back in the sink. Without Orion's input, the storm gods will level off and avert planetary destruction. But if I sever her connection, her mind will be lost by the sudden schism. I look down at the city, back to the hologram of my friend in the visor. The storm's death will not be instantaneous. But the longer I wait, the worse it will get. I initiate the override. For a moment, nothing happens. Then Orion's body seizes and goes limp. It happens that fast. She lies there with her mouth agape, her bright blue eyes staring at nothing as they twitch in her head. Her metal finger scrapes against the floor and then goes still. I swallow a knot in my throat. 
for ten years. No gold alive. Not their science teams, not the creme of their astral academies, not their assassins could kill this woman. She was a myth, and I turned her off with the flick of a switch. She was not ready for this. I felt it, but I could not believe it. Now Mercury pays. Numb and quiet inside, I turn off the hologram and use the override to reduce the storm god's output to zero. Then I am back in the storm. The sound of the wind and thunder is tremendous. More knights have run up to watch the city drown. Alexander shouts at his cousin Erlander. The two young golds point down at people flooding toward the Gravloop, and the Ash Legions stomping through them to get there themselves. I try to make sense of the mayhem, and ask myself how we can help those still trapped in the city. I find myself without an answer. No transport ships could fly in this. We can't carry them. We can't even stay aloft ourselves. Alexander jogs to me. I've spoken with Alanda. Just over two hundred golds with the purple griffin stamped on their chests wait behind him, helmets down. We request permission to enter the city to lend aid. Permission denied. Sir, there's nothing you can do down there. Tyche is lost. But its people needn't be, he snaps. I turn to Alexander, furious that he would contradict me now. They're swarming for the Gravloop. Many can still escape under the mountains, but the Ash Legions in the city know it's the only way out. If they reach it, they will mow through the civilians and use it to evacuate their men, right into Heliopolis. Again, the Knights of House Arcos request permission to deter them. No. Sir! I turn to see Rona running up the hill in her Drachenjäger. It kneels so we can speak. She squints into the wind as her cockpit pops open. Sweat pours down her face. What now? I ask in exhaustion. She sees the master switch in my hands. She knows Orion is dead and doesn't flinch. So far that makes two who know she's dead. The army can't find out. Not now. It will break them. Boys caught an enemy scout, Fulminata by the looks of him. One of Octavia's own? Bring him to me. I peer out over the submerged isthmus to the greater host of Atalantia's legions. Those gold knights are still on the ridge. I amplify magnification on two figures standing in the foreground. Atalantia's face peers back at me. She wears her own optics. She makes a masturbating motion and flings the load off into the wind, shaking her head at me. I retreat behind the bluff for fear of snipers. If anyone can shoot straight in this, it's her, Grey Dragoons. My Arcosian knights throw a man down at my feet. He's in fulminata armor, all right. Here's hoping. I pull him up by the hair to find the handsome, lean face of a gold male in his thirties. Eyes that could have belonged to the purest of gold stock, and once did, before Screwface got a hold of him and gave them to Mickey, stare back at me. I pull the man into a hug, careful not to crush him with my starshell. The Arcosian knights look more than a little confused, but only Severo, my wife, 
Theodora and Mickey knew the details of how we carved the man a new visage and sent him amongst our enemy as a mole nearly three years ago. Though I will need to know why he didn't warn us of Atalantia's ambush on Orion's fleet, I am happy to see him. I feel safer all of a sudden. Screw face, you old psycho, I say, leaning into him. Alexander stiffens at the presence of an original howler. Rona grins. She loves Screwface almost as much as she loves Freyhild, Safi's personal assassin. The name is Horatius Au Savag, you fool. As for old, Screw gives a little sniffle. I'm nigh on thirty-five. Savvy, my goodman? He cocks out a nasty smile. Figured you'd be near Turkey. If he burned cover, something bad is on its way. What's happened? Bad news, boss. Heliopolis is under assault. I feel a cold inevitability creeping upon me. What? Twenty legions of the second wave made landfall. Twenty crashed or had to abort. The storm has delayed those on the ground, but he'll likely send a strike force for the storm engine. More than a million men and tanks. Whose legions? Leopards. One at the vanguard. Ajax. I know. After Apollonius was captured on Luna, there was a vacuum in Gold Ground Command. I wondered who would rise to fill the Minotaur's place as their preeminent legate. Falth seemed poised, but Ajax has been making his bid. As violent as his mother, but twice as ambitious, he will assault the city till it falls, heedless of casualties. The man's a raging beast, with the unfortunate danger of also having a brain. Darrow, Screwface says, stepping close. What's wrong? Orion is dead. He looks stunned. For men like him, like me, who have fought this war since the beginning, there are so few who inspire us. Orion was that. We are lesser in her absence. I can't afford to mourn. With Tyche drowned and Heliopolis fallen, my army will have nowhere to retreat. We will be surrounded, bombarded and destroyed. The moment Harnassus predicted has finally come. I must choose between saving my army and destroying theirs. I stare across the drowning city at the Ash Legion safe inland on the Telerian Peninsula. Atalantia is there, trapped by the storm. I can find a way to cross, I'm sure. If Thraxa survives, if the Morning Star made it to her, if the First Legion still exists, they will give me the power to destroy Atalantia and her entire Ash Legion, the hard Lunese core of her army. It would be the greatest victory of the war. But it will cost me Heliopolis, and in the end, my army. The Republic could recover. Gold will not. Us for them would be the rational transaction. Orion deemed it worth the price. Hearing the words of the Ash Lord on my friend's own lips haunts me. A rational transaction. I look at the drowning population of Tyche, who welcomed us even when Heliopolis spat on us, and yet still fell on the wrong side of one human being's moral arithmetic.
and I see a spiralling spiritual darkness, ensnaring not just me, not just the friends whose cruelty I have emboldened, but Eo's darkening dream. Did this all begin with betraying the sons of Ares in the rim, with the destruction of the Ganymede dockyards, with my reign over Mercury? So many concessions in the name of necessity, so many horrors in the name of liberty. Where is the beauty I saw when Ragnar reached for Sefi's hand instead of his blade as he died? Where has our humanity gone? Is this why Severo left? He felt the creep of doom and sought to cling to light. I let fear drive my hope away. I let war become me, and my men followed. Atalantia's army isn't worth mine. If I die, it should not be taking her life. It should be saving theirs. Rona, I need you. Those three words make her ten meters taller. You can move in this bloody damn wind. Take the fastest two dragons and find the morning star. Find Thraxa. Tell them Tyche is lost. Heliopolis is under assault. They must cross the Ladon to relieve Heliopolis. Her mouth hangs open. You said... I know what I said. The Ladon has eaten three of the greatest armies the worlds have known. Is the fourth I will feed it my own? How will they cross the Ladon in this? Screwface asks. The Morning Star will be their stormbreaker. Captain Pellis is more than capable of the maneuver. If he's not, Char may be with them. Tell Thraxa to follow in its shadow. I'll take the armor through the mountains along the Kylor Pass and meet them at Heliopolis. Go! Rona spares a look to Alexander. Something passes between them, and she stands to forty meters. Nice seeing you, kid! Screw calls after her as she thunders away. Now this part. I take a steady breath and reluctantly turn to face Alexander. His eyes still watch Tyche in sorrow. Does your request stand? I ask. He stiffens in surprise. Yes, sir. There will be no rescue. The sea will come in. Well, I haven't had a bath in weeks. Why are you doing this? I ask, searching the strong bones of his face. They're just baked peasants. Even peasants don't float, sir. No amount of arrogance can hide the pain in his eyes. He blames himself for Angelia, perhaps even for this, but it also tears at him to see the suffering in the city. I feared he wanted to do this for me, to find favour in my eyes. All this time I held a mild disdain for him, because I thought my approval was all that mattered to the man. But he believes in the rising. I see it now, just as I saw this moment coming. The moment I must choose to spend his life. But he has surprised me by choosing to spend it himself. I could not be prouder of the man. He has become what Lorne should have been, and though the thought of losing him and Orion in the same hour nearly drives me to my knees, I nod. Very well. Take your nights. Thank you, sir. If you could do me a kindness. His bright eyes quest after Rona. 
she's already disappeared inland. Tell her to stop biting her nails. It's vile. He pauses. And that she was wrong about me. On impulse, I pull out my razor, and I'm about to deliver him the peerless scar when he stops my hand. I know what I am. Do you? I reach back to unclasp my wolf cloak from the ring on my left shoulder. Nearly losing it to the wind, I snap the clasps onto Alexander's mech. He falls to a knee, looking at it as if it were made all of diamonds. I lift him up. Howlers never knew. For once he has no retort, especially not when Screwface steps up to spit in his face to give him a proper welcome. The wind jams the spit back down his own mouth. Bucket and box will have to wait, kid. Screw shakes his hand and breaks the wind for us. Hold Atalantia as long as you can, then take the last tram and blow the tunnel behind you. Failing that, blow the tunnel and make for the mountains. I strip off my extra batteries. Alex pushes them back. You must reach Heliopolis, sir. He is right, so I keep them. Then your armor will be spent before morning. But if you can get to the Kylor Pass, you can follow it due south and make Heliopolis in two weeks. I forbid you to die, Howler. I want my cloak back. Severo will never let me hear the end of it. Yes, sir. Resolution makes a thin line of his mouth. Hail, Reaper. I salute him and the knights behind. Hail, Arcos. He bows slightly in Screwface's direction. An honor, sir. Big fan. I watch from the hill with Screw as Alexander and his Martian kin depart. Beset by rain and storm, the famous knights of Elysium trot down the hill in purple and silver armor to plunge toward the drowning city. They look like the last lords and ladies of a doomed age. Two hundred and three against an army and the sea. I turn with a heavy heart and head back to my men to lead them south toward the battle in the desert that will decide the fate of us all. Chapter 16 Lysander Rider of the Storm I wake in darkness to the sound of my star-shell's low oxygen warning. Seraphina is dead. Her prowess in battle far outstripped mine, yet I am alive, and she is not. It feels so unfair. That should not have been the end of her story, just like Cassius's end. From a distance, death seems the end of a story, but when you are near, when you can smell the burning skin, see the entrails, you see death for what it is. A traumatic cauterization of a life-thread. No purpose, no conclusion, just snip. I knew war was dreadful, but I did not expect to fear it. How can anyone not, when death is just a blind giant with scissors? This will not end well. Dido will sense a devious hand at work, because she did not see her daughter become a smear of organs, but Romulus knew. He dreaded this. He gave his life to stop this, and he failed. I do not look forward to telling Diomedes, if I even get the chance. 
The last thing I remember is existence breaking in two. At least that is the sound the sky made when the storm god fell to the desert floor. It was not Kalindora, or Rhone, or Cicero, whose payload destroyed the engine. Bitterly contested by the garrison, my Praetorians made three charges against the teeth of the enemy railguns. Only on the last did I manage to dispose my final missile into the gravity engines. It was not a conscious choice to forge ahead alone. An enemy munition simply destroyed my radio transmitter, so I did not know my wingmen were dead. Hours later, I still do not know their names. I feel that is immoral. I run a diagnostic. My railgun ammunition is depleted. Little charge remains in the energy core that feeds the pulse fist, engines, and life support. The star shell is already sapping power from my pulse armor to continue to function. I will have to disconnect soon. It takes the better part of five minutes to free myself from the sand. When I do, I lower my canopy and gasp for air. The morning smells of petrichor and ozone. It is already seventy degrees Celsius. The sun hides behind irradiated clouds, lightning dances in the black north. Though I am in a pocket of peace, the sandstorm still roils in the deep desert. In all directions, veils of dust shimmy across the landscape like tattered skirts. Mounds of sand shiver around me as Praetorians and Scorpions climb their way out of the sand. It is 0630. Ajax should be here by now. Did the storm take him? What fate has befallen the invasion to the north is all lost to the sea. As I move to help the Praetorians, my starshell rattles in protest and freezes as hydraulic fluid pours from the pelvis. I release the inner latch and climb out. I barely recognize the war rig I rode down to the planet. Only my pulse armor is undented, I check to make sure my Bellona razor is still in its leg holster. Then I ping Serafina's tracking node. There are no results. The Ladan has taken the daughter of Romulus. A blood fly as thick as my thumb pesters my face. I barely move as it bites and drinks from my neck. I push it against my skin until it pops. More buzz nearby. Hundreds. I follow their current until they make a cloud over something on the ground, a dying horse. It is a wild sun-blood mare, the most cherished of Mercury's carved wonders. Its legs are beyond mangled, and its skin is gone. Only its orange mane remains untouched by the feasting flies. Roan kneels beside it, his star-shell discarded in a dune. Freed of his own star-shell, Cicero saunters over, rubbing his jaw with his pulse-armor gauntlet. Oh, pity, our sun-blood! Before all else, Praetorians are equestrians. Before they learn to shoot, they shovel stable stalls. Each is given a young horse to train while at the ludus. At the end of their training, they are given a gun and told to kill the horse. The mindless killers that do are bound for the Black Ops legions. Only those that prove themselves loyal to their comrades, be they beast or man, are trusted to guard the blood. Roan has likely not seen a horse in many years. 
Did you know there were once fifty thousand griffin on Mars? he asks, as he strokes the mare's forehead. Poachers sell their talons and feathers to new money on Luna. Now there are less than five hundred. The horse jerks as Roan's pulse knife sinks into her brain. Nothing beautiful survives the mob. The flies continue their feast as he stands. They will have found Seraphina by now. Who will they find next? By the look in Roan's flinty eyes, I know I am not the only witness to the horror. It's just a wild mare. There are thousands out here, Cicero says. My stallion blood of empire makes that one look like a pony. I turn to him until he leaves, muttering about the loonies. I look back at the horse, seeing Seraphina in its place for some reason. Did you know her well? The Ra, Roan asks. Not as well as she deserved, I believe. She thought little of me, truth be told. Kalindora marches up. She looks at the sky. Ajax is late. Praetorian, report. By Roan's count, our casualties were ninety-four. Thirty dead, the rest missing or injured. Of the nine hundred Praetorians left, only thirty star shells are still operational. Cicero's force is slightly larger, but bore more of the casualties. Shell cannibalized the pulse armor power, Rome continues, as I walk with him amongst the Praetorians. Over seventeen hours of sustained engagement and that wind, he shakes his head. Only thirty-three have juice for boot liftoff. It'll be a hike. The grey Praetorian squints south. Few features interrupt the arid plier. We can make it. Cicero laughs from the nearby dune. He slides down it like a child, to come to a sitting posture in front of us. My good man, loath though I am to contradict a soldier of your stature, this is my desert. Any man whose boots are dead will die here unless the shuttles come. Without cooling, your pulse armor will become an oven. How much is left in your water reserves? A third? We are kitted for heavy combat in the north, not the fucking Ladan, he sighs. But do you really suspect something they call the Eater of Armies is to be anything less than an Eater of Fucking Armies? He glares at me and stands. What the hell is that reprobate Ajax, anyhow? Man-made thunder rumbles to the south. Ah, so he's begun without us. That muscled, walking penis. I ask Roan if the comms are still down. He nods. Orbit's no go. He gestures to a group of Praetorians atop the storm god. But we're boosting our signal with a field array. Should be able to reach Iron Leopard Command in a few minutes. What the devil is she doing over there? Cicero squints at Kalindora. She stands on a dune to the west, looking out at the dust-veiled deep desert. Composing poetry? I use precious suit energy to join her. I call her name as I land. She motions me to be quiet, and cocks her head to the wind. Dust sprays as Cicero lands as well. Do you hear that? she asks. No, he says. Is it the planet asking why House Loon hid the Storm God from their vaunted ally? Shut up, Cicero. Only because I'm thirsty. I join her on a knee and listen. 
Granules of sand clink against my armour, a lizard's tiny claws crackle as he moves shadow to shadow. Thunder rumbles in the north. Wind whispers around me, whistling through the boulders, through my armour. It carries the sounds of distant machines. I bolt to my feet. Someone moves within the storm. Those are Drachenjäger footfalls, Kalindora says. Oh, dear, Cicero says. He backs up. Time to go. Searching the waste around us, I don't know how we can. Dunes and the storm to north and east, flat, hard pan to the south. The eastern mountains are the closest cover, but the machines move between us and them. Except for the downed storm god, there is no refuge for our men on foot. Nor can we bear the weight of all their armour. It would take ten minutes to get everyone out of their suits. Far too long. We burst back to the Praetorians, and land where Rhone has set up his comms tower on the hull of the storm god. There's a gargling sound as the signal connects. Ajax's voice is washed in static. His face warps in and out. Lysander, I see you seized the moment. I had no doubt you would... "'Octavia would be proud,' his voice mocks me. "'Where's our evac?' I snap. "'We have inbound enemy armour. Our shells are dead. Our mobility—' "'It doesn't seem long ago that we were last in New Sparta, does it? "'Ajax, we need evac. Do you register?' "'I looked forward to those winters on Grandfather's estate more than anything. "'Believe me when I say that.' You were less serious there, away from the old crone. There was no one to impress. Not until Grandfather took us hunting and left us in the bush. He told us to race back. His eyes narrow. You remember? Of course you do. You remember everything. Kalindora's face falls, as she understands. Cicero's face becomes a mask of utter contempt. I hold out hope that it is not what it seems. You remember how I begged you not to leave me behind, because I sprained my ankle? Didn't really. I was just afraid of being left alone, because you were always so sure where you were going. If it was just us, you would have helped me. But you had to win, didn't you? You had to show them that you were worthy of being the heir of Selenius. His lips curled back from his teeth. You left me behind. It took me three days to find my way back, and when I did, Grandfather wouldn't even let me join the dinner table because I was unwashed. You found me crying behind the stables, you'd brought me your own food, and you sat with me. And do you remember what you said? Ajax, you really must learn your navigations, Ajax. I see. The silence between us is cold and final and mutually understood. Is this your choice, or Atalantia's? Mine. I will mourn for you, little brother, but I will not step aside. This is my time. Give Kalindora my apologies, but she chose poorly. He pauses, no mockery in his voice. Should the void take you, celebrate, my brother, for before death there was glory. The link drops. I stand rooted to the spot. I thought if betrayal came it would come from Atalantia, not Ajax. 
I saw the signs, but I chose to believe in a friend. What a pity for us both, for all those memories to come to this. Is this how Cassius felt? I am to die for a brotherly feud, Cicero spits. This is utterly Venusian. Rome speaks in a tight whisper. My liege, we can evacuate you south via air. And how many men could we take? I ask. Less than a third. I search the Praetorians on the ground beneath, as they attempt to leech energy from downed star shells. They came for me. To save my life, I would have to abandon six hundred of them. I search for some alternative and find only one. I would know the names of my wingmen on the third charge, Flavius Tivesia and Carandi Occipiter. I repeat the names as the sound of the enemy machines grows louder. What would Octavia do? I ask. Rome says nothing. She would run, Calendora replies with a blank expression. A fine idea, Cicero says. Let's... I stare into the dust. If that is the measure of our loyalty to our men, perhaps we deserve to die. Calendora tilts her head at me. Are you mad? Cicero's narrow eyes go wide. Rome steps forward. My liege, you are... Not a sovereign. Not anything, really. I grimace. But I will not live while men sworn to me die. I know the risk they took in coming here. Calendora gives me a nod of surprised approval. Roan, prepare the Praetorians as you see fit. The enemy won't be long. This is not how Rome thought it would be, but he holds his salute for an extra second before hopping down to his men. I will not die here, Cicero says. Your boots have juice, you fool. Enough to get you to Heliopolis. Go if you must, Cicero. I abandoned the Praetorians before. I will not do so again. He comes within an inch of my face. They say a strain of madness runs through the gens' loon. Oh, how right they are. Farewell, ye infected victims of the martial disease. Cicero takes to the air without a word of apology to his men, who cannot follow. Two dozen fly with him. More than twelve hundred watch their leader go and look down at their depleted armour. I remain with Kalindora atop the storm god as the enemy machines groan and rattle within the dust. I close my eyes, seeking my mother's face. Even now in the darkness I cannot find her. I feel so alone. Then I hear Kalindora draw her razor. Lysander! When I open my eyes, a single figure emerges from the dust less than a kilometre away. A desiccated rug flaps from his shoulder. He spots us on the storm god and thrusts his hand up into the profane crux. Only a few of his words reach us. Heart beats like a drum. The scout disappears, and a moment later the sound that has plagued my dreams from the palatine to the belt finds me in the desert waste. 
The sound could only come from a legion escorting the reaper. The howling of wolves. Carlindora goes still. He should be in the north, pinned in by Atalantia's legions, not a thousand kilometres south, not here. How could they still have power? How could they cross so much distance when we barely made it a hundred kilometres into the Hypercane's headwinds before draining our suits? Carlindora's awed voice answers the unspoken question. He rode the storm. The wait for Darrow is not long, but it is horrid. My eyes sting from the heat. It radiates up from the metal hull we perch upon. My nose fills with the fumes of machines, the dry lifelessness of the desert and smoke. The enemy emerges from the dust like a line of mechanized Mongols, a depleted legion of filthy metal Drachenjägers, carried by the winds of the storm, trudges over the crest. They are not so numerous as they sounded. I glance over at Roan. A grin spreads on his face. With the high ground and an entrenched position, we might yet survive this. Kalindora thinks otherwise. My tongue tastes the chalky roof of my mouth and feels the contours of my teeth. I tense my hand around my razor. It feels small in the pulse-armor gauntlet. I raise my helm. Stay with the air, Kalindora says to Roan. Thirty-three Praetorians with life yet in their star-shell cores cluster tight around me atop the downed storm-god's highest perch. Nearly two thousand scorpions and Praetorians shelter in firing lines along the rim of the broken engine below. It begins in silence, and then comes the terrific clamour of four wedges of Drachenjägers thundering across the desert. Their armoured legs, each twice as tall as a star-shell, eat up the distance. Guided anti-personnel missiles slither toward us. Interceptors race to challenge them. Depleted uranium rounds hammer through the wreckage around our position like it's cheesecloth. Praetorians fire back from prone positions all along the rim of the storm god. There are no better sharpshooters in all the legions. A drachen teeters sideways and explodes. Another runs off at an oblique angle as its pilot is shot through the cockpit. With a heavy anti-tank rifle, Roan fires down at the plane. I scan the charging drachenjägers. Darrow won't be in one of those rigs. He likes mobility. Where is he? I turn around to search our flanks for Darrow. As a boy, I watched him become a leader. I've studied him more than any other man. I know his trade, but that knowledge seems so useless here in the chaos of battle. There are only four directions, but Darrow has used so many tactics over the years. I freeze. It feels like it could come from anywhere. I spot shadows moving in the dust cloud, kicked up by the Drachenjäger's charge. He's using them to obscure his movements, I say to Kalindora. Like at the Battle of Gibraltar, with a frontal sally we can hit him when he swings to a flank. I concur. Prepare to charge, 
Kalindora tells the Praetorians. Star-shell pulse-fists whine as my men shunt their remaining core power to their weapons and their boots. The heat of the desert invades my suit. On Kalindora's signal, we break from our position, bursting upward into the sky and ricocheting forward, headlong toward the shadows over the charging Drachenjägers. Then something ripples above in the sky. A Praetorian's body comes apart beside me, bisected cleanly at the waist. I lift my razor just in time. Something clangs against it, knocking me downward. The air contorts above as men in ghost cloaks shear down through the centre of my charging Praetorians. I shoot point-blank at a blur and see the light bend as the railgun round goes through a man's chest. He spins downward, his wolf cloak rippling. I see the play too late to stop it. Darrow baited us with the shadows and flanked our aerial charge by sending a small group around to hit us as we forsook our position. They cleave through us. I pivot in the air to witness slaughter behind me. The world slows as I see him amidst my men, the camouflage withering away to reveal a hurricane in battered crimson pulse armor, a white razor sparking as it carves through a Praetorian star-shell to sever half his neck. I burst toward the reaper, and am smashed sideways as I collide with another body. Kalindora shields me from an armoured man's pulse-fire. Roan mows him down. I try to rally the left wing of my men, but it is a slaughter, and at the centre of it swirls a god of death. The fighter's helmet flashes. Around his body whirls that famous gold-killing blade. As violence reaches for him, Darrow does not flinch like a man. He reaches like a covetous river. He pulls violence to him, drinks it into his current, and leaps around the battlefield with a seemingly mindless capriciousness, which, when inspected, illuminates the genius of his violence. He herds us together, making sure we are tight and compact, so that our options constrict and his men's expand. It is something you can only understand when you feel dread sinking into you, when you realize you're between the claws of a trap, and they're about to close. You feel surprised that it was so easy to trick you, surprised that this is how it happens, all those years of preparing, reviewing battles, correcting others. It doesn't feel like we fell into a trap. It feels almost accidental, yet still inevitable. I feel small and stupid. Kill the reaper! I shout as I plunge for him, Kalindora at my right, Roan and three others at my left. We cut through two rising knights, and then, as if smelling the murder on our minds, Darrow, without even looking, jolts backward toward us at a surprising angle. A Praetorian's head splits in half. Roan is knocked from the sky. Kalindora's left arm spins from her body. My own razor arcs forward toward Darrow's turned head and finds only air as he performs some aerial alchemy and bends, floating upward, only to shoot back down. 
His razor slashes at me as he flies past. I parry, but the force is incredible. I feel a blazing pain in my arm. I'm struck again as he backhands me, like a child with his blade. The razor cuts through my grav boots, and I plummet from the sky. I slam down onto the hard pan, but do not lose consciousness. I stare up in my broken armour. Metal men dance against the crackling clouds. Bodies fall like dying metal birds, leaking blood and machine fluid. The reaper is already passing on, leaving the leftovers for his men. A starshell crashes down atop me, pinning me down. Another slams into the sand. I feel heat on my right cheek and turn just enough to see a downed shell's broken boot thruster sputtering flame against my helmet. I panic and shove in vain. Heat grows as it melts through the armour from the side. I shout and scramble, but I go nowhere as the heat intensifies and a hole opens in the right side of my helmet. My skin begins to itch. I flail, overcome with dread. The itch becomes agony. My right eyebrow curls as it burns. The epidermis begins to bubble and peel away. Fire reaches down to the dermis, shrinking it and splitting it open as fat leaks out and feeds the flames. The wolf howls fade in the distance. The flames eat my eye. Only then... Do I begin to scream? Chapter 17 Darrow Heliopolis We brush away light resistance at the down storm god. Without bothering to complete the kills, we head for Heliopolis. Behind us, we leave the enemy grounded or dying. Radioactive dust drifts south to dim the sun. Soon another sandstorm swallows the daylight entirely. Visibility shrinks, masking but not slowing our approach on Heliopolis. When we emerge on Ajax's rear, will it be to a conquered city? Will we be alone against ten legions? Will our own guns be turned to be used against us? Or will the Morning Star have somehow shepherded my army through the waste? I can only hope just as I hope Alexander is not drowned beneath the sea. Forward, forward, one foot after the other. My Drakenjägers have barely an hour of charge left. My star shell is dead in the desert. Half the others managed to save energy by riding the Draken through the storm, all trudge on their own now. We hold on to sanity by a thread. Our water ran out in the night. Our ammunition is low. Stims power our senses and keep us from succumbing to the side effects of either the anti-rads or the radiation itself, but they have hollowed our cores. Twenty-four hours engaged with the enemy. How many days awake does that make it for me now? Six? Seven? I could not sleep in the passage, despite my perch on the Drakenjäger. The night was hell, and howling wind and avalanches so frequent we had to abandon the pass and risk the desert. Blackness was our master. Static and sand and gargling radiometers narrated our endless nightmare. Orion's storm no longer escalates, 
but it has run wild without her focusing its wrath. Two sandstorms swallowed a third of our number. The rest, including myself, face cellular decay from fallout. I puke again into my cockpit. The catch is full. The vomit laced with blood. It leaks down into the cracks that trickle over my armored legs. My head pounds, eyeballs aching at their roots. My symptoms are minor compared with the grays, blues, and our remaining obsidians. Some have already succumbed to delirium as their DNA unwinds. Only the reds and golds hold strong. I just want rest. I just want water. And to sleep. Forward. 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 The morning is the color of bronze when we come upon the graveyard of tyrants. Parnassus dumped the monoliths the golds built to honor seven centuries of sovereigns in the desert. The giant statues lie on their backs as sand swirls around them. A skirmish was fought amidst them. Waves of sand lap at the half-submerged and smoldering carcasses of war machines. The debris field thickens. Phantoms move through the dust. Lone infantrymen without clothes and covered in blood walk past us. We cannot tell their tribe. Blackened husks sit cross-legged in the sand. A desert hyena dial gnaws at a dead man, looks at us, bans the threat wings on its neck, and flees as an artillery shell detonates nearby. War machines scream and groan in the distance. Their shadows flit through the gloom, growing more substantial with every step. It is like emerging from one dream into another. I draw what remains of my force up on a hill with a view of the storm wall of Heliopolis. Our flanks secured by a sheer mountain facade, I survey the siege with screwface. My heart sinks. Heliopolis has fallen. With the desert storm guard down, the storm has lost its direction. It sweeps eastward. Ajax's army fights in the sunshine. Acrid smoke rises from huge gashes in the storm wall. Iron leopard and fulminata shock troops claw through gaps three hundred meters from the ground. Tanks roll into canyons bored through the durosteel by particle cannons. A firefight rages on the ramparts of the wall, where a thin gap exists between the wall and the shield. Her great guns are silent. Parnassus may already be dead. If they take the city, if they take down her shield generators, the Ashmada can reinforce them and lower torch ships and Anihilo herself across the south. My army will come out of the desert after surviving the storm and be met with oblivion. Screwface understands. I'll scout forward and see where we should hit. He jumps off the ledge to cross the boulder field below in small bursts. I turn back to my men. They can hear the battle, if not see it. Less than a third of the force that set out for Tyche joins me on the hill. Many lie dead in the plain of Caduceus, or were swept away by water or wind on our path to Tyche. Alexander is gone. Rona and Colloway sent into the storm. It has been nearly twenty-four hours since I've seen Thraxa. Only Felix is left amongst my gold howlers. 
I feel the despair. Where is the morning star? A green pilot asks. His hair has already started to fall out. His mech is smoothed by sands like a river stone. Does his gun even work? It is on its way, I say. We must buy Harnassus time. One last charge of metal. I will... The green's head disappears. Screaming munitions slam into my men from above with pinpoint accuracy. A depleted uranium round gouges a hole through my armor and punches through the meat of my right hamstring. I go down hard. Spitting dust from my mouth, I watch as shrouded figures in billowing desert cloaks fall from a cliff hundreds of meters above. Bursts of air come from their skip boots, cushioning them as they land on my Drachenjäger's open cockpits to drive razors through the top of my pilot's skulls, or land behind them to scalp off their faces or claim their heads. I can't tell if Felix goes down. In less than ten seconds, I am the only one alive, except for a pilot they pull from his cockpit to vivisect on the shoulder of his own mech. Rough hands cut me from my starshell and drag me out. Men with masks of child's faces tear off my grav boots. The pilot screams above me. A boot stands on my throat as the man in the pale mask treads the sand to squat in front of me. They pour engine solvent on my face to clean off the blood. A hunched obsidian with giant sunburnt arms looms with a blowtorch. It's him, a heavy obsidian voice confirms. Gratitude, Farthgar. The fear knight takes off his gloves and puts them in a pocket of his scorosuit. It is a simple radiation-resistant and water reclamation suit. No armor for this impaler of men. No vestments of rank or gaudy embellishments. His cloak is tattered and eaten by the desert. His forearms cracked and baked brown. His gloveless hands pallid and thin as spider legs. He leaves his mask on. It is the face of a sexless child ringed with hair of serpents. No matter which way he turns his head, the child's eyes stay focused on me. The Pale Mask You asked me a question long ago. The mask wobbles. It was on Mars before we lost her. You asked, what do I fear? I fear a man who believes in good, for he can excuse any evil. He holds up a hand to feel the wind. What have you done? I try to spit on him, but there is no moisture in my mouth. Show me your face! Fear has no face. His head tilts. You still don't understand. No matter. Falfgar, Ravan, Kestrel, Thorhand, Kaffa. You have the cameras for his wife? Five of his hunting beasts step forward. Prime. Castrate him. Fuck him bloody in the ravine. He pauses. Before you slit his throat, feed him his cock. Yes, Dominus. Animalistic fear. I struggle in vain against the huge obsidians. They lift me as if I were a red again, and drag me toward the ravine behind my slaughtered men. The fear knight sits in the sand to watch them rape me, 
as Heliopolis falls. Not like this. Not like this. The slave knights toss me to the ground and shove my face in the sand as the rest watch. A boot pins my head down. I can barely breathe as they discuss how to cut off my armor, and then who will go first? A scarosuit buckle tinkles as it is unclasped behind me. A growing nausea and terror and... lightness. The hand that pushes on my head loses its strength. I twist my head. Grains of sand trickle upward. The obsidian's white hair floats in a corona. A shadow creeps across the sand. They try to push me down, only to float upward themselves. A horrible laugh bubbles out of me as a voice filled with static sings over my open com. If your heart beats like a drum and your legs a little wet, it's cause midnight's come to collect a little debt. You pricklicks, I hiss through the sand. You forgot Colloway Z. Char. With all my might, I shove off the ground. Combined, they weigh more than a ton in their gear, but in the gravity shadow of the Moonbreaker there is no weight. We launch upward. The sudden reversal confuses their equilibrium. They held me down with boots and pressure, but had no clean grip. They try to invert themselves to grab at me, but only turn themselves into a spin. I float cleanly away, waiting till a boot spins past my head. I seize it and jerk down, levering the top of my skull into the bottom of a jaw. It shatters. I pin the larger man to myself and headbutt his face until I feel it cave in. Dizzy, I strip his long knife and ride his body to the ground, where I launch up to the next. Blood in my eyes I can barely see. He tries to orient himself, but I've played more in zero-G. I pass him without touching drawing the long knife along his body and opening his torso from groin to throat. Two of the others fire at me and suffer the consequences of recoil. They become minor threats. The last, five meters away, pulls his gun, but the movement itself sends his body spinning backward. I throw the knife and suffer the spin. I crash upside down into a rock wall. My armor crunches and I hold on backward, I try to orientate myself. The fear knight saw me kill his men from only fifteen paces away, but only just escaped the clutter of his floating men. He uses his boots to burst toward me, sliding sideways through the air, his long rifle aiming for my head through the floating mechs. He fires. Then gravity returns. A falling mech intercepts his shot. His men slam downward as the morning star bursts out of the shroud of dust that hangs over the desert. It boosts upward and roars past through Heliopolis. I nearly lose purchase on the rock and fall to my death as blinding light explodes from the battered moonbreaker to wipe away an entire cohort of enemy tanks. A wall of iron churns over the desert to the northeast, appearing out of the shadow of the morning star and its own shroud of dust. The first army has come to Heliopolis. It passed through the wastes of Ladon in the night, through a path paved in the storm by the morning star. Most of her cannons have been mangled by the storm, but rip wings pour out of the moonbreaker, followed by star shells, transports, and barges of infantry. A great howling fills the air. A magnificent, 
dusty figure in a streaming wolf cloak and bearing a warhammer falls from the sky. The fair knight looks up at Thraxa Autelemanus in full-charged war gear, looks at me, takes aim, and then disappears in a missile strike. Thraxa catches me before my fingers give out on the rock face. She floats me down to the ground, kissing my face with her fox helmet. You beautiful bastard! Rona found us! The star paved our way! You beautiful genius! You sick, twisted god! A quaking of fear enters my chest, and then warps into fury as I think of how they nuked my men, cut their throats, pushed my face in the dirt. Feed me my cock, will they? I push Thraxa off. I need boots, starshell, ammo. And this, sir, a voice says. Rona skims toward us with my sling blade. Her mech is gone. Found it in the sand. I catch it in the air. Thraxa pats her hammer with a smile. Shall we? The battle tips with the coming of the morning star, but with most of her cannons damaged, it does not end. She diffuses her gravity shadow and hangs over the battle to serve as a support platform. The bulk of the killing lasts well into the mid-afternoon. Temperatures swell to 190 degrees Fahrenheit, where resting a naked hand on metal will blister the skin in half a second. The bloodiest of the fighting takes place at this miserable hour, and it is then that the Iron Leopard's armoured line finally breaks. With a mighty main corps finding nowhere to retreat, the infantry is pressed against the broken walls of Heliopolis and butchered. The bodies stack five metres high. Infantry choke the giant fissures in the wall. Tanks roll over them in the smoke and the desperation to escape. Many suffocate in the press or drown in mud made of blood, urine, and coolant fluid mixing with the dust. Those who manage to escape the first army leak into the city, where they are hunted down by Harnassus's enraged defenders, the Sky Rangers, and the aerial infantry dropping from the morning star. I cannot stop the bloodshed, nor do I stop my own. Wild and driven mad by the atomic bombardment, the storm, and the desert crossing, my men descend the moral ladder to become demons, severed of any creed they once possessed. The butchery is staggering. Those of the enemy unlucky enough to be cornered can do little but add their corpses to the bulwarks of the dead. Still they refuse to surrender. I have never seen such valour. If it is not that, it must be madness. The Terran legions refuse to yield. They retreat, rally, retreat, rally. Ajax stokes them to a fevered mania. He roams the lines, always just out of my reach, always sallying forth. Time and again they leak through our assault so that I feel like a man rushing between cracks in a dam, trying to hold back a flood with his bare fingers. I range across the thirty-kilometre front, everywhere and nowhere. I blunt a tank breakout on the western flank, exchange star shells at the foothills of the Hesperides after taking a round to the chest. I chase grey riflemen into the jagged hoodoos of the Eagle Mountains to the east. I fight two obsidian berserkers until they crawl legless toward me, still swinging their axes. I stifle a counterattack of grey heavy infantry, 
and take respite and water in the shade cast by a crashed torch-ship before abandoning my fourth star-shell of the day. Few remain operational. Those that do drain their energy cores before the sun begins to set, a full thirty-eight hours after the battle began. When Ajax is left alone with a cadre of his personal guard, after attempting a breakout, he finds himself cut off. When he sees me coming, he finally takes flight with a fifty-strong corps of peerless. A cry of mockery goes through my legions. I set off in pursuit, but my boots have little energy left. Thraxa likewise only makes it five clicks before doubling back to see me exchanging my gravity boots. She sits down in the shade of the tank beside me and sifts through a stack of battery spikes, inserting one at a time to rebuild her pulse armor's charge. Fucking snake shit, she growls in disappointment. I wanted that grimace head. Ammunition slams into the top of the tank above our heads and skitters into the sky to detonate. We barely look. Atlantia might demand it from him after this, I say. I wait for her to finish off the last bat spike. She picks up her gore-spattered hammer. Ready? Was waiting on you. None keep up with me the entire battle, not even Thraxa or Screwface. I rotate bodyguards by the hour, surviving off stims injected into the neck or snorted from smashed cartridges or chewed with my cracked molars. The world is thin and two-dimensional, colour leached like a faded mural in the ruins of a child's bedroom. My body is lead, the cells leached of energy, stims doing nothing but thinning my patience. The restraint that keeps me from sobbing or laughing maniacally is only as substantial as porcelain. As the sun begins to set, I hitch a ride on a transport missing its back half to the top of the storm wall. There I watch the spasms of the desert storm. Waves of sands blanket the fallen. The ranks of the dead stretch farther than the eye can see. My hysterical mind wanders. For a delusional moment, I believe the planet knows how far those boys and girls are from home, and thinks they are asleep, so it sends them blankets of sand to tuck them in for the night. A tight pain squeezes my chest. The breath goes out of me. Flanked by exhausted bodyguards, I hunch there on the shriveled husk of a broken gun. Arnassus arrives on the wall with a dozen lieutenants in tow. He stares at me as if I were inside out. Here you bloody are. I've crossed the entire front, he barks. They must have released psychotropic gas. Every single man I spoke to swears on his mother that he saw you. Where have you been? Everywhere, Screwface growls from my side. Onassis looks confused. He looks ragged. A nasty gash on his forehead leaks blood. Report, I rasp. His eyes narrow. Darrow, your hand. I look down at my naked left hand. My gauntlet broke, it seems. My skin is bubbling against the sun-heated metal. I pull it away and watch the blisters contract. Ah, there's the pain. Anassas babbles something about the enemy rallying at the Hippodrome and a force of enemy tanks lost in the storm now approaching. I try to reply, but my raw vocal cords finally surrender to the abuse of the day. Onassis blinks, 
something frightens him, as if he saw a spider on my face. I look down at my arms and legs, a second skin of clay made from blood and dust and irradiated ash coats me. My armor is holed and melted into the cauterized wounds, joints failing to respond to my depleted battery. The tightness will not let go of my chest. By Jove, man! Are you having a heart attack? Anassus calls for a medicus. The howlers rush to support me as I nearly tip over. I fail to push them off. Rona comes to my aid, understanding my distress. Not in front of the legions, she says. What do you need, uncle? Stones, I mumble. How many pops has he had? I pack seventy, at least six. Got four marks on his neck. Ten? That would kill a bloody damn horse. Stums, I mutter again, feeling dizzy. You'll die, you dumb bastard. Anassas looks about to fall over himself. Men trapped in desert. I look out over the battlements. I still have work to do. I look down to see Harnassus trying to push me back. Darrow, stop. Anassus reaches high to grab my face between his hands. You've done enough. Let us carry the rest. I stare through the wisps of his hair to the bodies melted into the steel of the wide parapet. They look like gargoyles with the faces of teenagers. The wind licks the dust from them. They are teenagers. The full weight of exhaustion settles on me. Who has a boot battery? Rona calls. Come on, you! Hey, shithead! Gimme! She takes the batteries from one of Harnassus's bodyguards and switches mine out. Uncle, you need to fly now. Do you understand me? For your men. They can't even stand, Harnassus says. He needs a medicus and an airlift. Back off, Screwface says. Who are you? Screwface. Bullshit. He is, Rona says. Mickey. Oh, well, I am in command now, Gold, Anessa says. Darrow needs, unless you've got a cloak, he ain't your pack. He's been mine since I was sixteen. You've got a battle to finish, sir. Anessa walks up to him and sticks a finger in his face. Get him inside somewhere and keep that man alive. Man? Screwface laughs. Hickest lupus, motherfucker. Anassus departs. Use my arm, uncle. I feel Rona take my weight. She can't handle all of it. Screwface comes to my other side. Gotcha, boss. Nice and easy. Just a little drama and you're done, yeah? With my surviving howlers around me, we take to the air. The ragged army pouring into the city roars in a weary wave as they see our tattered wolf cloaks soaring toward the mound of Votum. When we reach the mound, the howlers set me down near the top of the sand-covered steps. Armed men swarm the plaza below, bringing the wounded to the triage stations. Titan cannons boom near the spaceport. I cannot walk under my own power, but my howlers cluster around me so tight it appears as if I am unwounded. Dying men call my name. I stop when I can, but soon Screwface and Rona haul me away to the Votum family's reception chamber. It alone provides privacy.
under defaced gold statues. I collapse on the stone stairs, too tired and wounded for my howlers to dare strip off my armour. A medicus visits. I don't know him. I threaten his life if he tries to make me sleep. Screwface threatens his balls if I die. Rona pats his shoulder. The medicine the man administers eases the tension in my chest. I am numb with exhaustion, but I watch through the triangular hole in the ceiling as night falls. Screams and gunshots and wailing machines leak in from the darkness. In the early hours of the night, there is a commotion in the hall outside. Screwface goes to check on it. Rona sits on the steps below me, not speaking, a gun in her lap, even though howlers keep watch all around the building. Blood clots on the right side of her head. The great double doors swing inward, and Harnassus and Colloway enter. Thraxa Altelemaus stomps in behind them, brown with dust and blood, her armour holed like cheesecloth. She throws a bundle of gold standards on the floor. Dozens more legionnaires file in behind her, each hauling an armful of enemy standards, some with gold gauntlets still gripping their poles. They pile them until the stack is even taller than Thraxa herself. She slams her heels together, raises her burned fist, and declares, Victory! Part Two Craft It is easier to find men who will volunteer to die than to find those who are willing to endure pain with patience. Julius Caesar Chapter 18 Virginia Sovereign I stare half-blind into a firing squad of fly-eyed cameras. Out the viewport behind me, battle stations and ships of war float beyond the upper atmosphere of Luna. Eight billion eyes watch me. Citizens of the Republic, this is your sovereign. I come to you with dire news from aboard the SRN Dreadnought, Echo of Ares. On Friday evening last, the third day of the Mensis Martius, I received a brief from the brave men and women of the Republic Reconnaissance Division. This brief, gleaned from our human and mechanical network of sensors, telescopes, scout ships, and informants throughout the Corps, indicated that a large-scale society military operation was underway in the orbit of Mercury. The largest in material and manpower since the Battle of Mars, five long years ago. I considered it in the public interest that this information be kept secret until a resolution was found. The darker heart of me feared it would be my part to announce the greatest military disaster in our short but storied history. I thought, and many studied minds, civilian and military alike, agreed that the whole of the Republic Expeditionary Force would be shattered by orbital bombardment, fractured into isolated centuries, and decimated by artillery, disease, starvation, and thirst. That the Free Legions, the beating heart of this great human enterprise, which has broken the chains on Luna, Earth, and Mars, and around which we were to build future legions of liberty, would perish under an iron rain in the deserts and mountains of Mercury. Now I stand before you with that precious word on my lips, 
victory. Attacked from all sides, bombarded from the sky, unsupported by warships or satellites, outnumbered by the enemy air force ten to one, the free legions shattered the pride of the enemy host, encircled and destroyed most of their vanguard against the walls of Heliopolis, and, in the face of overwhelming odds, survived. That is victory, resounding, but not eternal. Now is not the time to congratulate ourselves or claim we are responsible for this miracle. We are responsible only for this crisis. Lured by the false promises of an enemy plenipotentiary, we allowed our resolve to weaken. We allowed ourselves to believe in the better virtues of our enemy and that peace was possible with tyrants. That lie, seductive though it was, has been exposed as a cruel machination of statecraft created by the newly appointed dictator of the society remnant Atalantia Algrimus. Under her spell, we compromised with the agents of tyranny. We turned on our greatest general, the sword who broke the chains of bondage and demanded he accept a peace he knew to be a lie. When he did not, we cried traitor, tyrant, warmonger. In fear of him, we recalled the home guard elements of the White Fleet from Mercury back to Luna. With the echo of Ares and her battle group undergoing repairs on Phobos, this left Imperator Aquarii with barely half her fleet to fight the duplicitous dictator. Now, her fleet, the fleet which freed all of our homes, floats in ruins. Two hundred of your ships of war destroyed, thousands of your sailors killed, millions of your brothers and sisters marooned, quadrillions of your wealth squandered, not by virtue of enemy arms, but by the squabbling of your senate. I gesture to the forty-five blue captains of the Ares battle group and twenty-eight wrathful centurions of my husband's seventh legion standing behind me. While their brothers die in the Ladan, the legion agonizes on Luna. Trapped after being summoned to walk in the triumph honoring Mercury's liberation of all things. A triumph the Senate commissioned. They are not pleased with the irony. And I am not pleased Severo would rather play avenging father than stand with them. I wave my hand at the noble soldiers. The echo of Ares, her battle group, and the seventh sail for Mercury in four days' time. The Senate says they will sail alone. Against the Ash Armada, they will most certainly perish. But they sail nonetheless, because they do not abandon their own. Were it within my power, I would send the entire might of our planetary defense fleets to aid them in this venture. But it is not within my power. That power lies with your Senate. From the inception of this crisis, I have urged them to use it to bolster this rescue fleet with ships from Earth and Luna's home guard, or Mars's ecliptic guard. Again and again my efforts have been rebuffed by the demagogues of the Vox Populi. They refuse to act, and they are not without support from you. I have heard it said in these last months, in the halls of the Senate, on the streets of Hyperion, on the news channels across our Republic, that we should abandon these sons and daughters of liberty 
these free legions. I have heard them called, in public, without shame, the lost legions. Written off by you, despite the courage they have summoned, the endurance they have shown, the horrors they have suffered, for you. Written off because we fear that to part with our ships will invite invasion. Because we fear to once again see society iron over our skies. Because we fear to risk the comforts and freedoms the men and women of the free legions purchased for us with their blood. I will tell you what I fear. I fear time has diluted our dream. I fear that in our comfort we believe liberty to be self-fulfilling. I lean forward. I fear that the meekness of our resolve, the bickering and backbiting on which we have so decadently glutted ourselves, will rob us of the unity of will that moved the world forward to a fairer place, where respect for justice and freedom has found a foothold for the first time in a millennium. We have let our union erode to tribalism. We hoard our wealth. We abandon our votes for violence. We summon tantrums instead of gritting our teeth in common purpose. I pause and make sure this stands apart, knowing that the syndicate queen, wherever she is, will understand my declaration of war. We aid our enemy. Even now, terrorist organizations like the Lunar Base Syndicate and its franchises eat at our foundation like termites by funneling helium-3 into the bellies of society war machines and the ships of Askamani raiders. Reporters murmur from the shadows beneath their camera drones. I fear that in this disunity we will sink back into the hideous epoch from which we escaped, and that the new dark age will be crueler, more sinister, and more protracted by the malice which we have awoken in our enemies. I believe this truth manifest. The free legions are not lost. My fist hammers my lectern. While we abandoned them, they did not abandon us. They did not cave to despair. In the cold of our neglect, in the shadow of atomic clouds, they triumphed. Yet, despite this victory, their time is short. They have blunted Atalantia's blade, but not her will. Pushed back to the city of Heliopolis and its attendant lands, millions of free men and women dig in to face the onslaught of enemy armor. Their supplies run low. They are surrounded. They are outnumbered. They have risked all to protect you. Now it is your turn to risk something for them. I call upon you, the people of the Republic, to stand united, to beseech your senators to reject fear, to reject this torpor of self-interest, to not quiver in primal trepidation at the thought of invasion, to not let your senators hoard your wealth for themselves and hide behind your ships of war, but to summon the more wrathful angels of their spirits and send forth the might of the Republic to scourge the engines of tyranny and oppression from the Mercurian sky and rescue our free legions. I let the silence stretch to the hearts of the free and into my own. There was a moment before this doom, one I cradled close, like the last candle on a dark day, a moment of peace, where Darrow was not yet my husband, and we sat in the sands of earth, watching Severo 
and Victor swim out to see the eagle nests among the sea stacks. Darrow cradled Pax in his arms. They had only just met, but he loved him because he was my boy, and bit by bit he realised he was his boy, our boy that we made together. He put his ear to Pax's chest to listen to his heartbeat. He told me then what he felt when he declared this war within the hives of Phobos, how he was not close enough to hear the fading beat of his father's heart, or Eos, but how, in that moment, he could feel the hearts of his people beating across the darkness, how, in the heartbeat of our son, he could hear them all again. I have never equaled my husband's spirit. For so many years I led for guilt, for duty, seldom for love, all while fearing the coldness in my ancient blood would forever rob me of the passion to hear the pulse of the people. But I hear it now. I hear it as free hearts beat behind me, as they beat in their bunks on the torch ships that patrol the edges of free space, as they beat in the shadowed veins of asteroid mines, in the smoky dens of hinterland trade depots, in ore caravans, deep space way stations, in the rattling assembly lines of Phobos that make the ships which protect our liberty. I hear it in the megalopolises of Mars, the broken streets of fallen Olympia, the tempestuous wine bazaars of Thessalonica, the quiet shadow of the Aegean citadel from which my father once gripped the throat of a planet, and now there towers a monument to the rebel girl he hanged and made immortal. I hear them in the jungle sprawl of Echo City, in the glittering spires of old Tokyo, in the martial training grounds of New Sparta. Yet I sense them fading in the assimilation camps, the overflowing prisons, the broken cities, the tenement houses filled with labourers who have lost their purpose to progress, in the chanting vox hordes who clog the streets of Luna, and in the halls of power where senators whisper how much they charge. Soon these fading hearts will join the ashes of new Thebes in their silence. They will join the mining townships made into necropolises by the Rat War. The lingering rubble the Block War left strown west of Hyperion, and the irradiated stormland of the Helios. I fear that my subjects will return to their private concerns after this speech. It is always the same. The eyes wander away, and vapid glitter again rules the feed. Brothers and sisters, my voice nearly falters, as I feel more than ever the absence of my husband's hand on my shoulder. My son will not be waiting on my shuttle to critique my speech. Brothers and sisters, there will dawn a day when these hostile hours, these days of hatred and violence, seem the faintest of memories, but dark and steep and long is the road up out of hell. So do not tire, do not despair, do not abandon your brethren, and do not forget that through this darkness we, and we alone, carry the light of freedom. We must defend it with every cell in our bodies. If not now, when? If not us, who? I make my hand a fist and raise it in salute. Hail, Libertus! In the back of the room, 
beyond the jaded circus. An old red janitor forgets himself and bellows with all his tiny might. Hail, Reaper! More join him. Hail, Reaper! More and more until half the room shouts my husband's invocation. But the rest stare in stony silence. At that moment, 384,000 kilometres from my heart, in orbit 1,000 kilometres above the wayward continent of South Pacifica, a new battery of twin prototype railguns, named the Twins of South Pacifica for Earth's favourite son and daughter, set their telescopic sights on a path of empty space ten days ahead of Mercury's orbital path and fire at full power. Projectiles skinned with stealth polymer race into the void at 320,000 kilometres per hour, ferrying not death, but supplies, radiation medicine, machines of war, and, if my husband is alive, a message of hope. You have not been abandoned. I will come for you. Until then, endure, my love, endure. Chapter 19 Virginia Stiletto Luna is a dream, a noise, a blaze of light, a soup, a swagger, a mother, a vampire, an addiction, a beggar, a lament, a suburb of Hyperion, and a memory of the future we thought we wanted. A dozen fleets waver through the gutter puddles of her rain-soaked streets, only to be shattered by the calf-high boots worn by the children of four planets and thirty moons. They swarm to her to climb her jigsaw bedlam of human and metal ladders. They are geniuses, architects, idiots, swindlers, warlords, the lost, the found, the indifferent. And indifferently she waits, throbs, beats, swarms, suffocates, promises, and robs. They call her the City of Light, but no one calls her home. What does Luna mean to you, Centurion? I ask from inside my private office aboard Pride One as we descend. Holiday T. Nakamura was raised along the sunny shores of South Pacifica, where there was not a building taller than a grain silo for a hundred clicks. I have named her Ducks of my Lion Guard, the elite bodyguard unit drawn from my house legions. Of the one thousand Martians, she is the lone Terran. That not a single man questions her appointment is proof enough of her reputation. They call her Six, meaning she's always got your back. Quicksand, she replies in regards to the moon. The reply mirrors the cold, rolled spirit of the woman. Of all my husband's instruments, it is Nakamura I've envied the most. Reputation, but little ego. Flexible, but unbreakable. Brutal, but not cruel. Over these last weeks, she has led the investigation into my son's abduction with grace. When their shuttle went down during Ephraim T. Horn's failed rescue attempt, it was as if the moon had swallowed Pax and Electra. I fought every instinct to tear apart the city to find them, knowing a stampede of Republic intelligence would disturb the breadcrumbs. Holiday was the scalpel I needed. 
And you, ma'am? she asks, folding her data pad back into its arm sheath. What does Luna mean to me? How to answer that? A thousand things. Renewal. I catch her smirk in the window. Like Daxo, she doesn't suffer hollow sentiments. Maybe one day that'll be true. My mother loved Luna, in fact. Before she decided throwing herself off a cliff and abandoning us was preferable to a single day more of matrimony with my father, she told me Luna was a place of magic. For it was the one place even Nero Al Augustus had to bow. Of course, she meant he had to bow to Octavia. Reductive thinking, really. Holiday waits for me to explain. I treasure her more than she knows. Especially over these last days. The unspoken peril of power is the receipt of unending, exhaustive peacocking. Unlike most, Holiday is not waiting for her turn to flash her feathers. She listens because she's heard enough noise to know that truth, if it ever appears, creeps in on quiet little feet. I step closer to the window. There's something here, I say. Something else that gnawed at Octavia. You know that feeling, Centurion. I look back at her. The diamond teeth of skyscrapers reflect in her eyes as we pass Quicksilver's zenith spire. This moon hungers. She makes a small sound of agreement as we pierce the cloud layer. Beneath it, Hyperion sees an existential mania. For fear of gold ships over her skies, protesters fill the streets. Violence has broken out between Optimate and Vox street factions. Watchman sirens bathe the sky in green and silver. Strikes have shut down the public trams, and now only the aerial arteries flow. Have you ever heard of Selenius's stiletto? I ask. After the conquest of Earth, the powerful houses engaged in a land grab, Holiday replies. Selenius was faced with a dilemma. To his left, anarchy. To his right, tyranny. Instead, he found the narrow path between, barely wide enough for the edge of a stiletto. Well, well, look who found time to read meditations. If Virginia Al Augustus gives someone something to read and they do not read it, they don't deserve the faculty, ma'am. I raise an eyebrow at her. You talk to your husband with that copper tongue. She grins. Then they're a fucking idiot, ma'am. I smile. Raw compliments are the best kind. Whatever you think of his politics... Selenius was wise. He knew patience is the heart of cunning. Theodora has discovered Senator Basilus has been taking bribes from Sun Industries. I am allowing him to retire to his home in Echo City next month. I will need a replacement for him before the year is out. She blinks when she understands my intent. I don't know if a toga would fit me, ma'am. How many senators were Praetorian dragoons who can also quote Selenius's meditations? Not one, I'd say. Aside from Rhone T. Flavinius, you're the most famous grey alive. And Earth loves you. I set a hand on the shorter woman's shoulders. She's really built like a pit bull, isn't she? No neck. We need simples, Nakamura. The old ones are fraying with use. Tell me your think on it.
She nods dutifully, but, like all true soldiers, doubts she'll survive long enough to have to make the decision. As much as I value her at my six, I wish she were with my husband on Mercury. Severo, too, for that matter. My husband needs a conscience on his shoulder. Thraxer and Orion aren't exactly a pacifying influence. As for Harnassus, well, dogs and cats. My datapad flickers with an incoming call. Nakamura heads to the door to give me privacy. Wait. I gesture to one of the Renadium chairs before my desk. I'll want your opinion afterward. As she sits, I open the call on the desk's projector. Dancer appears from the waist up. He's in a shuttle. A dark red jacket with a high collar substitutes for his loathed toga. The aging red doesn't look like he's slept in weeks. Pressured by me for the vote, and with his radical left solidifying around Arch Imperator Zahn, the blue commander of Luna's defense fleet, how could he? As my father said, never trust the man who sleeps under siege. He's either lazy or disloyal. If it isn't the loyal opposition, I say with a smile. My sovereign. He says the word as if it carried no more weight than coffee or peanut. Must say, for a kilo of gilded palatine snake shit, that was some damn fine oratory. Churchill? Humans haven't changed. Why should the speeches? Despite the liver spots and heavy lines on his face, he is still as handsome a red as I've ever seen. He grimaces. I must say it is odd. I've been called a traitor before. By Daxo, Quicksilver, Orion. Never suspected it'd feel so raw coming from you. I didn't quite, Virginia. I suppose I did. I brush invisible lint from my jacket cuff and sigh. A rhetorical ploy only, I assure you. He's no traitor. He's just afraid. But if I accuse a red man of that, he'll bite down and hold on like a tick. It doesn't have to be this way, you know. You and I flourish when we cooperate. We have had our moments. But here she goes. But our system isn't working as it should. The division of military command is a flaw we saw coming, yet kicked down the lane because we thought we were all going the same direction. Irresponsible of us, but understandable. Facts. Our enemy can respond with greater urgency and secrecy than we can. And not all senators prize prosecution of the war over the continued habitation of their togas. I need to be able to run this war efficiently. He knows I admire respectful dialogue and speaks in a neutral, even tone. Virginia. The Senate was intended to be inconvenient. A check on despotism. You know as well as I, whatever the executive gets, it keeps. Forever. You are measured. You are thoughtful. If we give you temporary control over the defence fleets, it may work this time. May. But your hamasha is that you think wisdom is contagious. It fucking ain't. You won't always be sovereign. What if it's Daxo next? Or Zahn, I suggest. Or Zahn. He rubs his lantern jaw. Only person besides you or me that wouldn't wreck the world is Publius. Self-righteous little twat that he is. 
Reds do hate their coppers. Publius? Ha! He just gives speeches all day on civic duty, I say, and ladle soup for the poor, as long as there are cameras. Naturally. We're united in a smirk, then return to our corners as he continues. Raw talk. You know I love the free legions. They're the best of Mars. You know I love Darrow like a son. But he's gone, Virginia. I buried him the moment I heard he landed in Tyche. Abandon this crusade for the good of us all. I watched the speech he gave denouncing my first attempts to send a fleet. He looked like he was picking the varnish for his own son's casket. The guilt must be devouring him. If he's alive, he's encircled, he continues. Atalantia will dangle him like bait. This is just another trap. We have more ships, but only if we leave a planet vulnerable. They will lure us out, take us away from our orbit guns and kill us, or just slip past and kill the planets. We're vulnerable in attack, strong in defence. Who do we have left that can match Atalantia and her gold pre-tours in space? Zahn? He shakes his head. Atalantia will eat her alive. Kavax, Niobe and the Arcos matriarchs will lead the fleet. Golds against golds. He hates that he wonders how it always comes to that, because he knows the answer. Not one of ours under sixty. Atalantia is in her prime. Ajax is a rising terror, and Atlas... Fact is, there's five hundred of them that'd make even Nakamura run in a meat straw. The old soldier likes his colloquialisms. This one is for a close-quarters battle, where two sides blow men into either end of a ship corridor till one runs out of breath, or men. It is an infantry term, so it is rather gross. More like five thousand, Nakamura murmurs. Not one for bravado, she makes a sniping motion. Her only salvation against the apex predators of my breed. I've seen her take down a peerless in close quarters. I also know the price she paid. Her legs are bionic from the femur down. At least they match her robot eye. And then there's Arja's brood, Dancer mutters. What happens if Ajax bores the Reynard? Kavax can barely walk around the garden. He knows what I know. Darrow was the force of nature we rode to victory after victory. Yet whenever the gold legates or praetors caught our other leaders in the field, they consistently made mincemeat of them. Wanting low colours to be equal to peerless in warfare is not the same as them being equal. Without Darrow, he has no confidence in our arms. But the risk is necessary. Dancer, my husband and the Free Legions are our two greatest symbols. If the Republic abandons the Free Legions, Mars will give up on Luna. Then Luna falls to Atalantia. Atalantia takes Earth. Mars stands alone. And eventually Mars falls. Give us an alternative. A compromise. I'll send my own ships. Kavaxes. Arcoses. But I need a hundred ships of the line from the defence fleets to stand a chance against Atalantia. That's less than a third of Luna's fleet. And if you lose? We won't. He sits in silence, rubbing his outsized hands together. The movement slows as his resolve forms. 
I hear the door shutting before he looks up. I missed my opportunity. Or perhaps it never really existed. I cannot risk those atomics coming here, he says. I may hate this human swamp, but it's filled to capacity. Then I wish you good health and ill fortune. Wait, Virginia. My hand hovers over the data pad as he leans forward, voice barely above a whisper. You know this will escalate. If I somehow fall off a balcony or eat an unruly fishbone, he hits the nerve. Pity. I never confuse you and Harmony. Yet after all this time, you still think I am my father. Or is it my brother? It's not you. It's your people. Daxo, you mean. And Theodora. The Seventh. The Arcosis. I have them under control. If he knew Severo was here and out of control, he'd be shitting himself. That's either a big fat lie or you're drinking your own swill. You and I both know Darrow and the Reaper are two different things entirely. And the Reaper didn't gnaw through the society because he was a better military strategist than the Ash Lord. His gift is making men go mad. You've seen it. I have. Fighter pilots going polyphemus and driving straight into the bridges of enemy tort ships. So much the golds put them in the centre of the ships. Unarmoured low-colours using their tattered bodies to weigh down armoured gold so their fellows can finish them, like hounds after a cougar, baying my husband's name. I didn't stop carrying a rifle because I was old or it was heavy, he says. I did it to counter the reaper's weight, as I never could in the legions. Some literally think he is a god. If they think he wants it, they'll murder cities. They'll murder me. There is a frail quality in him that goes behind weariness of the flesh. One he has never permitted me to see before. But the frailness is not weakness. It is a cornered spirit too tired for anything except a killing blow. If I am assassinated, the Vox will retaliate. I will control my people, I say. I wish I believed you could control yours. I will see you in three days, Senator try to avoid fishbones. I punch off the data pad. It fizzles with broken circuits. I punch it again. What good is being smarter than everyone if no one listens? Is this how my father felt? My brother? Is evil born of pure frustration? Holiday watches the blood drip from a gash on my knuckle. It's already coagulating. Even Mickey couldn't match that genetic blessing. Centurion, if I told you to kill Dancer O'Farren, would you do it? No, ma'am. Why not? If Darrow and Orion are dead, you two are the Republic. We don't know if they are or not. Communication to the planet is down, but I reject the concept of doubt. Darrow and Pax do not die. It is a paradigm of my life that will be true until proven beyond reasonable doubt. I lick clean the congealing blood. Good answer. Even Kavax would never have refused my father like that. If Holiday only knew how much her presence restrains my darker urges, she might think it wise to put a few rounds through my skull just to be safe. 
Make sure the word goes through the ranks again. If anyone so much as touches a hair on Dancer's head, the last face they'll ever see will be mine, as I entomb them in the bowels of deep grave, with only lonely bone riders for company. Yes, ma'am. But it's not them you have to worry about. She lowers her voice. The Seventh is climbing the walls. They think the Senate is filled with traitors. If Severo goes to them. He has 30,000 elite shock troops within 20 minutes of the Citadel. I'm aware, Nakamura. I am very much aware. I stretch my neck as my ship approaches the Moonhorn landing pad. Selenius walked his stiletto. I have no doubt we'll walk ours. What makes you so confident? Well, for starters, we have smaller feet. Chapter 20 Virginia Politicos Dictaean Antron, the personal skyhook of my closest confidant, Daxo, our Telemanus, and for ten years the informal headquarters of the Vox's nemesis, the Optimate Party, floats over the citadel. Daxo designed it himself to look like a brain. Viewed from above, it resembles little more than a pair of very engorged testicles, and everyone, excluding perhaps four people, is afraid to say so. For years I had him park it over the Sea of Serenity to maintain the impartiality of my office. And for aesthetics. There's little point to either anymore. Under its conjoined domes an army has assembled. Instead of armour, these soldiers wear high-collared suits, lion pins instead of phalera of valour, and carry data pads instead of rifles. The politicos of the optimate party are ready for war, as is Daxo's floating office. Inflatable beds fill hallways and offices in anticipation of the 72-hour blitz before the vote. Coffee carts trundle. Medici prepare their stim stations. Commissaries check their food stores. Dozens of senators join us in hologram conference from their homes in Hyperion and offices in the Citadel. The politicos assemble along the dome's tiered rows of data stations that encircle the gravity shaft down to Daxo's office. The politicos applaud as I enter, hailing my speech and chanting for Mars in honour of their fellow Martians, which comprise most of the Free Legions. They know the vote will be momentous, not just because of its material consequences, but because it represents a tectonic shift in our politics. Years ago, I predicted the natural evolution away from colour tribalism to planetary nationalism. Now it is here, and people are shocked, as though interest groups carve themselves out of the ether. We stand to lose moderate loonies, who fear invasion. Dancer stands to lose most Martians, possibly all Reds, who often vote against me, but have rediscovered their zealotry for my husband after his victory. As for Earth, it will be up for grabs. But after all the shifting and shaking, the vote will come down to Copper and Obsidian, who have declared solidarity and plan to vote as blocks. Win one, it's a knife fight. Win both, it's victory. Lose any of our foundation, silver, grey, white, and it's bedlam. The problem is, 
I know Sephi is not in her estate on Earth or on Luna. She smuggled herself to Mars weeks ago to link up with elements already there in Olympia. Bit by bit, she smuggles more obsidian and prepares her plans. Whole legions have gone missing. She thinks I don't notice. But how will her senators vote considering those plans? I haven't the faintest clue. I ask Flagellus, one of Daxo's premier pink apprentices, where his master is hiding. In a meeting with Senator Caravel. A meeting? In his office? Flagellus's cadre of politicos chuckle to one another. Much to our dismay as well. It seems Senator Caravel has more testicular fortitude than his side part would suggest. Senator Telemanus asks for you to do the honours and join him after. I feel a minor pang of disappointment. Only Daxo loves this weird game as much as I do. I was not as close with him as a child. In fact, I found his intelligence entirely too much like that of a shark. Restless and indefatigably predatory. But it was not Pax or Cabax or their sisters who pumped the water from my lungs when I struck my head on a coral reef as a girl. He saved my life then a deed that would soon become a habit. How many days did we sit together, composing ridiculous game theories and mock debates after I broke my leg in a fall from my father's prized sunblood? Without Daxo, this is a lonely endeavour. They can wait, Holiday says. She's been watching me. That obvious? I ask. I never drink tequila without Trig, she says. You and the brain have been planning this for weeks. It can wait five minutes. It's just the excuse I was looking for. I flash her a smile. Careful of the politicos. The carnivores. Atlas already tried that. I'm inedible. That I do not doubt. I jump down the shaft and free-fall two hundred metres until the gravity well slows my descent. My feet touch down in the centre of an aquarium... Walls of water stand a hundred metres high, held back from the central axis of the office by a stasis field. Smaller bubbles of water, restricted by secondary fields, wander through the office, ferrying carnivorous passengers to and fro. It is a game, you see. The trick for Daxo is never to let one of his seventeen infant gigavoc, cartilaginous pale deep-sea predators, exist within a sphere or wall of water with another. The species has stunted pituitary glands that limit their size to one metre, unless their glands are stimulated via cannibalism. In six years, there have been no fatalities within Daxo's office, except the unfortunate case of the peerless Venusian assassin who thought Daxo was sleeping. Seven gigavarks shared her for lunch. It was the most horrible thing I have ever seen in my life. Victra clouted Severo bloody when she caught him showing it to their daughter Electra late at night up in Lake Silene. My sister-in-law, for a lack of a more accurate word, has a theory that is not altogether mad. If Dictaean Antron is actually supposed to be a brain, pray tell what is the purpose of giant albino swimmers, their sperm, Virginia, giant predatory cannibal sperm, and not even five people have the nerve to say so. Daxo is playing a joke on the world just to measure who isn't afraid of him. I love that freak. And I miss that woman, 
despite her irascible idiocy. She might be the only human alive who can make me lose my temper with a single sigh about how coffee just tasted better when it was picked by slaves. I follow the sound of Daxo's voice through an amorphous corridor of water. A gigavark stalks me from a water bubble above. I try to ignore the metaphor. I find Daxo reclining on a fainting couch set on a Turkish rug, with the insouciant entitlement of a vacationing heiress, albeit a colossal bald heiress, who is equally at ease coaxing a political concession from a rival as he is smashing Venusian skulls with his personal collection of exotic weaponry. Sitting across from Daxo, in a simple off-the-rack suit, legs folded, hair parted, unremarkable face passive, is Publius Sue Caraval, the incorruptible tribune of the copper block, the media's voice of reason, and the most important vote in the Republic. What a catch! How in Jove's name did Daxo manage to part him from his soup kitchen? Come, come, Publius, Daxo purrs, making a small hand gesture to acknowledge my presence. You know how the game works. Concessions are as detestable, natural, and necessary in politics as flatulence in humans. Daxo, please. We both know when it comes to battles of rhetoric you have me unarmed. I've told you once, I'll tell you again. I cannot, in good conscience, vote to expand the Sovereign's powers when she continues to let Quicksilver run roughshod over this government and its people. His voice has a surprisingly alluring quality. He's already a fine orator. If he weren't so pecksniffian and added a little bombast to make up for his lack of presence, he would be nearly as good as me. Daxo makes a sound of mild disgust. Is the fate of the free legions worth such moral rectitude? Possibly, yes. He gouges us with prices, threatens the fabric of society with his attacks on unions and the common man. Just last week, his automatons put a million labourers out of work in Endymion. It wasn't enough he stole the Reds' minds through legal skullduggery. He's taking Luna, too. It is unreasonable to expect her to give the Silvers nothing, Publius. It is immoral to allow private citizens to hold this government hostage, Publius replies. I am sorry, Daxo, but it is a non-starter. The military side of your strategy is convincing, not that I could tell a decurion from a centurion, but I cannot vote for the bill if you cede to his demands. It is an issue of principle. I clear my throat and step out from behind the water wall. Publius jumps to his feet, startled, and sweeps into a bow perfectly attuned to the sizable respect he has for my office. Senator Caraval, I say, kissing him on the cheek. I admit I'm surprised to see you here, of all places. Yes, well, desperate times call for sacrifices from us all, he replies. He casts a look around, certainly irked by the gigavark and the ostentatiousness of the office. His own offices are kept in the same nondescript lower Hyperion building, where he served as a public defender for low colours before the rising. His assigned offices in the Citadel are too grandiose for his taste. Before the Rising, 
I couldn't imagine a world where he and Daxa would ever be in the same room, much less speaking as relative equals. Makes me smile a little inside, especially noting Daxo's annoyance. I was under the impression you viewed the legions as lost, I say, taking seat on a Turkish cushion. The incorruptible nods and retakes his seat. A deplorable presumption on my part, I fear. The numbers, you see. While my assessment was based on the data I had at the time, I admit to a certain dimming of faith. He hangs his head. I am ashamed for that, but not the assessment. I said the same to Daxo here. I judge a case based on its evidence. You know I am nosed to flim-flam, flip-flop, or whatever they call it these days, but the situation has changed. What your husband did... Staggering, my sovereign. Staggering. And the moral ramifications? I ask. He waves his hand before his face. Fascism is a scourge. Sometimes we must sacrifice to destroy it. So you no longer presume the legion's lost? No, he says. Your speech? Daxo's dogged pursuit? The Battle of the Ladan? They have woken the slumbering patriot. If we can bring them back, we make a statement that will ring through time. He steeples his fingers and leans forward. Yet I am in a bind. I am from this moon. I am expected to vote with the Vox. Even as they descend to fits of nonsensical maudlin hysteria, stemming from Cassandra syndrome, Daxo asks. Publius levels a look at him. I disagree with them, but I will not abide intellect slander. He turns back to me. My prior vocation taught me to be detailed in assessment and concise in judgment. The Vox fear momentary pain for long-term gain. We must save the legions. But the Silvers know how desperate this vote is. They will bleed you dry. I cannot allow this republic to become another plutocracy. I will not. So you blame them for ransoming their votes. Yet you've come to do the same to me. You've learned well. I'm not proud of it. Politics is an ignoble profession, but as I said, sacrifices. My electorate does not have trillionaires, much less a quadrillionaire benefactor. We are public servants. Ten times the population of Silvers. We have but the same ten senators they have. We must use what leverage we can. I expected as much. He's a patient man. Honest to the point of obnoxious, but worst of all, he knows when he has a strong hand. He knows I have more tricks. He wants me to use them on Silver. Somehow... He's found the only way to keep clean hands in this world is to outsource the dirty work. Lucky for me, as I have access to gloves and a long eye. Hypothetically, I begin as if the plan weren't already in motion for weeks now. What if I told you I could get the silver vote? Maybe not all, but enough. Without one concession. And when the Senate temporarily expands my powers... I will annul many past concessions. 
He leans forward. Then, hypothetically, I am intrigued. But I should hear no more, of course. Of course. I'll take my leave, then. He stands and shakes Daxo's hand, then mine. A servant appears to guide him to a secondary door in the floor. Before he descends, he glances about. Senator Telemanus, I must admit, the architecture certainly makes a statement. It is a remarkable man who can bear his balls to the world. Daxo is stunned silent. Publius bows. The door closes, and I burst into a fit of laughter. Daxo waits for me to recover, entirely ignoring Publius's remark. He taps his chin in thought with a forefinger the size of a steak knife as I sit down. You want to know how I lured him here? Sure. Let's talk about that. I told him Darrow sent a communique from Mercury, telling us to beseech Publius Su Caraval. He is the conscience of the Republic, and our last hope. You are a cretin. Yeah, aren't I? There is only one thing in which Publius is not forthcoming. His irascible vanity. Unique trait. Sarcastic reposts are seldom clever enough to prove that they are little more than the desperate cries for validation of a petty and insecure mind. Oh, shut up, father. He did teach us half of what we know. The cold, evil half. Which has kept us alive amongst predators, my dear. Returning to my thrust. When has a copper ever been a saviour? He chuckles to himself. Now all you have to do is wrest the silvers away from quick, and victory shall be ours. Stop talking in that tone. We already seem evil enough in this aquatic lair of yours. All that's missing is you twirling a mustachio. He strokes the gold angels embedded on his bald head instead. Speaking of facial hair, Theodora has Severo under control. Does she? I sigh. Daxo. It is hardly pedantic to advise my sovereign to utilize her best assets. Theodora has proven herself capable, but she is not me, nor is she you, nor is she any of the two hundred peerless on Luna equipped for the task. He sighs and pets a passing gigavark through a water sphere, almost losing a finger for it. He smiles, not offended. He likes it when things obey their natures. I confess, I have always viewed Severo as a marginal character in our great endeavour. He is ill-tempered, rash, and braggadocious in nature. I don't know if he's ever read a book. Let me loose, and I will subdue the illiterate halfman in short order. I pretend to consider it. If one listed all the qualities a tyrant might possess, one might start by describing Daxo al Telemanus. He is cruel, thorough, calculating, cold, arrogant, and although he does not lack empathy, he is fairly unconvinced of his logical merits, just as he is entirely unconvinced of democracy. But he is obsessively competitive, and he chose his team long ago. More than any man I've ever met, Daxo was entirely content being a lonely child. Thank Jove Kavax, told me to memorise Paradise Lost before I met his firstborn. He might have lost the war if he found me wanting. 
A thought just occurred to me, I say. Did you model yourself after Milton's depiction of Lucifer? Finally. A slow, immense smile spreads across his lips. He is as pleased as a lizard on a hot rock. To be weak is miserable. Doing or suffering. Jove on high, I say. It took me twenty-seven years to get that. You are my only friend to guess. Daxo, you only keep one friend. At a time, you lasted longer than the rest. There are more private secrets to uncover, hiding in plain sight. The gigavark are metaphors for your virility, and your fear that if you had children they would eat each other? Fuck, he glares at me. I lean back. You see, communication is our salvation. So, no, you don't get to play with Severo. Exponential oddity is a perilous game. Very well. He sighs his colossal body from his couch and offers me a hand. The waters part as he escorts me to the gravity well. We look up at the light of the Politico chamber. Are you certain we can't dissolve the Senate? He asks. It would just be so much simpler to feed them to my metaphors. No. Worth a try. We put our heads together and recite our mantra. Matter. How tiny my share. Time. How brief my allotment. Fate. How small my role to play. Self. All that can be mastered. Then... Hand in hand, we ascend. Hundreds of political adjuncts quiet as we arrive. Good morning, I say to the optimate army, as Daxo looms over my shoulder like an evil proctor. Silence falls. Their faces turn toward us in excitement. God, so many are as young as I was when I served Octavia. I hope you're all rested. I'll be brief. Most of you have done this before, on the conscription accords and that sham of a peace treaty. We've learned our lesson from those losses. Press to the forum. And we didn't have momentum then. We've got it now, damn it. Three days from today, we vote to save eight million lives. Until then, cancel your families. Cancel your social calendars. They laugh at that fantasy. Daxo has no patience to teach anyone but obsessive-compulsive Martians and stone-cold political killers. You only have this. I toss up a hologram pyramid the size of an assault shuttle, subdivided into empty blocks representing the 71-vote majority needed to give me the power over the defence fleets. Fill. This. Pyramid. I say. Twice we've tried to vote. Twice the Vox have turned the screws and denied us the eight tribunes to call a quorum. With his victory, Imperator Olykos has given us the tribunes. With ours, we give him a chance. They wrap their knuckles on their desks. For those of you fresh in from Mars, prepare yourselves. Good democracy on Luna is not like that of Aegea. Here, good democracy is a knife fight. No vote is set in stone. No word eternal. What we gain, we must fight to the bone to keep. The Vox will use every tactic at their disposal. 
Daxo has given you your assignments. He alone channels my will. They know that already. From here to the vote, Hyperion will descend into a fit of political hysteria. But we will endure because... Hic sunt leones, they shout, as is their custom. I feel the inner heat building toward that exultant moment. I extend my hand to Daxo and take from his titanic hands the giant hourglass Mickey grew from Venusian glass coral and gifted me upon the legalization of intercolor reproduction. I hold it up, cherishing the vibrations before the storm, the fear and nervousness bubbling from my allies, and then slam it down. Fill this pyramid! Senator holograms blink away. Aides enter their isopods. In my offices in the Citadel of Light, in the halls of Senate Crescent, all over Hyperion, thousands of soldiers in my political army rotate the great pistons of our democratic engine. Lobbyists flood restaurants and offices. Trillionaires turn their screws. Organizers activate their armies. Media surrogates prepare for cameras. Senators become the courted, the hunted, the pressured, the wooed, the fooled, the bamboozled, the corrupted and the purchased. A thrill of excitement goes up my leg. I do love this. Chapter 21 Ephraim Mauler, Brawler, Legacy Hauler Your Majesty, you have suffered a catastrophic collision. Two life forms in critical danger. A distress signal has been sent to your employer. A distress signal has been sent to your employer. Smoke in the nostrils. Pressure. Shivering. Try to move. Can't. Thumping blood in the deep of my thigh. Lights stutter and crackle. Bent metal everywhere. Panic creeping. Pinned to the floor by collapsed hull. Right leg trapped. Bullet hole in chest. No exit wound. Res flesh torn. Probably fatal. Smoke. A boy. Gasping. Push myself up. Can't. Why not? Left radius and ulna snapped. Compound fracture. Porks out through skin. Looks like a barracks beef rib through blood pudding. Losing blood. Body cold. Hear voices. Threat? Reach for weapon. Can't find it. Darkness creeping in. Molten square opens hole in hole. Crash of metal. Volga? No. Filthy creatures in tatters. Big boys. Glowing laser eyes. Respirators. Radiation gear. Scavengers. Swap my hand away. Look under my eyelids. On my neck. Searching for Legion ink. A distress signal has been sent to your employer. A distress signal has been sent to your employer. Fear. Bickering. A child's body dragged out. Limp. Heavy cutting laser. Going to help me. Cut the hull away. Free me. Smell roasting meat. Mouth waters. Feel pressure. 
looked down. My hip, but no leg. Where is my leg? Volga, help me! I fall out of the horror, back into the shell of my body. Incomprehensible agony radiates from the interior of my right thigh. The rest of me doesn't move. Rejecting the artificial tissue, the words slither through the thick wool of my brain. My ring is gone. I look down at my body, or try to look. The body is naked, pinned to a table like a vivisected frog. My right leg is skinless, synthetic meat from the hip down. Green, webby fibres spasm over translucent bone. Artificial vessels worm in fleshy strands. An emaciated human with two hundred glass eyes affixed to his head, hunches near my feet, spinning membrane. Someone screams. I think it's me. Massive coronary agitation. Withdrawal complication. Keep him alive. A voice rumbles beyond the light. Your queen wills it. Sedative. I drift into the dark. It's warmer than I expected. There's a boy there, on a raft, his hands behind his head, his skin freckled from the sun. He floats off a shadowy shore, watching a big sky, not one collared by metal towers, but dusted with stars and stretching the horizon. All I want is to float there with him, to smell the salt, to lie in that cradle as the sea rocks us to sleep. The moon pulses in the sky like an atomic dilation, drawing me up into its gravity. No, 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 no! Chop em if they're taller, stomp em if they're smaller, mauler, brawler, legacy hauler. Chanting in the tunnel to light. A girl stands over me, her hatchet face pulled into a sneer, a scalpel glints in her hand. She holds it over my throat. My memories, my life, my guilt return, and I push my throat up into the metal. Go on, slick, give me a nick. I laugh when she can't. Never comes when you want it to. The laughter won't screw off. I scramble for the Z-valve inside. It ain't there. The laughs turn to sobs, till I'm bawling like a soft foot waking first night in his bunk to find his arse getting torn up by a line of leatherneck triarii fresh in from killing moonies. I crank and crank on the Z-valve. Volga'll be dead by now, dead like the scar hunters I trained. Rest of my freelance team's toe-tags. Sira, that greedy idiot. Dano, poor pickpocket kid I made into a real operator. Dead by association. Fuck me. Where's my fucking ring? Takes me a while to realise I'm shouting it. I thrash against the restraints. When the tears dry up enough for me to actually see, the girl's gone. The boy's replaced to her. So, he's alive. Well, that feels good. Got a nasty scar that's going to take some healing from his right eye to his left jaw. I crack a smile that splits my dry lips. Hey, kid. Tin Man. He dangles my engagement ring on the end of a chain. 
been watching out for it. Good lad, give it here. He doesn't. I spot the med bank behind him. Look at all that dope, bottles and canisters and packages. Oh, my. Where are we? Mars. Mars, huh? So, kid. Need you to do old Tinman a favour. Got some joints need oiling. Got a condition, you know, hard life and all. Maybe Zolodome? Might be some in the med bank back there. He doesn't move. Just a little panel to take the edge off. Liquid Z ain't kill juice. That zombie shit's all propaganda. Helps me with my demons. He just watches. Come on now, come on. I ain't going nowhere. No. Little rich shit. Saved your ass from a pillaging. Get some Z. Don't do me like this. I'll eat your fucking heart. He steps back. Come on, hey. I try to smile. Hey, I didn't mean... It was a joke. My laugh comes out as a bark. Goz, you're tight as Juno's cunt. We made a good team back there. But you gotta have my six. It'll calm me down. Had an operation, see? Please, please, little man. December 16th, 737 PCE. Huh? Four Tuomi Nakare of Legio 13 Dracones, the best of Flavinius's Praetorians, were given orders by Aja Algrimus to assassinate reformers in the government in a coordinated purge. One squad visited the Hesperia Gardens, an illegal house of torture. Before insertion, they were given their standard opcocks. What they didn't know was that their customary stimulants had been replaced with Zolodome. Upon insertion, the kill squad received new orders that even Aja knew her prized dragoons would find difficult. Freed from empathy by the Zolodone, the dragoons followed their orders and butchered seventy-five men, women, and children guilty not of sedition, but of enduring a life of sexual torture and possessing compromising information on loyal members of the ruling regime, including Atalantia Algrimus. Afterwards, the dragoons melted their victims with hydraxic acid. Even the children. I know this already, but the judgment of a child is a horrible thing. It was his race that gave the order, not mine. When Trig T. Nakamura came off the Zolodone High, Holiday found him with a gun in his mouth. She encouraged him to seek Ares to make up for the blood on his hands. This according to her testimony on... I thrash forward at him. Things that would make an iron-clad leatherneck with six rain badges turn her head and blink, pour out of my mouth. Slides off packs like he's on the Z himself. Do you want to live like a zombie when they made him one? He holds up the ring. This ring belongs to Ephraim T. Horn. When he asks for it back, I'll give it to him. Gives you the right, I snarl, spoil little... You asked for Z before you asked for Volga, he snaps. But you risked your life for her? You're an addict, Tin Man. 
If you refuse to hold yourself to account, I'll do it for you. Jove knows you don't have anyone else. I lie awake screaming at him long after his footsteps echo away. Soon I grow too tired. In the silence, memories of Trigg hunt me down. Volga soon joins. In the cacophony I revert to all I know, and from my lips seeps the old footfuck creed. Veterans screamed into my face as we marched, until it was drilled into our grey matter to replace human vertebrae with titanium chain links. I whisper as I fall asleep. Chop em if they're taller, stomp em if they're smaller, mauler, brawler, legacy hauler. Smoke that crow earned this holler, mauler, brawler, legacy hauler. Smoke that ant, pay off your collar. Legio, a turner, victrix. One more time, you fucking dogs. Mauler, brawler, legacy hauler. Chapter 22 Ephraim Unshorn I wake in a large four-poster. Light seeps through pale blue curtains. How long have I been out? There's an IV pumping saline into me. My stomach rumbles as I pull it out. The itch of the Zolodone hunger has morphed from rabies infected rage beast to small dog. It pisses in the corner and squeaks out a bark. I ignore it for now. Kid visited, didn't he? Has my ring. Has Trigg's story. That uppity brat. Gods, my head aches. Right leg itches too, like it's made of Venusian acid ants. I toss off the blankets to reveal my legs. The artificial muscles and sinew are now covered by a new growth of pale skin that mismatches with my darker left leg. It's fancy tech, well-muscled already. Puckered pink flesh makes a knot on my mid-torso where Gorgo's rail slug passed through the Duke of Hands and then into me. More pink flesh makes a finger-long ridgeline on my forearm where it broke in the crash. I peek under my medical shorts. Hello, old boy. Glad you're still around. I wiggle the toes. Nerves are already calibrated. No phantom pain, except a weird ache in my chest. Only get work this good if you've got the patronage of a rich house. But I ain't rich. I ain't a crusader. So, qui solvente? Who's paying? Where's Volga? Where am I? I push open the curtains. The suite is expansive and fit for a brooding but secretly sensitive night from a holocan drama. Stone walls and floor, expensive rugs, a hearth fit to dance in. A pair of fuzzy pink slippers sit by the bedside, along with an arctic bear cloak. Someone thinks they're hilarious. I slip both on and go to a wooden door punctured by beams of sunlight. I'm blinded as I push it open. A wash of cool air whips in. I wrap the coat tighter and step out onto the terrace. Covered with spots of snow and topiaries, an expanse of stone 
pushes to a low stone balustrade, covered thick with flowering vines of green and silver. Beyond that is a sight to see. In the first year of the Battle of Luna, my boys and I were hunting some gold gladiator impresario when the building adjacent to ours was struck by a termite munition. When the dust cleared, a gold woman stood in the ruins of her block empire, an arm missing from the elbow down, body fleeced of skin and all the blueprints underneath, vivid as traffic arteries. She swayed there, tilting her chin upward at us, as if to say, witness my glory, peasants. She bled out instead of accepting our help. The ruins of the Martian city of Olympia remind me of that woman, beautiful, regal, tough as a bare-fisted brawler, and pissed at the world for breaking her perfect nose. I watched on Luna as the Minotaur made his stand here against Cephi, holding out until the Reaper himself came with the bloody seventh to wreak a path of hell all the way to the seat of Bologna and send the Minotaur scurrying like a kicked puppy. What a sight! What a city! But while the war moved on, Olympia didn't. I know her cloud towers fell to become squatter havens west of the city. I can see their humps in the distance. The rest of the old Bologna capital spills against the northwestern lip of the Olympus Mons and shimmies toward Loch Esmeralda in an hourglass shape. Each war-battered kilometre reflecting the architecture of six centuries of stately Bologna taste. And it is a fine taste, despite her broken skyline. Only fascists should make cities. Democrats never have a salient thesis. Her air traffic is sparse. Cooking fires twirl from broken buildings. Land traffic congests the northern gates. Markets, overgrown grottos, and old statue parks are filled with bonfires and vagrant tents. People live here, but not well. I turn back toward my room and look up in awe. Eagle rest. Citadel of the fallen Bologna yawns up the tallest mountain in the solar system. Libraries, government buildings, dancing halls and villas ascend the winter mountain, held up by the wings of a dilapidated stone eagle. What the hell is going on? Why am I here? The old senses are triggered, and I feel someone inside my room. He's not trying to hide. I just didn't see him at first. I thought he was a sofa. One of the biggest men I've ever seen lies on a beast skin in front of my fire, roasting walnuts in the coals with his bare hands, if you can call those hands. The right one is huge and twisted like ginger roots. Do you see your fate in the bones, Grania? He asks in a low, sibilant voice. He's bald, black-skinned like many tribes of Mars's North Pole, and incredibly fat. His eyes focus on the coals. I glance to the ajar door. A man may run, but none has escaped his fate. Yet. Who are you? I ask. His eyes scour the room. I see his 
state. A young eagle's nest was this. To plume his feathers he went away, and met the man around whom all fray. Now he lies in memory's cavern, head a blossom, heart judged by Saturn, on a cold stone floor he found an early autumn. He breaks a piping hot walnut shell with his fingers and slurps out the meat as if sucking down an oyster. He's a living tattoo. Bright blue runes swirl across his face, down his bare arms in interlocking patterns. Seven ridiculous rings weigh down the fingers of his left hand with rubies and diamonds. There's nothing left of his ears except keloid rimmed holes in his head. But what he lacks there, he compensates for with arcane eyebrows, thick enough for dung beetles to disappear behind. Greased leather bags litter a scarlet scale belt underneath a glossy cloak of raven feathers. A shaman. I would see the freaks on occasion in the block wars, charging naked and high on God's bread toward the enemy, with their engorged pricks out like a lance. They were always surrounded by insane spirit warriors called Skoogie. As important to the war bands as the legendary eagle is for a legion, maybe more so. After all, greys don't believe in magic. If he's here, Skoogie will be outside that door. My prey instinct shrieks inside me. In full kit, I take the window, but I'm wearing slippers and bare fur, so I sit beside him as he gestures. I'm smaller next to his mass than a nine-year-old grey is to me. Your fate not in these bones, Granier? He gestures toward the coals. There's bones amongst them. Marrow seeps out of fissures as they heat and crack. Human bones. Is that an eye socket? I swallow. They hiss. The men that came for you, he says. Syndicate? He nods. Rice on your head so big they lost theirs. He chuckles. Freyhild and the Skoogie castrated them, and once they spoke their truths, fed them to the Sky Queens to make them strong. They had much fun. Marrow bubbles and trickles down what looks like a femur. The shaman leans toward it. So close his eyebrows begin to curl. I have seen your fate in bones, Granir. Sometimes gods speak, but you never know which one. Some play more tricks than others. Name's Ephraim, old boy. The eyes slide in his huge head to look sideways at me. He chuckles again. Shh! He comes. He likes fear. Show none. Perhaps his wrath will not come undone. Who? He submerges his whole left hand in the coals, reaching around as if rummaging through a backpack, and pulls out a steaming walnut. This he rips open and shows me the bronzed meat. Unshorn. I stand up in sudden panic, almost losing my balance on the untested new leg. It's got some thrust. Valdir the Unshorn? 
Be wise, Granir. The Queen's concubine has much power. Little leash. I look for somewhere to hide. I hear boots, heavy fucking boots. The candles on the wall shiver. A shadow moves in the hall outside the door. Talk rings make an unholy clatter, each taken and melted from the sigils of a fallen gold. They don't even bother with greys. Silly man, your destiny is not out the window, the shaman says without looking up. But find out for yourself if you must. I glance down at him. No way he's fast enough to stop me. Nice to meet you, Mr. Shaman. I run out the terrace, my gait uneven on the new leg, my fur coat streaming behind me, and hurl myself over the balustrade. I grab two handfuls of vine and feel them sag under my weight. My feet dangle over a kilometre drop down the snowy cliffs. People always make such drama of heights, still haven't met one worse than the unshorn. I climb down the sheer face of the parapet. High-altitude wind nips at me. My hands are already going numb. The vines are beginning to fray. A thick stone support column upholds this section of the castle. It, too, is covered with vines. I shimmy to the right and plant both feet on the stone and shove off, trusting the acrobatics that helped me become a legend of the underworld. Ephraim the reptile. Ephraim the climber. Ephraim the... Oh, shit! I fly straight past the column. My right leg is a freak. When I pushed off, it didn't push. It shot me like a bloody ballista. Three times as strong as the old one ever was. Two comma tech. Maybe even three. I'm going to sail out into nothing. I slam into solid stone. Another column. Ah, oh, that hurts. Fingers scramble on burst stone for a grip as I bounce off. I snag one as I fall. The vine begins to unravel. I plummet down, breath stuck in my chest until I come to an abrupt halt. Skin tears off the palm, but I hold on to the vine for dear life. My slippers drift off into the expanse below. Oh, blight my balls. I've fallen past Safe Harbour, at the extreme west of the network of support columns. There's nothing beneath but jagged cliffs and twirling snow. My only salvation is to the left, toward the western edge of the foundation of Eagle Rest. It's more than twenty metres away, not far enough down. I rock myself toward it. The vine sags. Keep at it. Better than unshorn. I swing in a parabolic arc, not close enough yet. The vine begins to fray. Hold on, vine. I rock back into nothingness, sagging a little. Rock back toward the eagle wing, reach the zenith of my parabolic arc, and let go the vine. Gravity tugs. I fly feet forward, body perfectly horizontal, and then jerk my shoulders back, pull my knees up, twirling into a flip. Stick it, stick it, stick it. Jarring force shoots from my heels into the knees as I land barefoot on the stone. Ha-ha! Then I slip on a patch of ice and twist sideways just before a fall that would mean certain death. I scramble to safety, blooded, freezing and cackling. I glare at the drop and spit. Now, 
Time to descend the cliff face, get to the city, get some shoes, a ship, and get out of Dodge. Do I know anyone in Olympia? Hope not. Syndicate will have a price on my head. Then I hear something in the wind. I look up at the sky. Nothing. I can't even tell which parapet was mine. I'm so far down. No one pursues. See my fate in your bones now, shaman. Then the wind wails behind me. I turn around to face the city, cupping my eyes against the sun. It winks off the distant loch. Must have been... Oh, Jove, on high. Six monsters rise from beneath the edge of the stone eagle wing. Pale blue feathers, wingspans of twenty meters. Huge birds of prey with bodies of feathered lions wrapped in rune-laden pulse armor. Griffins. I run, because what else do you do? A missile of fur, feather and muscle hits the stone in front of me. I sprawl backward from amidst a cloud of spitting snow. The biggest damn thing I've ever seen uncoils her white mass. I've seen the monster once before as it devoured Euripides' ovotum atop the dome of Endymion. It is God-eater, the albino steed of the obsidian queen. But no one rides in its saddle. The griffin's razor-scarred beak is the size of me. It opens to scream into my face as a mountain of a man lands in its shadow. My cilia wail. The man's armoured boots are big. His tattooed arms like tree saplings and ringed with gold torques. His helmet is three times the size of a human head, made from the skull of an African sand hydra and plumed with green, meter-long poison feathers of a Pacific archipelago jungle dragon. His pulse armor is battered and white, shoulders set with the skulls of the peerless warlords he killed with the man-sized great axe strapped to his back. The Reaper's greatest armored cavalry commander stomps toward me. The long valor tail of hair from which he gets his name falls down his back to his tailbone, sewn with trophies. I pick myself to my feet. To his people, he is big brother. To Goals, the sky bastard. To everyone else, Valdir the unshorn. Warlord and royal concubine of Sephi the quiet. Well, this isn't where I part my ship, I say up at him. Black eyes within the hollows of the hydra's skull flick toward the mountain face and stone columns where I made my passage. Have you seen it? Shiny, long, two swollen engines at the stern, plenty of thrust. No reply. Listen, I was working with the Sovereign, your ally. Give her a call. I ain't saying I haven't made mistakes, just don't give me to Barker. I ain't earned that. Now he looks back at me. Earned? The voice filters through the sonic chamber of the Hydra, each decibel contorted. Well, I mean, I did go face down the whole syndicate. Ask the kids, either of them. I was pretty impressive. In the land of my mothers, those who steal children declare Ashvar, a holy war against the spirit of tribe, so their covetous Yontak 
are shorn from their bodies and cast into the fire, so their seed may not spread, but crackle pleasantly and share warmth with tribe. Children peck their eyes from their skulls with crow bones, so the no men shall be at the mercy of the tribe from which they sought to steal. This is what you have earned. Crowbones, crowbones. Well, that sounds insidious. Lucky for me we're in Republic territory. If you would just call the Sov... He shoots me point-blank in the chest with a tacknet. It knocks the wind out of me and contracts. He drags the line to God-eater's saddle and barks at the griffin. Riderless, it springs off the stone wing and into the winter air. Valdir flies beside it on grav-boots, keening a savage song. I'm dragged beneath as we climb back to eagle rest, pissed beyond all belief. Last place I want to die is Mars. Chapter 23 Ephraim Queen Valdir's goons dumped me unceremoniously onto the gravel. The tack net retracts, leaving patterns of duress on my skin. Griffin set down and Valkyrie women slipped from the saddles. Male braves with red runes on their armour land beside them in steaming grav boots. One of them kicks my arse until I stand to my bare feet. They ache from my failed escape and the cold. Did I fracture them when I landed? Anyone got slippers? I ask. None pay me any mind. Fine, socks'll do. You got socks? They do not like greys, Grania, especially the men. The braves were slave knights in your legions, or gladiators, or worse. I turn toward the voice. Wrapped in his raven cloak, the shaman sits in the lap of a giant, headless statue, eating walnuts. Oh, you again. He slides down from the statue and wobbles toward me. Valdir barks something in Nagal at him to the effect of Try not to lose your idiot again, idiot. The shaman flaps his crow cloak at the warlord and covers his ear holes. You got any more slippers? I ask him, tightening the fur coat around me for the chill. Lost the last purr. Only a fool gives a gift when the first is valued so little, he says. I told you your destiny was not out the window. Now you suffer. Yeah, well, I'm Hyperionin. We're natural sceptics. He tilts his big head and laughs. Maybe next time you are given something, you will value it. He flicks walnut shells at my right leg. You gave me this. Idea, not money. He touches his chest. Osgard! He points at me. Grania. It means, hold up, you're Osgard. He grins. Osgard the mad, Osgard the bad, Osgard the berry clad. He bows. 
You're not as blue as I expected. Berries only for when gods dance, he says, glancing at Valdir. When do they dance? I ask. He smiles. When blood spills. Worry not. Today for talking only. Near God-eater, Valdir has taken off his ridiculous helmet. The champion's face is unusually delicate for an obsidian. His nose is twice broken, his cheeks gaunt and freckled. But all the savagery can't hide the avian structure of his bones, the motes of silver in his black irises, his full, notched lips, and the haughty grandeur of the only human besides Darrow to have survived a duel with a minotaur. Got to admit, he's damn slick. Valdir barks at Osgard, this time motioning with his fingers, and we set off toward a large triumphal arch. The women lead and pay me no mind, but the trailing men catcall me and shove me with their axe halves when I slow. The path ascends up the spine of the mountain. My raw right foot is yet without calluses and its agony on the stone. What's this all about? I ask Osgard, panting a little for the elevation. You will see. He begins ticking off fingers as we walk. When he's reached his twelfth, I curse. By Juno's dilapidated tits. The path opens up to a damn impressive sight. Above Eagle Rest, the stone training squares of the Bologna Ludus rib the mountainside, the highest disappearing into the clouds. Where once generations of genetically modified fascist knights trained in the arts of subjugation and extermination, now thousands of obsidian youths practice calisthenics, climbing courses and weapons training. We make for a lower training square, where a huge crowd of warriors and older students have gathered amongst broken statues. A lone crest of dirty blonde hair moves amongst the white manes. Two trios duel as teams on the training square. Electra, fighting in sync with her trio, is dismantling an obsidian who must have her by fifty kilos. The lad looks as young as you can look, while still having a full beard. It's coated in blood from a nose smashed flat. They wield traditional aurochs femur practice staves. The opposing group seems to be trying to reach a large skull in the centre of the training square, while Electra's lot defend. Valdir holds us up out of respect for the bout. The obsidians murmur amongst themselves, unable to pass up a wager on blood sport. I've seen kids fight before. It's a bit like drunks fighting underwater. Electra's like that, except switch out the water and put in an elastic rubber room, a human-sized needle and flick it. Yet, for all her mania, she fights as part of her group switching opponents, using her own allies to guard her blind spots as she strikes. The instructor calls the fight when the last man-boy of the opposing trio stumbles back from a stave to the temple that makes him all soupy. Electra doesn't pursue. Electra and her wing women help the fallen up. All six bare their throats to the instructor, 
a lithe young obsidian woman with a topknot and black scoogy runes on her face, and to another in the crowd before jogging to sit with other students around the square. The little demon Electra looks right at home. Children of the tribe are hard, Osgard murmurs to me. Sent back to ice to learn our way. Hunt many days. Fight with axe from six summers to death. Yet Valdir could not put boy and girl with children of tribe. Their spirits are those of wolves. Boys all right. Girls straight psycho. It's in the blood. Osgard makes a small sound of disagreement. The lesson is called the Three Seasons. Do you know this? I shake my head. Three seasons of war exist. Wind, fire and ash. Pride, possession, annihilation. Freyhild, the one who cut off all those syndicate balls. Yes, he gestures to the young instructor. She gave secret order to attack her. Sweep enemy from square, reach skull or destroy enemy. Girl saw them advance for Skull. Girl listened. She became ice, and the enemy wing in the end accepted it was her wing Skull. Ownership was respected. A balance found. This pleases the Queen. I follow his eyes to a patch of grass spotted with snow. I've never seen Sefi the Quiet in person. She looks almost inanimate as she sits amongst her Valkyrie on the knoll. All legs and arms. No contained kinetic violence like the golds, who always seem a hair-trigger away from atomic. Only a subdued, sleepy grandeur, like one of the statues that surround the training square. Her shoulders are broad but bony under a fantastic high-collared white cloak with a blue fur collar. Her right hand is gloved. A crown of what looks like ice sits on her head. She watches intensely as a new batch takes the square, sparing a long look for Valdir, who tilts his chin upward toward his mate. Pax is amongst the new batch. I trace the monsters he's supposed to fight. It's not just the size difference that worries me for the more sensitive of the two gold spawn. It's muscular development. Shy of puberty, Pax isn't yet the man he'll become. Though his bare calves do look more sculpted than's right for a boy, the obsidians are already giants. The three opponents take their places in a triangle and receive their order from Freyhild. Pax's crew form together around their skull, not yet knowing their enemy's intent. Pax seems uninterested. That's a trillion credit skull you're about to let those goons crack, I say. Osgard examines me. You care about boy? Warmth still in your stone heart. This is good. It's not a bloody marriage. He's just my meal ticket, but he ain't like the other one. No, she is better fighter. He is more dangerous human. I warned, Queen. He will refuse lesson this time. Rage festers inside. Watch. 
The obsidians bellow a war challenge, which Osgard says is a season of wind. Their intent is to sweep Pax's crew from the square to show their valour. As Pax's wingmen move to the centre, he separates and stands on the very edge of the square. The three enemy don't chase him. They use their numbers to drive his wingmen back and off the square. Then all three come for Pax in a V. As soon as they are in striking range, Pax steps out. The veteran warriors watching howl in condemnation. Pax's enemies declare victory and spurn his cowardice by turning their backs on him. He steps back into the square. Only Valdir smiles. What follows is appalling. Not the violence itself, but its tone of boredom and clinical cruelty. Crack! The sound of femur on skull rattles the training square. One of the obsidians teeters sideways. The other two brutes wheel around to fight Pax. He silently deconstructs them. He's slower than Electra and almost looks asleep, but every movement is like part of a dance. As if he's seen this all happen before and must bore himself and mock the obsidians by going through the motions. He doesn't need to, but he collapses the kneecap of one of the older boys and then cracks his skull with a sweep of the stave. As he spins out of the movement, I see his eyes were closed. The other brings his stave down in a diagonal downward strike at Pax's head. Pax falls flat on his back. The stave strikes the ground and shatters. Pax grabs the obsidian's ankle, pulls himself between the obsidian's legs, flips around him, ends up on the obsidian's back and brings his hand down on the obsidian's neck. Somehow he grabbed a shard from the obsidian's broken stave and buried it two fingers deep in his neck. Do not move, Pax says. The bone is two millimetres from your carotid artery. The obsidian's eyes widen. He goes very still. Pax slides from his back. The watching warriors are disgusted. Not one has moved, not even the instructor. Pax turns to Sefi. You mock us? Sefi asks in a quiet voice. It was the season of wind, not ash. Mock? No, your majesty. I understand the purpose is to instruct me in the old ways of the obsidian, he points at Osgard, somehow noticing his arrival. Your shaman teaches the children of the ice that war is the first language of all peoples, but not every war need be the last. As a child, I am to be impressed with your wisdom. As hostage, I am to be convinced by inclusion in your tribal rights that I am an ally. As ward, I am to impart this lesson upon my own people. To be friend of the obsidians, who showed me their sacred rituals and treated me with respect. What pity is it that there will be no obsidians left? The braves stand at this insult. Not rising to the insult itself, Valdir watches the reactions of his fellows with careful consideration. So he's a thinking monster. Rather handsome, too, if you can get over the bat-wing ears. 
Gods forbid I insult your pride, Pax crows. I wonder you have any left. If you still think war is a dialogue, allow me to remind you the goals of the core do not believe you are human beings. You are cattle. They treated the seasons of war so the tribes would be locked in eternal strife. They did not want their herd culled. They wanted it honed to better wage their wars. From the crib the children of peerless scarred are now raised to know one truth. War is not for pride or for land. War is for extermination. Valdir the Unshorn knows this. He served beside Ragnar's father, Pale Horse, as a slave knight in the Grimace legions, then beside my father and Ragnar, who put the razor in his hand. Many of your blood braves have seen this in their service. Never has it been more evident than upon Mercury, where my father faces atomic annihilation. So the red prick ended up back on Mercury. Must have been a gold counterattack. Is he still a fugitive? But you, you, scurrilous lot, you hide from that truth behind tradition. You abdicate oaths to feign wisdom. There is no wisdom in the company of deserters. There is only shame. You left your morning star to face your common enemy alone. But do not fret. His grin is the nasty sort I didn't know he had in him. It will be short-lived when the engines of doom kill my father and arrive on Mars to chase even the oath-breakers to their graves. Make no mistake, Sephi, queen of the obsidians, this is no war of wind or fire. He gestures to the dismantled obsidian youth around him, with pity to the one holding the bone fragment in his neck. This is a war of annihilation, and you are outmatched by the darker breed of my kind. I am the son of the morning star, the flesh and blood of the man who broke your chains. Yet you hold Electra and me as insurance and to bargain for ships and information. So I look upon you with my father's eyes to ask, what do your old ways say of honour? He drops the femur and walks out, leaving the obsidians in stony silence. Damn. Son, I scratch my leg, remembering what an idiot I was at his age. Electra rushes to catch up to Pax. Sephi watches them go and signals their guards to follow. But the accusations Pax made remain in his wake. All is not well in the war bands of the Obsidian host. Talk about a guilt trip. Yes, he is precocious, Osgard murmurs clearly disagreeing with Pax. Oddly, Valdir does not. His eyes watch Pax with something like sorrow, and when he marches down to meet his queen, it is as if the weight of ten worlds were on his shoulders. His anxiety evaporates only when he passes by the instructor Freyhild. She takes pains not to meet his eyes. She is a pretty young thing, lithe instead of muscular without the hirsute appearance so common in her people. File that one away for later. I am led down to Sephi. 
despite just being dressed down by a prepubescent plutocrat. She is more impressive than her reputation, and it is a colossal reputation. Warlord, gold killer, hero of the Rat War, sister of the demigod Ragnar Volaris, queen of the Obsidians. She's not barbarically handsome like Valdir, or lively like Freyhild. Instead, she's a cold fusion between worlds. A horizontal iron bar punctures her nose at the bridge, even as a cochlear implant blinks in her ear. Astral runes mark the shaved sides of her head. A data pad is embedded in her left forearm. Her eyes are large black marbles, but in the right light show fibres of optic implants. A second set of blue eyes are tattooed on her eyelids. Fourteen long, heavy knuckle fingers fold together in her lap, stroking her valour tail. And then I see the weapon she wears, the inert blade of the razor that punched through Trigg's chest ten years ago is coiled around the long leather glove that reaches up to the elbow. The same blade that killed her brother, Ragnar. I blink like a dumb, black-tooth addict. Thought Barker owned Ajar's blade. Valdir kneels before his mate and bares his throat before announcing me and stepping to the side. Sefi raises an eyebrow at my bloody feet and knees. He is guest, Valdir. He dressed himself while falling out a window. Climbing gracefully, I correct. Nyagahe, Skati, I say to Sefi, bearing my throat in respect and submission. Valdir is shocked I know any Nagal. Sefi is not surprised. She accepts my respect with an open palm to show she holds no weapon against me. Nyagahirgra, Hirganganyi Hala. She nods to the white who stands behind her clutch of Valkyrie. Xenophon said you knew our ways. Photohire. Sorry, Nagal's a little rusty. Lim is healthy. Seems like. I wiggle the appendage. Surprised you sprung for flesh tech, not cheap. Suppose I should thank you for that. It is a gift, she shrugs. My court is large from long war. I welcome all, including you, Scar Hunter. She says the title fondly and tilts her head. Your body wanted death. Your heart is not pure. It became silent three times. Narcotics weakness. Valdir makes a sound of disgust and lies down on the ground beside his mate to comb his hair. He looks like a bloody Frankish painting. Valdir thinks you are stupid to use Zoladon. He is stupid, Valdir says. Sefi sets a hand on his shoulder. He thinks that I am stupid to waste wind on you. She spares a smile for Osgard. But I know weakness in your kind does not mean broken. So tell me. Why kill passions with Zolodon? I glance at Aja's razor. Makes slice flow a bit smoother. Poor little man, she mocks. Life is meant to be felt.
Else, why live? Valleys make the mountains. I nod to Osgard, who has strayed back to the training square to examine the blood on the stone. That fellow right there is high as a cloud. He seems to be living just fine. Fool's comparison. God's bread fills warrior with heat of gods. Spirit berry opens mind. Let's one hear Aesir. Zolodone makes warrior cold, narrows mind, makes machine man vile. And fever cloud, I ask. Your berserkers love that. Her face darkens. Berserkers are no more. Fever is an evil I do not accept. It makes men savages. We are not savages. The only other color on the knoll beside obsidian is a lean white in midnight robes. It's a logos. I thought they were all killed by lynch mobs. Bald, childish of face, the white could be thirty or eighty years old. You never can tell. Their skin is the color of raw chicken, their eyes the color of milk. A large diamond is embedded between the eyes to signify their class. If anyone's on a permanent Zolodone high, it's that mammalian computer. I don't point out the hypocrisy. With spirit berry, Osgard sees God's hand upon your shoulder, Sefi continues. He is responsible for the breath you draw. You crashed in a scrapland. Scavengers found you. There were brothers of the ice amongst them. They are known to Osgard and offered you to me. Well, that's a turn. And the wee warlords must have cost you a fortune to outbid the sovereign. My respect was payment enough to them. Syndicate must have loved that. They attempted to substantiate their claim, the white says. The unshorn disabused them of that notion. Whatever malice Valdir unshorn feels for Osgard, he seems to trust the white. He nods to the adviser like an old friend. So if the kids are your hostages and we're here, I murmur. Wards, Sefi corrects. Sure, then I take it to mean I'm not on Barker's menu. Why would we fix you to kill you? That would waste money. You have not hurt all tribe. I completely agree, but... Ain't you allies with the Sovereign and House Barker? I've never heard of the term all tribe before, but one thing at a time. Hell, till that kid started talking, I thought you were still the Reaper's heavy air cav. By glancing around at the faces of her warriors, I can tell that's old news, but still raw, particularly for the males. World changes fast. Was it Wolfgar's death? or something else. If they aren't allies, then my errand for the Sovereign has probably been perceived as a double cross, which means Volga is likely dead back on Luna. I need Zolodone. The aching side nearly makes the knees buckle. So I'm thinking I'm alive for a reason, I say. It ain't gratitude for this little boon. It ain't fidelity for an old scar hunter. I've been thoroughly reminded what you lot do to thieves. 
I glance at Valdir. So maybe tell me what this is all about. Sefi surprises me by standing. Come, Mr. Horn. There is something I would like to show you. Sefi leads me from the training ludus through hangars that once held Bologna Warcraft. Within the stone caverns, a nation of people is set to one industry, knowledge. Obsidian youths labour beside old women, young men, war-tested braves, learning skills that ten years ago were forbidden to them under pain of liquidation. They study under orange master mechanics, blue navigators, mapping astral trajectories, and training in flight simulators. They work with green coders, yellow doctors, and red builders. It's an odd sight. Sefi says nothing as we walk, and by the time we end our little tour in another garden of broken Bologna statues, my head is full, my eyes are struggling to stay narrowed in contempt, and my bare feet ache like hell. Sefi gestures for me to sit at a long table set for two, Pale faces marked with black runes watch from the shadows of the garden. Scoogy. A chill goes down my spine as I sit down. The spirit assassins. Valdir's eyes linger on them before he sits on the rubble of a statue. The chair is a relief for my leg. A bowl of warm water filled with black flowers is brought for my feet by a stunning pink servant, I sigh as I dip my feet in, and feeling returns to them, along with a peculiar tingling that must be from the flowers. Osgard murmurs there is night gaze in the water before wandering to the garden. Night is coming. The sun ebbs in the sky. Battered Olympia sulks beneath eagle rest toward Loch Esmeralda, like a centurion's wet cape, and I sit with a queen. You're breaking with the Republic, I say, tightening my fur coat. That's what you mean by all tribe. She says nothing. You already united Obsidians in war, promising them a homeland, didn't you? Looks like you found one. I glance down at Olympia, but Sefi's eyes are on the horizon beyond. That's trouble. On the ice, when a limb is sick, it is cut away to save the body. The Republic rots from inside with weakness, like you, before we cured you. My people must prosper. This is the burden my brother set upon me. To prosper, we must become one tribe. So I will found a kingdom for my people, for all obsidians. Vokland, her Valkyrie whisper, rattling their talks at the holy word. I begin to laugh. First the Reds, now the Coldbloods. From his seat at the base of a statue, Valdir pulls his axe. He does not mock me, Valdir, Sefi says. He mocks life. Is that not right, Mr. Horn? Close enough. You're buying yourself another war. We know war, Valdir says in dismissal. With your old pal the Reaper... I ask, causing him to stand up. Ask gold, how fun that is. Valdir is a warrior, honest and proud, Sefi says, waving her mate down. 
Valdir simmers in discontent, and I don't think it's just aimed at me. He speaks truth, because he lives true. We know war, but it is not all we know or will know. Seven centuries, they say, kill, so we kill. Seven centuries, they say, send suns to stars, so we send suns. Republic says we are free, then Senate says obey, send sons and daughters to stars, kill for us, die for us. We ask only for homeland, they give rocky islands on earth. We ask for city, because we are not savages who want to fish all day. She waves at Eagle Rest and Olympia. They give broken ruins, and say be satisfied. What is there for us on Mercury? We cannot live under weight of sun. We are hated there. So now we say the word Ragnar taught us. No, now we embrace the truth Morning Star taught us. Destiny is not given. Destiny is taken. So much for Sefi the Quiet. I look for Osgard. I wonder if it was this destiny he saw in the bones of a fire as he claims to have seen mine. I find him climbing a tree toward an owl's nest. Fitting. I sigh. What do you need me to steal? Come on, you don't have to butter me up. Not feeling very masculine with my feet in the little bowl of water, I slap my leg. Call in your debt. Sefi remains quiet as the slender pink now brings a bottle of wine. He shows her the seal to prove it hasn't been tampered with and pours it into three golden goblets. Thank you, Amel, Sefi says. The white Logos steps forward to sip the wine, swishes it in his mouth, swallows and nods as it detects no pathogens. Straight eerie Logos shit. Even arbiters like Oslo, my Ophian guild contact, are wary of logos. They're null as a doll down below, and on a permanent Zolodone high. Only the richest gulls could afford them for trophies. It seems Sefi collects rare creatures and rare wine. She sniffs the wine in her goblet. What do you want me to steal? I repeat as she takes a sip. She looked both insulted and mildly amused by my tone. How long since anyone's had the guts to give her lip when she's got men like Valdir by the balls? Of all the words in common, do you know my favourite? She asks. Jovan High. Destiny? Voluble? Captive audience? She leans forward. Practical. Nagal is the superior language to common. It conveys the soul better and has more beautiful words. Weldschmer. The pain in discovering the world fails to fulfill expectation. Fenware. The longing to be somewhere else. But we have no word for practical. Only honourable or shameful. Her eyes look through me. You are this way. I need practical men. As master mechanics teach our lame and weak, as blues 
teach our small and bright. You will teach my Scoogie. She makes a clicking sound, and Freyhild, the instructor from the training, steps from the shadows of the garden along with several other Scoogie. They're all young, but none are beautiful like Freyhild. Her face, though tattooed with subtle black markings, is unscarred. Her cheekbones are sharp, her eyes slanted, and as close to dark blue as obsidian black. All the Scoogie are more slender than Valdir or the brutish Valkyrie, more like deer than elk. Freyhild even has the eyelashes of a deer. Valdir notices too, don't you, boy? Teach them what, exactly? I ask. I'm no assassin. They're the best. We are not, Freyhild says in a slow, mocking voice. The Howlers and Gorgon are the best. It is truth. Good thing you kept one of them as allies, eh? Freyhild is amused. My Scoogie are orphans from ruins of shattered tribes, Sefi says. They promise their spirits to their queen. Their loyalty is beyond the flesh, so their wombs are stripped, their seed made infertile by my shaman. But do you know why my Scoogie are not the best? She motions for Freyhild to step back. Not because we do not know how to walk with the silent shadow or bring the long death, but because howlers and gorgons are more than assassins. My Scoogie are not. They provide one solution, death. Practical creatures provide many solutions. For red hand death works. Scoogie have hunted them these last weeks. Six thousand they have killed for me. Red Hand flees. The Republic was too soft on them. Soon they will be no more. But I will need my Scoogie to beat the Gorgons, to beat the Howlers if necessary. Teach them to be freelancers, to melt into city to exist behind enemy lines, to gain allies, to sow discord. She points a long finger of a gloved hand at me. You stole the sovereign's child. You will give us your knowledge. If she wants a kingdom, she knows she'll have to play dirty, like all the rest. With a grunt, Valdir bursts to his feet and stalks away. Sefi watches him go with a strange expression. My mate believes we are mistaken to leave the reaper. He does not wish us to change or practice shameful arts. But he is just a man. Men are impulsive and blinded by the snake between their legs. Won't argue that. Then I say with narrowed eyes, Scoogie are sacred to your people. Servants of all-mother death, yes? Valdir won't be the only one pissed. Your braves know it might have been gold that held the chain, but grey was the chain. You ate us even more than you ate them. She makes a dismissive motion. Your Majesty, I've seen berserkers rape wounded legionnaires on the battlefield as they scalp them. Your berserkers. 
I don't have any loyalty to the Legion, but those greys were my people. Gold might be scariest. You might be biggest. Red might be toughest. Grey, we got the longest memory. The idea of teaching the Scoogie to become even more effective makes me nauseous. This is selling my soul in a way I never considered. That world is past. Not all of the clans believe as I do. They resist change, but they follow strength. I am strength. Sefi runs a long finger over the rim of her wine cup. You are cunning. You made fool of Lionheart and the Fox Lords. I want that cunning. I know how this world works. I am willing to make you a very rich man. And if I say no, you are guest. When safe, you will be free. Free to be tossed off a high cliff by Valdir, more like. But a man on his own is nothing. You will be hunted by syndicate, Julii, lion, republic, goblin. You will be no man, no half, no blood, no Ata, no hands to carry your cold body to the sky when they find you. Cat's got nothing on me. I lean forward with a feline grin. I got a thousand lives. They can each have one. Anyway, Mars is for suckers. I got business on Luna. You speak of your woman? Her eyes glimmer as I flinch. Volga Fjorgen is on Luna no longer. Xenophon? The white steps forward. Six weeks ago, two known members of the Horn Gang were abducted from Augustan property and are currently on Phobos, pending transfer to Mars. I glance up at the twin moons moving over the city. Nah. Citadel is impenetrable. Places crawling with heavies, tech even I've never seen. The Minotaur got chewed up with a full century of peerless, real peerless. I squint at them. They don't look like they are capable of bluffing. Who? The Julii, the White says. She doesn't have the skill set. But she has something better. Money, Sephi replies. Xenophon explains. Ignorant of Virginia's deal with you, she employed the freelancer known as the Figment to collect your gang members as leverage against you after frontal confrontation with the Sovereign promised to escalate. That's psycho. A chill goes through me, but it makes sense. Birds of a feather and all that. I squint at Sefi. You said two. Who's the extra? The red, Xenophon replies. Your inside woman. Lyria? Lyria of bloody damn Largalos? I can't even laugh. I thought she was a cooked little rabbit. I lean back over the railing, mind whirling like a Rubicon wheel. Get out, old boy. Save your precious skin while you can. But this voice is quieter without the Z. Lyria of Lagolos and Volga Fjorgen, alive after all. And above Mars. What a thing. That settles it. 
even if I pretend it doesn't. Of course I have to throw a fit first, but I'd have had to agree anyway just to survive the meeting. Now I actually might stick around till I get what I need. How do you know they're alive? I ask. If the Julii took them. A hollow appears in Cephi's long hand. It is of a cell. Inside, Volga rocks back and forth. The poor girl. I see her smiling on race day in Hyperion. Laughing at the bar, offering me a cocktail. She was just a kid when I pulled her in. I was all she had. But she didn't have me. Not really. I bite my tongue bloody so I don't belt out into tears. Without the Z-Vald, it's all so much. Her image flickers away. The cold bitch queen stares at me. The Julii does not waste resources. I told her I would pay her for their release. If you pledge fealty to me, they are yours. Don't do it, old boy. She's going to die bad. Dreamers all do, don't you know? But some greater, hungrier part of me scrambles after this new flicker of hope. Volga, I'm going to save you, Snowball. Treat you like the queen you are. What's a Julii paying you for the kids? I ask, trying to distract myself and them. Got to be a big nut. That is not your concern, Sefi says. Your answer? Time seems to thicken. I find myself nodding. No fealty, I say. I'm no one's dog, and I'm sure as Hades not dying on Mars. You draw up a contract with Amani Gill Specs. Xenophon produces a hollow document from a data pad and flicks it to the table. Sefi smiles. She knows who she's doing business with, clever girl. I glance through it. It's Amani Gill Specs, all right. Not some savage blood oath. Maybe the world is changing. Sefi sips her wine as I eye the particulars. Three-year sunset clause. Contract void if I take Zolodome. What is it with everyone? Recognition of Scoogie death mark on my life if I skip out? That's fun and probable. I breeze to the remuneration and feel my toes tingle. The girls in six weeks, a quarter kilo of grade A diamonds in a Martian month, a ship with the deed, a signing bonus of 25 million credits. Fuck me. They're overpaying by kilometre. I want the girls on signature. No, Xenophon says predictably. You are a flight risk. Then double the monthly salary. A half kilo plus expenses. Going to be killing my neutral reputation throwing my lot in with black ops spirit killers and my girls need retirement money. The white begins to say no, but I cut it off. Listen, Milky, you're the one with the scarcity problem. Fix my leg up, spared me from the howlers. You need me for something you can't do, and I'm betting it ain't just teaching Scoogie. None of them react, but that's not saying much for these folk. You can't move your army from Earth without showing your cards. I get it. But that means something's coming. You'll tell me when I need to know. That's fine. But I'm getting hazard pay, because I'm sure it's going to be manic. You think highly of your talents, Mr. Horn, Sefi says. Or 
very little of your life? Now it's one kilo. Want to go for two? I put my hand out for the kill. Sefi's entourage tenses at the insult. Even gibbering black teeth know obsidian rules of contact. But then she surprises me. My hand disappears beneath her seven-gloved fingers. To a fruitful endeavour, she says. One more task. The reaper's boy is fond of you. He resists us. Bring him close. We may need insurance. Sure, yeah, whatever. I grin as she releases my hand. I got you, Snowball. Just hold on, and I got you. Chapter 24 Ephraim Scoogie Listen up and listen good, I say, just like my Tessarius did half a life ago. Two hundred black-eyed assassins watch me inside the empty hangar with suspicion. Taken from the remnants of tribes shattered by gold after Sefi joined the Rising and formed into one of the most feared assassin groups in the war, they're all prime specimens, and not one of this scoogie band is over thirty. Some, like their leader, Freyhild, are barely taller than I am. Others are built like tree stumps, others taller even than Ragnar Volarus. Others spindly and clever-faced. Each wears their bone-white hair in a topknot and a pale blue sleeveless tunic with the all-tribes winged crest tattooed in black on either shoulder. Those will have to go. My name is Ephraim Teehorn, and I was once considered the third best freelancer in Hyperion, which means I was the third best freelancer alive. Two months ago, I became the best. Those rumours you've heard, they're true. I stole the heir of the Reaper and the Sovereign, and the hell-spawn of the Goblin and Victra Aujulii, and I stole them twice with nothing but a red, a green, and an obsidian. Oh, and the second time, I did it solo. They're sceptical. Good. They take their cues from Freyhild, who looks at me as I'd look at Volga, trying to teach me how to use a coffee maker. I glance at Osgard, who stands beside me, nodding along, as if I spoke the greatest wisdom ever known. Since my fateful meeting with Sefi... He's shadowed me like a somnolent ghost, eating walnuts, sleeping outside my door, and sometimes in my room, with absolutely zero understanding of personal space, private property, or hygiene. Somewhere in that time, he claims to be teaching Pax and Electra the ways of the obsidian, but frankly I doubt it. I know drug addicts, and he smacks of one. No. You lot have done some killing. You know that business. You've fallen in rains, stormed breaches, killed golds and a whole lot of people that look just like me. You know asymmetrical warfare, direct action, and reconnaissance, like the top of your bleached pubes. But your natural talents are not enough. Your queen is of a mind that the world is changing, and you must change with it. Freyhild yawns. I jab a finger at her. You! What's the best way to take out a kill squad of fully armoured gold? 
when they stop to piss, she answers. There's laughter. Wrong. With a high-powered neodymium magnet. That would not kill them, she says. Killing ain't your mission anymore. Your queen wants a kingdom, so she needs operators focused on the mission, not the kill. EMP would be better, Rahill says. Wrong, moron, I say, irritating her savage sensibilities. Unless it's nuclear-powered, you ain't gonna do shit to that new armour. You're two years late. If you're not reading mechanical specs, you're not doing your job. When was the last time you read a spec report, Scoogie? Freyhild doesn't answer. Thought so. I will teach you unconventional domestic warfare. Soak Legion spycraft, surveillance, counter-surveillance, how to dance a laser grid, subvert security systems, foster insurrection on enemy soil, groom assets of every colour without beating them to a pulp, talk about anything for ten minutes, use neodymium magnets, hot-wire anything with an engine, manipulate anything with a prick or gash, and how to do it all without anyone knowing you're ever there. You will become ghost soldiers of the city jungle. You will not just become part of the underworld, you will own it. And I will make you appreciate the works of the Spanish surrealists, because they are the best artists the world ever conspired to create, and they are unappreciated by modern society. Are there any questions? They stare back blankly. Osgard clears his throat. Ephraim! Yes, Osgard. Forgot to mention. Only half speak common. I close my eyes. I hate you. Chapter 25 Virginia Oligarchs And immediate cessation of federal tax shelter provisions for unionized labor, guilds, and other collectives deleterious to the will of the free market. This brings us to Proposal 6.3. Senator Britannia Ag Krieg has period marks for eyes, and a widow's peak that could chip ice for my nightly bourbon. Chief negotiator for the Zenith Ring, the Silver's Common Interest Federation, Krieg stands in the centre hollow of their halo table, located within Sun Industries' Zenith Spire, Stained by big city lights, the clouds form a carpet far beneath the spire. At fifteen unnecessary kilometres in height, it is the tallest building in all Hyperion, dwarfing the memory of the old society military headquarters. Another apt metaphor for its creator, as well as our time. There are no senators present, save Britannia. The kept pets are sequestered downstairs, awaiting the orders of their true masters, Thirty-three silver trillionaires of the Zenith Ring sip tea from Ionian porcelain, in smug satisfaction that they don't visit the Sovereign. She visits them. Heralding from asteroids, planets, moons, and deep space trade stations, they share only four common virtues. Their colour, their religious conviction in the definition of the free market, not that they mind the government being their chief customer, their obsession with individual autonomy and their determination to act at all times like complete assholes. Not one of the oligarchs, save Quicksilver, was rich before the war. 
Now they represent the machine of war. Drakenjäger factories, shipyards, textiles, pharmaceuticals, rubber plants, shipping interests, silicon products. Without their companies, which I admit they did build against intense competition, we'd fight with sticks and stones. Quicksilver, the lone quadrillionaire, doesn't bother sitting at a place of prestige. He's off to the far right of the asteroid diamond table, sandwiched between a munition supplier and the asteroid mining magnet, who donated the table and deducted it from his taxes. The slump-shouldered, ham-fisted titan of industry doesn't look like the man who, along with Fitchner, engineered the destruction of the society. He is more concerned with the sugar in his tea than Senator Krieg's outrageous demands. He knows he'll get what he wants, because I don't want to fight with sticks and stones, because I need their silver votes, because without his helium, the ships he builds us will sputter and die. Even the eerie silver orb robot that floats ever-present over his shoulder couldn't make him aware of my promise to Publius. If he knew, he'd be beating me in private with verbal uppercuts and haymakers. He has been an enigma of late, his demands increasingly peculiar and opaque, which leads me to consider the possibility that he knows something I don't. I interrupt Krieg's soliloquy to gesture behind her. What the devil is that? The artwork beyond the ring table is a fifteen-metre-tall vanity of unrefined metal, morphed into a shape roughly mimicking a winged heel. Britannia looks back at it in irritation. That is the dawn of Hermes, sculpted from fused oort cloud dust by the master maker Glirastes of Mercury. The Honourable Regulus Argsoon acquired it two years ago at an Ophion guild auction for a record purchase price of 94 billion credits. Roughly the cost of two destroyers, or enough food to feed the Sumerian assimilation camps for 46 and a half months. The industrialists clatter their teaspoons on their teacups in salute. Cree continues her ransom demands. It is not the first time I've wished for her to be infected by the agonising intrusion of a parasitic organism. I should have introduced her to my brother when I had the chance. By the sound of Nakamura's shifting armour behind me, I can tell she agrees. A middling account executive for Silicon Goods before the rising, Senator Krieg made her fortune negotiating buyouts of liberated mines from Red Clans for Sun Industries during Quicksilver's mad dash to buy up the majority of the H3 market. What I released from my family's holding to Reds, he purchased not two months later. The Reds were properly represented by the White Guilds and chose gross proceeds instead of a one-time buyout. The contracts were thorough. It was all perfectly legal. But so is murder during wartime. Who possibly could have expected there to be no gross proceeds because the immensely rich helium mines still, according to the books, operate at a net loss. Me, namely. But the Reds, like everyone else in our society, suspected I acted in self-interest, and thus paid no heed to my warnings. Resetting automation limits to their former levels, and concluding with an elimination of Senator Caravel's flesh-and-bone quotas. Her words devolve into a faint buzzing and I yawn as she progresses to the last demands before finally reaching her denouement. 
an oral agreement will suffice for now, but amendments must be placed on the bill before the vote. Not all, naturally. We don't want to kill it, but certain provisions so that we can feel comfortable moving forward in good faith. These are our recommendations. The teacups tinkle, and the industrialists sit back in smug satisfaction to wait for my usual reluctant agreement. But I've been saving up my chips. I uncross my legs and put my boots up on the table. Quicksilver sees and tilts his head in interest. I extend a hand backward. Narkamora hands me my apple. I strip small pieces away with my boot knife and watch the silvers as I eat. Quicksilver chuckles to himself and waits in good nature for me to conclude the show. They look so smug. And why not? They've always gotten what they want from me, because it was cheaper to agree with them than to teach them. And they are good at what they do. Staggeringly efficient, inventive, ambitious and productive. But ancient Celts didn't invent spurs because horses are obedient. When the apple is little but core, I toss it on the table. I extend my hand back to Holiday again. She hands me ear caps. I insert them and reach back one last time. Now she hands me her anti-tank rail rifle. My answer to your proposal. Spitting an apple seed out of my mouth, I stand, shoulder the gun, take aim over the oligarchs, and fire around into the dawn of Hermes. They dive to the floor in terror. The magnetically propelled uranium round carves a trail of blue friction flames over their heads, setting the hair of Senator Krieg on fire and hits the statue with the force of a pillum missile. The oligarchs hold their wailing ears and peek out from behind the table. Smoke twirls through the hole blasted in the back of the room. The statue is in ruins. I admire the gun and toss it back to Nakamura. I take off my ear caps to dead silence. You just bankrupted three insurance companies, Quicksilver says, stirring the dust into his tea before taking a sip. One of the silvers clutches his cravat and, ears deafened by the report of the gun, shrieks in angst. Apologies, Bartus, Quicksilver says. I told you, you should have split the liability. The forty-nine-year-old human male is temporarily experiencing reduced auditory function of ninety percent, Quicksilver's sentinel robot explains. Oh, remind me to tell him later. Yes, master. Of the thirty-three industrialists, Quicksilver alone did not move. The moment the gun touched my hand, the air distorted around him, bending the flames away. Sound also seems not to have penetrated. Curious technology. Did it come from his sentinel drone? I can't tell. It drifts above his head like a pendulum, emitting arcane high-pitched frequencies. Interesting. Holiday tracks it like a scout, no doubt wondering how best to kill it and how many ways it could kill her. She better be using that sensor packet she brought. I like mysteries even less than bad breath. It is time to address the room. My good men, I repeat four times until I have their attention. Today is not a day for extortion. Today is the day for patriots. You should ask what you can do for our distressed republic. 
Instead, you present it with demands. Instead of rallying votes to help your comrades, you jockey for gain. I look at Quicksilver. I asked for a private meeting, and he ambushed me with this, as I knew he would. For too long he's been distracted, cantankerous, as if his coronation were on the horizon and all this was merely an inconvenience. He's working on something. Some project even with all my spies I am unable to identify. We don't have time for pet projects. What hesitation I had is now gone. The deck must be reshuffled. I soften my tone for him. There was a time when two good men stood against tyranny. Fitchner al Barker, and you. Where did that man go? He doesn't care to answer. Give them the recording, so I know they all heard me, I tell Nakamura. I turn back to Quicksilver. My answer to your extortion is no. My counteroffer is this. You have five seconds to tell your senators downstairs they will vote with me. Or? Or what? Quicksilver asks, as if I am still the aspiring politico he knew twelve years ago. I am not. She had better legs, but far less menace. Or I punish you in proportion to your ransom, I say. You are being intractable for some inscrutable reason, so you will be spanked. Oh, dear. How? Will you shoot more of my belongings? Have Severo drop the ceiling and castrate Daedalus over there? A handsome young silver caught dinging in his ear regained his hearing at just the wrong time. He pales and looks at the ceiling. What did I do? I make condensed proteins. Grow up, Virginia. These antics of your family have grown tiresome. Quicksilver jabs a finger into the table. This is how the world works. Quid pro quo. I nod to Nakamura. She starts counting. Five. Four. Ridiculous theatrics. Quicksilver strokes that gold eyeball ring of his. Mateo isn't even this dramatic. Three. Two. One. I walk toward the door. Remember, we built this republic, Quicksilver calls after me. Us, not you. His voice spikes sharply toward anger. Virginia, don't be a fool. Come back and be reasonable. You need us. That's what you fail to understand, I say at the door. There's no scarcity principle at play here, good man. You taught me better than anyone where there's a need, a silver will always appear. Doesn't have to be you. I toss the ear caps across the room. They land in Quicksilver's teacup. Your votes, good men. If not for the Republic, for yourselves. I leave. Holiday smiles as we enter my shuttle. Did you enjoy that, ma'am? She asks. Far too much. Will Seffi strike before the vote? I doubt it. We've gained half the silvers today. But in a month, they'll all come begging. I look at my data pad and glower. To Sunhall. Looks like the goblin has made a new mess. Chapter 26 Virginia The Goblin's Prey The chief assassin of the syndicate is dead, 
The Duke of Head's cranium has replaced that of a neo-rococo mermaid, who endures the unwanted attention of a particularly immoral agate satyr. The pool beneath is brackish with blood. Scarlet frogs hop along the lip of the fountain. I am thoroughly repulsed. Bravo, Severo. You've outdone yourself. Your wrath is so legendary. In my private office off Sun Hall in the Citadel, I chew the inside of my cheek and cycle the hologram. Theodora's investigators sent it from the North Hyperion mansion not ten minutes ago. With Daxo managing the vote hunt, I have precious time to spare to search for evidence they missed. Just no time at all for my untouched dinner. The arch-assassin for the syndicate was a grey man, with a heavy mustachio held together at the ends by two platinum bands. He had big bones and a strong neck, before it was severed by a razor. Amplifying the image, I find minor imperfections in the cut. Severo's razor. He's the only howler who uses a serrated blade. Doesn't make much difference when the edge is so sharp, but he thinks it looks scarier. He's right. Little else remains of the Duke's body. The carnivorous fish in the pool below were as thorough as my tax collectors should be. All that remains is his skeleton and the hook that lowered him. What a waste of a chance. If Severo finds the Duke of Hands before I do, and does this, then I fear we will never find who is truly behind this. Since he snuck onto this moon, Severo has brought the horrors he learned on the front lines fighting the fear night to the prime stream of the Holonet. I've managed to cover most of the massacres up, but some slip through. To make matters worse, he's in Lone Wolf Protocol. No contact until the mission is complete. Until the Queen is dead. Damn Victra. For setting him to this madness. It has netted him little more than 800 syndicate thorns, seven narcotics processing facilities, 16 minor nobles, a duke, and a duchess, but no queen. It has cost him far more. Three howlers, three weeks of precious time, the attention of the Republic Warden, and a declaration of war by the Syndicate Queen. Gruesome details flicker past. Appendages nailed to walls. Headless bodies sitting around an equally offensive Tobas table. Corpses in the atrium wearing glossy green armor. Emerald orphans by their markings. A freelancer company from Mars, consisting of elite ex-Legion greys. Mercenaries. A predictable but frustrating escalation. Unable to stop him on her own, the Queen of the Syndicate has turned to the free market to rid herself of Victor's attack dog. The highest price contract in the history of the war hangs over Severo's head. It is sufficient to draw every bounty hunter, hitman, and freelancer in the Republic to Luna, for the greatest private manhunt in a century. A small economy has spawned from the underworld wages on who will claim the top prize. Severo will not see it coming. Death will fall from a quiet man atop a skyscraper some kilometers away, a smart slug or a DNA-seeking hunter-killer drone. And then my brother's best friend is gone. He should be on Mars with Victra, or Mercury with Darrow, or working with me. Is revenge worth that much to you, Victra? God, she pisses me off. They underestimated the Queen, as did I at first. She has training, 
military-style organization and compartmentalization, safe houses, heavy arms, an impressive network of spies, even several military-grade attack ships. Theodora's women were thorough in their forensic investigation of the scene. I give up on finding exotic clues and deactivate the hologram. Here, in a vestibule of my private sanctuary, the walls are covered with fragments of paper, remnants of my childhood that Darrow thinks best burned. I keep them to remember what madness lurks within myself, to stay on the stiletto path and realise what waits if I am tempted to wander off. Within the frames on the wall of the vestibule are 311 puzzles, all that remain of those that my brother Adrius would make for me when we were children. I stare at them. Many are mazes, other complicated cryptograms or esoteric experiments. Each I solved. But I cannot solve this puzzle of who threatens my republic. I gently stroke the leaves of the night lily at the base of the puzzles. Many more of the plants decorate the room. My office, like many of the rooms in the citadel, contains defence mechanisms. Most are violent in nature. But some, like the escape tube concealed in the walls behind the puzzles, are only meant for retreat. I prefer the flowers, personally. The maids and staff know they are never to be touched on pain of incarceration. They don't know why. The lily's necrotic needles quiver at my touch, but it was gentle enough to leave them docile. If one seized the plant, the needles would spring forward. The pain is said to be worse than amputation. The poison spreads slowly, but eventually death follows. Dangerous to keep around, but so incongruent with the rest of my personality that it seems a necessary last line of defence. I cross my arms as I look at the puzzles, they all challenged me. My brother was clever, but once they are solved, they seem so simple. Will I think the same when I unwind the Queen of the Syndicate, when I discover why Quicksilver continues to stonewall? I look around. Am I being played right this very moment? A fire crackles in the hearth across the room, and I wonder if this isn't the beginning of my tragedy. If Victra falls in her clumsy gambit to retrieve my son, if no ships sail to Mars, will I reign for sixty more years in the shadow of their memories, an old woman in an empty castle? Boots clack against the metal floor behind me, and I seal the vestibule of puzzles behind a security wall. I just spit in the eye of my oldest ally, Nakamura, while the godfather of my son decorates my doorstep with corpses. I could really use some good news. I turn to face the centurion at the door. She wears a rare smile along with her black lion assault armor. In her arms is my white box. She got him. Lion guard is kitted and ready to roll. I grab both her shoulders and kiss her straight on the mouth. She gawps at me and then laughs as I rush out the door. Come, centurion. The hunt's afoot. Four stealth shuttles filled with Lion Guard elite, a sovereign and a former howler fly west as the Blitz presses into its twenty-fourth hour. Beneath, Hyperion boils. Armoured, with my precious white box in my lap, I watch the holo displays. Dancer was right. Tempers have escalated. 
On the Via Apennia, a human river of Vox marched south toward Hero Center, united now with Lunese, who fear war returning to their moon. Optimate supporters and my husband's zealots marched west along the Via Triumphia. Riot police, energy barriers and mechanized units descend to keep the peace. Yet the demagogues keep pouring the fuel. Arch Imperator Zahn stokes fear to swell the supporters of the Vox's radical wing. She pounds her pulpit as enthusiastically as a frigid blue can stirring up a frenzy of Lunese patriotism, claiming Atlantia will come to Luna and not a ship will be left to protect the moon. Vox black chains, low-colour civilian shock troops wearing chained necklaces, terrorise high-colour neighbourhoods, beat silver businessmen, break windows, and intimidate local magistrates into begging senators to vote for Luna. Worried mid-colours flock to dancers' moderation. He soothes them, his message carrying hope and notions of sacrifice. It is easy for them to feel noble. It isn't the children of Luna who die on Mercury. Despite Publius, the Incorruptible's public support for my cause, we have lost the Silvers, and the vote is descending into madness. Back home on Mars, Reds burn effigies of Dancer and march with sling blades. The same crowds that sing the forbidden song wave lion icons and chant, Lion Heart, Reaper. Arch Governor Rolo gives a rousing screed that ends with, Treason might float on Luna, but not on Mars. Any senator that votes to kill the free legions and the reaper of Mars better enjoy that blood-sucking moon, for if they come back, I'll pull their bloody damn feet. Thunderous applause. To make matters worse, it looks as though the obsidians will vote against me. Sefi is playing too many games for her own good. Does she not know that every step she has taken since she departed Luna has been part of my design? I thought her wiser than that. Amidst all this, a ray of light. Theodora has proven herself worthy of the second chance I gave her, after she resorted to torturing Lyria of Largalos against my orders. We unload on the roof of the black site before the shuttles can set down. Leading the Lion Guard ops team, Holiday jumps out like a quan hound, her flinty eyes roving the shadows for signs of danger, her ambi rifle packed with all sorts of Sun Industries mayhem. I land in grav boots with a heavy clomp, tuck my white box under my arm, and head toward a door stamped with radiation warnings. The black site is quiet. The lights dim. Behind two high-security doors, several of Theodora's splinter operatives, deadly pink assassins in next season's Hyperion couture, lounge incongruously atop mass-produced furniture, smoking burners with a famous violet soprano of the Hyperion opera. The soprano burst to his feet upon my entrance. He's still wearing the costume of a Renaissance courtier, a rapier, a fur-trimmed night cloak and a carnival mask that dangles from a string around his neck. I applaud as he sweeps up from his low bow. My sovereign! Bravo, Basilicus! I heard your performance tonight was one for the ages, both the aria and the fourth-act seduction. Would that I had seen it all. We all play our small part. His voice rings clear and thin. And what a stage you gave us, my liege! 
Perhaps you will attend the Orphea again soon, when the days are less dire. Lucreto does so miss your patronage. Of our great benefactors, we see not even the master carver these days. In fact, no one has seen Mickey for a month. I have my theories. Daxos are hilarious. Perhaps, I say to the splinter, we would all be better for seeing beauty more often. Your service tonight will not be forgotten. Hail, Reaper, he replies softly, pulling a small sling-blade necklace from beneath his cravat. He kisses the blade as though it were sacred. We pray to the veil and the old man who stands aside the path that he and the lost legions will be delivered. We also pray for you. Save your prayers to gods and spirits, Basilicus. Humans made this mess. Humans will fix it. The interrogation room is a soundproof white cube in the centre of a dilapidated propaganda factory, the windows of which have been welded over. In the gloom, water slithers down hunched old machines to feed fungus growing on piles of plastic ages and toy vanguards. Two of Theodora's green psychotechs sit in front of the interrogation cube's transparent data wall, illuminated with neurological data from the prisoner inside. Theodora, I call as we cross the room. Your beautiful carnivorous flower. I'd kiss you, but it would fluster Nakamura. You're worth ten legions, you gem. My spymaster wears a long black city cloak. Her white hair is coiled atop her delicate head like a nesting albino snake. Eyes, cold and lovely as rodolite garnet, sweep over us. Only two legions, actually. But that was when I was sixteen. The smile of the shorter woman is slow and minor. A musk barely perceptible to even my senses lingers in the air. I feel a little nauseous. Hardly a coincidence. Do they know he's missing? I ask. He snuck away for his deprivations. We probably have several hours before they know. But they may have taken precautions. And the leak? Dripping. Nakamura, what are you doing? I call. She's crept closer to the interrogation cube. Theodora steps in her path and puts a delicate hand on her breastplate. Easy, girl. Holiday pushes her to the side in her eagerness to draw even closer to the Duke of Hands, stopping only when Theodora breaks smelling salts under her nose. Holiday blinks out of her reverie and looks down to see her safety is off on her rifle. She clicks it back on. Sorry, I... What was that? Pheromonal defense mechanisms, Theodora says. PDMs aren't that strong. His are... Theodora smears the smelling salt under Holiday's nose. Should be lucid now. Do tell us if you start getting a little warm down between the thighs, dear. A flush spreads across Holiday's cheeks. I'm fucking fine. Theodora turns back to me. You were right for us to use salts. He's also trained in psychisonics. Even my splinters had to wear ear caps to filter. I sniff the air. Smells like roses and poppy seed oil. Theodora is impressed. You can actually distinguish it. My, my. Would I love to take your nose on a walk through the forest? Yes, well, sewers are interesting. 
How did Ephraim manage against that man? I ask. Those pheromones would knock Darrow on his ass. Zolodone, Holiday says. He was jacked to the gills for a decade. Of course. Conclusion on our breed hypotheses? Custom hybrid. Eunomian embryo and either priapian or enian sperm. Whichever it is, it made a rose of a very dangerous strain. Theodora looks back at the cell with a contempt, so gracefully articulated with her lips and eyes, that it makes me feel as coordinated as a bow-legged colt. Rarer even than mine. I believe he came from the Hesperia Gardens breeding tubes. Hesperia? Holiday's eyes go sour. You've heard of it? I ask. She nods. Trigg and I were sent there on a Dracone's kill detail once. We saw the death rooms. It was what made Trigg pull the trigger to seek Ares. I believe they were called pruning chambers, Theodora says. Atalantia was a patron, I say, examining the man. Could he serve her? Would he still? This whole charade doesn't fit Atlas. But even absent hard evidence linking Atalantia... It's certainly eccentric enough for someone who learned her trade in the silk viper pit that was Octavia's court. I knew Atalantia for a little over a year. She made even Daxo seem tame. Octavia often worried her erotophonophilia spoke of greater character flaws. Not that I can imagine anything worse than deriving sexual pleasure from executions. Arja despised her for it. And now the psycho has the gold war machine, Holiday grunts. Shame your brother's pet crashed her ship into Hesperia. Trigg and I had a date with the proprietors. This Duke of Hands will have seen the worst of my kind. I feel no small amount of pity for that. But the two women standing with me are proof anyone can write their own destiny. I open my white box and head to the cube. I'll conduct the extraction myself. You'll want the salts, Theodora says, glancing warily at the cylinders in the box. Please, this horse rides for only one man. An hour later, pressurised air hisses as the door seals me inside again. The walls, ceiling and floor are white, but there are no corners and no perceivable curvature. It's as if the slender man sits in a chair at a table suspended in nothingness. Even with his pink hair lank and a bruise swallowing his left eye, the Duke of Hands is how I imagine Narcissus would look. Mythic vanity made supple flesh and angular bone, so physically attractive he could drown himself in his own reflection and not pity his own death. Already his body will be adjusting to me, intuiting my predilections, beginning its assault on my sexual drive. But they didn't call my father a cold fish for nothing. Houses of the conquering, especially mine, learned long ago. The dangers an alluring pink could pose to the young scions of their line. In reply to this one's pheromonal assault, my neurological defense systems activate. Deep in my medulla, my chemoreceptor trigger zone detects the pheromones, interprets them as emetic agents, and relays stimuli to the integrative vomiting center, which nearly triggers emesis. It feels rather like radiation poisoning. Familiar. Thank you, Father. 
Swallowing the nausea, I peek around the table at the Duke's pink feather loafers. Rodacci? He snorts in amusement. Quite. Hummingbird? Griffin. I wag a finger at him. The Valkyrie would have your ribcage. Oh dear, a pity you've none about. Word streetwise is that they've simply vanished, like a carnival trick. That must set you on edge, my sovereign. Not quite. The words are true, verbatim to the ones he spoke when he first saw me an hour ago. Incredible, the brain's consistency. I've planned this meeting for some time, and prayed it would happen before Severo found this chief prize. On the day my son disappeared, the master thief had already vanished into the city when my lion guard arrived at his Endymion high-rise, leaving only his blood behind. It had been sprayed with an agent to destroy its DNA markers. Seeking him has been like catching smoke. When I was a child, I begin. Oh, Jove, a story. I smile at the deja vu. What a peculiar feeling this is. Does he not notice the ache at the back of his skull? My father took me to visit the Jens Votum. He was keen on impressing upon me the vagaries of Jens Votum diplomacy. But I was a young girl and easily bored. I looked at Mercury, and I did not see iron or political intrigue. I saw a strange, violent little planet with a master maker who carved desert mountains into wonders and jungles so deep and dark you'd think you'd lost the sun and ended up on Pluto. I begged Father to let me see the jungles. Simply begged. Till at last even he could not do anything but send me off. It was a ridiculous procession. Votum botanists and scientists accompanied me and Lion Guard and my father's politico, Pliny, into the heart of the jungle. There were many odd sights there, as you can imagine, but there was one that arrested me, one that reminds me of you. It was a scene I witnessed at dusk not far from our camp. I was watching a zebra corps drink from the banks of a river when suddenly the jungle moved and a bush hydra struck from the tree line. It choked the zebra corps to death and then unhinged its jaw to swallow it whole. I'd never seen anything like it. There it lay, perversely gorged and supine. Right there, on the bank of the river. Couldn't believe my eyes. But it gets better. As it digested its meal, a single Sarissa ant discovered it. You know them, of course. We found them in your high-rise. Soon there were two ants, then ten, then a million floating like water across the jungle, and... As the hydra lay glutted on the ground, too full to escape, I watched them devour it, till all that was left was a skeleton around another skeleton. He's been excreting pheromones at a phenomenal rate. Don't you think we'd be better without all those eyes watching us? He purrs. His eyelashes flutter. I wither under lights. Wouldn't you like to turn off the cameras? He asks so much stress on those shoulders of yours. Wouldn't you like release? His tongue wets his upper lip. I can do that. You'll believe you've ascended into the clouds of Jupiter. I lean forward, as if drawn to his magnetism, then squeeze his nose and make a farting sound. His eyes go rancid. Cold bitch. 
waste of hair. He sneers because my insult was better, and leans back. They all say you're the brightest star in all the heavens, a face to make angels weep, and a mind to make a shadow of the sun. But you're just a withering meat like all the rest, aren't you? He sniffs. I can smell the decay. Your tits already stretch and sag from childbearing. Your mind murmurs of the madness that ate your psychotic brother and wanders to the fate of your marooned husband and your little boy. And slowly you begin to wonder if you're not a tragedy instead of a triumph. He laughed so sweetly you'd think he was massaging my feet. I suppose those maladies give you allowance to make such opera out of your childhood. He bats his eyes and leans forward, mouth open seductively. Honestly. Do I look a hydra? I finish for him. He pauses in confusion as I steal the words right out of his mouth. I keep going with what he's going to say because he said it just forty minutes ago. Not that he remembers it. My bones are brittle as porcelain. My nerves tender and tight. Why, with one swat of your hand, you could shatter this frail anatomy. No, I am no hydra. I am the ant. And you are the fat snake who has swallowed what you cannot digest. And we surround you, devouring bite by bite by bite. He's dumbstruck, not understanding how I could possibly predict his little soliloquy. Perhaps, I say in reply to myself, Perhaps you are right. Time will tell. But insects have short life expectancy, so I guess time kills, too. Tough metaphor for you. He swallows, seeking confidence, some semblance of control. All my life, I've tamed myself not to frighten others. Sometimes it is fun to let the lion out. Have we met before? He asks. I lean forward. Wouldn't you remember? He considers the question, his mind stumbling over the gaps I made in his memory. He shakes his head. The tweaks I made to the psychospike implanted in the back of his skull have improved results drastically. Octavia was so close to perfection with her pandemonium chair. The device was stored in her crescent vault. It has the capacity to shift through and edit memories. But while the chair is a blunt force instrument, my psychospikes are scalpels. You really look so thin on the holos, the Duke of Hands says, eyes tracing my legs. But you must have me by fifty kilos for the chair to sag like that. The bone density is startling. I would ask if it's hard to swim, but I suppose everything's proportionate. I wonder. His eyes settle on my knuckles. Could you shatter my skull with one punch? Like a soft-boiled egg. It must be intoxicating, godlike. He admires it. He craves it. He knows he'll never have it, like my brother with father's love. I'd feel bad if I didn't know the dangerous pressure that he puts on a naturally cruel soul. But of course you do not notice. He licks his lips, nervously, off his game. He'd gotten used to owning the conversation. What do you think would happen if I were you and you were me? If I was given that war-born body of yours, and you were given this frail vessel of mine? Do you think you would have the courage to do as I have done? To wait behind a door, 
no older than fifteen, wondering who your master has sold your body to. He said this before, but I let him say it again. No one should steal these words from him. It is immoral. And then to see them enter, and look at you like a meal without conscience or soul. Could you stomach it once? Twice? Satiating them. A thousand times watching yourself be devoured, feeling them throbbing inside of your body, violating the only possession that you were given in this world until they shudder in ecstasy, and at last withdraw and look at you with contempt. Are you that strong? No. I continue his train of thought, now allowed to steal the very words that he said from our earlier conversation. For the speech is to be so similar, he must have rehearsed this meeting many times. How could you ever sit where I sit now and face you down, never having been the stronger party in a fight? I dare say it would have broken you, but it did not break me. If I were given your body, your life, why, your hardest day would be a mean meal, and I, I touch my chest, would be king of all things. He's given up confusion for horror. Cat got your tongue, I say with a toothy smile. Now is where I offer you a reward for the queen. You spit in my face. You tell me you need no trinkets. You've gained them yourself. You are not my whore. What you have, you've taken. What you want, you will take. You are a man, not a rat, and a man must have a code. But it seems we are two apes dancing around fire. Shall we poke the blaze? You want to ask about your little boy, don't you? His unspoken words from my mouth incite a frenzy in him, but I keep going, torturing him, making him tiny. He's been raped and fed to dogs, I sneer. Piece by piece, they started with the legs and saved the eyes for last. Not even a twitch. Iceheart would have bit better. Don't you care about your son? Words have deserted him. He's trapped in a nightmare. Of course I care, but you don't have him, I say. Someone far more dangerous, but far more predictable does. I glance at my data pad. Holiday has given the signal. Finally, the novelty was wearing off. Fidelity is confirmed. I have what I want. Bitch, he hisses. How are you in my head? What is this? In part, this is me measuring the fidelity of your brain patterns and predictive behaviour to help me develop an evolving technology. But more to the point, this is me killing time. His pretty eyes narrow. For what? Finally, the lights go out. The Goblin of Mars. Chapter 27 Virginia Pack You have to protect me. The Duke strains on his handcuffs. I'll never get used to seeing the fear Severo wakes in people. Deep down, they know Darrow is operating on a framework of logic. No one, not even me, believes that Severo is completely sane. How's the saying go? I asked the Duke. That's right. The Reaper may go through you, but the Goblin stays for seven courses. I'm a prisoner. I have rights. You can't let him butcher me. I don't have the little bastards. I'm a prisoner of the Republic. I have rights. I'll see if he agrees. Wait, please. 
I disappear out the door as the Duke shivers in terror. With the power cut, the warehouse is dark, but for the lights around the small camp outside the interrogation cube. Theodora and Holiday sit at the table sharing tea, and quietly debating whether the white sand beaches of South Pacifica or coastal vineyards of Thessalonica are more pleasant. I join them and kick my feet up. Obviously South Pacifica. Impossible to get the stench of the valley I rat out of Thessalonica. Could you please pour me a cup, Centurion? Sugar? No, thank you. A little indulgence never hurt anyone, Theodora says. I raise an eyebrow toward the screaming duke in his cube. Well, except for him. I sip the sugarless tea and scan the shadows, wondering if he's already there. Severo, stop wanking off in the shadows and come down. No response. We have tea. A shadow parts from the darkness amongst the rafters and lands in the centre of the floor. The short, plump figure wears light-absorbent tactical gear and a lupine helmet with a snarled snout and feminine ears. It is severely damaged and torn in several places. The helmet slithers back into its catch to reveal a round face with flushed cheeks. Pebble's smile is awkward. I tip my cup. Low, Mars. Low, Minerva. How is Luna treating you these days? Garbage detail. You know, better than dead horses, I guess. Is Severo joining us for tea or just going to skulk up in the rafters? Boss, she calls up. Think it'd be rude at this point not to... I hate tea. A synthesized voice growls from above. It's just coffee with piss instead of coffee. He says, He'll like this kind. I brewed it for him. She said you'll like this kind. She brewed it for you. Ask her what kind of tea it is. He wants to know what kind of tea it is. Wolfsbane. Obviously. She says it's Wolfsbane tea. Silence. That's fucking hilarious. A second shadow parts from the ceiling and falls twenty metres to land with a thump beside Pebble. Covered head to toe in battered scarab skin and weapons, my son's godfather stands to his full, unimpressive height. He swings his multi-rifle round to his back, where it attaches to its magnetic holster. Though his fingers play with the hilt of his father's old razor, never has trusted me fully. He stops as he passes Theodora and fixes his helmet's eyes on her city cloak. Where's your wand, Merlin? Where's your wife, Savage? She eyes the scalps hanging from the hook on his utility belt, hardly impressed. Vile. Have you gone full, Askamani, my dear? Please. The petty pirates copied me. Like Rollo with that goatee. Severo raises two fingers twisted together in the crux and slumps into the chair I kick out for him, though he does take a diva's care not to rumple the rancid wolf cloak that hangs from his left shoulder. Holiday pours him a cup from a second thermos. You look ridiculous, I say. Take off the helmet. Slag off. This is custom scyther armour. The weird wolf head regards the cup with crimson duro glass eyes. I drink coffee. 
I squint at the armour. I knew it. You can't see colour in that thing. He pauses. Then the cracked snout and spiked ears ripple backward into their catch to reveal a pinched, cruel face, pitted by relics of childhood acne and almost more feral than the helmet itself. His head is shaved but for a short warhawk with a zigzag running down the centre of it. He squints at the cup, sniffs, and finds that it is indeed coffee, not tea. You think your tricks are so charming, he says. He picks up the cup, pretending he isn't desperate for his private stash of Jamaican Blue Mountain. If I get even a slight bit dizzy, you get a trank in the face from Min Min. Holiday snorts. Like that roster could hit the broadside of a Telemannesis's ass. In mockery, she holds up her teacup by its handle. Half the teacup in her hand turns to powder, as a silent rail slug passes through it and into the wall behind, striking it like a gong. Unimpressed, Holiday measures the remaining half of the cup and holds up the measurement to wherever Min Min is, as if the red were a sloppy shot. Guess it gets boring on campaign. Severo mutters under his breath and nods to Holiday. Holly? Sir? He fails to find a wolf cloak on her shoulder. You look lost. She actually looks ashamed. For not going with Darrow? For sitting beside me instead of Severo? I didn't spend time to think of that. Just because she's doing what she thinks is right doesn't mean she likes it. Whatever closeness I feel to Holiday must pale in comparison with the intimacy of the pack. Ten years on four spheres. They're her home, and Severo is the master of the house. No wonder a toga would sound so horrible. I feel suddenly like a presumptuous interloper. I was lost, Severo. How was Venus? Vacations, you know. Hopped around the islands, visited some old friends, warmed ourselves by a fire, then came home to an empty house. Speaking of fire, how's the cooch rash? Better than your face. Good. So you'll be bringing your kid stealing rat fuck relation to me in no time. He's got a special reservation. He pats his scalp hook. Yeah, you can get back to me with that answer, but I'm charging interest. He sips his coffee and glares at me. So, Stang, you found the right bait to make yourself a wolf trap. Clever you. When you weren't answering my calls. He barely shrugs. Didn't even have the courtesy of telling me you were on Luna. That's hardly the behaviour I expected from my son's godfather. Was busy eating my way up the food chain. He rolls his head to crack his neck. Uncomfortable with the stillness. You talk with the apex asshole. I nod. Before he made landfall. He woke the storm gods. He saved his army, I correct. So Mercurian lives don't count, he asks. More to me than to you, I imagine, I reply. He shrugs. Pebble always wanted to surf. He glances over his shoulder. Didn't you, Pebble? Uh, that was Thistle, sir. Who? Thistle was the howler who betrayed them and joined my brother's bone riders ten years before. That's how Severo is. Betray him and you're purged from existence.
The civilian toll was likely catastrophic, I say. But go on and make jokes. Civilians, he snorts. You haven't met many Mercurians lately. Mosquitoes, all of them. If Darrow wants to die, he couldn't pick a better planet to take with him. Those freaks actually like chains. He yawns. Surprised. Thought if anyone could get him to come back for his boy, it'd be you. Oh, so we're making him a monster, so you feel better, I reply. I said, Pax is in danger. Race back and rescue him because I'm not actually the most powerful person in the Republic. I need my husband. Boo-hoo. Weak and helpless am I. Pax needs you. I look at Pebble. And Darrow replied, Pax who? Severo just sits there. I didn't ask him to come back, you little diva. I agree with his decision. He's where he should be. His eyes narrow. You're a mother. How could... Careful, Severo. I've never questioned your love for your children. Do you really want to question mine? He chose war over his boy. He's gone iron gold on us. Doesn't care about anything else. He drawls. And you want to pretend that was easy for him. I see. Does that soothe your conscience? It was a long ride back from Venus. He looks away. Don't tell me you weren't eaten alive with guilt. Electra is one person. One. You chose her over ten million who die for you. Ten million you inspired. Who chanted your name. Who left their families behind to follow you. It's risky, but he needs this slap in the face. What about your responsibilities? What about the families of the Free Legions? What about your oath to this re fuck the Republic? Behind him, Pebble looks at the floor. I thought so. Selfish jackass, Holiday snaps at him. Traitorous twat. Traitor? That's rich after Wolfgar. Accident, he looks at me. He got in our way. He jerks his head back at Holiday. Seriously, shut the fuck up. You don't even have a kid. We were your family. We put you back together after Trig punched the ticket. And you didn't even have the balls to come with us to Venus. So teeth together and look crusty beside your new master, because we all know you're wet bread inside. Theodora really doesn't like that. Severo, dear, you haven't had your balls for ten years. You gave them to Victor as a bridal dowry. And let's not get started on how many times I've seen you cry. Wet bread, indeed. Severo looks calmly over to me. They know I hit women, right? We're trying to save Darrow's life, I say. We are trying to protect the future while you... My girls are my future, he snaps. They've got a lot of life ahead of them. Only way they'll be safe is if I teach the syndicate a lesson no one will ever forget. If you touch a barker, you cease to exist. You are short-sighted, emotional, and in dereliction of duty, Imperata. I glare at Pebble and at the shadows on the ceiling. That goes for all of you. Pebble rocks from foot to foot. You want me to butter you up? Say I understand. Give you a hug? Get over yourself, Severa. Talk, talk, talk. Severo spits on the table, getting my hand. The coffee does little to hide the halitosis he gets in the field. Gross. 
Slag it. My balls are growing a beard. He pulls Tickler, a knife as long as a child's forearm from his boot, and sets it down on the table. You got a duke that needs castrating. We got history, so I gave you a word. Bored now. You won't be castrating anyone, I say. Think you can stop me? A grin slashes his face. When was the last time you got your hooves bloody in a tussle, horsey? You're going to need more than those 40 rear echelon pixies on the roof and old Holly here to stop us. Maybe you got big bitch Daxo hiding in the wings. A horde of lion guard waiting to pounce. You don't want to go full metal with me. Not today. Don't insult your own intelligence by insulting mine, I reply. If I wanted to put you in irons, I'd have activated a containment field and embedded gravity engines in the ground that would subject you to an ungodly quantity of Gs that would knock all of you idiots unconscious in your fancy armour, scyther made or not. But I didn't, because this is a family affair, and I fear further damage to your already questionable grey matter. He doesn't trust me. Winkle, he says into his comm. Sky, still clear? He grunts at the reply. Keep an eye out. Daddy's going to carve a steak. He sets his coffee down and stands. You're not the only one who lost a child, I say. That makes him pause. Yet you play this charade, knowing the pain I'm in, knowing the fear I feel. I would never do this to you. It's one of the first times I've seen pity in his eyes. Pax is safe. We got it under control. You have half the bounty hunters in the Republic after you, I say. The wardens are one step behind. You and my husband killed Wolfgar. He was their founder, their war hero. Accident or not, they want blood. I put a hand on the table, minding the spit. Severo. Brother. What about this seems in control to you? That plays on his guilt and his insecurities. He doubts Victor's plan. His shoulders curve forward into the slump he always wore as a young man. Selfishly, I want him to choose to tell me. I need that choice from him so I don't resent him for the rest of my life. Severo, where is my boy? I ask one last time. His eyes are starting to go glassy. I know this isn't your doing. You'd be with your daughters, not carving up my city. But you can choose to tell me. He swallows, looking for some escape. He wants to tell me, but he loves his wife more than his conscience. I wasn't here, he mutters. I had Darrow's back till I had to have Victor's. You're third in line, so don't keep asking. We'll get Pax to you. That's an oath but i got to have my wife's back. So you won't tell me. Maybe I'll tell Mustang. But you ain't her. You're the sovereign now. I finally get that. V's been telling me that for years. You're the sovereign. Darrow's the reaper. Everything else is second. Shit, I ain't even supposed to be talking to you. Yet you are. He nods. I'll catch hell for it. She thinks you're some sort of mind reader. Or that I'm a dumbass and I'll spill the beans. Probably true. It hurts to see him like this. I want to be angry with him. 
In some ways I am. But this isn't his fault. Victra is to blame. Julie have always had cantankerous genes. There is no right or wrong for her. Only hers and everyone else. I was her. It was a warm place to be. But over time I alienated her as Virginia shrank and the sovereign grew. Perhaps it was inevitable. A fault line between the consciousness of our two clans that now has ripped open into a gulf. It may never mend. But Severo is Severo. I have to believe that. No matter what he does, he doesn't go cold like Victra and Darrow. This is breaking him apart. The horrid violence. The lowered head. The refusal to communicate. All remnants of his early survival mechanisms. Do we ever leave them behind? I don't need him to betray Victra. I can't ask him for that. But I can relieve this burden from him, and maybe this gulf between us. Communication is our salvation. Severo, I already know what she's doing. Nah. His eyes harden. She said you'd say that. Try to pick me for intel. He hefts his knife. Now stay real still. I don't want to poke any of you, but this needs doing. He's never seen the Queen's face, Severo, I say. We'll see about that. He expects Holiday to rise up and block his path as he walks toward the cube, but she stays seated, as I ordered. I know why Victra went to Mars, I call after Severo. He doesn't stop. She's going to pay the ransom. He stops short of the interrogation cube's door. Victra wouldn't go to Mars unless our children were there. And you wouldn't dare attack the syndicate if they still had them. So they don't. Nice try. I ain't falling for it. That leaves us with four possibilities. A third party hired the syndicate to steal the children and receive them as planned. A fourth party intervened and has them and the syndicate's original plan and backer are out of luck. Or Ephraim sold the children to another buyer, or he absconded with the children and is ransoming them. Holiday emotes nothing. Severo turns his head a quarter of the way around. The last two are unlikely, judging by the fact we found Ephraim's right leg at the crash site. The first is unlikely because the syndicate has put out a bounty on Ephraim and made no ransom demands to me. So that leaves the second possibility. A fourth party has them. Severo turns all the way around. I feel a sudden swelling of excitement as I realise he won't betray Victra, but actually wants me to guess it right. He wants to come in from the cold. He doesn't want this division. But at the same time, he's afraid his wife is right. If I guess what they're doing, I'll bring a stop to it. Assuming that is correct, and taking into account Victra's actions, they have asked for a ransom from Victra instead of me. Wise. Victra is paying that ransom. It is a ransom she thinks I would not pay, otherwise why cut me out of the loop, considering my assets? She may be spiteful, but children are sacred to her. She'd never hurt me that way to teach me a lesson. She prefers knuckles to jaws. So... What do you two have that I don't have? And who is it valuable to? The list is appallingly small. 
shipyards, ore haulers, trade ships and hubs. Taking into consideration the curiously timed pilgrimage Sefi has taken to Earth and the overabundance of evidence supporting her existence there, I know she is not on Earth. Nor is she with the Obsidian fleet heading opposite Mars's orbit toward the belt under auspices of chasing Obsidian pirates. She is on Mars, all still within the heart of Venus, which she purchased through a shell company, awaiting victorious ships and possible further aid in stealing Quicksilver's helium mines in Cimmeria. I lean forward. That's aiding and abetting an attack on Mars. Severo has gone very still. His eyes flick to Pebble. Look at me, I say. No one betrayed you. This is simply what I do. The shame is apparent on his face, but he holds my gaze. Sefi said she would kill Electra and Pax if we didn't get her the ore-ships. You believe her? Ragnar was my brother, but Sefi is ice. If you interfere, I don't intend to. He cocks his head. Could we stop them getting the mines? Yes. But not without dire cost to the ecliptic guard and the Martian legions. We will need all we have when gold comes. Obsidian lost too many at Mercury, a planet they can't even live on. They are done with the offensive war, but if they have a stake on Mars, if they have a homeland, they'll defend it against the slavers. War has stretched us thin. We haven't had the money to rebuild Samaria. They will, from the helium they sell us. Helium we already buy from Quicksilver. We haven't the resources to divert to eliminating the Red Hand. Sefi will, with greater prejudice and focus than I could. Quicksilver has convinced the Zenith Ring they own the Republic. He's in need of a valuable lesson. And what does it cost us? Land and pride. Two things we can spare. The public will cry foul, but it will happen after the vote. Soon Atalantia will come. The silvers will fall in line. Sefi will understand I allowed it when I withdraw all Republic forces as soon as they begin their assault. The first ambassadors she receives will be Darrow's brother, Kieran, and Kavax's wife, Niobe. They will have weight with her. They will offer a defensive military alliance with the Republic and secure a helium contract. Then we turn our eyes on Atalantia. Victra said... We thought you would never let it happen. Victra can be an idiot, and so can you. When can you say the same for me? I wait. I'm sick and tired of everyone swimming around like drunk piranha because they assume I am toothless. Whether or not we save Darrow, atomic war is coming to the Republic. The time for disunity is over. Finally, I stand up and step toward him. You are in a democracy, Barker. The people chose me as sovereign. They choose me to lead. Until my term or life comes to an end, I am in command. If you want to abandon the republic we built to play with your kids, fine. Slag off and wait for mushroom clouds. But if you want to be a part of it, get your head out of your arse, stop making my life difficult, and report for duty. Clown falls from the ceiling to land beside his wife. Minmin comes next. One by one, the howlers separate from the shadows to join them on the floor 
until 25 of the hardest killers in a democracy of 8 billion stand, looking at Severo. Their demands are clear. Severo picks his teeth with Tickler, tucks the blade away and snaps to attention. The howlers stomp their heels together. Imperata, Barker and Howler, first cohort, reporting for duty, ma'am. Good to have you back, Imperata, I say. Your first order. I motion him forward and wipe salt under his nose, then place my data pad controller to the Duke's psychospike in his hands. There is a terrorist in that interrogation cube. When I tell you, activate this program. Afterward, if he knows what colour his eyes are without looking in a mirror, shoot him in the head. Can you perform this task, Imperata? Severo raises an eyebrow at me. He knows I know he wants to torture the Duke for the Queen's location. He wants to express his doubts. But if I don't have his trust after what just went down, I'll never have it. I need to know now. Yes, ma'am. He walks into the cube. I watch with the howlers from outside. The odour returns on the sound. The Duke is snorting in thin derision at Severo. Think I'm afraid of you, mongrel. I've seen my queen make eunuchs with her quan hounds. I've seen her kill a room full of endymion heavies with nothing but a hatchet. I've seen her melt babies in acid. I'll never tell you where she is. Severo squints at the Neurolink and activates the program. The image of a masked woman in a crown fills the room. It ripples past, replaced by Gorgo, the Queen's right hand. A derelict tank manufacturing plant blooms. More images of syndicate facilities whiz past. Severo goes very still when the face of an old friend appears in the images. Dancer. At first he must think it's some mistake. Then more holograms of the man appear in the Duke's memory. Severo looks at me through the glass with a dead look in his eyes. Boyo, I think you already did tell us, Severo whispers. The Duke stares in horror at his memories given holographic form. He begins to scream at what he's done, not understanding, not knowing how we have the secrets he would have died to protect. Then, the program moves to its second phase. The psycho spike on the back of his skull glows. The duke goes rigid. His eyes blank. The veins of his neck stand out. In five seconds, it is all over. He slumps in the chair, breathing heavily. When he looks up, he is not the same man. Gone is the agony. Gone are the inflections of sexuality. He is purged of himself. Severo is even taken aback. Theodora smiles over at me. What colour are your eyes? Severo asks. The man who was the Duke of Hand stares at Severo in confused terror. What colour are your eyes, asshole? The Duke touches his eyes. For a moment, I think I miscalculated, and I've wiped his verbal functions. Then... He stammers an answer. I... I don't know. He looks at Severo's eyes and gives the logical answer. Red? Severo looks wide-eyed back at us through the cube. Whoa! He turns back to the man who was the Duke. 
Do you know who I am? What's my name? The man shakes his head, terrified of the armoured beast in front of him. Who wouldn't be? What did you do? Pebble asks me. Octavia was a paranoid autark. Fearing deception, she employed teams of violet carvers and orange mastermakers to create biological esoterica and machines to divine truth. There is one that piqued my interest upon accessing her vault. It was the apogee of her devices, one called the pandemonium chair, a battering ram into the mind, so to speak, a crude one which I've been refining as a way of decompressing before bed. I gesture to my white box to show her the three thin spikes no longer than a red's pinky. I call them psychospikes, far more elegant than the chair, far more useful. Whatever was the Duke of Hands, memories, predilections, personality, is now erased. He is tabula rasa. I hold up a small data chip. That which was flesh is now silicon. By Jove, Pebble whispers. Is it permanent? We will see. The howlers scoot closer to the cube. I tell Holiday to prepare to depart. Theodora, your new recruit, is ready. I advise a restart with the spike before uninstallation. No one should have to look at Severo the moment they're born. I think the Duke of Anne's will make a fine splinter, she says with a smile. With some tender love and care, he might even become as patriotic as you, my sovereign. I am counting on it. Inside the cube, the man who was the Duke is shaking like a leaf. Severo has his helmet up now to terrify him. Severo circles and sees the small metal spike embedded at the base of the man's skull. He comes back around and crouches in front of the overwhelmed pink, cackling with laughter. boy oh, Sorry to be the one to tell you this, but I think you've just got skull-fucked. He leaves the Duke there and stomps out of the interrogation cube. How long have you known about Dancer? He asks me. Less than an hour. And what does my sovereign propose to do with the traitor? He asks. Isn't it obvious? I reply. Communicate. Chapter 28 Ephraim Karachi the Skoogie and I squander our first days together on basic language skills, which I offload to yellow linguists and data drops, while I rely on a translation insert for my ear so I can understand the coldbloods. They're not babies. Most, like Freyhild, serve a tour or two in the Free Legions. They know more than they let on, but hundreds of years of goals culling the clever ones has taught them to hoard information behind masks of stupidity. They play dumb or angry when they don't trust you, and they don't trust me a lick. Thought my D's would get me some street cred, false hope, as Freyhild is only too keen to impart. I violated the sanctity of one of their sacred heroes by filching the Reaper's brood. Pax is literally a godchild to them, Electra not far behind. No amount of Osgar's support will gain their respect. 
While the social element of my improvised training regimen flounders, the obsidians are natural physical learners. Like Volga, they learn the tricks of my trade as fast as children picking up a new sport. By week's end, they're destabilizing laser grids, dissecting thermal sensors and picking locks. Some already knew laser grids from the legions, but their methods are outdated and grunt slop. Still, you only have to show them something once. Telling them something, on the other hand, is like trying to push a whole handful of sand through an ear canal. You lose right about 90% of it. Over the next weeks, my primal terror of being crushed underfoot diminishes, and I settle into a comfortable routine. On occasion, Pax stops in from his own lessons to watch. He shakes his head one day, when the thirtieth obsidian in a row is unable to tell a lie to one of Sun Industries' first-generation lie detectors. Compared with modern bloodhounds, this thing's as gullible as a nineteen-year-old farm boy with a concussion, I shout. Most operatives rely on being inconspicuous. You will never be inconspicuous. You are very conspicuous, so you must be good liars. Next! As the next Scoogie ambles up to try their hand, I slump over to Pax. Go on, I know you want to correct me, half-breed, I say, plopping down beside him on a low wall. His chin sports a fresh bruise from Valdir's martial lessons. No wonder he's not warming to them. Actually, I was coming to say thank you, he says. For what? Sefi started letting me use the garage at night. There's an old two-seater grav bike they found in one of the old depots. Looters didn't think it worth stealing. Used to belong to Carnus Albalona. She's letting me take a crack at fixing it up. Spent all last night taking off the kill spikes. Thought I had you to thank for it. Don't know what you're talking about. I certainly do. After his brutal protests against Sefi's attempts at instruction and her command that I bring him close... I thought it best to do a little recon, to see what thorn was under the little lord's saddle. Seems Sefi's personal oranges have noticed spanners and hypercrooks missing from their stores. Considering the security in the household complex, there were few possible culprits. A single night's stakeout provided the answer I suspected. Who was it skulking in the garage in the dead of night? Why, the reaper's own! He'd slipped away from meditating in the tranquility gardens with Osgard. When I visited the garden, Osgard was deep in a trance, trying to decipher the message in the veins of a leaf, and Pax was there beside him, a small bulge under his armpit, pretending to decipher the falling snow. I sneezed bullshit and went on my merry way. I think I saw him crack a smile. He likes me. Guess I'm a nice and cosy reminder of Hyperion amongst all the deranged giants. Sefi says you told her I needed a workplace. Can't you see I'm working? Are you? Shut up. Not my fault they're stubborn. I gesture to his chin. Drop your guard. Valdir might be a great warrior, but he is a bad teacher, he says. He thinks that being louder makes him clearer. Osgard, on the other hand, makes his lessons into games. Thought he didn't like his lessons either. Aren't they all just 
purposeless distractions from the oh-so-necessary war. He shrugs. Prepubescent temper tantrum, though the thesis is true. So you haven't stabbed anyone lately? No. Electra got territorial, he smiles. Their complaints may be valid, but I suspect their solution is flawed. The timing dreadful for the Republic and deleterious to existing internal class tensions regarding the matriarchal hierarchy. But there's little I can do but go along. He doesn't mention his parents, though I know they are always on his mind. Electra is far more at home here than I am. Well, you've got more on your mind. And more of a mind than old Hatchetface. Neither of us mentions Mercury, but that we're both thinking it creates some awkward tension. So, what's the curriculum? Actually, everything about obsidians except violence. So, drinking, shagging, gambling and eating. He watches me in amusement. I miss anything? Sparka, he says. In the gall, quiet and wise are the same word. So, if I say, man ni sparka, it means that man is not quiet, and thus stupid and loud. Wait, you're saying it's Sefi the wise? To them? I was about to say, it's the worst moniker ever. All she does is talk about her old tribe. She was silent for more than thirty years. You should try it. You might learn something. I liked you better when I was unconscious. Speaking of which, you got it? He pulls the thin chain around his neck to show me my engagement ring. Some arsehole's stuff to do to a man in withdrawal. Pretty fucked up, young man. I'm not as young as I look. Uncle Severo used the stuff for a spell. Zolodone, I mean. Did he know? The rat war was hard on everyone. He's not really a goblin. He's actually very sweet. I'll be sure to tell him that if he ever catches up to me. Pax holds a ring, contemplating if it is time to give it back. Hold on for it for me, I say. He tilts his head. I've got to be responsible to someone. He grins. Now get. I've got to earn some liberty for two ladies. I hesitate. Glad you like the garage. He makes his lessons into games, he calls after me. I mutter to myself as I walk back to the obsidians, just as a scoogie with a cleft lip tries to convince the bloodhound that he lived on Pluto before he had pubic hair. The green supervisors titter to themselves. Get out of here, you're worthless, I shout at them. They scurry away, making faces at one another in response to some subliminal communication between their cranial implants. Anyone have a pack of Karachi cards? The Scoogie do not answer. Come on, I know you're a bunch of gambling degenerates, even if your spirits are pure as snow. You! I point at Freyhild. Today she wears ghastly jade earrings. Goodkind! I am Freyhild, she says, knowing I know her name. I am Goodkind, the man with the cleft lip says. I think it's a woman, actually. Nope, a man. He's got a beard. Wait, do some obsidian women have beards? Freyhill, girl, you look like you got shit out on aurochs. She doesn't. But the best thing that can be said about my new appointment 
is the vast potential for cursing at Scoogie killers without fear of physical dismemberment. Give me your cards. No cards, she replies, unable to take that devilish gleam from her eye. I thought she'd make a fine liar. Turns out she can't turn it off. She just always looks smug as a fox in a hen hutch. Liar. Fine. Whoever gives me cards first gets a pass on Argo homework and a hundred credits to gamble away down in Olympia. Ten obsidians rush forward. Freyhild pulls out a pack too. You sly minx. I knew you were lying. Go to the bleeding place and sit in the centre for two thousand breaths. I look at the rest of them. You do not lie to your Tessarius, you sorry sacks of offal. Lying to your Tessarius is akin to killing a baby. They don't react. Have they killed babies? Akin to lying to Sephi. Do you understand? They glower. Akin to lying to Valdir. There, that's the right comparison. Freyhild hasn't moved. You deaf, brave? Her eyes widen a millimetre. Gold spirits live in bleeding place? I grin. So I hear. I do not have shaman wards. Move your arse. And no tiny red breaths, obsidian breaths. She slouches away. I grab a pack from another obsidian and sit on the floor. Frailed. I am goodkind. He points to the woman I'd just sent away. That was Freyhild, which you know. Thrall, no Freyhild, because she is deft in all things. Right. Fetch me Xenophon. He's in the war hall. Sorry, Var Hall. Goodkin breaks into a loping sprint. I smile to myself and look around into the 198 frightening faces who watch me as if I'm about to pull a snake out of my boot. Who's the best at Karachi here? Freyhild, for she is deft in all things, for she learned at the hip of Valdir the ways of the axe and screwface in the ways of cards. So Freyhild was Valdir's student. Scandalous. I stare at the brave, utterly annoyed. Jove on high! Who else? I pick five from the ones with packs. Everyone else fall in. Bear witness to slaughter. Come on, pack in. Unable to crowd together for fear of touching, they align themselves according to height. Stupid goals and their cultural departments must have had a riot thinking that one up. I shuffle the octagonal cards, throwing in a couple of tricks that made rising coldies croon. I deal them out. They had a saying in the free leg. As easy as taking chit from a coldie. They've heard it before. Now, I know you lot love your cards. Problem is, you're not any good at it. The whites believe Karachi is their game because they invented it to fit their skill set. That's why half of you are in for a quarter kilo of gold at the gambling dens down in the city. They count the cards in their heads, so they always know their chances and they bet accordingly. All their dealers do it. Simple, statistical probability. Xenophon pushes through the obsidians, looking dishevelled. His voice is flat. I was in the middle of an audit on the assimilation camp, 
You play Karachi, right, Xenophon? The Logos's eyes lose their glaze and do a little dance. It's a little early, no? Education has no schedule. Then let yours begin. The Logos doffs a fine midnight coat, pulls their midnight robes and sits cross-legged. A coin file appears in their hand and they push the release, spilling gold stamped with stars on the floor. Deal me in, if you dare. So that's how we get your blood moving. Comets are low. No third draw, five limit. I deal the cards. Forty minutes later, I own Xenophon's coat and coins. Seventeen obsidian warrior talks, fourteen sets of earrings, and a custom pulse fist carved to look like a dragon's mouth. Can anyone tell me what just happened? I ask them. Bald robbery, Xenophon says in customary drone. The Logos shivers, missing the jacket as wind comes off the mountain. It's the first time I've noticed how thin Xenophon is, built almost like a salamander. I only won two hands of seven, I say. You won three. Why do I have all the chit? Because you cheated on the last hand. I imagine there is a card shooter on your wrist. I pull back my sleeves to reveal no card shooter. Then an ambideck. The Logos takes a card in hand and bends it in half. No permutation of pixels in the card surfaces. Xenophon played cards. You played Xenophon, Freyhill says with an apologetic smile for the Logos. I look up at the pretty obsidian. The ghost didn't get you, I see. I glance at Pax, who watches from a low wall. I saw him follow Freyhild. Boy just can't stand staying out of other people's business. Or maybe he's just gathering his own intel. Mother rubbed off on him, I see. Freyhild, yeah? You're still a liar, but you're right. Someone starts to say Freyhild is deft in all things. Yeah, 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 shut up. You nailed it. I played Xenophon, and now... You deserve to have your name remembered, Freyhild, deft in some things. She looks loftily at the other Skoogie. Goodkind gives her a powerful nod, like she just killed a foe. That means a compliment from me is worth something. So maybe I read them wrong. Maybe they don't distrust me down to my very marrow after all. Pinks are the best players of Karachi in the world. Not whites, not coppers, not reds, I say. The only people that could hold a candle to them were those gold snakes on the Palatine. Lies were their first musical instrument. But I have seen even the Fury herself lose a hundred billion credits to Quicksilver's rose on the Lone Star Bluff. They guffaw. A gunning foe like Atalantia would not lose to a pink. Goodkin says, offended. She did, Xenophon confirms, at the Aristotle Club. January 11th, 732 PCE. Were you robbing the place, Mr. Horn? Security, arsehole. Not even I'd rob one of Atalantia's clubs. I look back to Goodkin. So the fury lost. How, you ask? Goodkin blinks. I did not ask anything. Rhetorical, Freyhill says. Ah, he vaguely remembers the lesson. May I continue now? 
Yeah. I wait for Goodkin to correct himself. Yes. Rhetorical again. Mind the sarcasm, Freyhill says. It is all he speaks. I continue. Everything you need to know about Karachi can be found in the faces of the other players, in the breathing, the blinking, the talking, the silence, the deviation from any pattern. Obviously, don't be a mule's tit and bet the bank on a minor star match, but if you've got a lock on your opponent, you're on high street. Now, you lot have the most paralysed faces this side of a silver's at a slave auction, but your body language gives you away. I jab a finger out. Hammerhead over there started heaving like a thirty-year-old virgin soon as he got that major star run. Skeleton here got squinty when she tried to bluff with a lone high comet. Even Xenophon has a tick. You lot read the snow as kids, right? They nod. And the wind and beast droppings and whatever else was on your pole. Reading people is no different, but it is everything. It will tell you if you can bribe a person, intimidate, manipulate, bamboozle, befuddle, seduce. Killing is easier sometimes, but rarely better in the line of work you'll be doing. Killing removes an obstacle. And what are obstacles? Potential assets? Freyhild leads half the Scoogie in answering. Exactly, I beam. That is how the sons of Ares toppled the greatest war machine that ever existed. That is how I kidnapped the Reaper's only son. Heeg. Heeg, they echo. Some, including Freyhild, touch their foreheads at the word Reaper. Now, the other colours have practised lying since birth. Bullshit is a vernacular of cities. Goodkind over there probably thinks whores actually like his Venusian earrings. They make huge, guttural sounds. I flinch, thinking they're about to kill me. No, it's just two hundred obsidian assassins laughing their asses off. A few of them take a knee and wipe their eyes. Right, no sexual mores here. Goodkind does love whores, Freyhill says. He is deft in many things, especially whores. Goodkind nods. I do. I am. It is no lie. They are such delight for my spirit. Well, everyone's got a hobby. I absently pat his arm. They freeze. I swallow and take my hand off him. Goodkind laughs and pats my shoulder. Indeed. A hobby. My hobby is whores. I manage to press on. By the time I'm through with you, you'll be such lie detectors, you'll never be able to go to another brothel without having an existential crisis. The word doesn't translate. Without losing your... packs. you still here? Andy, he calls from the wall. Without losing your... Andy, your spirit... Now, I light a match. The wind blows it out. Freyhild kneels and cups her hands to shelter the next match from the wind. Making progress here. I light two burners and flip her one, then Goodkin two for equality and all that. Now, I don't wager physical pain will make a tick's prick a difference to you, so we'll put the pain where it counts. Today, 
We play Karachi until you're all poor as reds or learn to read people just as well as snow. And to make sure it's real, you will each make real bets, backed by your war hoard. I know you're all bloody millionaires, or were before you found Jewel Street down in the city, so break into groups of seven and get started. It is the fastest they've ever obeyed me. As they form into groups, I sense movement on a balcony in the war wing of Griffinhold. Valdir stands flanked by his braves, watching Freyhild laughing as she forms up a group of Skoogie for cards. They all seem to be competing for the chance to play against her. The look on Valdir's face is not one of anger, but something far more complicated. Then his eyes flick to me, and his face betrays him again. He knows I saw how he looked at Freyhild. Man might be used to everyone thinking he's a walking death god, but if Sefi saw him looking at the young Skoogie like that, I'm not sure how long he'd be walking. Something about the Queen tells me she isn't exactly the sharing kind. Careful, Mr. Horn, Xenophon says as Valdir goes back inside. If I have learned one thing, it is that obsidians are predators who think they are prey. Never pit them against one another. Didn't dream of it. Good. Valdir seems to like you. Thought he was all about the old ways. You ain't exactly that. Xenophon shivers from the cold. Out of pity, I return the midnight cloak. The Logos nods in thanks. I was a slave of Atlas Aura since my graduation from the Mentor. It was Valdir who found me in a pitiable state. I have proven my worth to Sefi many times over, including against Peerless. The word sounds like a curse on those thin lips. I also advocated she remain with Darrow. So whose idea was all this nonsense? All tribe and what not. The shamans. Xenophon blinks very quickly. The same tick I spotted when they disliked the cards in their hand. He also advocated for hiring you against my advice. But I serve the queen, as do you, and when her mind is made up, the only way is forward. Thank you for the cards. I look forward to analysing the data. The white bows. Until our next game. What begins as an awkward, contrived hilarity soon becomes an actual lesson. As the obsidians play, they act, guffaw, boast and lie. Not well, but by the end of the day of my poking and prodding, five or six could beat one or two lowlifes I knew on Luna. I partake in several games and even let Freyhill beat me on a hand so deep she wins back all I took during my demonstration. After that... Going on 2200, I call it a day, and the braves tilt their chins up to me in respect as they pass. It is called skill gift, Freyhild draws to me. She's the last in the courtyard besides Pax. Much was hidden from us by the golds. Many of my people have had their war treasure lost to reds and greys. It is a dishonour to us. You give us a chance to reclaim honour with this skill gift. This pleases my brothers and sisters, and me. Even Screwface would lose to you in cards, I believe. That's just a tool, I say. 
Won't be protecting the old tribe with a game of cards. I know. She lingers for a moment, appraising me. My brothers and sisters do not trust you. Baldia seems to share that opinion. She watches me, trying to understand what I mean. I would be careful speaking of Valdir, even in respect. He is big brother, our protector and pride. If he doubts you, it is because he senses weakness. He is protective of our queen, as am I. She sticks a thumb in her chest. My tribe was destroyed when Sefi joined the Rising. I had no people. Then Sefi gave me Veer again. Purpose. She gave us all purpose. You will not betray her. Is that a threat or a prophecy? I do not believe in prophecy. She smiles. I know it is old way. Spirits in bleeding place? She makes a face. Superstition enslaved my people. I pretend because I must, and because my queen needs my faith. My tribe needs my faith. Tomorrow we will learn better, the next day better still. We have much more to do for tribe. Pax watches Freyhild disappear inside the barracks and comes over to me. She's sleeping with Valdir, he says. I squint at him. He taps his ears. Their hearts beat faster when they're in the same room. He taps his nose. And she has his scent today. I light a burner. Figured. Do you think Sefi has? he asks. Not our war, little man. Where's the she-devil? Probably playing with axes. He looks lonely. I tousle his hair, surprising him. I do it harder till he swats at me. You really are a good egg, aren't you? He straightens his hair. Why'd you say that? General comportment, and you haven't asked me to break you out of here. Could you? His bodyguard of six Valkyrie watches us from a portico. The biggest Braga spits toward me. Rule number one, kid. Always have insurance. You think I got you the garage so you could play with bikes? He perks up. What do you say we get wild drunk and I show you the schematics for a certain harness we'll be needing if things start to go south? You can even tell me some crazy stories about your old man if we've time. He's wary of me. I have work to do in the garage. Speeder's got a fuel cell leak. And why'd you hang around here all day? Come on. He tilts his head. I suppose I could multitask if you can picnic. I grin. Sounds like a plan, little man. Chapter 29 Virginia The Dust of Reverie Upper Kelbell sings mournfully out the window as I sit on the edge of my son's bed in darkness. It smells like him. Machine oil and pine nettles. His gizmos form a pile on a dark workbench at the far window, next to a shelf crammed with souvenirs my husband bought from his campaigns. Hydra eggshells from Africa, sun petals from Mercury, coral growth from the thermic sea. But no totems of war, as if my husband wanted to pretend he'd gone to explore instead of kill. 
Pax's clothes still hang in the closet. His shoes line the wall, laces still tied, the back squished down. One day he'll wear them again, but hopefully never learn to wear them properly. Bring my son back to me, and I'll leave Luna, I pray. But who hears a prayer to no one? Not Victra. She believes only in the power of herself. I hope it is enough. It must be enough. Out the gabled window, water laps against the stone stairs that lead down to the lake. Beyond the shadowed trees, the estate's lion guard detail patrol. Here only to protect Deanna, Darrow's mother. She hates Luna, but lingers here as if knowing Darrow will need her when he comes back. I turn over an enigmatic device I find under Pax's pillow, something he built from the parts of six others. He had a meeting scheduled with Quicksilver to try to market it for his consumer products division. Was it for this? I activate its trigger, and it emits a soft hum. I angle the concave projector toward myself and dip into a stream of opera. I tilt it away, and the stream disappears. Elegant. He built that for you. I look up and see Deanna at the door. He thought you could have your guards use it on you in all those meetings of yours. Always thinking of others. I set the device down on the bedside table. It's a fly in amber, I say. The rooms that remain. When your husband died, what did you do with his possessions? She leans against the doorframe. It ties her to stand too much these days. Barely over fifty, she's had a hard life. Used what we could. Bartered the rest for rations. Darrow liked to eat. She searches my face. I've spent enough time in the past, love. The dead need no tears. They don't rest easier for our vengeance or our guilt, she shrugs. They'd want us to live. And life's about the now and the future, eh? Dale gave me three wee ones to remember him by. I'm lucky at that. And they gave me more wee ones to love. And they're all still breathing, far as I know, so don't start wallowing now. We've got our family to save, here. I think you might be the only person alive who still scolds me, I say. That's because I'm the only one you still need to impress, she says with a grin. Now off your arse, lass. The man's just landing and he's gonna be mad as a pitter at me. Laughter comes from outside the house. The front door opens with a creak. An engine powers down. Shuffling footsteps come my way. Dancer limps with Deanna around the kitchen corner. His smile dies as soon as he sees me. Well... Ain't this the dirtiest of traps, Dancer says. Since when did you stoop to politics, Deanna? He turns to leave, but Deanna blocks him. Don't be a bloody damn idiot, either of you. You've been like two bickering hands. It's embarrassing. Now, sit, she snaps. Grumbling, Dancer takes a seat across from me. Deanna shuffles to the stove and ladles out three bowls of beef stew. I slaved over this for hours. By the time you're done eating, you will have come to an agreement. Or I'll be back here to paddle the shit out of your ears here. Now, I've got pants to patch. 
Can't have Pax coming back to holes in his knees as well as his family. When Dancer found out from the media that Pax had gone with Victor on vacation to Mars, he was not pleased at missing a chance to say farewell to my son. He was as much a grandfather to the boy as Kavax was. A cruel ruse, but necessary to dispel his curiosity at Pax's sudden disappearance. We linger in awkward silence. I've always felt very much a slaver in the old Red's eyes, guilty for my height, my health, and suddenly feeling foolish for the expense of my clothes. Dressed in a scuffed brown jacket, leather boots, and drab grey pants, the resilient man makes no airs. In fact, he more resembles a Martian agriculturalist than the terrorist captain, who became a senator, who became a tribune. He sits down to shovel stew in his mouth to get it over with, I join him. He pauses. That third bowl isn't for Deanna, is it? He looks around warily, focusing on the open window and the dark gardens outside. Patchelbell twitter in the trees. You're like a desiccated turd, old man. Dancer wheels about as Severo parts from the shadows near the pantry. Must be hard holding back a fleet all by your lonesome. Severo... You are one stupid bastard. Says the pot to the kettle. Severo sits on the counter, one leg dangling off. Dancer glances to the hallway that leads to the front atrium. I brought a cohort of wardens. If they saw you here, at the scene of the crime... Nah. Severo draws Tickler from his boot and starts cutting his nails. Those blue capes hate getting dirty almost as much as the pixies wearing them. They're burning down the city chasing after you. Instead of chasing the syndicate, Severo replies. Well done, them. In case you've forgotten, Wolfgar founded them, just as you did the Howlers. This time they'll go for the kill. Then don't invite them in, I say, annoyed. Severo will behave. Virginia, now is not the time for the Sovereign to be sharing stew with fugitives, no matter who they are, or how untouchable she thinks she is. A fugitive leads our best army, I remind him. Lass, don't false equivocate. Mercury ain't Luna. This is supposed to be the heart of law and order. That current tally, that human right there, is wanted for 68 counts of homicide and a hundred more capital offences, half of which are against the state. Severo just stares at him. I will not reduce my office to meeting with secret cabals. That is beneath us now. We are not the son of Ares. We are legitimate. I will act that way, even if you do not. He heads for the door, wanting so hard to be legitimate. Pax and Electra didn't go with Victra to Mars. They were kidnapped by the syndicate, I say. He freezes. That's why Severo has been on Luna. That's why he's in this room, amongst other reasons. Dancer blinks, processing, then exhales and slumps back into his seat in pain. I glance at Severo. He watches Dancer without even a hint of affection. When? Dancer asks. After Quicksilver's birthday. Sadly, I know the date. His lips make a tight line beneath his beard. That explains a few irregularities. So you and Darrow would have found out after Venus. 
Severo just watches, so I nod. And he still went to Mercury. Apex asshole, right? Severo chimes. Please stop, I say. The answer doesn't let it go either. Coming back to his men is one of the only good and true things he's done in the last years, Sephiro, which is more than I can say for you. Dancer glares and looks down the hall to the sitting room. His eyes linger on the hearth where Deanna knits. It broke my heart, but not my expectations that some reds saw my boy as a perversion. Dancer never did, no matter what he thinks of me. He would sit with Pax on his knee by the fire, smoking his pipe as my boy slept. Did it right up to the age where he'd be the one to fall asleep, and Pax would put the pipe out for him and tuck a blanket under his grizzled chin. Dancer is thinking of the passage of time, how many years ago that was, and wondering where they all went. I know, because the same thought monopolizes so many of my own hours. So tell me, how badly are you compromised? he asks. I'm not the one who is compromised, I say. He frowns as I pull the data drop from my pocket. I've long suspected that the Syndicate Queen was working for, or in conjunction with another party, possibly one within our government. Thanks to Theodora and a new method of interrogation, I've uncovered evidence. You know who she is? He asks warily. No. Unfortunately, she doesn't even trust her dukes with that information, but there have been revelations. Show him, Severo says. I tell the data drop to play. Severo scoots forward, so he's within the three-dimensional perimeter of the hollow. Memories are imperfect. They bleed into each other. We skitter through fragments of his life. The duke is at the beach one moment, bending to pick something up. Then he is riding in a shuttle, speaking to his queen. Her face is obscured with a mask that rides with what looks like locusts. It was too much to hope for a perfect look at her face, but I'll get one soon enough. We have her location, but first we will make sure our own house is in order. Finally, a hotel suite expands around us, faded where the Duke of Han's peripheral vision ends. The ceiling is the clearest, carved with cupids and forest creatures. Candles float beneath the ceiling, dripping down wax. Heavy breathing comes from the memory, the sound of sheets clenched as the breaths quickens to agonizing climax. Then, a perspective distortion that makes the cupids grow larger than the closer candles. Spasmodic psychedelic light pixelates the cupids above, dissolving their bodies. They drift for what must be a minute before racing back together. Focus pulses out, then in. Breath eases out, and a man's head rises upward laying kisses on the duke's chest until Dancer's face fills the memory as he closes his eyes to kiss the duke on the mouth. It seems reveries are imperfect, I say. Auditory recall is extremely flawed. So are actions. They reflect latent guilt and sometimes alter to seem more heroic. Faces, on the other hand, are almost never forgotten. The colours are often different depending upon the time extract, the mood more magnetic or colder. A brain is not a hard drive. The spaces between, that jumped, you noticed, are, well, I guess no one has ever called them anything before. Let's name them fissures. The fissures are the time between the memories we retain.
I've not had long to make a reconnaissance. Some span minutes, some weeks. Most reveries are laced with fissures. They only found this one because it was entirely intact. He cherished this memory, it seems. Unfortunately, a hologram is a poor means of communicating the memory. Prime fidelity occurs from sympathetic shadowing. I tap my head. Literally experiencing it, I assure you, it is quite strange. How? Dancer asks, his face flushed a deep crimson, his outsized minor hand a squeezing at the edge of the table. The wood is starting to splinter as he stares at the reverie. I have technology that maybe one, probably two others are familiar with, though not to my degree of sophistication, I don't think, but they're on Mercury. I meant, how is that any of your bloody damn business, he growls, looking at me like he's about to lunge forward and rip out my jugular. Severo slips closer to my side, as surprised as I am by his venomous reaction. You think you can blackmail me with this for my vote? Ruin me? Drag me in front of the branders like some poetic horror? I don't care if my people spit on me, if they say I should be gelded, if you rob away the only thing that matters to me, slag you. Even Severo is rocked on his heels by the anger in Dancer's eyes. I made a mistake. The moment the video started to play, Dancer thought this was a shakedown. He kept this secret his entire life, because the only people left in mankind to look at homosexuality as an aberration just happened to be his own, while the one that embraces fluidity is the one he's warred against for most of his life. That one has sculpted his culture as they saw fit. Mine. He thought I was threatening to expose his inner life. Knowing he thought me that cruel is a jarring blow. Severo is there to pick up the slack. You really ain't got a clue, he mutters. It ain't about that, boyo. Dancer looks ready to kill. Then, what is it about? Just that the man you were, you know. Playing hide the viper with is third in line to the throne of the syndicate. That's all, I swear. Dancer goes sheet white, anger vaporized in a snap of the fingers, replaced by sheer bafflement. His mouth opens and closes. What? The syndicate. Black coats, prostitution, child slavery, narcotics, hired murder, kidnapping, you know the lot. Sort of the worst people on the moon. That, he looks at the data drop, was the Duke of Hands. He sits motionless. Shit. He rocks his head back. Shit. Severo and I exchange a glance. Dancer eases out a breath. You two thought I knew. That I was his accomplice. She didn't. Severo says. I did, sorry. He backs away to the counter, as if distance will erase the memory of Dancer wanting to rip his throat out. Forget malice or anger. All should beware the wrath of an offended soul. She insisted we talk before, you know. So, his name is Faustus. Or I thought it was. 
found me in the park. You know I can't stand all these buildings. He told me he was a painter. Face like that, you believe anything. But I know the games. I don't keep intel at my home. Or talk at my sleep, even for someone like that. He nods to me. Your father's agents were cruel teachers. We learned to be careful. Got sloppy though, eh? Severo says. Are you that good in the sack? Dancer doesn't speak for a moment. Guess I thought I deserved something good. I was off and on for a couple of months. I told him I wanted it to stay on, then he disappeared. He plays with his knuckles. Do you think I put packs in jeopardy? No, I say. You didn't have our flight plan. He might not have wanted anything from you, I say. It might just have been the association. I believe you were the foreman. Steal the children. Release this to me. Or to the public. Bet your DNA is all over that little love crib, Severo says. Dancer looks at him in irritation. Hey, you did the deed. Syndicate probably took video too. All the good angles. We both look at him. He literally fucked a terrorist. I can say what I want. What does the syndicate want with the children? Dancer asks. They don't have them. I tell him all I know, including how the obsidian must have reached the downed shuttle before my mended, and Sefi's intended plan. When I have finished, he leans back and rubs his jaw. In the wake of the revelation, he's demure. Gods, letting them take the mines is a risk. What if they use blunt force, he asks. A storm on Mercury is one thing, but war bands of obsidian on Mars. Sefi has seen what insurrections do to militaries. She won't alienate the populace. I hope not. But you're right about one thing. We need the obsidian. You want me to convince the Reds of Samaria to get on with Sefi, I take it? Not for free, I say. I need you to convince the Reds to do it in return for Sefi giving them the share of the mine profits Quicksilver stole. It will be a partnership. And if I vote to let the Reaper die on Mercury, I won't be able to convince them of anything. The Reds of Mars will think I've become a Lunese. Correct. Question, Severo says. If Dance is a red herring, then who do you think the Queen's partner is? Who are they trying to protect? It could only be one man. If Dancer was set up to fall, if Pax was meant to get leverage over me, I say, qui bono? The most immediate effect is a power vacuum in the forum, so it must be a senator. With my son out for ransom, I'd be compromised, so the tribunes would vote for a new Daxo. Severo sneers. Oh, shut up, I say. He's put off. If anyone is an insidious mastermind, it is that obelisk of a human. Octavia did want him alive. She's right, Dancer said. Wouldn't be Daxo. Wouldn't be me if they released this. It'd be compromise. They'd need two-thirds vote. Vox would block Daxo. Optimates would block any Vox. It'd have to be someone both parties would agree on. Someone the public would accept. Someone... Incorruptible. That gas bag, Severo says. No way he's a criminal mastermind. 
Publius is allied with the Queen, I say. I feel the certainty forming in me. Ten years ago, Publius was no one, just a public defender for low colours. How did he rise so high, so fast, with no benefactors, no campaign donors? Is it so impossible to believe that someone came to him years ago and offered him the world if he would only answer the call when it came? Is it so impossible I could have been fooled by someone so close? No, I make mistakes all the time. And thinking of how he left Daxo's office with that comment on the decor, I realise it wasn't an offhand remark from the mouth of Babe. It was a taunt. All his years of crafting that incorruptible reputation suddenly makes sense. He's not going to vote with me. It's a trap. With the silvers I lost, and no coppers or followers of Publius, no fleet will sail. The vote is tomorrow, I say. Even if we had evidence on him, it wouldn't matter. He's too popular. We take steps to gather evidence, isolate him. And if he is indeed a collaborator with the Queen, with Atalantia, Dancer's aspect darkens at that. We will bring him down with all the proper and legal might of Moonhall. But for now, we must address the issue. The enemies of our Republic expect us to be divided. They found the fault lines between us, and they jammed a wedge in. We must stand together. Dancer, I need your trust, and I need your votes. You think Atalantia did this through the Queen, he asks. Her or Atlas must have coordinated with her in some way. I don't know which, but it is a gold hand holding the strings. They seek to turn us on one another. Dancer looks at the data drop. Before I can react, Severo smashes it to dust. Far as we're concerned, boyo. Dancer stares down at the dust of the reverie. I believed I was dirt once, he says slowly. For these, he tilts up his sigils. And this, and traces shapes through the dust, and his voice loses the learned words and the sharpened consonants as he sinks back into the mines. Was my own clan that did me wrong? His heavy eyes flick up. Didn't know that, did ya? They burned off me what makes a man a man. Ares found me bleeding to death in a tunnel. He knew what they'd done. He fixed me in more ways than one. But he did one better. He taught me it was gold that broke us. Taught me red could matter. Taught me I mattered. Ten years I never saw his face. He looks up at Severo. When he took that helmet off to you, to me, and I saw gold, I wept worse than when they gelded me. First man who said I wasn't broken was the master, the slaver. Hit me good, right here. He thumps a chest with a flat hand, and I saw it hit him. I wasn't his best. I wasn't his favourite. But I was the only one who believed like he did was me that chose Darrow, was me that had the keys to Tino's. He swallows. Boy, that father of yours never judged me, set by what I'd done. Began to understand I owed him the same. Made a choice then. I'd stand before him, him that freed me, him that made me different, made me a force, and I'd tell him what he told me long before. 
A man is his actions, not his blood. He looks back at the remains of the data drop in sorrow, that even now he still hides his truth. The jackal came before I got that chance. That is the greatest regret of my life. Your pa was my hero then, and he is my hero now. I knew I'd never see his like again. I was wrong. Dancer blows the reverie dust from the table and stands to look up at me. Ares dreamed of individual freedom because of his son and his red wife. Darrow dreamed of a world without monsters. Dancer's private dream was more delicate. He believed it was gold who made his people wicked, and without gold they could be good. Bit by bit, he's seen reality wither that dream on the vine. But now that he knows it was still a golden hand poisoning the soil, making him indict the very object of his faith, doubt the mission of his life, inside the stalwart chest awakens his holy wrath. There is the warrior. Got a lot of hate in me, he says in a low growl. Got a lot of fear that you won't ever understand. But none of it's for you, Virginia. We'll disagree again soon, I'm damn sure of that. But if our enemies think we'll devour each other... Nah. Today my sovereign is the Lionheart, and tomorrow she will have my votes. We will rescue the free legions. About bloody damn time, Severo says. Chapter 30 Virginia Ocular Sphere To see them from above, the roving herds of beasts, the rivers carving stone, the rituals of man in all their varied panoply, to see the clouds royal over the patchwork latifundia of Asian plains, to see the mines of our home, is to remember the patterns of the world and the majesty and complication and impermeable obscurity of distant lands. It is to remember how few people you know, how many do not know you, how many will soon forget you, how many praise you today to offer contempt tomorrow. Permanence of fame, power, dominion of the individual are illusions. All that will be measured, all that will last, is your mastery of yourself. This is what my father told me. It was his warning about power, though he sought it to his end. I've never understood how a man so wise could be so undone by himself. Perhaps I never will, and that is what has always frightened me. Not that I cannot control my own fate, that is impossible, but that I cannot control myself. Now I stand without him, wondering if he should be my compass when he could not even follow his own needle and the roar of the distant ocean fills my ears. I watch the earth turn from the ocular sphere, a glass chamber suspended atop the highest pinnacle of the citadel of light. Created by the master-maker Glirastes, like too many other wonders, it floats like a teardrop escaping upward to heaven from the tip of a bronze sword. Octavia would often come here for her meditation and solitude. Of course, as an outsider... I would not insinuate myself upon her here when she would wrap herself up in that psycho-mystic credo she taught lonely Lysander, the mind's eye. I would wait for her, thumbing through intelligence reports in the library below, 
or discoursing with Moira, or entertaining Atalantia with the newest gossip I'd plucked for her ravenous appetite. But Octavia is gone, and Lysander swallowed by the great expanse with Cassius. Though my opinions of Cassius are weighted and complex, and not understood completely even by myself, I hope they found happiness out there. There was so little of it for them here. The sphere is mine now, as are so many of Octavia's trophies. It is a hollow oddity, that possession. While she lived, these talismans and icons of hers, her dawn scepter, Silene Manor, the sphere, the pandemonium chair, the sovereignty itself, were wrapped in mystery and portent. As if they held some great secret of life that I was too young, too foolish to possess. I craved them so much. Maybe as much as my father craved for whatever his desire actually was. But now, in possessing them, I see them for what they are, and they all feel lesser for that possession, as does indeed the world itself. The scepter is a hunk of iron. Silene Manor a house. The sphere a clever device. The chair a dangerous tool. Cities are measured by cold statistics of consumption and output. Planets by their loyalty and strategic importance. All that matters is my son, my husband, and those I love and know, and who know me back. Of all the people that lived in these last seven hundred years, none know the minds of the Gen Lune as I do now. None know the weight, the fear, the anger, the ambivalence, the pride, the love, the disgust, the disappointment, the hope, the utter frustration of ruling over billions of souls. Octavia lost her husband and daughter. If I lost my son and husband, could I go on? Or would I grow to be the villain of someone else's story? Waving my hand at the curved glass wall of the sphere, I watch the earth grow until it consumes the entire pain. I fly amongst the peak of mountains, along the cool fingers of Eurasian rivers running toward the sea. I rotate my hand and find the great mechanical prison, deep grave, trundling along beneath the surf. And with the flick of a finger, my sight races to Mercury. Much is white and black, to signify old images. Many telescopes have been destroyed in the war. But through the swirling clouds of the hypercane, I glimpse a society bastion, a mobile operations command city upon the desert sands. A jam field covers Heliopolis where my husband licks his wounds. What hell does he suffer? What greater hell does he prepare for his enemies? It is torture to see and not to know. But worse still, to know and not be able to affect. I hope he knows we have not abandoned him, that I still love his heart, despite its weight and anger and complications. I love him so much I cannot bear to think of him. I turn the sphere to look down at the new forum, where the Senate is soon to assemble. A grand crowd, a million strong, pours through the great citadel gates beneath the Selenius arch to witness the vote. According to the compact, the tribunes decide if the public should witness. Despite the fever, they are right to include them. It will be beautiful when Dancer and I unite the Vox and the Optimates in common cause, when Publius's betrayal fails to hijack the vote. 
it will be a victory for our way of life and our means of governance. In the plaza east of the new forum, vendors sell sticky sweets and steam swirls up from hot spiced Martian wine. Children hold their parents' hands. Men carry icons of their political religions. The Vox with upside-down pyramids, broken chains. Some broadcast my head with a bloody crown from hollow projectors on their shoulders. The Optimates stand in small clutches with plastic sling blades, or pegasuses, or lions projected into the air. Don't look too bloody damn happy, Severo mutters behind me. Dancer still has to prove he's not a load of steaming shit, and you have a queen to kill. I cycle the sphere until old Tokyo fills the view. The megacity of Earth sprawls in the night. With the information gleaned from the Duke of Hans's memories, I have found the Syndicate Queen's refuge. Fifty thousand of my house troops, along with Darrow's Seventh Legion, will move in a coordinated strike against Syndicate operations on Earth, Mars, and Luna, while Severo and two cohorts pull the chief weed out themselves. They will do it when all eyes are on me and the vote. Looking forward to it, Severo says. I turn from the central plinth to find him standing behind me in the sphere with Daxo, fully armoured, wolf cloak on his shoulder, face painted jade green, he is ready for transport. Beside him, Daxo looks the picture of majestic civility in his senatorial toga. His arms are bare beneath the toga, and how mighty those Telemannus limbs look, made for violence, but restrained in favour of words because he trusts me, if not my faith in democracy. Kavak saunters in to join us. He stands quietly behind his son with a hand on his shoulder and Sophocles threading between his legs. Next to Daxo and Severo, both in their prime, he looks pale and old. Even his genes can't hide the ravages of war. His beard has gone white. He still blames himself for Pax's abduction. It has not been an easy road to recovery for him, but he favours me with a smile. Niobe is off to Mars to rendezvous with our house fleets and the ecliptic guard, he says. She sends her love, and she'll see you through the fires of the Anihilo. And the bodies, Severo says. Never forget the kindling. Of course, the bodies, Kavak says. Severo, could you fetch my cane? My legs ache. Slag off, old man. I'm not a servant. I'm a terrorist war- Now! Kavax booms. It's just outside the Crescent Vault. Fetch it, or Sophocles will bite you. By myself? That place is creepy shit. Fine. Losing your marbles. Muttering to himself, Severo humours the old man and leaves the sphere. He appears a moment later. I'll know if you talk about me. He leaves again. The two Telemannuses wait for him to reappear. When he doesn't, they join me in the centre. We'll bring Thraxa home, I tell Kavax. I will keep that promise. Kavax glances once more at the door to make sure Severo is gone. There are things I doubt in this world, he replies in his luxurious private tone. Intelligence radiates from eyes usually misted by his lifelong ruse. The constitution of obsidian virtues, the ramifications of universal suffrage, Severo's personal hygiene, 
my violence on behalf of your father, my wife's mental perspicacity for selecting me for life, he adopts his public face. To join in union, a doddering madman, weird woman, addled in the wits, madness, absolute madness. His internal cleverness reclaims his face, but never Virginia Au Augustus. He cups my face. Daxo told me what you did with Dancer, what you did with Severo. You never get the credit you deserve, my dear, because people are suspect and frightened of what they do not understand. I've hidden myself for so many years from Nero, from the world, but you never have. That is a bravery I cannot understand. You are good, my dear. You are patient when it is not in your nature. You are attentive when you are taken for granted. You are kind when the world insists it is convenient to be cruel. You are good. True good. Victor will bring Pax back. I know this. You will save your husband. You deserve this day. I nod, knowing there's much work left to do. No. Look at me, child. He turns my chin so that I look deep into the eyes underneath those tangled eyebrows. It has possessed my thoughts. You deserve this day. You deserve this joy. You deserve this proof that your faith is not just right, but necessary. I find myself in tears, and I can't reason why. There are things you know, but when revealed to be known by others can make the world shine in a peculiar way. I feel seen, as only my husband has ever seen me. Kavax dabs the tears away. There, there, he says, bringing me into a hug. I've been too busy to see Kavax, or maybe just too frightened to see him weak. How dare I presume his strength is in his body. I hug him hard, and Sophocles pours my leg in jealousy. Always mindful of his father, Daxo scoops the fox up to give us the moment. Will you come today? I ask, pulling away. No, Kavak says. No, I am tired of all this rancor. I think I will go to the sea with Sophocles. I don't like the citadel without Niobe. He takes Sophocles back from Daxo. And I've been promising this one a swim, haven't I? And you know how passive-aggressive the little prince gets. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. Shit in my shoes, in my closet, everywhere. He open-mouth kisses the fox, who takes perhaps too much enjoyment from it. But we will have dinner tonight, at my estate. A family dinner. For my son. He sets a hand on Daxo's shoulder, who has done himself proud, resurrected his family's honour, and whom I could not be happier for, except if he found a wife. I want babies to ride Sophocles, or a husband. He covers Sophocles's ears. Cloning is always an option, remember? He laughs to himself. And my daughter will come too. He looks at me, for she has been the twinkle in my eye since that summer she joined our family. Severo appears at the door. The sea, Kavax booms. To the sea I go. Here's your stupid cane. Severo says, I need no cane. 
What am I, an invalid? A dullard? Kavax booms. I just wanted to see if you'd get it. Now who is the dullard? Ha! Man, Severo chuckles. You're so crazy. After Kavax has sauntered away with his pet, Daxo makes a small noise of distaste. That was emotional. I hope he's not dying. He's not. I just think he's finally realised he's mortal, I say. I think we should clone him, Severo says. Jove, the fox is bad enough, I say. Yes, but could you imagine a child Kavax with that beard? Severo asked. He'd be a right legend. He could marry Electra. I make a face. What? She can't marry Pax. No offence, but he's too smart. And my girl likes being stupid. He scratches his goatee. Bet Mickey would do it. We'd need to keep it secret. Yes. He chews his lip in thinking over the logistics. I could raise him, Daxo says. I've always wanted a worthy child to shape and mould. Severo and I look at each other. Nah, probably a bad idea, Severo says. You know, clones are creepy and all. Always something wrong with the human ones. Daxo is lost, peering at the ceiling in thought. Behind his back, Severo makes a big X with arms at the cloning idea. Be careful on Earth, I say. Old Tokyo is warden territory. Get in, get out, and bring me that queen's head. Attached? If possible. If not, permission to cauterize. And would you mind taking the tunnels out, please? Done. He lurches forward to slap Daxo's ass and stalks out. The smell of wolf lingers. I've thought it over. I think I would be a good father, Daxo says at last. After all, I have a fine example to follow. Chapter 31 Virginia Day of Red Doves The day is crisp and clear, and bountiful with the scents of lunar spring. The sky is the colour of young fire. The trees along the promenade that leads from the Palatine Hill through the central Citadel Park to the Forum blaze with colour and life and pungent floral notes. Soldiers stop to salute as my motorcade rolls past. Administrators rush along park paths toward the Forum to make it there in time to watch the vote from the steps. Gaggles of children from the Citadel schools trot along in small packs. Amongst them, Lyria's little nephew, Liam, his eyes gazing wide up at the trees and the monkey cats swinging from the branches with fresh sight. Though Victra took the girl and likely has already disposed of her, Lyria's bravery should be rewarded. I made sure Mickey himself gave the boy his sight months ago. Lion Guard greet me as I arrive at the western entrance to the Forum with Daxo and Holiday, the whole cadre of loyal optimate senators, golds, greys, whites, and half the silvers wait with two dozen Martian senators as Daxo and I disembark. Publius, the incorruptible, stands beside this group, surrounded by dozens of Terran and even a few Lunese senators that I sacrifice my silver alliance to gain. With Holiday standing watch, I shake the traitor's hand. A fine day for a fine moment, Publius says. Couldn't agree more. 
I take Holiday by the shoulder and step away. After Dancer gives me the Vox votes, the crowd may get unruly. We have support legions ready to go on the field of Ares, ma'am. Good, I sigh. This is it, then. Ma'am, I turn back to her. It must be said, it is an honour to serve a true sovereign. I don't think I can adequately explain how much that means from someone like her. I nod and step away from the protection of the Lion Guard to that of the blue-cloaked warden, guardians of the Senate and Republic. I begin my ascent up the Forum's western stairs, Daxo at my right, and the phalanx of optimates and new allies behind in their flowing togas. At the crest, we enter the grand, fifty-metre-high doors, through the stone columns onto the varnished floor. From the southern stairs, Vox Populi make their own entrance, Dancer limping along at the head of sixty strong senators of red, orange, brown, the core of the Vox, and their less zealous allies, blue, green, and violet. They carry a standard made of raw wood and ugly iron, an upside-down pyramid unadorned with flourishes. Under the watch of the neutral wardens, the two opposing factions descend to their seats as the oceanic sounds of the crowd in the East Park lap into the forum, the obsidian already seated, making it clear they stand apart. If only all knew how far gone they already were. I do not yet take my morning chair down in the centre of the Senate pit. I walk around the rim of the pit to the east door, where several stout grey wardens stand guard. I look down the eastern stairs, past the line of wardens and antimatter pulse shields that stretch between metal pylons at the base of the stairs to the park below. A sea of humanity fills it, their disparate faces distorted by the shields so that they look like the confetti brushstrokes of a Frankish impressionist. Roars of approval and condemnation lap against me. I smile. Soon they will witness the vindication of our way of governance. Senators of the Republic, you are convened today in common assembly to vote upon a matter of dire urgency, I say from the discomfort of my chair. The senators surround me, looking down from their seats on the tiered marble steps. Much has been made of the divide between our peoples. Today, I hope to see that divide closed. A resolution has been put before you by Senator Telemanus. Senator? Daxo stands to his imperious height. The optimates shout acclamation. He looks around with vibrant eyes and that clever mocking smile. Being that the greater strength of our veteran legions are trapped behind enemy lines, due, in no small part, to our own befuddled hands, I reintroduce that very same resolution which was voted down one long month ago. The optimates stamp their approval. Prior arguments against this resolution disparage the strength of those free legions. The optimates guffaw. The vox rumble in discontent and contended that they would capitulate to the strength of the enemy before rescue could avail them, that they would fold. Laughter from the optimates. That the Reaper of Mars was but a shadow of his former self. No, no, roar the optimates. While the Reaper has much to answer for, 
the Vox Murmur agreement. He has been embraced by the troops as the commander in the field, and it would be folly to discredit their wisdom on this day. The free legions live. With their victory, we can see that such pessimism, such defeatism, such, he wants to say, cowardice, but a look to me reminds him to stay his tongue and preach conciliation. Caution was unfounded, and while it is a courageous notion to hold fast our lines, to protect our spheres with all our might, I cannot see a world in which we, my good men, my good ladies, can rest our weary heads and look ourselves in the mirror knowing we condemned our brave fellows to death. Therefore, I reintroduce my resolution to grant the sovereign wartime imperium over the defence fleets, so she may, in her wisdom, prosecute this war to its rightful and expedient conclusion. As Daxo sits, the optimates stand with a roar, and outside, the smaller part of the crowd echoes their agreement as they watch the great projection of the Senate that streams above the Forum. But the greater part... The low colours with their more numerous constituencies wait for the man who has bound them together and given them a voice as loud as any gold in the society. Dancer politely waits for the other blocks to speak. The Silvers sit in silence. I have half their votes, if not their love. Votes from those who fear my wrath outweighs their fear of Quicksilvers. The Coppers also sit in silence. I look to Publius and tilt my head. It is his turn to stand. Yet he demurs, passing his time to the next block. I try to catch his eye. Something has changed. This should be where the trap springs and he denounces me. Has he made a deal with Zahn? Does he know I have Dancer? My internal comm beeps a priority message from Theodora. Keeping my face blank, I allow it through. My sovereign, Severo has a priority one message from Earth. I instruct her to put it through to Daxo as well. Dancer eases to his feet. The rugged man in brilliant white looks at me with a soft smile of reassurance as I wait for Severo's message. It is good today that the weather is fine and bright, that so many of our concerned citizens parted with the rigours of their own lives, and many rigours there are, to attend this assembly lifts my heart. He tries hard to match Daxo's eloquence, but is more at home with simpler diction. How far we have come in ten short years from the darkness of society. How many of you could envision this day, not as some dream, but as reality? Few, very few, I wager. Even Fitchner Barker, the father of this revolution, had doubts, as did I. He smiles, perhaps remembering the pain of those long years with the sons. My fellows, you are to be congratulated for your part, small as it may seem, in making this grand experiment possible. He hiccups softly before continuing. Our union is based not on our shared past, but on our hopeful future. He frowns in irritation as a brown senator behind him hiccups loudly into her sleeve. Yet, even now, agents of the enemy seek to divide that. Mustang! There's fear in Severo's voice. 
He's out of breath. I hear boot steps on metal grating. Mustang. Bone riders in old Tokyo. Trap. There's an explosion and the feed cuts to static. Bone riders. I hear blood in my ears. I look over to Daxo. Billions are watching on live stream. I can't leave. We need this vote now. Theodora will have to take point. She'll dispatch units to aid Severo. Bone riders. How could it be possible? They should still be imprisoned in Deep Grave. Has the prison been penetrated yet again? Are they working with the syndicate? It makes no sense. It has to be a trick. Severo must be mistaken. If Severo is not mistaken, this is exactly the sort of public venue where the bone riders would like to make a splash. I look up and search the ceiling, as if I'll find a bomb hidden there. The forum was checked a dozen times by Holiday and the Warden. It has to be clean. If old Tokyo was a trap, then how did the syndicate know I was coming? A mole? Do they count on me cracking the duke? I whisper for the Pegasus Legion units I have on standby, north of Hyperion, to come to the Citadel to join my Lion Guard on the field of Ares. Outside the forum, Holiday goes on high alert. Another hiccup escapes Dancer's lips, and he reaches up with a hand to scratch his throat. Our gold enemy profits when we are divided. He clears his throat roughly. So, today, I seek an end to that. A great mucus-filled hiccup escapes his lips, and his hands wrench into a cramped infantile movement to pour at his chest. The red senators beside him rustle in concern. But then another hiccups in their ranks. And another... Using the shoulders of the senators beneath him, Dancer pulls himself upright, his eyes confused and unfocused. Today, I seek to... Then comes the horror. A clump of blood and lung tissue vomits out of Dancer's mouth. It bathes the togas of the senators beneath him in red pulp. Hands windmilling, he topples over onto their heads. They collapse under the weight, and with shouts set him on the ground. Panic swirls around Dancer as he contorts violently on the stone, blood dribbling from his bodily orifices. His eyes bulge from his head, and his hands pour the ground. Publius rushes to cradle his head. Gas! I shout, holding my breath. But the pathogen detectors do not wail. The room does not seal and vent, and my personal defense ring around my wrist continues to blink silver, detecting no abnormalities. I summon the lion guards, waiting underneath the forum, but none reply on my internal comm. None come through the interior doors. I connect to holiday. Evacuation protocol. The wardens are likely compromised. Fire if they move to engage. Already moving to the west door. Support. Lion guards unresponsive. Daxo rushes me along with the gold and grey senators, and they form a wall around my person. Through their shoulders I watch Dancer and his lieutenants die, helpless to stop it. The Vox Populi shout in anger, in fear, calling for Medici as the yellow senators push through their ranks to come down the stairs. But then one stumbles and grips his chest before heaving his own blood onto the floor. Amidst Vox Populi, the clutch of Dancer's most stalwart, moderate lieutenants reel, beset by the same violent malady. Blood pours from their convulsing bodies, 
as their limbs flail in an atavistic dance, and those around them are torn between helping and running for fear that the pathogen is carried in their blood. Wardens, help them, someone shouts, but the wardens above, around the rim of the senate pit, do not rush to give aid. In their green cloaks they watch without pity or connection, and then file out the doors. On the floor, Dancer's spasms have subsided. His blood smears Publius's face and hands. He pulls back from the copper to look up at me with eyes wild and white as a dying horse's. His mouth opens, a bloody, twisted maw. He mouths something to me, but his voice has been robbed from him and no sound comes out. He's dead, Publius whispers. O'Farron is dead. The hope in me dies with him. Then Publius Su Caraval stands in the chaos. I know, as his lips curl back from his white teeth, as his eyes glimmer bright with long-hidden fervour and his bloody finger extends in my direction, that he knew Dancer and I had come to terms. How? Murderer, the incorruptible wails. Tyrant! Tyrant! the surviving Vox echo, pointing their fingers like blood-drenched scarecrows amidst the field of their dying compatriots. Tyrant! We flee in force. Optimates cluster around me and we ascend the stairs away from the charnel house. My internal comms swarms with dread. Citadel and Skyhall are under attack. Republic forces. Seventh Legion shuttles taking fire. Warden forces firing on Lion Guard outside Moon. Echo of Ares reports their captain has been shot. Arch Imperator Zahn moving on Augustan ships. Lake Silene has inbound Republic assault craft. Ships are going for Darrow's mother. Vox Legions assaulting ones loyal to me. It is a coup. With Daxo pushing me along in the centre of a knot of optimates, I rush up the last of the stairs to the west door. We make the flats around the senate pit and rush to the exit. At the head of a clutch of heavily armed lion guard, Holiday exchanges heavy fire outside the forum with warden elements. Taking casualties, they press up the stairs outside the forum as aerial soldiers in grav boots dogfight over the parks. But as they reach the top stair and make to meet us at the door, a forty-metre-tall Drachenjäger lands at the edge of the park. Its twin railguns train themselves on holiday. She shouts to take cover. Too late. I watch in horror as metal slugs moving at three times the speed of sound make my Martian soldiers mist. The slugs shred the marble steps and skip up into the forum, raining splinters of rock down on us. I'm flattened by gold and grey senators who use their bodies to shield mine. Senator Tiberius T. Hahn screams as his arm is taken off at the elbow by a ricochet. The next one takes his torso off at the hips. From under their bodies I see out the doors. The Drakenjäger is teetering sideways, a huge hole in its cockpit. From amidst the bodies of dead lion guard, Holiday turns her anti-tank rail rifle up the steps at the wardens blocking our escape. Five wardens are cut in half. A sixth warden explodes in a shower of gristle and metal. His cape detaches and slaps wetly against the groaning marble door as it slides to trap us inside the forum. Daxo reaches the door along and hauls against it, 
till the veins stand out in his neck and his fingers crack the stone. A shoulder pops from its socket. Run, you fools, he roars at us. I push the gold senators off me, but I'm too far from the door, and the mechanized hinges cannot be stopped even by a telemanus. Go, I shout at him. Daxo, go! My heart breaks as Daxo looks at the narrowing sliver of salvation. His face is red from exertion. His lips pull back from his teeth. He could escape, abandon me, but instead, a calmness comes over him, and he releases his grip on the door. It seals with a loud thump, and he turns to me and shrugs. With my comm, I open a master channel to my entire security network. Black Cathedral, I say. Repeat, Black Cathedral. But the signal goes down. Daxo puts a hand on my shoulder. His eyes are fixed on something behind me. I turn in time to see a concussion detonate outside the east door. In the plaza beyond, the colourful crowd has disintegrated into a frenzied mob. The shield, Daxo whispers. Smoke billows. A shield pylon teeters sideways. Sparks shiver out from its sides, and with a blue shimmer, the barrier separating us from the mob disappears. Oh no. A tide of humanity rolls up the white steps toward the only open door. Senators scream and scramble to beat against the other doors for escape. The remnants of the Vox Populi, some thirty of their fringe zealots, huddle around Dancer's body down in the Senate pit. Publius is amongst them, his face wild with righteous rage as he shouts for the mob and points toward us as if he were some necromantic conjurer hurling his murderous spirits forward. Optimates! To me! I shout. Barely half of them hear me. The rest have broken up amongst the forum to beat on the doors, to hide behind columns, to raise their hands in supplication to the mob that teems toward the open east door. Their faces sunburnt and pale, wide and narrow, eyes red and brown and orange, mad with communal rage, their arms carrying bent bits of fences, stakes from propaganda signs, hammers, and even black market scorchers they royal toward us. A dozen in front, a hundred behind, and thousands pushing them forward. I watch a blue senator tear herself away from her hiding place amongst the columns and stand bravely at the east door and face down the mob with an outstretched hand. No violence, she declares majestically. No violence, she repeats, just before a red man caves her head in with an iron vox pyramid on the end of a wooden pole. The mob swallows them. They all disappear, and all I can see is the iron pyramid rising and falling above the swarm. A pink senator falls. Frail bones shatter as he curls inward like a dying spider. They pull optimate senators from their hiding places and smash their heads open against the marble. Senators flee from them, tripping and falling, skinning their knees and prying themselves up to scramble away, their togas white but for the hems that are stained in blood, so that they look like the fluttering wings of red doves in flight. The obsidian senators, all women, all former warriors, join our lines with a solemn nod. Virginia, stand behind me, Daxo says in a low growl. I step to his side. With a small laugh, he peels the wool of his toga as if it were made of paper. 
Free of the encumbrance, he stands bare-chested, bare-limbed, a monster clothed only in undershorts before the mob. His shoulders are broad as a thunderhead, his back muscled like a sun-blood stallion's. The angels on his head glorious and golden and dancing down his spine to his lower back. But his huge hands are bare and empty. Daxo! I hand him the dawn scepter. He spins it, a meter of solid iron with the fourteen-pointed star of our republic glittering on the end. Gold and obsidian first rank, grey second, I shout over the furor as the mob runs around the sides of the senate pit to reach us. Those soldiers amongst the optimates, many old and stooped, but sinewy and dogged in the ways of war, rustle forward to stand fifteen abreast in velvet slippers and white togas to defend the cluster of thin-boned senators behind us. I pull on the metal tab underneath the left pocket of my jacket. My secondary razor slithers out of the spine of my jacket to form a meter and a third of rigid metal. I lean toward Daxo. On my command. Terror. The mob does not hit us in a wave. The wild vanguard was prepped. Pupils flaring with stims and intoxicants, they sprint headlong at us with homemade weapons, hammers and knives, a few with black market scorchers. A scorcher flares. White light ripples across the forum, and the obsidian senator to the left of me screams as her stomach ruptures open. She stumbles away, half her torso boiling. Now, I tell Daxo, lion heart and death for four meters. He cleaves the red with the scorcher in half, with the edge of the dawn scepter's star. A man swings at him with a knife. Daxo is already past him, but reaches back to shatter his hand and take the knife. He wheels it down on the head of a brown in a hammer stroke, flattening the head, and then casually flicks the scepter back into and through the face of another man, before bringing it about in a wheeling stroke that shatters three more of the rioters. He kicks a brown woman in the chest. Her sternum collapses, and a bulge from his foot pushes out her back. The last, a young red man with piercings through the bridge of his nose, stabs at Daxo. Daxo catches the blade in his left hand. It sinks into the palm, but bends against the reinforced bone, as Daxo pushes back till the man's straightened arm snaps like a twig. Daxo embeds the scepter in the man's chest and grabs the man's other hand. He pulls on both arms, lifting the man in the air so that he is eye to eye with Daxo, his feet kicking half a meter from the ground. With a roar, Daxo pulls off both the man's arms. The body drops to the floor, spitting blood. Daxo rips the scepter out of the man, pulling ribs with it, and beats his own bloody chest with gore-spattered hands. Lion heart! He spins the scepter, pointing it at the crowd. Dogs! Traitors! In the name of your sovereign, disarm! Disarm! The mob behind the massacred men skids to a halt, terrified of the gold monstrosity. All their lives they've known of gold power, but war is fast and smoky and small through a screen. They always suspected the myth of our violence overwrought. Now they see what our manners have protected them from. The courage in their numbers withers at the terrible sight of this machine of war unlocked from his civil chains. But the mob is a machine as well, and its engine of courage comes from those at the rear. They push forward, screaming and shouting, 
and firing over the heads of those terrified in the front, and the press breaks forward, dozens amongst them falling to be trampled by the weight of the distant brave. The mob hits more like mud than water. Seeping around Daxo, fighting to run away, heels skidding over bloody stone. My razor carves through the outstretched arm of a young man holding a scorcher, through the face of a fat woman with a rock, the neck of a screaming, terrified teenager with a mouth blue from cloud candy. Bodies push me back, and I chop madly, blindly at arms. They seep through. I fall back to swing again, but I collide with someone behind me, and I'm pushed forward into the bodies of those I've maimed, who wail and hold bloody stumps, and are trampled by those behind them. I wheel and hack and slash against flailing limbs. A hammer hits my collarbone. Bone holds. Man dies. A knife digs into my cheek and breaks a tooth in half. Spit sprays into my eyes. Blood. Teeth bite my leg and metal digs into my calf. Searing pain. I stomp on someone until I feel something give. Not ten metres away, Daxo kills and maims in a tyrannical whirlwind, like the kind Darrow and only a few others still living have ever seen in person, much less produced. I try to cut my way to him, but I don't have the mass. Bodies obscure me, hands pull at me, shoulders of screaming men subvert my balance as they hit my knees. The back of a head breaks my nose. I headbutt someone else and feel the weaker bone crumple. Sharp metal scrapes down my back, ribs and stabs repeatedly into my flank. I howl, pinched between bodies. My legs are caught by someone's arms and I'm wrestled from the side by a big red man, his whiskers scraping into my neck. I teeter sideways, pulled down by a mass of bodies. A gun goes off against my thigh. I feel pressure. They pin my sword arm to my side and bite and saw at my hand till the razor slips free. I crash to the ground under their weight, arms and legs unable to move against their grip as boots stomp on my head and kick my face. Sound goes in and out, my vision stuttering between black and the swarm of feet and legs at the claustrophobic underbelly of the mob. I swallow a tooth and bite the finger off a man. Virginia, I hear beyond the curses and shouts. Virginia! The big red man atop me twitches. The iron points of a bloody star erupt through his forehead. His eyes roll back into his head, and blood sluices onto me as Daxo pulls the dawn scepter out of his crushed skull. Another man falls between us. Daxo seizes his belt and hurls him through the air like a doll. I glimpse my friend for a moment, his wild eyes set in that thoughtful face, and despite the horror around us, despite the anger in him, I see the panic of love. He will save me. He will protect me, like he did when he pulled me from the tossing surf as a girl. And then he is gone, greatness borne down under a human wave that crashes down from all directions. A boot connects with my temple. My head lolls sideways. Something stabs through my cheek and takes two teeth. Numbly, I feel them tearing at my hair, my clothes ripping off my boots, cutting my pants with knives and my razor, the blade scraping my skin. Two men rip off my jacket as a woman kicks at my face. 
and hands pour at my breasts and claw between my thighs. I black out in the darkness, feel hands lifting me up, punching me, jamming into my body. Then I am free of the mob, the press of bodies above me gone. I open swollen eyes and see through a crack in the darkness. Jeering faces swim beneath me, hands pass me above their heads like a trophy. Sharp objects stick into my buttocks, my thighs. Daxo, I murmur through broken teeth, mouth full of blood and mashed lips. Daxo. I see him again through the crowd. His huge body is splayed out on the ground, held down by a big obsidian with gold teeth, as four others stand over him, guarding a muscular red woman in a Hyperion sanitation uniform. Tall for a red, she hacks at Daxo's neck with a hatchet till his head dislodges. She holds it by its spine. Without looking, she flicks Daxo's head to the mob. He was a man who could have ruled worlds if he had even the smallest ambition for it, who chose to serve the people even though he despised them. He did that for me, and now his head is tossed around like an inflated toy ball. The golden angels dance no more on Daxo's crown. They are drowned in his blood. The woman turns to look at me. Even set in that face, I recognize her eyes through the red contacts. A demon from the past, now undead. Lilith, my brother's dog of war. She is alive. She is the queen of the syndicate. How? Lilith begins to laugh at me. With a disembodied moan, I tear my eyes away and look up for some escape to the sky. But it is hidden from me, behind the painted plaster, where my husband floats golden and glorious, with Severo at his side, giving his speech to the mob of Phobos, where he heard the heartbeat of humanity and exhorted it to violence, to war, to the taking of lives for liberty. All that fills my ears is the roar of the human ocean as it sings the song of my husband's first wife. Chapter 32 Darrow In Wake Heliopolis steams under the early morning sun. Though northern Helios still buckles under Orion's storms, the monsoon clouds that drenched Heliopolis with torrential rain have slunk back to the Caliban Sea, leaving the city gleaming white. It might be lovely, but for the fact that the rain was irradiated from nuclear warheads and the air is so thick with humidity steaming in off the Bay of Sirens that the simple act of walking is like wading through pudding. My wounds are not yet healed. Everything aches. Nausea from anti-rads grips my belly. Sweat trickles down my back as I stand in a thick cluster of my officers to partake in the fading dirge. Before us, a sea of Martians sleep upon a bed of lavender. Spread across the tarmac of the spaceport south of Heliopolis, their faces are green and blue, their bodies distended by the sun, so that they look like inflated dolls. There is no triumph, no victory march for the dead. There is only this meagre honour. Scarcely one hundred thousand of the four million lost to the sea, the sand, and the atomics 
have been gathered for the fading dirge. Ten square kilometres of lavender were cut from the southern Latifundia by my corps of engineers to mask the smell of the bodies. It was meant to give some semblance of dignity to the departed as we say farewell to them together. There is no dignity here. A southerly wind prevails. As we beat our fists against our hearts, the ceremony disintegrates into farce as the dank stench of rotting eggs and used toilets drifts up from the bodies. The infantry maintain their ranks, but support and naval men and women, unaccustomed to the degradations of ground combat, waver, many upturning their stomachs onto the baking concrete. The bodies are arrayed to be cremated before our remaining ships of war. The battle-scarred morning star looms like a mountain, one and a half kilometres tall, nearly eight long. Four torch ships lie in her shadow, and the rickety remains of one destroyer. From atop her hull, welders shade themselves under the guns and pause their labour to watch. How many times has the morning star saved us? By the looks of her hull and the wounds she sustained it from the storm and the battle, I don't think she can do it again. Some will call the Battle of the Ladon a victory for the Republic. I cannot. With Naran falling the night before, we have lost all the major cities of Helios. Four million of my men are missing or dead. Just over five million survive to huddle beneath the shields of Heliopolis. Supplies dwindle, especially the anti-rads. Most were in Tyche. Barely one-third of my men are fit for duty, even by our elastic standards. Our tank regiments are depleted, rip-wings down to two hundred operational craft, Drachenjägers reduced to seven hundred. All that protects us from being bombarded is the shield overhead. All that protects us from being overrun are the storms beyond, and Atlantia's fear of what new horror I'll conjure. Despite our vulnerability, Atalantia has not opted for another frontal attack on Heliopolis. Instead, with us trapped inside, she extends her grip over the storm-ravaged continent and squeezes with the thoughtful patience of an anaconda. It means no relief fleet is on its way. But I must have hurt her badly. By our estimates, she lost twice as many as we did, most of the storm on the northern coast of Helios. The military camps of Venus can always provide her fresh bodies, but her precious veterans are irreplaceable. Thirteenth Draconis, Ashgard, Fulminata, Zero Legion, the Iron Leopards. With the Iron Leopards captured or killed, a third of the Ashgard drowned in Tyche, Fulminata pounded by Thraxa. Outside Heliopolis, how many more will she sacrifice for us? None, I wager. They are needed for the Republic. She will wait for reinforcements from Venus and use the raw recruits as a battering ram. There will be nothing we can do to stop them. All know it. Amongst the engineering officers, Parnassus stands like an old sea captain squinting into salt spray. Even though she suffered grievous burns in the battle, 
Thrax's shoulders loom over the heads of the grey, gold, and red infantry commanders. But amongst the naval officers, there is an absence. For ten years, the Blues orbited around Orion with the fidelity of moons to a planet. Now the planet is gone, and the moons drift untethered. They will need a new leader. But from where? Captain Pellis, a veteran of ten years, might have flown the Morning Star through hell, but he is no leader. All my imperators, save Harnassus, are gone. Half my praetors. More than two-thirds of my wing commanders. Atalantia gnaws through officers who cannot be replaced. Officers who earned their bars and then their wings under Orion and me. Where will we find more like them? In the fat, filigreed home guard? In the jockeying politicians of Skyhall? I can only pillage the ecliptic guard so far before it is staffed completely by children. I turn to my lancers and find no one there. Not Alexander, not Rona, only Screwface. He's taken weight off my shoulders since his return. Elated to be back with his own, he seems the only one with any energy to spare. I envy him that, and gave him Rat Legion to put his counter-espionage skill set to work, clearing the city of dissidents and any spies the Fear Knight snuck in. Where's Rona? I ask him. Tunnels again. Colloway? He split from the Medward at 0400. Was wings up by 0430. He went out again? With a full squadron. Man won't rest until he finds Orion. I thought you knew. I look back at the bodies. I didn't. If he dies out there, how many heroes will we have left? A murmur goes up amongst the men. I follow the current of hands that rise to shade their eyes. A ripwing smudges smoke across the morning sky. Of the twelve ripwings that went in search of Orion, three stagger back. Colloway is not in his right mind. Since we took refuge in the city, he has been on the ground a total of ten hours. The time it takes to eat seven meals, receive two blood transfusions, exchange seven crippled ripwings for fresh ones, and be locked in the med bay under guard. Lazy guard, apparently. Early morning condensation turns to vapor as Colloway and his wingmen set their battered ripwings on the concrete before the dead. Colloway's canopy is so mangled with enemy fire it has to be welded off. When he's free, he bypasses the ladder and slides down his wing before coming around to the belly of the ripwing, where a bloated body is clutched in its towing claw. Colloway pries the body from the towing claw and tries to carry it. She is too heavy, even in the light gravity. He stumbles, and I find myself moving from the officers to reach him. Dozens of others join, including Screwface and Thraxa, but not Parnassus. He watches, stone-faced, from his officers, unable to forgive Orion, or me, for the storm and the millions of civilians it killed. Seawater is not kind to a dead body, nor are fish. But on Orion's swollen right hand is the trident ring I gave her when I named her Navark of the fleet.
it rests on my shoulder as we carry her to the field of the dead and lay her amongst the lavender and corpses of fallen rip-wing pilots. Colloway falls to his knees there. At first I think it is from his exertion. Then he breaks into sobs. I squat behind him, knowing there is nothing to say. I take him by the shoulder to lead him away, but he thrusts my hand off and wheels on me. Plus twenty-four, sir, he says, but they'll just send more. There are no more Orions. He storms away from the funeral, making it halfway across the tarmac before collapsing. Medici rush to him and bear him away toward the city. Twenty-four makes one hundred and ninety-three kills in six days, Thraxa says with a whistle a feat which will never be encroached upon in our time. As others grow numb, she grows callous. I stare after Colloway. Despite his natural laziness, there has always been a fever behind his eyes, even back on Luna with a Hyperion sprite splayed across his lap. I suspected it was a fever for kills, chasing some imaginary number where his soul would finally be quenched and deem it enough. Today is the first time I realize the number isn't counting up. It's counting down. How many more can he kill before he goes? I look back on Orion's body one last time. It is a horrible thing to see someone so full of life, so important in yours and those of others, pummeled by death. The corrosion of the sea was cruel. It is no comfort to know this thing is no longer her, just the rotting shell of what held a miracle of a soul. Does she go to Eo and Ragnar and Fitchner? Or is she simply gone? I do not know. Nor do I know how I will go on without her. I feel cold despite the sun, desperate to feel the warmth of my family, my wife, my son. Knowing how short our time in the light is, am I the greatest of fools to not spend every moment by their side? Thraxa lights a burner. Here's for you, old girl. How many kills you suppose you got? Bet it was more than a hundred ninety-three. Fighting the instinct to break Thrax's jaw, I turn away from her and return to the officers. Soon the warning siren blares. The legionnaires and I turn our heads. Bright white light flares from the morning star, washing away the meagre light of morning, and when we turn back, their comrades are nothing but ashes. The smell of ozone sanitizes the air and their comrades walk forward to scrape the ashes of their friends into canisters in hopes of one day giving them back to Mars. Not one of us believes we'll ever see home again, but they sing nonetheless. Defense barricades and screening facilities have been erected around the mouth of the Tyche Heliopolis Gravloop Station, which towers at the east end of the water plaza. With the power severed in Tyche, the loop's cars stranded many refugees in the tunnel. 
I stood in silence, watching our first convoys ferry the refugees through. I thought it would be a miracle if Alexander saved a thousand, but the convoys continued to flow for nearly three days, families and children of all colours, each sharing the same story of the Griffin Knights who held back an army to give them time to escape the sea. Whether or not they know we summoned that sea is another matter. Some blame the society, some us, others blame nature herself. Eventually the flow became a trickle, and the trickle became no one at all, and the fragment of me that held out hope submitted to reality. Alexander will not appear staggering behind the last survivors with a limp, a wry smile, and somehow perfectly quaffed hair. He is drowned in the sea. Sentimentality is no reason to allow this potential enemy highway to continue to exist. How long has she been here? I asked the centurion in charge of the barricade. A red, he wears a bandage over his eye and a necklace of red charms around his neck. A rat skull is most prominent. Rat legion. Toughest of those who fought in the rat war in the tunnels of Mars. Of course they survived the storm, and labor while the others lick their wounds. Going on six hours, sir. She's in the atrium. Do you need an escort? No, we'll be out in a minute. I put Rat Legion on R&R. &R. What are you doing here? Nineteenth lost most of their men to a gravity bomb. Thought they wouldn't mind us picking up the slack, sir. I nod. After holding Heliopolis against Ajax's army for half a day, if anyone deserves rest, it's Rat Legion. Prepare the charges. With my bodyguards scanning the surrounding roofs for snipers, I head up the station's main steps. I find Rona sitting against the base of a broken statue inside the atrium. The right side of my niece's head is shaved from where the surgeons repaired the gash a grey digger bullet made as it tore open her helmet. Aren't you supposed to be in the med ward? I ask. Ain't you supposed to be running an army? She chews her nails as she watches the stairs leading up out of the tunnel. Can I sit? She shrugs, and I slide down next to her with a sigh. Didn't want to miss the princess's dramatic entrance, she says. If he were coming by tunnel, he'd be here by now. I know. Then you know we have to collapse the tunnel. It would be difficult to explain to my brother why I did it on his daughter's head. Yeah. She swallows, thinks about saying something, then forgets it. We sit in silence, watching the stairs. In truth, I've been afraid to see her since we took the city. I'm not so distracted I couldn't see the tension between her and Alexander was growing into something else. For two people who can't stand each other, they certainly found enough reasons to always be in the same room. He may still have taken the Kylar path, I say. I know what's what. Even if he got through the storm and the Votum, those mountains will be crawling with Gorgon. She looks over at me. If it had been me instead of Alexander, would you have let me go? My first instinct is shame, because I've always resented the sort of gold Alexander represented.
haughty, entitled, rich. But it wasn't enmity that sent him to Tyche. It was respect. Yes. You didn't just dispose of him, she asks plaintively. Of course not. That answers something for her. Such an asshole. Just when he starts being worth a damn. She shakes her head and looks once more at the stairs. All right. Slag it. She forces herself up. She wobbles, still woozy from the operation. I steady her, and we walk out together to join the centurion behind the barricade. What's the final refugee count? I ask the centurion. Eighty-three thousand four hundred and twenty-six souls, sir. Eighty-three thousand four hundred and twenty-six souls, I say to Rona. Not many are lucky enough to know how much their life is worth. She gives a small nod of appreciation. I signaled the centurion. The engineers go to work, and soon two thousand meters of tunnel caves in on itself. Rona watches dust billow out from the mouth of the station, and then turns to me at attention. Request permission to return to duty, sir. I'm no good to you in the med bay. Granted. She nods and heads back to my transport. She looks so small against the towering statue of Poseidon. The god of the water plaza holds up ninety-nine discs of water and thousands of thirsty birds. Rona disappears inside the shuttle. She's a soldier now, like me. I linger to witness the last of the rocks settle. Knowing that Alexander is dead, that those people he saved will soon forget him, or may die yet in the siege, I wish for one small moment that I were a young man again, who could charge forward nourished by his own righteousness. That man would damn the danger and search for Alexander, as Colloway searched for Orion. But that man would have died in the desert, and taken all his men with him. That man isn't what my army needs. Hell, I don't know what they need except for a miracle. I turn and head back to my transport, dragged forward by the weight of the day. West of the city, between the Bay of Sirens and the Old City, squats the four-century-old Votum government complex known as The Mound. It is a heavy basilica straddled by a half-kilometre-tall statue of the city's patron god, Helios. Each of the fourteen spikes on his sun crown stretched the length of ten men to puncture the blue sky. His left hand holds a scepter, and the right moves according to the path of the sun, so that, at sunset, he will cup it in his palm as it sinks beyond the horizon, as if any man had such control. The rain is radioactive, Anassa says, dumping a box of dead cats on the table of the old Votum war room. Thraxa paces along the arched windows, more interested in the bunkers our claw drills are carving than the inconvenient report. We are all bald by now. We eat here. Thank you very much for the drama, Thraxa says. Anassa grumbles on. 
fallout from the atomics used locally. So far the golds are scrubbing the stratosphere, so there's limited risk of permanent global contamination. But we're in trouble. Orion drowned half our anti-rads in Taiki before we could evac them. The Gorgons eliminated another third in that bombing before we rounded them up. Sweat soaks Harnassus's dirty uniform. He looks even more exhausted than I feel. Like me, he put on a brave face for the men at the funeral, but the Gorgons who snuck in before we locked down Heliopolis are giving us hell, and native insurgencies have sprung up faster than Screwface can put them down. Bottom line, we don't have enough for our men and the civilians. Why are you always bringing me bad news? I ask him. Anassus's bitterness has increased exponentially since Orion summoned the storms. I sympathize with the man, even if I find him a damn thorn in my side. Hate the storms all he likes, the only reason we have an army at all is because of its cloud and electrical cover. Because I'm the only one not sucking your balls. Oh, do say it more directly, Thraxa says, as if it adds gravitas. I rub my shoulder as I receive an anti-rad shot from the yellow medicus. The nausea has come in waves over the last days. I thought it would be starvation that ended us, not fallout. On my way to the mound, I saw men with red-stained handkerchiefs, others sitting in the shade with their heads in their hands as they queued for the latrines. Hanassus plods on. Engineering Corps believes the symptoms will spike dramatically. We're already experiencing weakness, nausea, and headaches. It will progress to vomiting and diarrhea, which I've already got. The civilians will soon figure it out. We'll have full-on riots soon as the deaths start. There have already been riots, Praxa says, turning her eyes from the mountains to the refugee-choked streets of Heliopolis. If we share our supplies, we won't make it two weeks. We're already on half-dose, already denying it to five thousand men too far gone. These people are not our allies. She's not wrong. We are not wanted here. Tyche was a fine enough home, but of the Mercurian breed, Heliopolitans are the most cantankerous, cruel, and noisy. Save Glerastes, it is hard to remember even one who welcomed us when we took the planet. And with Orion's storm and our waning campaign, the teeth have come out. My soldiers dare not go anywhere alone at night. Mobs have already tried storming the food centers I set up. Even Glerastes has spurned my calls, lurking in his palace above the city, after haranguing me about betraying my oath not to raise the storms past primary horizon. He doesn't believe Orion went rogue. I find myself thinking about Pax, and if I would have sent him into Tyche, like Alexander. Would I spend my boy as I've spent so many others? Didn't I spend him in a way, by not returning home? It all seems so transactional, war. Did I spend my boy the day he was born, by the virtue of my role in the Rising? I can only hope that my wife has found him by now. That they are together, and that the fleet is coming for us. Hope. Hope won't bring back Orion or my men. 
but my wife deserves it. And here, shorn of everything else, I am sustained only by her strength. We brought this upon them, Telemannus, Anassus says, cooling himself with an absurd peacock fan. All power, including that of the climate control, is being conserved for the defense. First we invade their planet and bring war to their cities. Then we sink a coastline. Now we let them wither as we huddle in their city. Did I create the Mercurians to be of insubstantial fiber? Thraxa asks. No. They lack the warrior constitution to fight for their own freedom. Mercurian reds are anemic compared with ours. Well, if they want to be slaves so badly, let them embrace their own degradation, I say. Thank you, Ashlord. Let me get this proper. Because they do not agree with us, we let their children decay and their families die. Anassus sneers. The two have been at each other's throats since we returned to Mercury. The enmity has grown worse in Heliopolis. Anassus considers Orion's storm a genocide. Thraxa thinks it the noblest of sacrifices. The populace is a time bomb, Thraxa says. You want to keep it ticking. We could just let it fizzle out. She looks to me. They're going to take up arms against us. We can make sure right here, right now, they can't lift those arms. I always suspected you were a democrat of convenience, Anassus replies. At least Orion's villainy can be traced to anger. Yours is just cold blood. Cold blood wins wars, Thraxa says. You should know. You're no snowy virgin yourself. Not after Echo City. Anassus's jaw clenches. If the Vox had more cold blood and less envy, the fleet would never have been split and vulnerable to Atalantia, and we'd never be in this quagmire. Your friends are to blame, Harnassus. You are to blame. And now you quibble and pretend like this is all Darrow's fault. The hypocrisy disgusts me. Anassus stands to his full, unimpressive height. I will not stand by and watch children decay. Then you will lie on your back, shitting blood as your men decay, Thraxa says, while my men do not. Enough, I snap. You're like children. At least try. For me. The door opens, and Screwface prances in. Apologies, he says, stripping off his scarlet Heliopolitan scarf and riding gloves. Two Gorgon were caught in the water filtration plant— Blackguards thought the Reds would be on their heels from rad poisoning. Sturdy Rat Legion is sturdy. I got this place on lock. He flops down in a chair and wrinkles his nose at Harnassus's cats. What did I miss? We're just cutting to business, I say. Harnassus, you've taken stock of the engineer and support legions. Thraxa, the armored and heavy infantry. Screw the special ops and navy. What do you perceive our chances of escape to be? They grow quiet. Screwface looks at his manicured hands. That low. You'd never guess we just won our greatest statistical victory of the war. We just don't have the ships to escape, Anassa says. Four torch ships, one destroyer. The Morning Star may never fly again. 
If we take out all extraneous systems of the other ships, we could just barely fit the men. Doesn't matter anyway. Just two of Atalantia's dreadnoughts will make us atoms, and those torch ships of theirs are faster than the star. If we get to space, they'll hunt us down. But we won't get to space. They have the gravity well. If a single ship made it to orbit, it would be a miracle. What if we... acquired their ships? Braxa asks, looking to Screwface. Get a team to orbit and try to take one or two of those dreadnoughts. His eyes go wide and he whistles. I wouldn't volunteer personally. They're blasting anything that comes within a hundred clicks. And the Gorgon have response teams on board. Atlantia's just waiting with a net. She knows me too well for that to work this time, I say to Screw's nod of agreement. If we saw an opening, it would likely be a trap. The noose is tightening. If we move outside the shield, she'll stomp on us like bugs. I intended to move the ships in the storm cover, under the veil of electronic interference, to prepare some devilry for Atalantia. But the level of storm Orion summoned made that impossible, and even killed four of our torch ships. Now all my cards are used up. They know it. I know it. And I have the sneaking suspicion Atalantia knows it. There are no tricks left to play. We are in a cage, I say. All that can deliver us is the Sovereign. And I believe she will. You believe? Traxa says. She won't move the Senate. The Vox will sacrifice us. Dancer will let us die to get back at you for the Sons of the Rim. No one is coming. Sadly, Anassus agrees. I know, Dancer. He'll wear diamonds before he risks Atalantia's trap, not after that false peace. He's prouder than he thinks. I know neither of you want to hear it, but after that battle we're not an army anymore. We're just bait on a hook. All's left to do is remove the bait. Surrender? Thraxa asks in horror. Anassus's lips barely move. Perhaps. If we surrender, they will kill all of us, Thraxa says. Worse, Screw says. I would know. I've watched her play with howlers. He blinks and covers his unease with a smile for a seagull that lands on the balcony outside. They would torture and kill us for, Anassus agrees, but they will need labor to rebuild after this. Not all of the men will survive, but some will. Some is better than none. He meets my eyes. At least tell me you will consider it. I lean back in my chair as Thraxa and Screwface hold their breath. Harnassus, in order for me to consider that, I would have to continue to make the same mistake that put us here. Doubt my wife. I have done that before to the detriment of us all. With me taking shortcuts, as Severo said. And I would have to make a mistake I have not made in fifteen years. Fool myself into believing slavery is better than death. I will not do that. Thraxa nods. The tension releases from Screw. He's afraid of Atalantia. More afraid than he'll ever admit. Anassa says nothing. 
he disagrees. I was ready to sacrifice this army to break theirs, because I did not believe the Republic would come, because I thought killing them would give the Republic the best hope in this war. In that moment of choice, I listen to you, Hanassus. If we save this army, it will be a victory to inspire the world. We will save this army by having faith in our Republic, in our Sovereign. There will be no surrender, no escape plan that exposes the army so Atalantia can drive a stake through our hearts. My wife said the ships would come, so they will come. Until then, we share what we have with the civilians. It won't last the week, Thraxa objects. We share what we have with the civilians. A knock comes at the door, and Rona steps through looking frightened. Sir, we've received a tight beam from the Anihilo. Screwface's head snaps in her direction. Atalantia has requested an audience. Her eyes dart to the floor. She says it concerns your wife. Chapter 33 Darrow The Devil's Deal it's disappointing we didn't get to meet in person, I say to Atalantia. I had such plans for you. Yes, well, I'm not terribly fond of having conversations when I'm on the back foot. And I will admit, you put me there. Lady, I fucked you up. She grimaces. Indeed, but that is the nature of you and me, gamblers both. I won the first hand, you won the last. Though I must admit, I am surprised you had the temerity to use those machines. What devious designs freedom requires. One must worry about the strength of a principle when it must compromise itself so often to survive. At least we're consistent, eh? I do not tell her it was Orion's decision. More the monster I appear more hesitant will she be in encroaching upon Heliopolis. Today she is in a playful mood, which worries me. I know I hurt her worse than she's letting on. Her eyes are of warm gold, and her mouth sensuous in a way that reminds me of Nithhagar, the serpent of obsidian myth who gnaws at the root of the world tree. She walks around her absurd gold throne, tracing her nails along its spikes. The snake that she customarily wears around her neck coils around the throne's arms. She laughs at a private joke, then makes it public. Don't you find it peculiar, the human conviction that we are the heirs of history instead of paragraphs that are almost over? A survival mechanism, no doubt. My father knew otherwise, of course, she continues. He was even more avid an historian than Atlas with his little library. That's what made them fond of each other, you know. My father could read Sumerian, Akkadian, Ebalite, Hurrian, Hittite, Ugaritic, First Chinese, and thirty-two other dead languages. And all he learned from them was an aversion to risk. He was never fond of betting at all on a roll of the dice, like we do. But one story did stick. He told it to me when, as a girl, 
I had it in my mind to brawl with Urja when she rode my favorite sunblood stallion without asking. She pulls the snake from the arm of her chair and lets it coil around her neck. In the years between 280 and 275 BC, a young king dared to resist the expanding Roman Republic. Her finger traces along the snake as it moves. This king was beloved by his men, shrewd in the ways of battle, much like you. To the surprise of the known world, he enjoyed initial successes against the legions, appalling them with fearsome beasts from barbarous lands. The snake lifts its head toward Atalantia's face. War elephants and the like. But these battles cost the king. He could not call up more men from his lands, and elephants are so few. In contrast, the Romans could draw from an immeasurable well of manpower. The snake's mouth slowly opens before Atalantia. The king soon realized this, and when congratulated for a victory, he cried out, If we are victorious in one more battle with the Romans, we shall be utterly ruined. Atalantia extends her tongue to take the smallest prick from the right fang of the snake. She shudders as the microdose of poison races through her bloodstream. Her voice creeps toward sensuous as she slinks toward her chair and sinks into its embrace. I measure you know this king's name. Pyrrhus, I answer. Don't fret. I didn't waste your tax dollars to get a bad education. I presume you know, then, what happened next. Rome consumed Pyrrhus because of his victories. But there is one problem. You are not Rome, are you? I say. We are greater than Rome. You may have wounded my legions, but my fleet would eviscerate the Scepter Armada of ten years ago. With the reserves on Venus, my legions dwarf Octavia's standing army. We were a shadow of ourselves in her time, a tiny fraction of peerless scarred, holding up the morbid obesity of the pixies. But you have sharpened our age, given me a new generation of soldiers who want nothing more than to be the hand that killed the reaper. The first is already in the fray. In four years' time... Half a million will turn sixteen. You know the breeding protocols my father made law when Luna fell. Six hundred thousand triplets raised with one thing on their mind. Subjugation. I wasn't talking about the society, Atalantia. I was talking about you. You are what's lacking. She smiles, welcoming the critique just the least loved daughter of a butcher. I imagine you have convinced yourself it was because you are misunderstood. A survival mechanism, I imagine. But I knew Magnus. I fought him for almost a decade. We had chats like this, he and I, though he never babbled like you. And we had a mutual understanding to not atomize every plot of ground we couldn't take. You were not misunderstood by your father, Atlantia. You were simply disliked. Azure was his pride. Moira was his joy. 
You were just there with your silk and your Venusian orgies, acting out to get attention. And now you're his last resort, the pitiable last sentence of a family saga that is almost over. Her mouth takes on a truculent expression. Even if you beat us here, the world has changed, and there is no place for you in it. No, she snaps. Your civilization is a clumsy design. Given liberty, each man will seek his own delight. Few indeed are the men whose delight is war. Your civilization, then, does not want war. Our civilization is an efficient engine. It wants what I want. And what do you think I want? She smiles. Not because she knows she is right, but because she knows something I don't. For a woman with such a thin reputation before all this began, she has changed. The frivolity is gone, but the capricious cruelty natural to her spirit remains, emboldened now by her training under her father, by her collaboration with Atlas. You may have won a victory, but your situation is untenable. You are treading water, she says. I understand it makes sense, knowing what you know. You believe your wife is coming for you, that she and Severo will save you, as they always have. I have beliefs, too. I believe in beauty, above all things, and I believe your religion of democracy to be a disease, a disease that deceives you that devours itself every time it has infected a civilization. Athens, the American Empire, the Indian. I proposed to my father that exposing this disease would cauterize it far more thoroughly than warfare. He was dubious. A pity he never saw sins of the past come to fruition. Atalantia claps her hands together, and her face disappears to reveal my wife, speaking on the floor of the Senate. She looks younger than I remember, pure and dazzling, when my world has become nothing but so much dust. In fact, everything seems absurdly white and clean. The robes of the senators, the marble, the air itself. Daxo rises to speak, and then my old friend, Dancer. I sense something is wrong long before the blood spews from his mouth, and with creeping dread that mutates into abject revulsion, I watch the Senate disintegrate into a horror more appalling than I could ever imagine. The mob devours the optimates. They even sing Eo's song as they bear my dying wife upon a sea of bloody hands. I stare at her at Daxo's head, tossed about like a rubber ball through the crowd. I have felt this once before, when Eo swung upon the gallows, as if the foundation of my being were gone, and I glimpsed for one small moment the reality of my existence. There is no life without that woman. There is just a cold world, and the ugly creatures who fight for its scraps. I buried my wife in Lycos, 
I took her down from the gallows and placed her remains in the dirt of the garden we found together, knowing it would be my death. But that was the boy. The man is broken, but he is not allowed to break. I blink as the Senate Hall erodes into a flurry of light particles that coalesce into the face of my enemy. Your work. She touches her chest. Subcontractor. For the culprit, I suggest you look a little closer to home. Even I couldn't poison the togas of that many senators. I wonder what they used. Anyway, I call it the Day of Red Doves. She frowns in pity. Poor little Sisyphus, pushing that boulder uphill for so long. It is beautiful in a way to see a man struggle against natural law, to see what human will can accomplish, and then to see your face now. She shudders with pure pleasure. No betraying inflections, no micro-expressions of grief. Simple obduracy, despite the dread clawing at the back of your eyes. A doomed army, a lost child, a dead wife. She wags a finger heavy with rings at me. That is a peerless scarred. How much more gravitas he has than all the squabbling rats of democracy. I assume you will be broadcasting this to my army. An empty voice says from my mouth. She shrugs as if to say it is out of her hands. I would not dare interrupt the democratic process. Did not Virginia once say that transparency is the heart of the thing? You poor creature. All these years you must have felt so trapped. Knowing what needed to be done, but unable to do it because of people weaker than you. If you had just marched your legions into the Senate, instead of chasing after my father, you could have won this. Once you had the power, you could have remade the world with your wife at your side, however you saw fit and put your son on the throne. But that is the noble lie of democracy, isn't it? The belief in humanity, even though humanity is a screaming, selfish mob. I love humans, truly. But humanity... She shivers. I wanted, I needed to see your face as you realized we were right all along. It is true beauty. Is my wife dead? If not dead, scheduled to die at the hands of maniacs. Who leads them? Publius? It seems impossible for Dancer to be dead. What then of my son? What then am I? A creature so single-minded that he left his wife and child to be torn apart by a mob? I convinced myself my duty was here, and it would be selfish to return to Luna. I deluded myself into believing in the virtues of a republic that is nothing but a sham. Was that just an excuse for me to carry on my bloody path? Virginia is not coming, Atalantia says. Her voice is harsh, done with its play. Severo is not coming. 
No one is coming. Disarm your forces, assemble your men south of the city, lower your shields, and submit to your fate with dignity. If you do this, I will behead you and your high command with proper ceremony. The rest of your men will be spared and put to labor according to their nature in rebuilding the planet you have left in tatters. If you commit suicide, this offer for your men is forfeit. If you reject my offer, I will drop atomics on Heliopolis and kill every man, woman, child, and dog for two hundred kilometers. Even the cockroaches won't survive. This is the only mercy you will receive. Bluff, I say robotically. I beg your pardon. Rare was one thing. This is Heliopolis. Heliopolis, Heliopolis, Heliopolis. It is a sty. A reliquary for the past, no matter how much that traitor Glerastes opines on its virtues. All I need is the metal in those mountains, your life, and those of that Telemanus bitch and that ugly orange bastard. She hesitates. And that beautiful colourway of yours on a leash. As for Mercury, she makes a face. And Mars, helium can be mined in hell for all I care. As long as my bathwater is warm, I'll never notice. The horror of an entire generation of red slaving in an irradiated wasteland overwhelms me. Mutations, death by thirty. That cannot be how this ends. You are not a sovereign, I say flatly. You are just glue. Glue that barely holds together the two hundred. If you destroy Heliopolis, the Votum will decry you. How many of those two hundred will wonder what you'll do to their cities? How would Julia Albelona like you atomizing Olympia? How would the Carthii feel about a mushroom cloud over Harmonia? No, I say with rising anger. If you nuke us, you will be deposed. But you need to leave, don't you? So desperately you can feel it in your bones. The Republic is in turmoil. You could drive a nail through it if you could just use your ships. Yet they're stuck here, guarding me like two-bit tin pots. Is it because I put the Minotaur on Venus? Is it something else? Or maybe it's just that, no matter how many strapping young goals you send after me, all you get back is piles of meat. You need us to surrender, because you're afraid of me, and even more afraid of becoming Pyrrhus yourself. Perhaps, she says, but it's your bet. I replay the conversation between Atalantia and myself to the officers of my high command. Screwface straddles the balcony outside, his desert shades hiding his eyes. No aides line the war room. The coffee is forgotten at a side table. The day of red doves has streamed on every screen in Heliopolis that has power. It is the only signal from beyond our cage. They mock us from orbit. But this conversation is what matters. The image dissolves, leaving darkness on the faces of my commanders. Onassis slumps in the chair to my right. Thraxa stares at a fly hovering over a vine by the window. 
She has not spoken since she learned Daxo has died. The news has rattled her in a way nothing else ever has. What of her mother, her father, her sisters? Until now. My voice betrays me. I clear my throat. Until now. Our strategy was based upon the belief that the Republic was on its way. I do not believe it practical to continue in this assumption. I have reason to believe that Publius is an agent of Atalantia's, or that the events that took place in the Senate were the product of her designs. The Vox Populi are compromised. I would caution you against recognizing the authority of any element on Luna. I look at Harnassus, knowing Atalantia will likely beam him a message from Publius and the surviving Senate demanding surrender. We have been given an offer with a twenty-four-hour clock, an offer that we have no reason to believe our enemy would honor. I pause, knowing what I am about to say is true, but feeling a coward nonetheless. I do not believe that I can chart an unbiased course, given the situation. I wave a hand as Thraxa and several others rise from their seats in protest. Just let me get this out. Colloway and Hernassus remain absolutely still. Of the two, I can't tell which looks worse, though the Ripper pilot is certainly drunk. I hear Screwface had to pull him from a brothel to get him here. An army is not a democracy, but given our situation, I do not believe it should be despotism. I try to look around the table, but find it difficult to meet their eyes. I fell into Atalantia's trap. I brought them here. I sowed the seeds of my wife's end and the end of our republic. I may not have done it alone, but it hardly matters. Most of you have been with this army as long as I have. It is your family as much as it is mine. You will decide its fate. I will accept any decision you make. The only plea I offer is that you decide based on what is best for our men, and then the Republic. With that, I leave Thraxa, Harnassus, Colloway, Screwface, and the rest of the High Command in the High War Room to decide my fate and that of the Free Legions. I walk along the lower balconies where night mist beads on the stone walls. The waves crash all around the roots of the building. Both were made by man. Perhaps at first in hope to give our species a new home to live and to love. But in time... I don't know when. Their creation became a vanity of will, and in the shadow of that vanity, man grew lesser for having more, lesser for mastering the keys of creation, because he mistook himself for a god, and cared less for his people, and more that his works endured. Have I done the same? With a great sucking sound, the black water pulls back to reveal the work it has done to the roots of the stone after all these years. And then the waves crash back. A cavernous solitude makes a home in my chest, 
where once there was only purpose, that made far too little room for my boy and my wife. I return to my room and take Pax's key from my luggage. I wrap its chain around my neck and hold it as I stare at the ceiling. Chapter 34 Lysander Shadows of War Are you awake or asleep, Lysander? I'm not in the desert. I am at Lake Silene. Snow clings to the evergreens. It makes the stones slippery under my feet. My legs tremble as I haul myself up the stairs that wind up the cliff from the lake to the house. I drop a stone the size of my abdomen atop a cairn. My hands are bloody and shaking. It is the winter after my parents died. I look up to see the severe face of my grandmother. I am terrified of her, but desperate for her approval. Even now, knowing what she did, the boy in the memory cannot hate her. He is too afraid to hate. I thought the week would be just for Arja and me. I never get her to myself. Atalantia had taken Ajax to Echo City to watch the water races. I thought Arja and I would take the horses north, but Grandmother has come back from Hyperion to continue my lessons. She is inescapable. I asked you a question. I am awake. Are you? How many crows are in the trees that line the steps? I look to Arja for help. She watches evenly from her perch on a fallen log. Will you look to Arja every time you need saving? I do not know how many crows there are. You do not know. I look down. Never manifest shame physically. Look at me! There's no anger in her face. There never is. How many owls are there? Hawks? Squirrels? I don't know, Grandmother. Do you really think you've earned the right to use contractions yet? She leans forward. Why do you not know? I will answer, since your tongue is lead. Your mind was asleep. Do you at least know how many steps there are? 431. How many turns? 17. Are you certain? Yes, Grandmother. Good. You know something, at least. Pick up a rock. I obey. It weighs half as much as my body. Close your eyes and run back down the steps. Octavia, Arja whispers. You have already spoilt your churlish spawn, Arja. Let us not ruin the batch. Is something the matter, Lysander? You said there are four hundred thirty-one steps. How many times have you run them? A thousand? Ten? This should be no difficulty. Begin. I surge downward, knowing this I can do. I can impress her. My steps are confident, even in the ice, even with the weight. I see the steps burned into the backs of my eyelids. I make it three hundred twenty-one steps before something on the steps starts. There's a flutter of movement that slaps into my face. I lose my balance. The weight of the stone is unforgiving. It pulls me forward. When I open my eyes, I am at the bottom of the steps. 
The bone of my right arm is out of the skin. It looks curiously pale. I begin to shudder. Aja is at my side, holding me. My grandmother descends the steps. Aja! His bones haven't fully... Aja! Aja lets me go, and I lie in the snow, staring up at my grandmother. Stand up. I struggle to my feet and look her in the eye. Why did you fall? I cannot speak for the pain. Recede into your mind's eye. Exist with the pain, then let it draw your inner pupil to tighter focus. I do as she demands. The pain does not lessen, but it no longer clouds. Its current pulls my mind narrower and constricts my concentration to retrace the memory. Sure enough, I find the outlying variable, a slight crunch, as I descended the 316th step just before the crows. You put feed on the steps for the crows, I whisper. Good, but are you not in control of your own body? Why did you let me dictate where you fell? If you were awake, you would have sensed the crows were not in the trees any longer. You would have felt the seed underfoot and adjusted to the fresh variable. She bends down. You have a brain like mine. That is why you are my heir. That is why I have made you my son. But you must never let your mind sleep. Your mind's eye must rove without rest. Even as you speak, eat, move, it is not enough for it to collect data. It must digest it as a sub-function, or you will miss something and become a slave to another. She kneels to look me eye to eye. You are known. Another will always seek to bridle you with fists, with kisses, with tricks. She brushes snow from my shoulders and pain comes into my eyes. The tragedy of the gifted is the belief. They are entitled to greatness, Lysander. As a human, you are entitled only to death. She stands. Now, are you awake or asleep? Awake. Prove it. Again. I walk suspended between the past and the hard reality of the desert. There is pain. More than I thought possible, the left half of my face is a ruin of melted meat. It is swollen with fluid that expands the skin to bursting. Pus leaks through the bandage Kalindora helped me attach. My left eye is blind and obliterated. Bits of melted metal have hardened over much of the wound. Unable to see my reflection, I can only imagine the horror. All I can do is walk. Foot after foot, over the hard pan. There is no more water left to share amongst our ragged band. While I could survive nine days without it in a temperate climate, the desert and my wound conspire to drain every drop. I will not last long. I cannot help but feel we are being followed. That something watches from the desert. It is hard to tell. More bands like ours wander the playa, only to disappear behind veils of dust. It would not be good to congregate with wayward infantry anyway. Supplies dwindle, weary bands trudge toward their imagined salvation. But we are all just burnt shadows of war. The killing field was days ago, 
yet it stalks me like a ghost through the days. Perhaps that is what I feel. The sensation of destiny broken. The dread of the killing field. Two star-shells pinning me down, mutilated men and metal carpeting the ground. The battle had moved on shortly after I woke. Its sound echoed like distant thunder, and all I could do was lie there as night came, listening to the delirium of the dying. When the sun dipped behind the mountains, the nocturnal predators came to feast on the dead. Their eyes glowed like coins as they fed. I could hear men wailing as they were dragged into the night. Then came the human scavengers, down from the bleak mountains, to sift through the bodies and harvest electronics and weapons, heads covered in dust-coloured cloth and silver goggles. A boy with a welding torch came for my sigils. There was a firefight, I remember. Then familiar faces. I think it was Roan and Kalindora who freed the first of us. The pain consumed me and makes it hard to remember. But I know I was guided by Kalindora away from the slaughter to where survivors exchanged water from their suit caches and bandaged wounds. Roan said he would come back for us once they freed more Praetorians from their suits. He never did. We hid in the foothills, leached of bravery, as rising soldiers landed in force. We were too weak to contest them, so we watched as they gathered up Roan and our comrades and herded them onto shuttles at gunpoint. They headed south to Heliopolis, I imagine. So Ajax lost. I can feel no satisfaction in that. How many men died for Atalantia's avarice, for Ajax's glory, for Darrow's victory? For days we have walked, striking north in hopes of finding society patrols. We were thirty at the start, then seventy as elements of Ajax's shattered legions caught up with us before their boots or bikes died. On the second day Cicero and four of his golds found us camped in a ravine. They joined us without comment, all but guns and water satchels discarded, though later we learned that Ajax fled the battle when the tide turned, and few of his men escaped. The scorpion obsidians die first from the heat, then many of the greys, including my Praetorians, only the hardiest amongst them stagger with us now. We have little water to share. Seven golds remain, including Kalindora and Cicero. To the west the mountain peaks ride the waves of the heat-warped horizon. To the east the waste stretches, as if it were all that existed. War machines move beyond the irradiated clouds. Desiccated tanks from Darrow's surprise retreat across the Ladans stand blackened in the distance, victims of lucky hits by naval guns through the mess of the electrical storm. How Darrow slipped the noose is beyond understanding, or it would be if the Golds fought as an army instead as a collective of greedy autarchs. We did this to ourselves, and our men, my Praetorians, millions of civilians and loyal legionnaires, paid the price. Umbra visit us as we walk. White chalk twisters that spin ninety meters high. They cake us with chalk and coat our lungs with a thin white film that comes out in clumps when we cough. 
A fever has gripped me since I was pulled from the killing field. Reveries come and go. I see my father and grandmother often. Sometimes there is a chair, great and silver and carved with eccentric faces. I have never seen it before, and there is a white door that appears always on the horizon, accompanied by the sound of cicadas and the crashing of waves. I have seen it before, in my dreams. Sometimes I reach it. It swings open to reveal nothing but shadow, and then it is on the horizon again. I stumble often on the unstable sand and chalk, but Kalindora steadies me. She cauterized her left arm just beneath the shoulder, where Darrow's blade hacked it off. Still, she is the source of our momentum, the quiet, optimistic heart of our desperate push towards Erebos. We will not make it, I think. With the interference from the storm disrupting our trackers, our best hope is a chance encounter with society forces, if any still remain. In late afternoon, we discover the remains of a stalk crashed into the sand. We harvest it for supplies and gather around to see if its comms are working. They are not. But at least we have water and rations. Kalindora declares it our camp for the night. Five Praetorian greys and seven golds hunker between the boulders to wait for the sun to depart. Soon after nightfall, we hear ships in the sky. They can't see us, Cicero says from the nest he's made in the dirt. Of all the survivors, he seems the only one to retain any of his humour. Thirty million soldiers fought in that battle, Kalindora says. Even if they could, you try picking up all those pieces. But we are the scions of ancient houses, Cicero protests. The very desert should lift us to salvation. I tell you, when I saw the morning star emerge from the storm, I thought I'd take any form of possible future as grace. But between the heat, the sun, this blasted sand, the night crawlers, and rising hunting parties, I have the sneaking suspicion that we are going to die in the most worthless fashion. Pulvis et umbra sumus, I reply. That was a Ra, wasn't it? Cicero asks. The one who tried to dance with the rail slug? I nod. I swear those fuckers quote themselves almost as much as the Augustans. Here be lions, indeed. What I'd give for a nice lion hunt right now. Sherry by the fire on the savannah, as a nice flank of meat bubbles over the fire. You eat lion, I mumble, though the act of speaking makes my face feel as though it will fall off. Isn't it stringy? Oh, indeed, it's more about the aesthetic and political innuendo, really. Actually, I have a tail. You lot look like you could use one. He rubs his hands together. He always did love the limelight. Father let me join when he took old Nero Augustus himself for a hunt once. My, but that man was mad. Refused to eat anything he didn't kill with a razor. He was fast, though. Almost caught a white gazelle at a watering hole. Two more strides and he would have had him in the sprint. No one can catch a desert gazelle. I don't care how ancient one's genes are, Kalindora says. The Augustans were no faster than anyone else. 
Cicero pauses, cocking his head toward the desert, as if he heard something. With a shake of his curled hair, he returns to his story, frowning when a clump of it falls out. That's what father told old Telemannus. But Cavax just told him to watch. You know what Nero did when the gazelle escaped? He kept running, even when it had him by two kilometres. He was gone the whole night, and then he came back with it on his shoulders, while the Browns were laying out breakfast the next morning, all covered in cuts and dirt. I'll remember what he said till the day I'm shot into the sun. He takes on a very obnoxious rendition of Augustus's Martian timbre. Beasts must stop for water. I carry mine. Kalindora belts out a laugh that startles one of the sleeping greys. That's a load of shit. Cicero looks direly offended. How dare you impugn my honour? As sure as Heliopolis is the second most beautiful city in the world, Tyche being the first, of course. Kalindora snorts. More like Elysium. No arguments for Hyperion, Lysander? I shrug. Elysium is as cold as a Logos's groin, Cicero crows. And he said what he said. I carry mine. What a man, Nero. But that's not the best part. Father doesn't like to be the small man on his own planet, so the next day he shot himself one of those big Nemean lions and tried serving it up to Augustus at dinner. I imagine that went well, Kalindora says. Surprising fact about Nero, Cicero says with a wag of the finger. Vast sense of humour. Like you knew him. I did, and I watched as he ate without complaint, and even asked for seconds. Old Cavax was sitting there all quiet-like, though. You could tell he was nervous. And then a month later, after the trade talks were complete, and we all felt a little slutty about making Augustus richer than Jove, he sends this young man, a lancer, one of those Martian war machines, you know the type, Kalindora, the sort that made sure you were no spring flower by the time you got to Luna— "'Killing in their veins. Huge. Not the biggest man I'd ever seen, mind you. That was Magnus's slave knight, Pale Horse, or whatever his name was. But his anger was like heat off a tank barrel. His manners were flawless, for an upstart. Still, you could hear that Martian war-drum heart beating along with Nero's silent boast. "'Look at my fresh crop. I have more of these.' In his hands that big killer carried the most delicate, beautiful box, carved ivory with lions in all sorts of dramatic poses. Compliments of Mars, breathed the man, and away he went, back to a gory damned destroyer with helium to burn. What was in the box? Kalindora asks. A head? Grapes. Only grapes. And a little note. Work in progress. Father went white as the box and didn't sleep for a week. Mother had to buy five new stained, and a whole new fleet of courtesans before father would even use his harem again. Kalindora grins down at her ration bar wrapper. Now that is cold. None colder than old Nero, Cicero replies. Want to hear the best part? Guess who the lancer was? Darrow, I rasp through my tattered lips. That's right, Cicero says with a squint. We had him here. 
I think it was sixteen years ago, just down to the Institute, one of his first missions. Seventeen, a lackey to a god, and ticking, ticking, like a time bomb. Later, after Kalindora has gone to sleep, Cicero slides over to me. So much for Atalantia's bag, woman. In the darkness, Kalindora looks less like a warrior, peaceful in a way, as peaceful as a woman with a cauterized stump for a left arm can look, while suffering radiation sickness. Maybe it was foolish to meet the Reaper in open battle, but I cannot erase the pride I felt when she nodded at me at my decision to stay. Still, how many Praetorians lie in the dust for that valour? How many men and women drowned in the sea? Cicero eyes the rancid stump where her left arm used to be. Think she'll die of infection? Not before rad poisoning, I say, or thirst. He eyes the soiled bandage on my face. How much does it hurt? Enough. You knew that story, he says. How? You mean how did I know about the storm gods? I reply, intuiting his real question. Nero had his helium, you have your metals. Octavia had her information. Information, yes. Speaking of information, his voice lowers. I've some information, an erudite mind like yours has no doubt already deduced. Based on our water requirements and our likely rate of consumption, we'll run out several days from Erebos. We don't have enough to get all of us there. The Greys will have a trial in this next stretch. It's straight desert for several hundred clicks. If a patrol doesn't find us, or we don't get lucky with civilians— No, I say. You couldn't stop me. You can barely walk, he says flatly. If that's the man you want to be— Go on, then, I say, with every intention of killing him in the night if I suspect he intends to kill my greys. You think I want to do it for myself? You think I'm that venal? I'm not a Venusian or a Lunese sucking others dry, he says in disgust. We vote them our builders. You don't know me at all, what I've had to watch. I don't say anything to that. Darrow might have broken our planet, but Atalantia and her father have been raping it for years to feed their war. It's a lonely feeling when you realize your father, despite his many triumphs, is an invertebrate. I'll tell you that. My brother and sister stood up to Atalantia, but they were a tyke, and that storm— He looks north and doesn't finish the sentence. Father can't handle her on his own. What do you want from me? I ask. Permission to abandon good men? You won't have that. You abandoned yours, he says. Watch them fly right away to Heliopolis, including Rhone T. Flavinius himself. So who are you angry at? Me or yourself? He's right, and he knows it. Still, it's the principle, and if I give up that, I'll have nothing left. I may not be able to stop you, but if you go for the greys, you will have to kill me too. He mutters something to himself as he edges away to find a place amongst the rocks. 
Soon he is fast asleep. Kalindora opens her eyes. She's been listening. I'll take watch, she whispers. Try and get some sleep. Chapter 35 Darrow Endure I'm woken in the early morning by a presence. A lean man moves through my room. He stands by the edge of the bed with his hands hidden. But I no longer sleep in beds, not even here in the centre of my army. From the bathroom, upon the thin campaign mattress, I watch with my hand clutched around a pistol. How did he get past the guards? I aim for the base of his skull. A sliver of light from a passing ship illuminates his face as he turns. It is Screwface. I clear my throat, and he turns, jumping a little as he sees the gun. What is it? I want to show you something, boss. I've nearly died that way before. When Cassius took me down to the river to stab me, and Leah led me into Antonia's trap at the Institute. Just tell me here, I say. Oh, come on! Who do you trust if you don't trust old Screw? He has been with me since the beginning, never asking for anything, never earning fame like Severo, or family like Pebble and Clown. He is maybe the most like me, a creature of war. It looks lighter on him. He extends a hand down to help me up. With a weary nod, I take it. My friend leads me by the pale light of a lamp through the pale stone halls of the mound. Maritime wind lulls through the open windows, carrying the tang of brine and the murmurs of seagulls. It creeps past the guards of the night watch, stirring their cloaks to kiss the bald, weary soldiers who cough flecks of blood under the gaze of votum portraits in the grand ballrooms, libraries, and pillaged galleries of a more decadent age. We go out the back of the palace, descending down the switch-backing sea-cliff stairs that connect with the ancient seawall. The sky pales to a dull chrome in anticipation of sunrise, but the bay beneath remembers the darkness of night. Its high tide crashes against the coral scarp at the base of the seawall, and with a backrush the tide reveals a second world of wildlife. Coral crabs and sea larks skitter and dodge the gulls and fire eagles that swoop through the spray to feed. We pass red rat legionnaires sharing coffee at the base of particle cannons. While the rest of the army withers from radiation poisoning, only my reds soldier on. In the absence of Pegasus Legion, Rat Legion has become the spine of the army. They nod to us and return to their coffee. Soon we pass lines of coughing Mercurians fishing off the side of the seawall, then descend the wall's interior stairs and exit through a gate that leads out beyond the wall to a barrier beach running parallel to the shore. Congregation of two parts gathers in the gloom. Men and women wet from the sea make the first. They are jubilant. An aching song drifts from them, a red one I remember hearing as a child. 
But it is not just reds who sing it. Other colors are scattered through their ranks. The second and more numerous group by far is a long line of hunched, bitter creatures who wait in silence. One by one, they slump out to a man who stands waist-deep in the surf. He whispers something to them. They clutch their fists out before them and shout as they are dunked into the sea. Many are blind. All are already so sick with radiation they don't fear the seawater. It seems I've entered a dream, and it cracks as I am seen. The song fades, and they turn warily to watch me. Even the blind know I am here. I feel ashamed to have intruded on this private moment. They are Martians, all. The dirt so many of them brought in canisters from home is clutched in their hands. They followed me here, but I do not feel like one of them any longer. These arms and legs that have stripped lives from so many seem all the heavier and more alien here. This height given to me by a mad carver seems like a monstrous feature I wish I could hide and be rid of so that I could stand amongst them. Part of them, a man of minds, following someone else. I salute them and retreat across the sand. Screwface catches up to me. What was that? I snap at him. I thought that I wanted to have a holy communion. You think those men need to see their imperator begging for forgiveness? Nah, but I thought maybe you needed it. What I need is to be left alone. He doesn't leave me alone, and I don't want to go back to the mound and face the decision of the High Command, or be burdened with more endless complaints and problems. I don't want to sit in my room and think about my son and wife. So I strike south along the beach, leaving the penitent behind, wishing I could join them, but knowing a leader cannot. It would be immoral to rob them of that last bit of confidence they have left in me. In time, I begin to forget where I am as I walk. Screwface follows behind at a distance. The ocean sighs against the shore. Sand crabs skitter along the waterline, navigating mounds of kelp populated with sea fleas. I walk until we reach a climate seam. Soon... Low-altitude agathis trees sway along the shoreline. Migratory nymph trees wade in the water on legs of white and pink roots. Jungle archipelagos dapple the horizon, the nearest home to a free legion defense gun. Local birds perch atop its metal barrel. The topography reminds me of South Pacifica, where, outside his ancestral estate, Daxo taught my son to build a sandcastle. He spent more time with Pax that day than I did, taking him into the woods with the hunt-masters, walking through his statue garden to listen to birds and see if he could name them, and back to the beach to see their mighty sandcastle washed away by the night tide, all while I sat inside, preparing the invasion of grimace-held Africa. How sad I didn't cherish a moment there with my son. All moments are like that sandcastle, it seems. There is no permanent 
happy future. There is no veil. It all washes away. The shield flickers overhead. I glance back at Screwface with a frown. Barefoot, he jogs up, holding his boots. Friendlies? I see them now through the clouds, streaks of falling fire. The shield ripples back on, killing birds in its energy arc, but now the falling projectiles are inside it. My first thought is that we've been betrayed. But the projectiles slow over the sea. The air around them distorts from gravitational fields. Water floats upward along with fish and along ebony squid before crashing back down. Nearly forty-six-story obelisks stand end on end offshore. The water boils around them as they cool. What are they? Screwface asks. That looks like Sun Industries' stealth hull, I say. He gives me a bored look and raises an eyebrow. What say we do a little reconnaissance, boss? We should wait for reinforcements. Some badass you are. He strips off his shirt and pants and runs to the water. Where's your sense of adventure? He dives into a wave. Ah, oh, shit. I strip off my shirt and follow him in. The sea is warm as bath water. Flash-cooked fish float around the obelisks, killed when the obelisks transferred their heat into the sea. I dive down and find the bottom of an obelisk, thoroughly embedded in the seafloor. By the time I surface, Screwface is already climbing up the slippery hull along a line of rivets. I follow. There seems to be a hatch at the top. Ah, the cavalry, Screwface mocks a minute later as a line of shuttles swoop our way from Heliopolis. There's men on shore waving to us from beside their grav bikes. They seem to be celebrating. My fingers ache from supporting my body weight with their tips. Screw shows off by hanging onto the rivets with two fingers and leaning off to wave to the men. He glares at the shuttles. Going to let the airheads take your glory? I ask. He scoffs and hoists himself up another meter. By the time we make it to the top, a shuttle has sped ahead of the rest. They race us to hover over the hatch of a nearby obelisk. Screwface makes it to the top first. Me. A second later, fingers aching like hell. Screwface beats his chest and howls, just before the shuttle makes it to the top of the closest obelisk. Through the viewport, I catch sight of Char giving us the crooks. Infantry! Screwface bellows. The men on the shore echo the call and join his howl. He slaps at me to do the same. I turn my attention to the hatch. It is painted with the Republic Star. Soon the deserted patch of coast swarms with engineers. Heavy hauler shuttles drag the obelisks to shore after the bomb squad inspection. I wait with Screwface and hundreds of perimeter guards and dock workers as they open the first obelisk. It parts down the middle, revealing a superstructure of pods. They crack the first one open. It is filled with thousands of duroglass cylinders. I stumble forward and fall to my knees before a mound of the cylinders. 
Each is stamped with a silver winged hue. Each is filled with enough radiation meds to last a man a month, and there are thousands of pods. Thirty-eight obelisks. Each cylinder will become a life saved from radiation. I run my fingers over them in a state of grace. Screwface collapses to his haunches beside me. He opens a pod and finds it filled with food, medicine, and materiel. He falls backward onto the sand, rolling around until he looks like a sugar-covered pastry. I sit in the shade as the rest of the boxes are unpacked and ferried back to Heliopolis. Inside one of the obelisks, they found a message for me. I rub the data drop between my fingers and activate it. Lo, husband, my wife says with a gentle smile. I pause it. Her face floats in my palms. I hold it there for a minute, cherishing the words on her lips, the absence of any other thought but me on her mind. The wind makes the palm fronds overhead swish like the skirts of red girls at laurel tide. Reluctantly, I resume the message, and the strain of the world's floods my wife's face. I see the weight and worry behind the eyes, for our son, for me, for her republic. Her battle may be different from mine, but it is battle all the same, and she is tired. I must be brief. These pods were launched with the new guns. It wasn't the intended method of delivery, but efforts to send ships have... stalled. There are games afoot on Hyperion and beyond. Victor has quit Luna for Mars. Severa has been chewing his way through the syndicate here, and meddling with my own designs as per custom. Cepheus disappeared, with machinations for the mines of Samaria. Though I no longer believe she is the queen of the syndicate, she has the children. I believe Pax is safe in her custody, and will be ransomed back to Victra for her aid in Cephi's acquisition of the mines. Relief floods through me. Despite the bedlam of Luna, my boy might have escaped it. He is not with enemies. Pax will be safe. Valdir would die before he let Cephi touch a hair on his head. An unseen hand moves the pieces, a clever one by any measure. Atlantia? Atlas? I presume so. My theories are attached. I believe I am beginning to divine the pattern, and soon I will make my move. I've included my files in case they aid your situation. Also included are the intelligence reports of the system's current standing. They will be two weeks old, so use them wisely. I believe your victory has given me the momentum to swing the Senate. Four days from the time this message was recorded, we will have voted, and the fleet will either be underway when you receive this, or it will not. But no matter what the Senate decides, at midnight on the 1st of May, I will come to Mercury. If fortune favors, it will be as a sovereign. If not, it will be as a wife. She pauses. Her voice softens, and she becomes my wife again. I know you are weary. I know you think Mercury will be your grave, that the Republic has abandoned you, and that the weight of what you have done threatens to eat a hole in you. But for me, 
Oyasan, I beg you not to despair. Our crusade was not founded on the success of our arms, but in the righteousness of our cause and our belief in our fellow man. So believe in your men. Believe in our republic. She smiles self-consciously. Believe in me and in yourself. You know, I believe we all begin equal parts, light and dark. I fear you think your strength lies in your darkness. But the measure of a man is not the fear he sows in his enemies. It is the hope he gives his friends. I could no more ask Pax to stop tinkering with my data pad than I could ask you to change who you are. I know that. I only ask that you remember what you mean to me, to your people, to your son. You have not been abandoned. I will come for you. Several will come for you. The Republic will come for you. Until then, endure, my love. Endure. Do you remember that spring on Earth in Pacifica? I ask Thraxa as she walks me down the hall to the war room. The High Command has decided on a reply to Atalantia's offer. Daxo taught my son to build castles in the sand. Pax cried when the waves came in. Your brother sat him on his knee and told him that's all life is. Moments you build, only to see washed away. But that doesn't mean it's all for nothing. I stop at the door and tap my temple like Daxo tapped Pax's. The key is having a long memory for the sweet and a short one for the bitter. I will miss your brother, Thraxa. But he isn't gone. She nods, but does not smile. You might be the only person from whom that sentiment doesn't sound cheap. But if they killed Niobe or Kavax, I will personally drown Luna in blood. She opens the door and goes in. Harnassus sits at the head of the war room table in my chair. The rest of the high command fill either side of the table. I stand before them. Right then, what's what? Darrow, I apologize that it took us so long to come to a decision, Harnassus says. But, given its gravity, we wanted to give it due respect. He turns his attention to the officers. You all know I am a proud member of the Vox Populi, and even prouder to have called Dancer O'Faran my friend. In his name, First Citizen, Publius Cu Caraval, and the Senate, have ordered me to seize command of the army, arrest Darrow as an enemy of the people, and surrender to the enemy, using the terms Atalantia and our Senate have agreed upon. The officers sit without expression. In reflection of this body's consensus, I have sent a reply to Atalantia regarding her terms of surrender. Bloody dam. Bloody dam, I ask. They begin to smile. A sucking sound comes from the heart of the sky. I rush to the terrace as several panes of the shield chain protecting the peninsula and the city disappear. A half-breath later, the world is swallowed in light. There is a great roar. I'm blind for half a minute. When my vision returns, the after-image ghosts of particle beams throb, and the distant guns on the mountains over the city glow like embers. 
In orbit, one of Atalantia's dreadnoughts burns. Her retaliation falls just as the shields go back up. I walk back inside as the room vibrates with man-made thunder. Bloody dam, and a full barrage from our particle cannons. Manassas leans back and grins. I believe it is a well-measured reply that leaves little ambiguity for her deviant brain to conjure. He turns his eyes to the officers and cracks his knuckles one by one. It's been a long war. I've seen things that I'll never scour from my memory banks. But never have I seen such a travesty as that farce on Luna. He leans forward, true menace in his voice. My friends, our system of governance has been hijacked. Our heroes murdered. Our sovereign taken captive. His lips curl back from his teeth. That will not stand with me. We are in an alien, inhospitable land. We must get home before there is no home left. He rises from my chair and walks across the room to stand close to me, as if in challenge. He points to the chair. That is a chair I cannot fill. I will not fill. Every man and woman in this army volunteered to fight with the understanding that they would be led by the Reaper of Mars. Behind him, we liberated our homes. Behind him, we found our way from the desert. He will deliver us from this planet, and he will take us home, for we will fix this madness and string Caraval up by his ears. He tilts his chin upward. Even if he does not... I would rather follow him to the Vale than abandon him and live to a hundred and fifty. Fuck the Vox, Colloway calls from his chair. Hail Reaper! The officers echo the call. I walk to the chair without a word. I pause before it. It is an ornate votum treasure carved with birds and trees. I did not notice before when it meant nothing to me. I sit down in it, and the arms of it embrace me. For a moment, I imagine they are the arms of my wife and son. I close my eyes and think of them. I believe they are alive. I believe I will return to them. And if not, on the road to home is where I will die. I grip Pax's key on its chain. When my eyes open... My officers are waiting for a miracle. This is my family, too. Colloway, Screwface, Harnassus, Thraxa, Rona. We have given Mercury, Alexander, Orion, Tongueless, Felix, Marbles, and so many more. I am done with sacrifice. I will get my family home. I will endure. Summon the Master Maker Glirastes. Chapter 36 Lyria Victim I lie on the cold floor, starving myself to death. When last did I dance? Whenever did my brothers spin me between them till I tumbled to the dirt and watched their pale legs move beneath a horizon of skirts and ribbons? 
Was the rhythm of life really once made by dancing drums and shift calls and boots rattling as gamma miners came home to the squealing of kettles? Or was that all a dream? They said we were slaves, and we were, I reckon. I ain't so dumb or so lonely to forget that forty years once marked a man as old or the radiation tumours that'd make a child's belly swell. But that world at least made sense, before we were told it didn't. It had rhythm, I felt. It had family I loved. We had purpose I understood. Now that world's gone. Not just for me. For everyone. But there was no purpose to the assimilation camp when my family was hacked to pieces by the Red Hand. There was no family in Hyperion, save Liam, and no rhythm in this prison chamber where I lie victim to sound and light. Light spasms in the centre of my prison. The light combusts with the violence of deep mine gas, only to melt into thin red ribbons like the ones sweethearts would tie on the sleeves of Lagalos gallants for the laurel tide dance. Noise pumps through the walls to torture me. Not music, but human screams that morph and stretch and scrape like teeth along ragged rock. Deafening percussion makes my eardrums crackle. I'd cover them, but then I can't cover my eyes, and even when I cover my eyes, the light flares so bright I can see the bones in my hands. They look like the veins of a leaf. What I'd do to hear a leaf whisper in the wind again. Sometimes when all those bodies crammed into my family's shack grated on my nerves, I'd go sit at the edge of the jungle and listen to it speak. Since that bitch of a brown plunged the syringe into my neck, I've heard nothing of jungles or the wind. Last thing I remember was the warm water of the shower falling on my tummy, the cold of the stone against my back. When darkness came, I felt I'd slipped back into my mother's womb. I dreamt of her and my sister. Then I woke to the cold of my chamber, a headache pulsing behind the left eye and bile crusted on my lips. How long ago was that again? A week? A month? Five? Of my family, only Liam survives. I hold out hope for his father, Veron, my sister's husband, and for my brothers, cherished Angus and even broody, angry Dagon. But all three are at the front. Who knows if they have gone on to the Vale, if Liam has. I wish I could dream of them as I did my mother and sister, but dreams are scarce now. Fragments of sleep crumble through my fingers, shaken away by the noise, the light. Even if I do manage to doze off, the gravity inverts, wrenching my guts as the ceiling becomes the floor and I collide hard enough with the metal to scare me. The room is cold, glossy black, ten long paces by ten. There is no bed, only nodules that retract to reveal a tube for my piss. You've got to really seal your squat to the floor, or the room will stink something fierce. It's worse for shit. If I miss, I've got to scoop it up and push it in with my fingers or find myself falling into it the next time I doze. I'd given up shouting through the food delivery nodule. No one is listening. At first I thought the Julii cow might want something from me, but she doesn't. This is revenge. Took me her first and only visit to drive that through my skull. 
a rectangle of light carved the darkness, and then she was inside the room staring down at me. Time was, I would have thought her a god. Some warrior maiden pulled from my pa's savage tales, but there's no romance to her, to them, any longer. Her gold rage seemed petty, her glamour vile in the face of the poverty I've seen in my family's assimilation camp on Mars and in Hyperion. Still, I told her all I knew, thinking she would be rational. All I told the Sovereign. She said nothing, and it was then I knew the deep-spined truth. She doesn't care two licks about what I know. Only when I crawled to her on my hands and knees and begged her to let me out to see Liam did she finally part those rich lips. I want to be forthright and say I visually enjoy your degradation. The words seemed to boil, as if drawn up from a black cauldron deep in her belly. I am aware you are not a member of the Red Hand, nor are you a Gorgon operator. However... Stupidity is not a crime without victims, seeing as how you have deprived me of my daughter, my nephew, whom I love like my own bone and blood, it can only be reckoned fair if I deprive you of something. Your sanity. Consider it a mercy that I left that blind child out of this. Would that you had the same decency. I choked on sobs, knowing Liam was safe somewhere beyond this room. Pathetically, I thought to beseech her. I didn't mean for this. I didn't mean, she mocked, making her lips quiver like mine. Her eyes flashed as my hand touched her spiked boots. You carried unauthorised alien hardware onto a governmental shuttle, despite attending multiple security briefings instructing you against such indiscretion. You are either sinister, careless, or a gibbering idiot. Embrace the consequences of your actions, young lady. In the end, you may not have your freedom, but perhaps you'll find your dignity. A true woman needs little else. Then the light swallowed the gold right back up. I raced for the shrinking door, but it just disappeared into the wall. I beat at it with my fists and screamed till knucklebone peeked out my skin. I knew it would never open again. I wept and curled around my hands and licked my aching knuckles like a sad dog. I hated that woman. I hated her so much. But deep down, I knew I'd do anything for her to fill the room again, to see another person once more. When my bladder grew tight, I just pissed where I lay. I no longer even tilted my head to look as the food slot opened. What was the point? Everyone knows there's nothing worse than a Julie I scorned. I decayed. I am decaying. How long since I've eaten? Are there really butterflies in the room? I remember the mad look in Dagan's eyes when Pa found him three days lost in the deep mines. He swore he saw demons. He was never the same again. His kind heart replaced by a sour doppelganger's. Am I going mad like he did? I must be. Demons visit me as my body wastes away, spectres made from the light of the place. The scarred woman of the Red Hand who shot my brother's head off, the liar, Ephraim, 
who saw I was broken and put me back together only so he could use me. His obsidian henchwoman who shot Kavix. That brown bitch with the needle. The lean, sweaty boymen who cut my family and clan to pieces with curved iron and gnawed the innocence out of a hundred gamma girls. They mock me in the chaos of light. But they also bring their victims. Those I love, my brothers, my family, little blind Liam. Kavix, who took us from the mud and brought us to Luna, who alone could make Liam's face shine when his mother lay in the dirt. What did I ever do to protect them? What did I ever do to save them? All I did was run or hide. As the light spasms above me, and my body grows light with exhaustion, I sense a calm clarity that turns my life into a tapestry, a story told by someone else. Here's little Lyria. She watched herself be freed. She watched herself put in a camp. Others watched her complain. She watched her family die. She watched big, bad Hyperion chew her up and spit her out. She watched as she decayed in her cell. Is that all I am? A watcher? A victim? Disgust seeps up through the cracks in the bottom of my heart. How many times did I blame the Reaper? How many times did I roll my eyes when Red Legionnaires would visit our camp and spin those yarns of Darrow and the Vanguard, Darrow and the Undead Goblin, Darrow, the Julii and Valkyrie at Ilium, Darrow and the Jackal and the 270 days our Messiah spent in the monster's table? The second birth, they call it, lass, the young Red Legionnaire said, swivelling on the water drum when he saw I wasn't swallowing the hook like my brother's. His hand touched his chest as he looked around, his voice barely a whisper. From Mars to Mercury. All know that's when he became the Reaper. When the man became something more. I've seen him in the flesh. At Echo City. He's got something in him. I'll tell you that. Something like thunder in a bottle. He waved his hands at the potential recruits, his voice rising. And that's in all of us. Each clan folk with red in their eyes, lambda to gamma. We may not be big, no, we may not be rich, but we got what he got. Wrath. Seven hundred years of it thundering in our veins. Forty-five lined up to give their life to the free legions that day, including two of my brothers. They were just a lot of fools worshipping some jumped-up helldiver with a gold wife and a gold spawn, he wasn't one of us any longer. I blamed him for taking my brothers, for leaving us mired in the camp, for all that had gone wrong. But one person couldn't do all that. He freed us, and then we stayed in the camp and waited for him to do all the rest. Waiting. Waiting. Waiting while the tales that made us big began to make us feel small, because we didn't make the choice like those brave boys and girls did. We didn't choose to fight. Well, fuck me if I'm going to wait any longer. Survival is my fight. When the synth food shoots through the tube some hours later, I make a choice. My body is weak, my pants crusted with my own filth as I crawl, but I make it there, 
and I choked down the tasteless fibre cubes and protein and washed them down with water from the tube. When food comes down again, I jam it down. Soon the hallucinations disappear. The dread loneliness grows smaller, dwarfed by the anger at my own eagerness to surrender. Despair robbed me my mind. With my despair numbed, I find a way to sleep by tearing a strip of cloth from my jumpsuit and tying myself to the vent duct when gravity makes it the floor. Soon I doze off. The floor becomes the ceiling again, and I hang there like a deep-mined bat, bits of jumpsuit shoved in my ears and wearing a blindfold fashioned from my pant leg. Sleep is the veil itself. I eat again. I sleep, I eat, I sleep. I grow bored and make the dancing lights my playmate, racing to touch the tips of the light as it morphs and expands. It reacts to my touch, turning crimson or purple. There's pattern to it, a code maybe, but I just can't crack it. One day, or night, or afternoon, I fasten myself to the duct to sleep again, and notice a rolled ball of cloth in the vent. Making a little hook with a piece of rubber gnawed off from my prisoner slippers, I hook the cloth and draw it toward me. The light illuminates brown letters in a blocky, flaking print. It is a message written in blood. My name is Volga. I am a prisoner. I do not know for how long. Am I alone? I stare down at the piece of cloth, as if it were a message from an alien race. A weird numbness prickles across my face. The same numbness I felt when Vanna of Omicron spit in my eye and called my pa a tinsucker when I was eight. Pure rage. Volga was the name of Ephrin's obsidian, the Hyperion in lowlife who shot great cavets in the chest so that his skin melted from his ribcage. I bore the cloth in my fist. Yet I do not drop it. Suddenly, all I can remember of the woman is the hollowness in her eyes as she looked down at me in the back of their air car. That was a soul ripping itself to pieces. I know, because I felt it too, because I wore those eyes when I knew what Ephraim had used me to do. Was that Volga's truth? Did she feel the same shame I did? Could it be I wasn't the only one used by Ephraim fucking horn? Maybe. Or maybe I just want to talk to someone. Maybe I just want to prove I'm alive. I bite my thumb till it bleeds and tear the edge of a nail away. I dip it in the blood and begin to write on the back of the piece of cloth. My name is Lyria. You might remember me. Chapter 37 Ephraim Heart of Venus Communication on Eagle Rest has been cut off to all but high-ranking Ultride personnel. Sefi doesn't want information getting out, or possibly in. Holonet access severed. Several of my Skoogi, including Freyhild, were called away for service to the Queen before a scheduled run-through of a high-rise infiltration down in Olympia, which was summarily cancelled and all passes to the city general revoked. 
Pax and I gossip audibly in case of listening devices and arrange the peas on our plates in the code he developed for us. Having recently gone through Xenophon to acquire fibre wire for the Scoogie, I set out six peas. Pax, having built the harnesses, I requested, sets out two, then seven in query of the ship Sefi promised me. I squashed the peas, no ship, still a flight risk. The door bursts open, Electra stalks in. Hatchet face, we save you some peas. I gesture to the ones I smashed. At first, I think she's jealous of our little suppers, until she throws open the windows and goes out onto the terrace. Pax frowns and we follow. Beyond the pulse bubble encasing my suite, something is happening in Olympia. Down in the city, candles flicker from broken windows and atop crumbling towers. A sea of them move through the street. The forbidden song drifts ominously in the wind. She looks over at Pax. Has Mercury fallen? Before anyone can put words to the fear, the door to my suite opens again. Osgard comes out onto the terrace. The Queen has summoned you, all of you. Instead of being taken to the throne room, we're led through the night to an armoured military shuttle. You've got a bead on this? I ask them as we board. Electra ignores me. Pax shakes his head. You? I've got a few ideas. And thank Joe for the mercenary and his professional opinion, Electra snaps, but her teeth are dull today. Is it her parents or Pax's that have gone down? Is it Mercury or Luna or something else? The military shuttle has no view windows in the bunk rooms or mess we are sequestered within for the three-day voyage, but all of us can feel the calm before the storm. Pax devotes his days to a sort of waking slumber, a meditation practice Osgod has taught him. Together they recite obscure prayers while Electra drives all mad by pacing the deck like a pissed-off alley cat. What kind of Nagal is that? I asked Pax before we bunked down for the evening. Didn't sound familiar. He glances at Osgard. Finding the shaman sleeping, he explains in a low voice, It isn't Nagal. It's Tekir. Some of the old prayers survived. Osgard found remnants of them in old temples on Mercury. He's been teaching me. Hasn't been spoken inside the belt since the Dark Revolt. The Dark Revolt was a myth in the legions, believed only by conspiracy theorists and drunks. But after the fall, the Republic published the history that the society did their best to scrub out of existence. Read like fiction. Five hundred years before the Reds rebelled, the Obsidians nearly toppled the society, led by a shadowy figure known as King Kuthul. Of course, Pax is only too eager to explain in excruciating detail. Gold was seldom generous in victory. The genocide that followed the Battle of Pitho consisted not just of mass culling, but social and cultural re-engineering, domestication of a wild breed into a more sustainable and predictable stock. Technophobia was introduced as well as other paradigm alterations. All father became all mother, 
Mongol sociological structure became Norse, patriarchy became matriarchy, an inversion of the division protocol they used on reds. My skin begins to crawl. I know you speak their language. That's got to be all sorts of bad luck. He smiles, captivated by the subject. Some of my mother's more fanciful theorists think that the Askamani speak it, or at least parts. Aren't they just arseholes from the ice tribes who didn't follow Sefi? Sure, but their correspondences are odd, if that's the case. For instance, they allude to a central figure, a Volsung Fa. It means Volsung the Taker, sort of like a king. He pauses when Osgard murmurs something in his sleep and lowers his voice to a whisper. You know, not all the warlords of the Dark Revolt were captured. I moan. God, now you sound like a legion drunk. Shh! It's true. Some hid in the belt. Some were chased to Neptune, where their fleet was smashed. The stragglers were believed to have been hunted and killed to the last warband, but... About a hundred years preceding the reign of Octarius Aulun, ships began to go missing in the Kuiper Belt. They would simply vanish. Common consensus was pilot error or environmental degradation on equipment. Then one vessel escaped. Go on. I thought I sounded like a legion drunk. Pax. They reported a loss in artificial gravity, followed by light failure, and sounds from outside the hull. Later, welding patterns were found outside, diamond drill marks. Creepy. It wasn't until Octarius that the first Kuiper obsidian was spotted, and the name Askamani began to circulate. At first, they were of little concern. Further reconnaissance suggested nomadic caravans of ice miners, subterranean dwellings, sparse populations, and fractious tribal dynamics. It seems the Askamani even managed to take some carvers with them. Their skin was said to be red, possibly from genetic sculpting with Dinococcus radiodurans, an extremophilic bacterium highly resistant to deep space radiation, vacuum, dehydration and cold. Closer to the reign of Octavia, they became bolder and began to raid at will. After the death of her daughter, around fifteen years ago, Octavia sent the Fear Knight on an expeditionary campaign when terraforming on Pluto was threatened by the raids. Why didn't Octavia simply send out the sword armada and finish them off? I ask. Seems like something she'd enjoy. Cost-benefit. He looks annoyed by my vacant expression. At times, it frightens me how little people care about the tiny corner of the galaxy they inhabit. Earth is one owl from the sun. Neptune is thirty. The Kuiper Belt is fifty. It is twenty times as wide and almost two hundred times as massive as the inner belt. Mora's estimates suggest it would take the Sword Armada 5,000 years to search half the Kuiper Belt. Octavia had other things on her plate. Back to the Fear Knight. One year in, he reported back that the situation was untenable. He'd been ambushed and lost all but two ships. 
Octavia told him to go radio silent until the operation was complete. It was an execution. But seven years ago, he returned. And at about the same time that deep space miners began to suggest the Askamani had united under a single ruler. An outlander they call Volsung, he who walks the void. Obviously, our treaty with the Rim makes further inquiry difficult. An outlander from where? Electra asked. She's been listening from her little nest in the top bunk above Osgard's. The psycho's eyes gleam at the idea of evil, red-skinned, far-flung obsidian warlords. Pax shrugs. Could be someone the Fear Knight helped to power? A translation discrepancy? Or maybe Atlas's ships were damaged, and he lost comms for ten years and tucked tail? Whatever the case, if this Volsung Far exists, it would be highly unlikely Martian or Terran obsidians who turned raiders would have any interaction with true Askamani. They're years away on the ships they have. People just gave the pirates the name because people like legends. It makes you wonder, what if they have met with their long-lost brethren? What if they are coordinating and Volsung Far rules not just the Far obsidian, but the pirates too? Electra leans back in her bunk, no doubt eager to dream of nightmares beyond the void. I lie back in mine, thoroughly disturbed. You're shit at bedtime stories, I say. Apologies. Next time I'll tell you the tale of Sophocles, the clone, a creature so noble and so wise he learned to cheat death. He rolls over to go to sleep. I lie awake for a while and roll on my side. Osgard stares at me from his adjacent bunk, his eyes like two black mirrors. He was listening the whole time. On the fourth day, the vibration of landing gears reverberates through the ship. The shuttle makes contact with a metal hull outside, and I feel the more substantial pull of capital ship gravity. We've rendezvoused with their fleet, Electra guesses. Pax shakes his head but doesn't correct her. I don't know how or when he figured it out, but he alone is not surprised when we step out into the VIP hangar of an old Baroque cruise liner. Thousands of blood braids prepare for war in the hangar. I don't recognize these men or women from Olympia because they aren't from Olympia. These are the frontline veterans still wearing the deep sunburns of mercury. Jogging troops carry tattered war standards of the tribes Sefi formed into her forward legions, the Ice Ravens, the River, the Blackhearts. Pax stares at his father's former soldiers. They shall be on Mercury, or in the lands the Republic gave them for barracks on Earth. Somehow they're here, and I think I know why. Horn! Freyhild calls as we descend the landing ramp. Ten of my skugi are arrayed beneath a giant coral archway, gilded with golden letters reading Heart of Venus. I thought the design looked familiar. It's an old luxury cruise ship. So this is where you snuck off to, I say, as we are herded toward them. We've been preparing for your arrival, sir, Freyhill says with a crooked smile for Osgard. Where's the rest of the skugi? I ask. Freyhill shrugs. Come, 
The Queen awaits. I know this ship all too well. I thought the heart was destroyed in the war. Instead, it's as if the cruise ship has gone schizoid. The halls, long ago looted, are cluttered with refuse. Automated doors to staterooms and spas open and close at random. The lights inside flicker, with climate zones oscillating between freezing and swamp-like. And everywhere there are obsidian bedrolls, meal stations, stacked arms of a bivouacking army and dust, so much mercurian dust from their gear, the engines of their ships, even their boots. So that's how she smuggled them under the nose of the Republic. They must have left when the Senate recalled half the fleet. Pax and Electra watched them with contempt, left the Reaper in quite a lurch. To leave the VIP zone, we take an eccentric grav lift upward. The glass tube rises through an aquarium in the heart of the ship. Once it treated tourists to a view of the rainbow life beneath the Venusian waves. Now the glass is crusted with barnacles and smeared with algae. Without her caretakers to maintain balance, the ecosystem seems to have been hijacked by predators. They lurk under coral reefs and lumber through unfiltered murk. Osgard chews his walnuts and watches as an ebony tentacle ripples through the shadows. He murmurs something reverential in Nagal. Eyes wide and delighted, he points toward the shapes and murmurs to the children. It is battle of strength. They eat each other. Soon one will remain. He looks out of the water, the word a song on his tongue. Victorious. I pick the threads of my old tribe uniform. Then he'll starve or eat himself, king of a kingdom of one. They all stare at me, Osgard and Electra in annoyance, Freyhild in amusement, Pax in agreement. The mezzanine level fares no better than the aquarium, the central playground where tourists would throng to restaurants and ballrooms and pleasure palaces has become a parlour of ghosts, as if a fine old party was in full narcotic-fueled bloom and everyone suddenly vanished, leaving their glasses on the table and their jokes half told. The air is freezing. A thunderstorm rumbles through the halls, fizzling here and there from dead speakers. Trapped in echo. Osgard explains reverently. It ain't the only one. Some decade and a half ago, I vacationed here for the month-round trip to Venus. I walked its sea-foam green carpets, martini in one hand, designer burner in the other, pockets weighed down by casino chips, purloined from silver tycoons, mystified at how they could lose to a grey. Karachi has a tendency to humble those used to playing life with a stacked deck. Cost me half a year's wages to rub shoulders with the high colours here, but Trig let me pretend. It mattered to me. I was an uppity idiot, desperate to prove I could spend money too. He tried his best to make me happy. He really did. That first night we danced to Venusian Wave, then... Bit by bit he withdrew into himself until all he did was sit in his room and watch the news. I know the obsidians see what he saw. 
How we drank as they froze and killed and sold off their men to gods to eke out another season in the poles. How the grey phalanxes stood in orderly ranks to form the chain to their collar. Grey, so frail on our own, so impregnable when we lock arms. Been a long time since that happened. What happened here? I asked. War, Freyhill says. Sons of Ares, released Aklis nine years ago, left the ship to drift in the ink. Scavengers, looters, thieves, all come in seasons. Time passes. Servants of our queen found and put to purpose for tribe. Sounds more like Gorgons and the sons of Ares, Electra says. Freyhild shrugs. All trees bear bad seeds, some bloody in bloom. The red hand, Pax clarifies, or its early form. Harmony, one of Ares's more violent agents, composed it from radicalized sons who believed Ares's gold origins was my mother's propaganda. They claim her brother killed Ares, and that Ares's true identity was Narl, my father's uncle instead of Electra's grandfather. You have a fucked-up family, I say. He frowns. Yes. I feel half-frozen and haunted all the way through by the time we reach the Rococo entrance to the Hart's starboard theatre. We follow Freyhild into the dilapidated theatre to the sound of a soprano delivering her aria, the impossibly thin violet. A girl, the colour of a rainy street with a neck twice the length of mine, sings on a star-backed stage beneath an ivory mermaid. The theatre is a sea of mouldering green silk, with a lone island of life near the front row. We draw closer down the aisle, each step taking me deeper into the dream. The Queen of the Valkyrie sits watching Wagner. I would laugh if it all weren't so damn haunting. A dozen Valkyrie veterans lounge in the rows behind their queen. Valdir lies on the floor, giving an exaggerated yawn to Freyhild as she sweeps in with us. She hides a smile. Xenophon sits rigid several rows behind the Valkyrie. On stage, the giraffe-necked Isolde now cradles the body of Tristan, her lover. The audio snags. The soprano begins to crackle, distort, and then dissolve. Holograms. Amel, Cephi's pink, sweeps onto the stage, tapping his datapad. The file is corrupted, Your Majesty. Cephi waves a hand for silence. She greets me with a nod, a motion for the children and me to sit beside her. Welcome to the heart of Venus, she says. You are just in time for the show. He gestures to Amel, who looks suddenly confused, standing in the centre of the stage. Amel here was a whore of the Aphrodite house, before I killed his owner. He was no more than the well of pleasure he could provide his clients. They would dip into it and sip. But there was always less in the well. Age comes for us all. He glances at Valdir, who frowns. Then, back to Amel. 
The Silvers would call this a well of diminishing returns. Soon he would have no purpose. I offered Amel Eta. He receives one hundred thousand credits per year, less than a whore of his pedigree would earn in a Lunese brothel, but more than ten welders. Do you think that fair, Amel, that you earn less than a whore, but more than a welder? Yes, your majesty. If the pink is nervous, he doesn't let on. I, on the other hand, notice the shadows moving in the wings of the stage. Scoogie, Freyhild seems surprised by their presence. Do you miss being a whore? Sefi asked Amel. No, your majesty. Good. I am happy you are happy, Amel. She smiles at him. There are some who believe pinks cannot be trusted. My people believe that the spirit rots when the body is weak. Her eyes are on Valdir, not Amel. It rots and rots until the rot turns to poison. Do you believe this to be true, Mr. Horn? I know a few who live up to that, I reply carefully. What do you believe, children? she asks, taking her eyes from Valdir. Spirits are imaginary constructs derived from human fear of mortality, Pax replies. Electra shrugs. You heard him. Amel, Sefi asks, are you rotten inside? No, your majesty. The rot of my gold master put upon my spirit was cleansed when you bathed his dining table with his blood and set his children to the knife. You are my deliverer. Sefi sighs. Finish the song for me, Amel. The pink blinks. Beg your pardon. Finish the song. I know you can. Amel flinches as the scoogie step from the shadowed wings of the stage. Goodkind leads them. Freyhild glances at Valdir for explanation. Amel's shoulders sag, and slowly he begins to sing. His voice is not that of the violets, but has a purity of his own. The scoogie slip onto the stage and begin to light a fire in the refuse of the set design. Flames lick over wooden boulders and trees as the pink's voice breaks from fear. He glares at Osgard. I do not know what the madman has told you, my queen, but you have cleansed me. I serve only you. Amel is loyal, Valdir protests to his mate. Do not be misled by the madman. He glares at Osgard as if this were all his doing. Fear has taken Amel. I did not betray you, my queen, on my honour. A man has little, a whore has none, Sefi replies. He stands there, trembling. The soprano hologram sputters back to life, echoing the pink song as Goodkind and the Scoogie descend on Amel and hack him to pieces with cleavers. I watch in horror as they toss the pieces of the beautiful man into the flames. Black smoke swirls. I grow very still inside, as the scent of burning flesh hunches through the opera house. I don't know who this was for, a warning for Valdir and Freyhild, or for me. 
and neither do they. Is their secret known? Will they join Amel? Is Steffi proving her Scoogie are loyal to her and not Freyhild? The children watch this in dead silence. If Steffi wants them to learn about obsidian virtues, she's doing a fine job of it. My people have a word, Steffi murmurs to me. Rakshni. There's no translation in the common tongue. As close as can be said is the sorrow one feels in seeing fresh morning snow, knowing its beauty cannot last. She looks back at the fire. The flames saw her black eyes. The sovereign is dead. I grow cold, realizing why the city of Olympia was lit up with candles and Eagle Rest went on lockdown. Pax doesn't move. What? Electra bolts to her feet. She was butchered in the Senate by a mob along with my senators, Sefi says as she stares into the flames. It was the signal to begin a general coup. The arch-governor of Mars was shot in the head by his butler within his sanctum in Argea. Severo was captured on earth, howlers slaughtered. More than a dozen others were killed. Valdir, heat of my heart, you say Amel here was loyal, but he received coded message from deep space relay station, home to gold intelligence. I was to be assassinated with the rest. Amel is loyal, Valdir says. I sensed a quavering of his spirit. Long ago, Osgard confirms. You fat devil, Valdir bellows. You will be the death of us all. Maybe you sense a quavering of my next. I know your game, serpent. I know how you coil close to heat, for the cold blood in your own veins. Am I stupid, heat of my heart? Sefi says to Valdir. To act only on the senses of shaman? To be guided like puppet? It was Xenophon who brought this to me, not Osgard. Valdir's anger cools somewhat as he spares a look at the trusted white. For some time, Amel has been passing information to this relay station, to his gold overlords, including my diet and list of preferred vintages. A poisoned bottle was found in his possession. He served me many years, but was rotten in the end. Valdir grows quiet. To him, Xenophon's word is worth far more than Osgar's hunches. Yet he can't accept it. By the way, Sefi's looking at me. I might just be joining Amel in the fire. She's cleaning house. She watches me for a moment her black eyes peering deep into me before flicking away toward Electra, who is still on her feet. Who did it? the girl demands. How did the mob kill Virginia Al Augustus? Is my father alive? Tell us. We do not know, Xenophon answers. Publius Su Caraval seems to be the instigator and perpetrator of the coup, and allied with Arch-Imperator Zahn and Vox elements in the government. 
We have confirmed this with Niobe Autelimanus, who now leads the ecliptic guard to Luna to demand the sovereign's return. Whether she is dead or alive, we do not know. Publius, that dreary little shit! Electra is stunned. Nah, he doesn't have the juice, even with Zahn. He is likely the puppet of Atalantia, Sephi says. At that, Pax loses his ability to listen. He stands, quivers and bolts from the opera house. Electra glares down at Sephi. How long have you known? Three days, you cold bitch. Sephi nods. World is hard. He must be too. You weakened her by leaving, Electra snaps. You abandoned them. This is your fault, I know it. He knows it. We all fucking know it. Your mother weakened her too? Electra flinches at that and storms after Pax. Sephi jerks her head and Osgard pursues. Valdir watches the child go with a deep sense of sadness. He's more complicated than just a warrior. The loyalty he feels to Darrow must be immense. And I wonder if Sephi isn't the villain here, after all. You didn't have to do it like that, I say. I did not bring you here to play nursemaid to children or lecture me, Mr. Horn. You asked me when first we met what Julie I would pay for her firstborn. Today, I tell you, she has provided us with information and ore ships on which to transfer my forward legions under nose of Republic fleet. At Sefi's instruction, Xenophon still steps forward to fling a hollow onto the opera stage where Amel's remains burn. Blueprints unfold from a tiny moat like the tendrils of a jellyfish. My eye darts, my brain decrypts, analyzes, reverse-engineers the Byzantine mess to see the hundreds of complexes, sophisticated kill zones, subterranean bunkers. No, not bunkers. I feel for my Z-dispenser. I was right. You want to start another war. No, I want to end war. The Republic breaks under its own weight. Obsidian must not. These are schematics for helium mines of Cimmeria. I was hesitant to act when Virginia sat upon morning chair. Now, no precautions, no hesitation. We strike. The queen's smile crawls upward, her devious nature burning hot and bright beneath that ice exterior. Helium is blood of empires, Mr. Horn. Master it, master destiny, and I will master our destiny. In one week's time, we take mines of Cimmeria and the continent as our homeland. It is time to test your scoogie. They are not ready, Valdir says with a worried glance to Freyhild. My battle plan will get you the... Sephi holds up a hand. You break planets, Valdir. I do not want a broken Mars. That is the last resort. 
I want a Mars that welcomes me as protector, as great mother. Mr. Horn, I need defense grids lowered. Tell me, are your scoogie ready? With the smell of Amel's burning body in my nostrils, I look at Freyhild, who gives me an eerie smile. Yeah, they'll do your dirty trick. World's burning anyway. Chapter 38 Lysander The Horizon I wake, feeling more tired than before I slept. It is still dark out. The quiet sounds of the soldiers preparing for the day's trek north surround me. I sit up and gag at the pain of my wounded face. It is infected. My dreams were warped by fever and fear. Again the chair, again the door, again the shadows and laughter on the other side. I don't know how I get to my feet. It is in silence that we set out into the cool dark. Calindora walks closer to me now, always keeping herself between me and Cicero. Despite her grievous wound, I feel safer in her shadow. She whispers quiet poems to herself as the sun begins to rise. What think you the dead are? Why dust and clay? What should they be? Tis the last hour of day. Look on the west, how beautiful it is. Vaulted with radiant vapours, the deep bliss of that unutterable light. Perhaps the only comfort which remains is the unheeded clanking of my chains, the which I make and call it melody. The words keep me walking, but temperatures ascend as the sun climbs over the mountains. Just when I believe I can't go another step, I feel Kalindora's hand on my lower back, steadying me. Always it lingers there, and I find I miss it when she takes it back. We walk and walk until we break for water in the middle of a playa. Nobody move, Cicero says. We freeze at the tension in his voice. He gestures slowly to a cactus, beneath which is a hole in the hard pan. If you value life, slowly back away. We put a hundred meters between us and the animal hole. What was that? I ask him, when we collapse down for water in the shadow of a yellow cactus as tall as five men. Hydra burrow, he says. They hunt sunbloods. We'd be a nice little aperitif for them. He wanders off to inspect a nearby cactus blossom. Carlindora squats in the dirt beside me and stares east. The remains of an unmarked bomber lie several kilometers off. Several of the greys hack at cacti with utility knives to suck water from the meat. It's barely worth the effort. The storms have thrashed the flora. I take enough water from the canteen to fill my mouth. There will be none left after this break. Take more, Kalindora says. That burn is sapping you dry. She can barely stand herself. We don't have enough. Take more. There's always a chance we'll find something, maybe in that bomber, but no chance at all if you die now. She tilts the canteen, and I swallow another mouthful. 
She sits down beside me and splays out her long legs. The fabric of her firmer skin, like mine, is caked white with chalk. While the lips are calm and the eyes cold, the spirit weeps within. Kalindora smiles softly as I recite. I see you're still fond of Shelley. Does it help take your mind away? No, she replies. I just don't think anyone should die without hearing poetry one last time. Whether she means me or herself is unclear. I'm going to have hot tea, she says suddenly. What? When we get back, a hot tea and a cold bath. How about you? Freilich juice and vodka, I say. Freilich juice and vodka? She squints at me, finding more meaning in it than I meant. Why? I don't know. I've never even had it before. That seems to puzzle her. Octavia said that her greatest mastery of the mind's eye came when she could make herself taste a food simply by thinking of it, I say. Well, I can do that, she says. Watch. Dust. She licks her lips. God's just like the real thing. I am unable to smile from the burn. What's it like? she asks. The mind's eye? It is difficult to explain. She waits for me to try. Have you ever had a moment where you couldn't fail, where everything seemed slow except you, like you were the center of all gravity, all time, and your thoughts themselves were second to your actions? Sometimes, in combat. Bad comparison, I say. You were a sailor before, yes? She considers. Sometimes, when the wind is strong, you slide like a knife over the water. It feels like you're flying. Then you have touched it. But imagine you could control that peace, that sense of harmony, and summon it according to your will. She reconsiders me. You can do that at will. At times, Octavia could like this, I snapped my fingers. It isn't without flaw. It didn't make her a warrior equal to Aja. But it made her very dangerous. She said it could even stop poison if mastered. All poison? I'm about to answer. When I see movement to the north, I squint out at the bright chalk flats. Amidst a cloud of dust, a herd of pale sunbloods race one another against the horizon. Not one, not ten, but hundreds. I stand up to watch, wondering if it is real or a desert mirage. Either way, it is one of the most beautiful things I have ever seen. Then I realize it is not one another they race. Not again, Kalindora whispers. A dark smudge rolls across the desert behind the stampede. Sandstorm, Cicero shouts. Damn that man! Damn him! Everyone to the bomber! That sand will shred us to the bone! Hurry! We bolt to our feet and run east toward the wreckage, but the greys and I are falling behind. Carlindora tries to help me along, but with me weighing her down, she'll never make it. Uninjured, Cicero and his golds chew up the kilometers with their rangy legs. They don't even bother looking back for us. The wall of sand is close enough now that it seems to scrape the sky. 
It swallows a dozen horses whole. I shove Kalindora away. Go! She bats my arms out of the way and lunges to try and pick me up with one arm. I back away from her. Go! She glances at the encroaching wall, then back at me, with real fear in her eyes. For a moment I think she will stay. Then she turns and sprints away, long strides making her bounce like a jackrabbit in the low gravity. I am left alone. I face the wall and grip Cassius's razor as if it will save me. Everything has darkened. Dust obscures the sky. The greys continue to try to make it to the bomber. They won't. I search for some hiding place, some boulder or wreckage to shelter behind. There is nothing. Nothing. A cool certainty slides over me. I race back the way we came and see dirt swirling over the Hydra burrow's entrance. It is wide enough for a red, but not for me. Flattening my thumb against the shape sensor, I form the razor into a wide-mouthed falchion and chop furiously at the ground, expanding the whole circumference. The wall is nearly upon me. I dive into the burrow at the last second. My shoulders clear, my hips stick. Ripping skin from my sides, I crawl into the darkness, just as the wall hits. Chapter 39 Lysander The Mind's Eye There is a monster sharing the darkness with me, a dread creature I cannot see or hear for the howling darkness of the storm outside. I can sense it moving, judging the creature that has invaded its home. I have never seen a hydra with my own eyes. Five hundred years ago, the Votum commissioned a sect of Lunese carvers to create them, so that they might have something challenging to hunt. Some say the carvers were far too ambitious in their designs. I lie trembling on my back with my razor rigid and pointed outward from my belly as the hours creep past. They are the longest hours of my life, especially when a mass of scales rested against my leg. The hydra is digesting another meal. When the storm finally passes, I hear a faint hissing, like dry skin dragged over tin. Very carefully, I slide backward out of the hydra's burrow, keeping my razor pointed downward in case it decides to make a last-minute meal of me. When I finally see the sun again, I stumble away from the hole and almost vomit from tension. Only when I am far enough away do I fall on my back and start to laugh and cry. I never knew I'd be so happy to not be a hydra's lunch. After a half a minute, the sun begins to burn my face. I sit up and squint into the waste. The plier is cleansed. Cacti sway like leftover shish-kebab sticks. No life stirs. No debris can be seen. The greys have been swallowed by the desert. I make my way over to the bomber, now just a hump of sand, and call for Kalindora. There is no answer, nor is there when I call for Cicero. I dig through the sand 
and find nothing but two decaying blue pilots, half-eaten by predators. They wear no insignia, but a child's face wreathed in serpents. Gorgons. This was one of Atlas's bombers. The hold is empty. The magazines have ruptured inward. Unfired missiles lie in the hold. A ration bar wrapper lies on the floor, one of ours. Outside the bomber I find indentations in the sand, indicating the passage of a shuttle. A spent railgun battery lies on the ground, not one of ours. Sun Industries Tech. I squint south and see the shuttle as a dot, racing for Heliopolis. Kalindora must be on it. Another captive for the rising. I go back inside the bomber and collapse in the hold amongst the unfired missiles. I lie there, forlorn, until I fall asleep. When I wake, my loneliness in the silence is absolute. Pytha knew this was coming, but I believed the myth of war. Worse, I thought myself special, immune to the horrors lesser men face. Diomedes was right. All men are tiny before the storm. There is nothing but pain from my ruined face and deep, indescribable exhaustion. Seraphina is dead. The alliance may be broken because of it. My praetorians, rotting or captured, the tears sting my wounds as I weep. Why did I betray Cassius? For this? Why did I return to this horrible place? My hopes of a united gold, of peace, now seem laughable. Not only did I overestimate my own importance, I underestimated the scope of war. There is no escape from this. It will eat us all. I could flee this pain, find refuge in the mind's eye meditation, and slip slowly into the void as my body fails. But I cannot give Grandmother that honour. She did something to me, something I cannot understand. I was a child who needed love in the shadow of his parents' deaths. Instead, she beat me into the shape of a cup and poured her lessons into me. I will not let those lessons be my last act in this world. Cry not, mortal child, a voice says in the darkness. They come on wings of sable to rend your precious flesh and send you to the doom which lies beyond this realm of pain. I sit up. Am I going mad? Lie still, and it will end. Lie still, and the seed of Selenius will wither to time. Who is there? I ask. A translucent mass squats in the shadows of the downed aircraft. It seems immense. The air warps above the ghost cloak with horn-like projections, if it is a ghost cloak and not the madness of the desert creeping in. Dwell not on me, mortal. Nocturnal devils are afoot. Awake, arise, or be forever fallen. I hear it now. The sound of grav boots. I watch through a fissure in the hull as seven hundred armoured men land in the night. Seneca's voice drifts from the darkness. Lysander! Oh, Lysander, come out! Come out, little boy! Death has come! So Ajax has sent his boar of a bodyguard 
to finish the task. The thought of dying at the hands of some thin-blood brute fills me with irrational fear. I am not fit for this world of rough killers. My hand goes to the side of my neck, where I received my mission implant. They tracked it at last. I turn to the man in the darkness. Help me, I beg. I help no man who does not help himself, and no man do I help who is no boon to me. Six years I have collated knowledge to become the mightiest of mortal vessels, yet one morsel still eludes my voluminous mind, hidden in no fury, no books, trusted to no digital void. It lingers yet, this knowledge, in one sepulchre. Four days I have followed, four days you have denied me my quest. I must know the mind's eye, show it to me, or perish. The air ripples as the man slips out of the ship. Lysander, Seneca taunts, there's nowhere to run. Will the heir of Selenius die in a rat hole? Have dignity in the end? Your ancient blood demands it. The thin bloods chuckled at one another. I spotted seven of them, all in fresh pulse armour. I won't stand a chance. But will I die here, cowering, or will I die with dignity? As I stand, my feet disturb the spilled munitions on the floor, and I sense a fresh variable. Seven peerless, scarred, stand in the darkness, as I emerge barefoot. Their predatory iron leopard war helmets watch with no human emotion. As if my left arm were broken, I cradle the internal payload of a firebrand munition wrapped in torn seat lining. I need those helmets off. Ajax couldn't even take out his own trash, I mock. My voice is ragged. How admirable! Seneca chuckles. He would, but Atalantia has him under lock and key. Such is her grief at the death of precious Lysander. Shall we formalize it? Seven razors unfurl. Mine remains on my hip. What did he promise you, Seneca? A torchship each, one of the golds says. That's the price of my life. Draw your iron, boy. Ajax made me promise you'd die well. Does any man die well if he cannot look his killer in the eye? I peer around at the grim visages of the battered warhelms. Which of you will it be? Which of you will kill the last heir of Selenius? Don't you want me to know, as I lie dying? Oh, do I know my people. Their helmets unfurl to reveal their faces. My name still means something. They want me to see their eyes as they kill me. They want me to comprehend their superiority. And each wants to deliver the blow, and with it declare themselves stronger than my decrepit bloodline. They are the future, not the last blood of Loon, who couldn't even survive a week at the front. And they want me to know it. I take my razor and let it unfurl into the killing blade. No bribe, no begging, Seneca asks. I expected more whinging 
from the entitled cur. As a human, I am entitled only to death. That's the spirit, Seneca smiles with his pack. Kill the pixie. Seven peerless butchers slip forward. My left hand pulls the activation wire of the firebrand payload. I drop the seat lining and toss the payload into the air. I bury my face in the sand. The air stills as the firebrand detonates overhead. It releases no kinetic wash of energy, only spasms of ultraviolet light brighter than that of a nuclear explosion. It makes no sound. Even with my head in the sand, I go blind. But so do the bare-faced killers. As they scream from the weapon flash, burning their retinas, I search myself for the fear that has stalked me since I landed on this planet. I need not search further than what I felt in the Hydra burrow. Fear writhes like a dark, maggoty river from my pelvis to the tip of my spine, pulsing, roaring. Not fear of death. Fear of failure. Fear of being a fool. Fear of inconsequence. Fear of being alone. Fear of proving I am nothing more than my grandmother's puppet. Fear that I am weak and meant for the maggots. But the mind's eye waits for me like an old glove. I am the last of its acolytes. It is not grandmother's any more. It was never an inheritance. I earned it. By suffering as a boy, as she did as a girl, fear is the torrent. My transition into the folds of harmony is fulfilling. My eyes may be blind, but my mind sees. The world rushes through the multisensorial pupil of the mind's eye. The projection stems from memory. I see the grains of sand as they were before the blast of light. I feel the weight of the men on its surface. Smell the musty sweat of unwashed armour, the bitter roast of coffee, the sweet reek of combat chemicals and the protein cubes they ate before they descended. Blood pumps in their veins, insulated feet slide in their boots, I feel their skins, knowing where instinct will take them, where training will guide them to my blade like sheep to slaughter. I see them in the blindness and I take on the winter whirlwind stance of the willow way. Are you awake or asleep, Lysander? I slip forward. Three die without even swinging their razors. The pommel of the bologna razor jolts in my hand as the blade carves through pulse armor, bone and flesh of the third man. I feel the heat of blood sluicing down my arm. Hear the puking as it comes out of the man's mouth. I pull the razor upward from his belly, holding his sword hand down, and saw through his breastplate. I stop shy of his heart, so that he will continue to scream. I trip him and ride his momentum down to the ground, rolling forward, then upward, and crouching on a knee. They shout to one another now, the noise of the dying of bedlam, to muddle their ears. Grav boots whine as one takes blindly to the air, I ripped the pulse-fist off the dying man. With the mind's eye I sought through the soup of sound, until I find the whine of the grav-boots and feel the reverberation. I swivel toward it, brace myself on a knee, lead the sound by several meters, and fire five shots in a diagonal line. 
I hear the snapping sound of a pulse shield absorbing the blast. There he is. I fire thirty shots, until I hear the pulse shield collapse with a scream. Metal and man crashed down into the sand. Four down, three left. I slide toward the ship, as they fire at anything that makes noise. Grav boots whine at my eleven o'clock. I fire a full stream from my cover. The man gets away. Several seconds pass. There is a thump in the desert. My visitor doesn't want any escaping either. The last two are difficult to locate. My memory is outdated now by a minute, but as I killed I populated the mental image with my victims. I know the second body is approximately nine metres and a half, west, and has a pulse fist still. I know the fourth body creates a tripping barrier between a broken wing of the downed bomber and the fuselage, and when I hear a clink, I know one of the two survivors is checking the pulse of the first corpse, two metres behind me. I swoop to kill him with a backhand flick of the razor. It glances off his risen helmet. I parry his first riposte, knowing it would come as a lower thrust, because he was in a crouch, and it is the natural transition strike to prepare for a diagonal downward slash. I parry that slash, and three more blows of a tight set. He is a clever swordsman, far stronger supplemented with his armour, but he relies upon sustained contact to know where I am. I break off, wait, and as he probes the darkness with tentative thrusts, I rotate around and slip soundlessly forward. The razor digs the roots. It severs his leg at the thigh, the second strike takes his hand, the third his ankle. I let him bleed out. His groans give me cover to move. Seneca calls to his compatriots. None answer but the wounded. What the fuck? he growls. I hear his razor hissing through the air as he swings wildly. His pulse fist roars. You little prim bastard! How can you see? Rather, how is it? You are blind, Seneca. As I move quietly over the sand, I can hear the heart-blood pumping out of the dying men, glug, 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 into their broken armour. Is this how you saw your future? He fires at the sound of my voice. Unlike the others, he is difficult to find. I think he's stripped off his boots, too, now. His heart rate is steady, his feet quiet despite his mass. This is a real killer. To guard Ajax's back, he'd have to be. Is there even a future past this moment, Seneca? He fires again and misses again. He's back near the ship. I weave through the downed bodies and find a pulse fist. I set it back down. It doesn't seem honourable. Only an animal does not plan past the moment. I slip sideways, as he fires at where I was. So what does that make you? The sand is cold under my bare feet as I stalk closer. It's a trap. He's hunched forward now, not bothering to speak. He waits for me to make a sound. Obliging, I toss a rock against the hull. He ignores it, but he does not ignore my feet, as I push off the sand to jump toward him. He fires as if I were running. Blisters bubble on my feet as the pulse blast warbles just beneath them. 
I land a hair too close and swing my razor down. He catches it in his hand. There's a jolt as it splits his gauntlet and divides the radius and ulna bones down the elbow. It sticks there. I sense his razor coming for my belly. I toggle my blade into a whip and twist to the side, holding onto the razor pommel with my left hand. His blade misses most of me, but bites hard into my hip bone. The pain is excruciating. His left shoulder crashes into my face. I stumble backward, retract the razor out of his arm, and parry his following slash upward. I push away from him as I fall. He pursues. I switch my razor back into a whip and lash it around his ankles as they pass each other mid-stride. Then I transition the razor back to rigid form, and from my knees deliver the coup de grace of the willow way, the weeping noose. The whip, encircling his ankles, stiffens and retracts into a straight metal line. It goes through armor, flesh, and bone to do so. With his feet cut off at the ankles, Seneca falls with a crash. No! He roars on the ground, slashing wildly. I gather myself into a crouch and stay out of range. No! Fucking brat! Fucking child! They said you were a pixie! It would seem they judge the wrong virtues. I wait for his riven body to tire. When his protests grow weak, I approach and stand before him. I favor the deep wound in my hip. Who is your favorite poet? I ask. What? Seneca barks. Your favorite poet, man. He sighs. Kipling. I sort through what comes to mind and decide upon a passage. Time hath no tithe, but must abide the servant of thy will. Tide hath no time, for to thy rhyme the ranging stars stand still. Regent of spheres that lock our fears, our hopes invisible, oh, t'was certus at thy decrees, we fashioned heaven and hell. Fuck you, you fucking p— I decapitate Seneca. As his head rolls to the sand, I let go of the mind's eye, and the world throbs. I am spent. Exhaustion falls like a sweaty anvil. There are wounds upon my body that I did not notice until now. Lines of fire race along two deep gashes in my thigh, though the most painful is the last one Seneca gave me because I passed on the pulse fist in favor of the razor. Apparently honor is expensive. Then from behind a man applauds. Apollonius, our valley I wrath, I presume? Indubitably. So the mind's eye is real after all. Atalantia swore it was a myth, but to see it, ah, to see it. Octavia refused to teach her, I say. Is that what you desire? My grandmother's secrets? Beggar the whole bounty for this chief prize. The eye is not a razor to be wielded by any man, I say, taking a seat on the ground in exhaustion. I am not just any man. Would any man have such demons as I? Ajax, Atalantia, Atlas? They were responsible for your stay in Deep Grave, I gather. But what of the source of all this? What of Darrow? A kinship 
Bonds all men betrayed, for they alone know the deepest breaking of the soul. In time he must fall, so I might rise. But what savvy butcher would loosen the vice that keeps his demons in thrall before their comeuppance comes to you? Then the answer is no. No! His laugh is beautiful and presumptuous. Atalantia and Atlas are not my enemies. But Ajax's, after his betrayal? How long has he followed me? I do not answer him. He chuckles to himself. One is the father, the other the lover. They will choose Ajax. Without my aid, you will die here, Seed of Loon. Without my aid, you will die anywhere. I have no quarrel with you, Apollonius, but I will not be bridled with a debt to you either. Yet you begged me to aid you. That was the boy inside. He is dead. That was five minutes ago. Are you the same you were then? Is Seneca? He does not reply as I stand. You sound hungry, Apollonius. I do not feel stronger now than I did five minutes ago. I am no supreme being with a plan for escape. All I know is that there is more inside me than I knew. If I die, it will not be on my knees. Menace enters his voice. I could kill you now. I am not these men. Yes, you could. But you won't. The sand sighs as his mass steps forward. Are you so sure, little seed? Reasonably. Though we have never met, I know there is one thing Apollonius, our valley I wrath, cannot resist. I stand and cut the mission node from my neck and hold it out for him. Huge metal fingers take the device. A good show. Apollonius stands in silence as I forage from the dead. I am far clumsier outside the mind's eye, but I fear the toll it would take to sustain it. I may die in the desert, but if I took his offer, it would mean war against Atalantia and Atlas. I would give legitimacy to his faction against theirs. After Atalantia's attempt to take Heliopolis, the Votum might come over to me just to spite her. After Seraphina's death, the Rim might join Apollonius. They know his martial worth. Or they might declare war on Atalantia if my testimony is accusatory regarding Seraphina's death. I could ruin Atalantia if I went with Apollonius. But what would that do to gold? She is apparently our best tactician, and despite Ajax's cruelty, despite her capricious vanity, I still love her as family. Ajax's treachery may still be his own. Moreover, gold cannot afford that divide, just as the worlds cannot afford a man who wrecks a planet simply to win a battle. I may not be what I thought I was. This world itself may just be a maze without a centre, but I will not wait to die. I will not wait to be bridled by another. I will go forward as I see fit. I stand waiting for Apollonius to stop me after I've taken all I need from the dead golds. When he does not, I reach for Seneca's grav-boots. They are gone, 
Apollonius chuckles. You don't get everything you want, little seed. He picks some choice items from my hall for himself. A good show, says the hopeful Ortak. He pats my head. Even if you survive this walk, you can never best Darrow if that is your intent. He would climb up your blade to chew upon your jugular. To best a living god, it is not enough to survive, nor to eat the ambrosia of conquest. Who would follow a churlish princeling over that slave-made war? After all, you have no sense of theatre. He claps me on the shoulder so hard my teeth rattle. Enjoy your walk. I will be watching. I walk north, blind, but blinded no more. Uncertain of where I go, but certain of one thing. Ajax abandoned me to the enemy. He tried to kill me. Darrow tried to kill me. Seneca tried to kill me. The desert tried to kill me. But I am still here. Pain the only proof. I am not yet dead. Be it one of anguish or joy, my life is mine. I have earned it back, and I have no intention of wasting it. Chapter 40 Ephraim Kirdakan The burners on its last legs, as I tap it over the railing to see the ash spiral down. I've done my bit, and submitted a full tactical brief regarding how the Skoogie could neutralise much of Quicksilver's mine security. Now I watch the Braves prepare in the gymnasium of the Heart of Venus and marinate in the guilt of being complicit to genocide. I'm an old hand at briefs in the legions as an investigator. They sit in digital folders and gather electronic dust until they are deleted to cover the political arse of whatever high up gave the contrary go. All analysis supported my decision, is their favourite line. Valdir is Sefi's Varkir, her warlord. He's used blunt force trauma to pound a legacy from Mars to Mercury, surviving a decade that sent more than 70% of Sefi's commanders to Valhalla. He wants a frontal assault, so... A frontal assault it'll be. No niggling brief from a mercenary will dissuade him. It'll work, I'm sure. With the hard-boiled legions the heart is packing, even the citadel of the Republic might fall. But it will turn so many civilians and backline Republic troops into meat confetti that Mars will loathe them for centuries. The faceless future dead make me think of the sounds my boys made as they were skinned on Luna. It makes my hand shake for Z. That won't be the end of the killing. It'll be the beginning. Only famine is uglier than occupation. What would Volga say if I told her this was the price of her life? I rub my temple, trying to ease the vibrations of the hot drill digging into my brain. I'm just destined to be a footman to devils, I guess. I light another burner. It goes down before I know it. Below, obsidians study Quicksilver's robots, machines meant to kill blood and bone. I wouldn't face them for anything in the world. 
You've been avoiding me. I look over to see Pax coming from a grav lift. Consolation isn't my thing, I reply. He peers over the railing without expression. He's grown harder since I took him from that Lion Guard shuttle. How could he not? Braga and his other bodyguard amble behind him. They watch me without much appreciation. I'm emblematic of their queen's new way. I guess even a warrior race has to concoct new ways to die, I mutter. Death by axe has to get tedious after a while. I twirl a new burner. You think it's going to be a massacre? Either in the taking or the keeping, don't you? He doesn't respond immediately. I don't know everything. What I do know is that the Obsidians will defend Cimmeria better than Quicksilver ever did. Maybe even rebuild it. Might be better for the Reds this way. Sefi knows the danger of letting them boil over. They'll outnumber her people a hundred to one. When Atalantia comes, maybe they'll stand together. Even if they don't, I don't know. Maybe the Obsidians have earned this day more than anyone. Cimmeria is just one continent, I reply. The richest in helium, sure, but Apollonia is the heart of Mars. Aegea will go into a frenzy. This is civil war within a civil war, the death of the Republic. Without helium, no. Obsidian is a land power. They'll have to trade the helium for it to be worth anything. If the Obsidians get Cimmeria and dig in, Aegea will negotiate. And even if the Vox have my mother, my tribe is resilient. Victra's still out there. Telemannuses, maybe. He goes quiet. They'll ally with Obsidian to face Atalantia. If the Vox don't eat the Republic. Yes. He's written off his father on Mercury, then. Without the Sovereign to lead a rescue fleet, they're as good as dead. Do you think your mother knew about this? I ask. He sighs. I don't know. Judging by the scale of the operation, I assume she had to. Subtlety isn't Sefi's strength, and she doesn't know all my mother's tools. So the fact that it's reached this point means either Victra clued my mother in, Severo did, or she just found out because she's her, was her. He rolls his jaw, looking ten times his age. He's been different since he discovered his mother's demise. While Electra has squawked on and on about revenge, he's just gone quiet. Of course, Hatchetface thinks life is just a substance to be pushed through. With a brain like Pax's, he's already guessed there's nowhere to push. It's just a hard road to a cliff, with all the good ones falling over it far too quick. You want to talk about it? I ask. No. We stand in silence for a while. Don't, he says when he hears my intake of breath. I lean forward and light another burner and offer him one. I'm eleven. So, we beat cancer, remember? He shrugs and takes the burner, holding it like it's straight black smack. I light it for him. Mother would kill me. Thought your da was a killer. He wouldn't notice. Come on, 
Betty doesn't look good on you. At least your da's slick. Mine was just a horny grunt who passed his seed for a 10k bonus. Keep the legion strong, I snort. I don't like seeing packs like this. It depresses me. I should say something interesting, but I can't think of something he wouldn't just shoot down. All right, let's get real. Met a man once, I say, as Pax becomes a cloud. He doesn't cough. Good on him. Neither did I. Wasn't much younger than you. It was before the Legion Wardhouse got a hold of me. Was a lookout for the local tough when I heard they were selling ice frisee down by the light plaza. You know, that mound. Heroes Plaza or whatever now. He nods. Anyway, got caught stealing, said Frisee. I was going to get cuffed real bad by the local Urbanes when a man piped up for me, said I was with him. The Urbanes gave him one look, a long salute, and went on their way. He was a grey, looked such a legend, leaning on the fountain like he owned it, had a Titan rain badge on his chest, a shattered rear beneath, a shower of golden teardrops on his face, inky in Legio thirteen blacks. You weren't around then, but even Goals gave that sort a nod. I roll my burner in my hands. Smoke that burner like the unimpressed footman of a god. I remember that clear as day. Jove, he looks slick. He gave me my first, like I'm giving you yours. I asked him if he was a hero, and he looked me dead in the eyes. Pax looks over, and he said, Fuck, heroes, kid. It's all about being slick enough to squeak through. That's the last man standing. Took that to heart, and here I bloody am. And what's that supposed to teach me? He asks. Be an arsehole? I don't know. Don't be like your folks, I reckon. It ain't on you to save the world. They were some impressive people, all told. I ain't saying you're not, but they was them. And look where they are. I set a hand on his shoulder. I want you to get old, that's all. Why? I'm just a mark to you. Everyone's a mark to someone. That you a pretty credit Sefi's someone's mark. I hold the smoke in my lungs until they tighten. Guess I'm telling you because age doesn't look good on me. But I think it'll look good on you, that's all. That's the pep talk. He looks back down at the Braves. You're shit at pep talks. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe that's why I'm alive, and why you're wearing Trigg's ring. He plays with the chain. He was as good as we get. Just a shish-kebab in the end. My father wishes he knew him better, Pax murmurs. You don't have to pander. Truly, say what you want about my da, but don't ever think he doesn't notice his men. It's the best thing about him. When they go, it breaks him. Well, he's the one given the orders. Someone has to. He looks at the fire of the burner as it works its way through the tobacco. I don't hate him. I mean, I do, but I don't, if that makes sense. I hate him for leaving for Venus, but not for Mercury. At his best, he's how men should be. So maybe that means it's the world that's flawed. 
That's the damn truth. We lean and smoke in silence. He really is a good egg. I don't give a shit about Seffy's instructions to brown-nose him. If she tells me to use him, I'll pop her between those black eyes. Grania, it is time. Pax and I jump at the voice. Neither of us noticed Osgard sneak up behind us. For once, he's not in good humour. The shaman's eyes are rimmed with ash. The Kir assemble for the Kir Dakan. As Efe, you must join. I squint at him. The what for the water's what? You're letting a grey into the Kir Dakan? Pax asked in shock. The Lord Wager, he explains to me. The Vokes war ritual before important battles. My father was the first person not of the Volk to join one. He was an Efeisbacher, a wise planner. It's an honour. Sefi accepted my plan, I asked Osgard, dumbfounded. Not Valdir's. He laughs at me. Granir is blind. Still he does not see. Freyhild and Skugi are already en route back to Mars. We press for Phobos for transfer to Ore Haulers. He pauses, black eyes searching mine. Come, Kierdekan awaits. Pax understands the seismic statement Sefi is making, choosing the plan of a grey outsider to that of her most successful warlord. It is a declaration of change, and a choice on her part to pick risk over slaughter. Entirely too civilised to be true, but it is also spitting in her lover's eye while putting me directly in the crossfire between them. Valdir will be pissed. More than a little worried, I flick my burner away and follow Osgard. Pax grabs my arm before I get far. Whatever you do, don't bleed into the ribcage. Huh? If the campaign fails and you've given a blood wager, you're killed in ritual homicide. Yeah, I'm going to need a few more details. Walk and talk, kid. Walk and talk. Incense burns from braziers on the stage of the opera house, where Amel was butchered. It's so thick, my eyes itch back to the retinal nerves. I shift foot to foot in my place in the circle of towering war leaders, as a giant albino aurochs with twisted horns is led onto the stage by Osgard's acolytes. Sefi approaches the muscled cow with an axe the size of a tree on her shoulder. I cross my arms and settle in to watch the pagan absurdity. Sefi tightens the glove on her right hand and crouches to peer into the beast's eyes with the tattoos on her closed eyelids. Apparently, it only takes a minute to see the Aurochs's spirit. She whispers some alien sacrament that sounds like a pressure release on a gas rifle, and then rears back with the axe and splits its skull down the centre in a tremendous blow. Blood sprays on my boots. The blade is so long it divides the Aurochs's neck halfway down the spine. I watch in mild horror as the beast shudders and sways and crashes to the floor, spurting blood everywhere. Sefi reaches into both sides of the split beast's head 
and rips out its tongue to show that it has been divided in half. Impossible precision. The obsidians rattle approval with the torques on their left arms as Sefi hands one half of the grisly appendage to her Valkyr, Valdir. The two eat the tongue raw, staring at one another with feverish enthusiasm that borderlines on erotic. My stomach twists as blood and juice trickle down their chins. Seems excessive, but these maniacs are just getting started. As the dead beast twitches on the floor, Osgard cavorts around it in some mad spasmodic dance that would be funny if anyone but an obsidian did it. The great falls of his skin ripple and flap as he waves his arms and shakes his bare torso. An atavistic song rumbles from the back of his throat. His circuit increases in speed until the aurochs's hooves no longer scrape the ground. When it is still, Osgard walks one more circuit. His footprints in the blood have made an intricate spiralling shield glyph for protection. Utter nonsense. Then the Vinkir, Valdir's four-wind lords, come forward to each take a leg and together roll the aurochs on its back where Osgard slices open its belly and butterflies its torso. He takes a black jar full of Jove knows what and fills his mouth before spitting it down on the Aurochs's organs. Two hatchets appear in his hands and he smashes them together until their sparks catch on his spittle. A fire mushrooms in the belly of the beast. Its organs crackle. The fat under its hide catches fire and curls the white hair. Soon it's a conflagration. Flames dance over the faces of the obsidian war leaders as they chant together. Not even the incense can keep the claws of the burning intestines and liver from scouring the backs of my eyes. Tears stream down my face. At least the syndicate were a familiar fright. They chant until the fire subsides and leaves nothing but charred tissue and marrow leaking out cracked bones. The ribcage of the aurochs curves outward and reaches upward like a pair of fossilized hands. Osgard crouches amongst the steaming debris and lifts his arms, shouting some nonsense in Nagal about a prophecy of fortune in the firebones. He then asks for the Kirdakan, the Lord Wager. It starts with the Vargkir, the lowest-ranking winglords. Two women, dressed in more modern garb, drop strands of hair into the ribcage, wagering their honour against the battle's success. Their hair will be shorn in failure, and they will lose their ranks and become braves who must earn command all over again. A bold wager, and the one Pax recommended I take. Then the third, a man in tribal garb, looks at me, looks at Valdir, then Sefi, and drops a single golden talk. There's silence. Sefi looks like she's about to murder the man. Only Pax's rushed lecture on the way here saves me from turning around in bewilderment. It's the lowest form of wager, a single talk, a fraction of battle honour. An insult is what it is. Some of them don't believe in this gambit. As all the male Valkyr, then some of the higher-ranking Vinkir, give their meagre wages, I realise why. 
I could give a shit if they don't like Sefi's plan for modernization or her betrayal of the Republic. But the men protesting me, calling my plan bullshit, with each clattering talk and arrogant giant, I find my insides heating up at the professional insult. Barely off the ice and already superior to me, these savage idiots. When Valdir throws in a single talk as well, I nearly leave. He spits on the floor in my direction. Osgard translates his Nagal for me. You are no man, he echoes. No, a face for the Volk. You are parasite. You have nothing to teach us but weakness. He looked at Sefi and lifts his chin to expose his throat. You are my queen. I stood against gold with Nakamura, Arcadius, Vesuvian, noble greys. But this dog belongs in gutter. His scheme will fail, and Scoogie will die for nothing. He slaps his arms. We must show strength, not tricks, if we are to betray our oaths. His supporters, mostly men, rattle their talks in agreement. Sefi doesn't reply. It's a sort of betrayal I'm not sure I understand completely. Osgard gives me a little nudge forward to make my wager. Valdir's protesters laugh in derision as I pull a piece of hair and they mutter there is no honour for a thief to risk. The anger boils up in me mighty fast, these uppity barbarians, laughing at me. They don't even know what a rhetorical question is. You all know what I did, I say, turning and looking at the giants in their obstinate black eyes. I stole those gold spawn twice. You just scraped us up like vultures. And you call me a parasite? I was a son of Ares when you were still in the Dark Age. Shitheads. I hunted Peerless while you were still serving them or pulling your people off the poles. But you call me a dog? Fair enough. Spit on my honour. I don't give a damn. But don't you ever, ever insult my work. I jab my hand against a fragment of ribcage bone. Bright blood leaks out the meat of my palm. I hold it over the ribcage and let it dribble down. The obsidians are stricken with confusion. Even Valdir looks like he's swallowed a turd. Having seized the greatest claim to valour if today is a victory, I stalk back to my place, as the obsidians murmur, and some put their hands to their foreheads in signs of respect. Osgard whispers in my ear, Your faith inspires me. He's mocking me. The hangover of regret comes hard and fast. The anger floods out. It wasn't just memories Z protected me from. It was always myself, always the overcompensating pride of a street dog who can't bear to be laughed at so he buys nice suits, drains his account on fashionable flats, yaps at monsters, gambles with people who can afford to lose. Well, Volga would be laughing her ass off now. The obsidian's quiet as Sefi walks to the ribcage. She plays with her long hair. 
then gives me a sinister smile and very casually draws a dagger to slice a chunk of flesh from her left forearm to toss into the ribs and match my wager. When she speaks, she does so to Valdir in common. My way in victory, my head in defeat. After the obsidians depart, Sefi stands watching the remains of the bones smolder. You will not be with your Skugi. They must move faster than you can follow. I nod, happy with that. You know you will be killed if we fail. Seems we both will. Pride blinds, she says, but sometimes it leads. She sets a heavy hand on my shoulder. I know our ways are strange to you, but hard ways are necessary to govern wild spirits. If we win, you will be my guest at the hunt of the last light. You will have much treasure. You will be honoured. They do not see your worth. But I do, Horn. I see fear in you. Most run from that fear. But you, you spit in its face. She lowers her face to mine. As do I. As do I. Chapter 41 Ephraim Obsidian Rising Warships rove over the birthplace of the Rising. So ends the tale of Ephraim T. Horn, ritually murdered or atomized by a particle beam. I stick my hands in my pockets. Lovely. The greatest heist of the war rumbles slowly into gear, and I'm pinned inside a fat-ass Julii ore hauler, heading toward Mars with no escape plan, no intel except what the obsidians give me, and no weapon, not even a wrench. To put the olive on top, I'm stone-cold sober. Far from kicking my Z-habit, I must have begged half the shadier-looking braves on the heart of Venus for just the dust of a cup gram. Seems Sefi put the word out. Not even the former berserkers in their ranks will trade me some of their Republic stimpaks. I stare out the cramped bridge with doom squatting on my spine. The lights are dim. The pilot, a crack-ripper blue from Sefi's allies, the Roe sect, hunches like a Karachi player in concentration over his controls, even though a mentally disenfranchised elephant could fly this tub. Behind him... Osgard stands there, stroking his braided beard and eating walnuts without a care in the world. He's painted in his blue berry juice. Idiot. You will not be ritually murdered or atomized, Osgard replies. The breath of the All-Mother herself will carry you to Valhalla. Pass. I'll take a nomadic island on Venus with limitless pinks. He turns. Behind the annoyance in his eyes is a confidence that leaps far past the border of sanity. Is that the depth of your soul? Just the warm shallows, he sighs. You will not die, Tin Man, because if you die, we have failed, and Sefi too will die. She cannot die. 
Let me guess. You saw her fate in the firebones. Be careful not to insult a shaman on the eve of battle. He comes so close, I can smell the eggs he have for breakfast in his beard. You do not know what I have seen. No offence, but I find your faith a little disturbing. Bah! He reels away. I find your face disturbing. It is soft, like goat cheese. But I do not complain. You prepared Scoogie. You are good at what you do. So are they. To fret now is seed of angst. Prepared, please. Like a few weeks' instruction will ready them for this. It would be so easy if Sefi didn't want so many mines. We could fly the haulers into the mine's loading docks and pump obsidians out. An old reaper favourite. Problem is, to do that, we'd have to land hundreds of haulers at the same time at mines across a thousand-kilometre theatre before the mines go into lockdown. Quicksilver's defence computers would quickly see the breach and eviscerate us. So a quarter of the mines will be taken that way. The rest require more creative infiltration by the Scoogie. As for the hunter-killer defence robots, well, there's a reason the Obsidians are in full armour. If they follow my instructions, the Scoogie and Quicksilver-hating Reds will bypass the sensor grids in retired tunnels, infiltrate the exhaust ducts, access the power grid, and disable the anti-aircraft guns. Piece of pie. But the Scoogie aren't even close to ready for this kind of coordinated infiltration. I hear the steady drip, drip, drip of the bloodbath filling up. The Obsidians think I believe in Sefi enough to risk my life on this gambit for the mines. It's gained me some respect from her bodyguard of Valkyrie, but not from Osgard. He knows I'm full of shit, because I've long suspected he's full of it too. Osgard sets his bag of walnuts on a gearbox and leans toward the pilot to whisper something. I pull out my burners to settle my nerves and find the pack empty. I left my stash in Olympia. Damn. I grab one of his walnuts and busy myself trying to open it as I stare out the Duraglass. The moon of Phobos and most of the remaining Republic defence fleet are on the opposite side of the planet now, along with Volga. Osgard eases back from the pilot and nudges me. Have you seen a night gaze upon the pole with your flesh eyes? he asks. Never been to either pole. Restricted zones. Savage locals. Night gays are the most tender of the ice's life. They grow only in darkness, but oh, the light they make of their own Ikor. They are truly a gift from the gods. Gift from the gods, I roll my eyes. But flying in a spaceship, your ancestors were made in test tubes, the night gaze by a drunk violent, and you believe in gods? Hell, I get the racket. For a man you've done right fine by yourself with the matriarchs, but stop trying to con a con man. He shrugs, ignoring the insult. Human knowledge is small. Universe, vast. Mystery, infinite. My gods were true before they were stolen and used against us. 
they are still true, and will be true long after we are food for the— He freezes as he sees the walnut shells around my feet. His eyes flare wide and he grabs me, manhandling his fingers down my throat. I fight against him until I sick up all over his chest. I shove him and push too hard with my new leg, flying backward into the wall. I hit my spine on something sharp and hard. What the hell? I gasp. You ate from my bag? I'll buy you another walnut, arsehole. I spit the bile out and wipe it out of my goatee. Jove on I, who does that? Walnut? He squints at me. What is walnut, jackass? These spirit berries from home. These for shaman only. I squint. I thought spirit berries were berries. No. Oh, well, I hiccup. What's spirit berries do? To see spirits and hear gods. Literally? He's threading his hands through his beard in worry. It's some sort of hallucinogen. That's about all I know. I look at my hands. Are they vibrating? The roof of my mouth tastes like chalk and asparagus and ice cream. Will I die? He shrugs. We will see. The walls turn to pulsing jelly as Osgard leads me through them like a drunk puppy. Sefi's war council was a blurry dream. All the orders fragmented in my head. If I focus on anything longer than a moment, the world pulses between reality and into some peculiar hidden fourth-dimensional plane. Keep the eyes moving. Stay lucid, old boy. Stay atop the high. You love drugs. You love drugs. We enter the mouth of a beast. No, just a hangar, empty of helium crates and filled with warriors. They vibrate like dark teeth. My head is spinning, whole body flushed with electricity. I've never liked psychedelics. Too little control. Osgard jerks me out of the way as a column of Valdir's stormbreakers jog past us in grey, heavy armour painted with blue runes to load into the assault transports. A goddess with a luminous headdress of white feathers floats before a pack of Valkyrie in sky-blue armour. Who is that? I cry. Sefi. She looks fantastic. Yes. She's going down herself? But there are killer robots. He looked at me and I almost scream. The shaman has become a demon. His face is bright blue and his beard smokes. Fire leaks out his eyes and his mouth rumbles an orchestral thunder that is made of semi-solid mutating colours. What if she dies? I hear myself weeping. What happens if Zephy dies? A queen that does not ride at the vanguard is no queen, he bellows as Valdir stomps past looking as big as a thunderhead. His hydra skull bubbles cruel laughter. This is not her death. I have seen the griffin ascend on red wings. I mean, what happens to me? I cry. You are high, my friend. Have courage 
and ride the tumult. His laugh is cruel and mocking, and when he looks at me, lightning flashes in the veins of his black eyes. The whole world goes dark behind him and begins to tremble and distort. I fall down. The hard steel jars me out of the reverie. It's just turbulence, you fool. Osgard picks me up like a toy and wraps my hand around a rung. Stay and witness the griffin rise. He bats my arms away and runs off towards Valdir and Sefi. Don't leave me, I moan. Oh, gods, oh, gods. I curl up on the floor as the monsters trample past. Stay atop the high, stay atop the high. I dive for safety into a pack of crates. Armour. I strap it on. It's too big. Grav boots. I don't want to fall into the ceiling. Lightning crackles there. I strap the boots on. They're huge, but the ankles manage to lock high up on my calves. That'll keep me safe. I grab an insidious weapon from the wall. A rifle of unknown and horrible power. Oh, Jove, what's that? Iridescent sea creatures from the depths of the ocean swim through my eyes, mingling with the warriors. The creatures disappear inside the metal bodies and entwine their souls with the savages the world thought to tame. A dark torrent streams from their mouths and forms a crackling cloud of lightning and unruly thunder over their snowy heads. The song! The death chant of the obsidians. I've heard it before, in the ruins of Luna, but not like this, not ever like this. I don't just hear it. I feel it. The vibrations grip my bones with their terrible beauty. Before the soldiers of the gods, Osgard takes a creature from a pouch and lets it bite his tongue before devouring it whole. The chanting thickens. The clouds swirl. Suddenly he throws off his cloak. He is naked beneath, his whole body painted blue, manhood swinging between his legs like a pendulum of power. He roars a horrible creed as he walks through the obsidians, his arms uplifted, stomping his grav boots. The obsidians join him in stomping, so that it feels like the heartbeat of a dead world awaking. Barger, Duna, he screams and throws down his arms. Duna, Fiel! Valdir and Sefi scream at him. The hangar doors retract, freezing wind pours in like the breath of a cold god, and Sefi is baptized in moonlight ahead of her bloodguard Valkyrie. Valdir and his world-breakers slam their heads together. I close my eyes, praying for it to end, knowing it isn't real. Am I real? Am I real? The darkness seeks to swallow me. Witness! It rumbles to me in Osgar's voice. Terrified, I open my eyes, squinting into the maelstrom of wind. Nyala Targa! Sin Tir Richa! Osgard shouts. The obsidians echo him. He points at Sefi and Valdir and flails his face, summoning the demon from the queen and her mate. Ragna! they scream, and the queen of the Valkyrie and Valdir the Unshorn run forward, two dark blades cutting through the light of the moon. 
their acolytes follow in a blue and grey tide, jumping out the back of the ship in tight, beautiful martial lines that'd make any grey proud. The assault shuttles follow. Boots over the edge of the ship door, Osgard laughs uncontrollably, possessed, as if this were all his making, and he were a god, overjoyed with the fidelity of his children. He points to me and reels my soul toward him. I clutch my terrible rifle tight and abandon my safety. As his arms wrap around me where the floor ends, I feel my terror flee and the evil in him disappears. My jacket whips in the wind, my pants are pierced with freezing air, but I feel nothing but warmth and love and acceptance from his laughter and from his naked body as we stand together overlooking the face of a living world. See! he roars. See! Do you see with your spirit eyes? Mars is captured in twilight. Her two moons watch us on the horizon. Beneath our metal feet is a great white shield mountain of northern Cimmeria. It seems the head of a giant, standing with his feet warmed by the molten core of his world. The city of Nike sweeps from his northwest shoulder toward the sea like a cape of stardust. Explosions flash in the city near its spaceport. Across the landscape, lumps of metal lit by lights hunch in the gloom like little lonely goblins. Mines. They spit no fire. Only their warning sirens flicker, staining the ground red. Their sky guns are down. It's working. Triumph swells in me. The Scoogie did it. Freyhild lowered the defence grid, that beautiful maniac. It's working. I'm not going to be executed. Ore freighters on the horizon drop assault shuttles and airborne obsidian over the winter landscape, over the shield mountain, and along the plains, spitting Sefi's children down on the mines, my plan and the Scoogie prepared for them. The Republic defence fleet won't be able to react. Quicksilver's missiles streak up out of the mountains from hidden installations, but all tribe rip wings swing down to silence them. All the colours dance in a wild, vivid frenzy. The ground, the sky, the ships, the mines, the air itself are alive with spiritual fire. This is the domain of the obsidian, a world within an unseen world. Beneath the hallucination, I feel the beauty and inevitability of this day. For ten years the obsidians were to the Republic as vulgar was to me, doggedly carrying the weight of all the rest, only to be denied the fruits of their labour. Fight, the little one said to them. Kill for us, Valdir. Leave your homeland, but have none of our land, Sefi. Don't shop in our stores, Volga. Don't stand too tall, Volga, because we are afraid of you. Well, a pox on hypocrites one and all. They have their chance, and now the queen of the Valkyrie has come for their helium mines. I find myself proud of them as I laugh with the mad shaman, because in all this stupid, greedy world, the spirit comes alive when you see someone say, No more. Do you see? Osgard shouts beside me with tears in his eyes. His face is like that of a child, not a monster. 
we have come home. Do you see? This is our Volkland. Yes, I proclaim, pumping my dread rifle in the air. Yes, he pushes me back and says he must join. Yes, I shout, we must. He bellows at me, and only after I jump off the edge of the transport ramp do I realise he bellowed at me to stay, that I wear no armour. But I do not care, because the gods protect me. He has seen my fate in the firebones, and I do not die here from the missiles that streak past me. I do not die from the railgun rounds that tear apart the sky. I fly toward a pack of falling Valkyrie, screaming for the glory of the obsidian people and all their justified vengeance. I fall in amongst them. Armoured women and men look at me. They gesture with eyes wide through bone helmets. They are laughing. Onward, Valkyrie, I scream as wind pulls my lips back from my teeth. My grav boots accelerate with a twist of my toes, and I dive toward the vanguard, streaking past Sefi and Valdir, filled with righteous glory, as I tear toward the burning mouth of an open mine, unscathed through tongues of fire, and pierce the crust of the world to land amongst towering behemoths of metal. They turn their glowing evil red eyes toward me, and I laugh when they do not fire, for I am a spirit warrior, and I point my rifle at them, pull the trigger and shit down my leg, because I am alone amongst a pack of hunter-killer robots, and it is no rifle in my hand. It is only a mop. Then Sefi and Valdir land, and the world goes mad. Part 3. Treason During war the laws are silent. Quintus Tullius Cicero Chapter 42 Lysander A Chorus Upon the Pale I run through the water I stole from Ajax's assassins in two days. Though heat stroke is unlikely due to my physiology, dehydration plagues me and obscures even the most basic mental and motor functions. Though my eye was not blinded by the firebrand due to avoiding its core flare, my vision is dreadfully impaired. Three times I nearly lose my way when the features of the desert mislead me and I lose sight of the mountains but I keep as straight a path north as I can, knowing I must eventually run into Erebus if I stay along the mountains. I could not accept Apollonius's help, but I might find some unaffiliated aid in Erebus. If I recover enough, I can decide how to reach Atalantia without chancing Ajax's interference. I eat the meat of cacti and suck the water from desert lotus, but I feel myself fading, I find myself wishing I were back on the Archie, listening to Cassius and Pytha bicker as I lie reading in my bunk. I wish Kalindora were with me, that she hadn't assumed I died. I wish Serafina had simply stepped to the right. Only my anger at the desert itself keeps me going. Everything seems like a bleached mirage now. The sun is a malevolent fat troll that squats over the desert, burning any uncovered skin in fifteen minutes and punishing me when I dare walk in the day. 
I sweat and sleep when I can find shade, and walk through the mornings when the plier is barren of grace. On my fourth day, I find the rotting carcass of a glass leviathan somehow swept in from the sea. The translucent flesh of the giant sea creature writhes with clouds of predatory blood-flies, and a wake of buzzards thick enough to blot out the sky. I steer well around it. When the northern storm sweeps rain-showers over the desert, I lie down in joy to let it soothe my mangled face, and the razor cuts Seneca and his men opened on my thighs and hip. Mercury is a lovely planet, with temperate coasts and mountain hotels, and hot springs and cool valleys and coral seas, but to have all that, it had to have the hell of the Ladan around its equator. I curse the bastards that terraformed this planet, I curse the rocks, I curse the sun, the sand, myself, for needing so much gory damn water, and I curse Ajax. But more so, I curse the culture that let him grow wicked. The peerless scar was formalized by Selenius to mark a gold worthy of respect, not worship. Our rigorous institutes were built to educate us to be shepherds, not cannibals. The world provided Darrow to show us how far we'd lost our way. To fight him, we did not find our path again. We strayed further and further, learning all the wrong lessons. Gradually the desert gives way to a semi-arid climate, as I make my way to more northern latitudes. The transition is subtle, barely noticeable at first, but even the smallest signs of life give me hope. Torrential rain has eroded hillsides, but also seduced weeds and flowers to spring out of the rocky soil. My vision returns enough in my right eye to see green interspersed with brown. The ground is still unforgiving and spartan, but the worst danger is over. Where there is water, anyone can survive. Dealing with spiralling black antlers and birds shaped like fairies, feed off the orange berries of gnarled geranium shrubs, only to zip home to their hive castles amidst cacti the size of houses. While I haven't the strength to hunt either with my razor, I eat as many berries as I can find among the thistles, never minding the cramps the excess fibre causes in my belly. I eat grubs from underneath boulders, and swallow the yolks of bird eggs I find in low shrubs. Tubers and roots make the bulk of my diet, which causes more cramps, until I find a sulphur viper basking in the sun beneath a dead olive tree. I crush its head with a rock and drink its blood, knowing my immune system will likely handle the pathogens it carries. The mild nausea is well worth the valuable vitamins. When I've drained it, I roast its meat-along body over a fire. Its meat is tough and elastic, like langsat flesh, but the calories give me fresh optimism as I make my push toward Erebus. Pausing on a ridge line that leads to a fertile valley, I look back at the desert one last time. It waits there in the distance, patient, eternal, the graveyard of armies, but not me. I turn my back on it, but carry its lessons with me. The next kilometres are almost pleasant. 
While the temperature hovers around 50 degrees Celsius in the morning, frequent showers from the roiling clouds keep me cool and soothe the agony of my burn. Birds twitter in orderly citrus groves, which I eat heavily from as I pass. Following the tracks of an abandoned combine, I find a shed and a small farmhouse that looks to have been abandoned in haste. It has been looted at least once, and I am unable to find medical supplies, but in the garden I find an aloe plant, which I am able to distill into a paste for my burn. It takes the sharp edge off the itching sting, but does little for the deep nerve trauma, and nothing at all for my eye, which throbs down to the very root of the ocular nerve. The power is out in the farm, but it is nice having a puzzle to solve that doesn't include imminent death. In a few hours I am able to rig the solar panels of the combine to work with the stove, on which I cook dry-pressed curry from a fresh can. I also managed to power the ancient H.C. in the living room. The H.C. won't link with the holonet, and instead shows only a society emergency broadcast message giving instructions for all citizens to evacuate Erebos and the surrounding lands for Naran, a hundred kilometres northeast. I think of the tight showers on the Archie as I draw myself a bath. I slip into the cold water and shudder. It is the most pleasant thing I have experienced since the Caldarium with Cassius. My legs are too long for the tub and splay out awkwardly against the fraying wallpaper. It's only then I realise how much weight I've lost. Twenty kilos, maybe? My body looks like it belongs to a rust-lung victim. It is emaciated, any skin exposed to the sun swollen and peeling. I doze lightly in the bath for hours. After drinking another litre of water, I collapse onto the former fab bed and sleep for an entire day. I set back out two mornings after arriving at the farm. I have changed the tattered pulse armour underlining for the farmer's clothing. I look ludicrous, the sleeves barely coming to my elbows and the pants to my shins. I look back at the farm, sorry to leave it, and wonder for a moment if I shouldn't just stay there. What am I rushing back to? A future as Atalantia's rival? A duel with Ajax when he must face what he has done? A short life of politics and betrayal? Revenge, which I don't want, even after Darrow took half my face? To be with my people? Why? Gold has grown sicker in my absence. But even knowing all that, there is still an undeniable itch to return as if my spirit were drawn by gravity. I need to realize the promise I made to Dido, the excuse I gave to Cassius when I betrayed him. I must unite gold. More than that, I must change it. That is what makes me leave the farmhouse behind, that and the understanding that I must help liberate Kalindora, Rhone, and the Praetorians from Heliopolis. It would be immoral not to help those who risked all for me, by the good repair of Seneca's gear, it seems the Ash Legions weren't broken entirely. An invasion will be coming for Heliopolis, one I doubt my friends will survive. The walk to Erebos is leisurely compared with the desert. I cut through groves of wild cypress 
and orchards redolent with the smell of star-heart blossoms. At times I see hovercraft on the horizon, or the occasional society patrol in the lower atmosphere, though black clouds brood to the north. The worst of the storm seems to have passed. I pace myself, stopping frequently to gorge on the food I foraged from the farmhouse and the pack of tangerines pulled from the trees. My route takes me parallel to the Via Gloria, the white, frictionless highway that connects the cities that border the Ladan by land. It is broken by bombardment and littered with blackened Republic assault vehicles and desiccated corpses. I sleep under a grapefruit tree, and the next morning come across a family of sun-baked red natives, walking along a country road, pushing a cart full of their life's belongings. They watch me approach with unease. I greet them politely and comment on the weather, as Mercurians always do. They look at each other, then up and up at me and my melted face, and then they bow. Odd weather, yes, Dominus, the man says quietly. Devil weather, the woman says, with a little more heat, much to her man's distress. Greedy Martian, thought he could break our spirit. Not this spirit, Dominus, the woman says. A little weather won't tame us. Darrow, you mean? Don't even give him a name, Dominus, she says bitterly. His men ransacked our employer's latifundia, took him away, saying he harboured the fear knight. Vail, bless the man. Did it, all with smiles, of course. But when they were done, what have we got left? Just what they left us. We work for our share. We don't take the pity of Martian marauders. She spits. Latifundia went to bits. Our head talk started running the place, but no one ever came for the hall. It's just sitting out there rotting. You with the legions? she asks. You look like you've seen Hades itself, Dominus. I scan the road behind her. Only its gatekeepers. If there's anything you desire. Her eyes dart to my burned face, and she waves to her cart again to her husband's distress. They barely have enough for themselves. Just information. Have you seen any society forces? I ask. Fear Knight's men were through here not too long ago, Dominus. Never know where you can find them, though. Like veiled spirits they are. Rest of the legions are out to the east, last I heard. A bastion set down. Here there be ash legions in Naran. It's flooding with refugees from Tyche and the coast. Poor souls. Whole city's gone. We're heading east to the Riverlands. Here they're hiring folk out there for the clean-up. There's no legions in Erebos, I say in confusion. Erebos? It's drowned, Dominus, the man says. I frown. The waves couldn't have come this far. What do you mean, drowned? By late morning I summit a hill that looks down into the valley of Erebos and see for myself. Erebos was a proud library city once, a serene and bucolic vanity created as a gift for my grandmother by the master-maker Glerastes. The high city, all in thrall to the great library, was hewn from the back of a low mountain just beneath a great dam. The dam protected the city from seasonal floods, caused by the melting of mountain snow, a quick affair under Mercury's sun. When I saw it as a child at Glerastes's side, I deemed it a giant turtle with a vine-wrapped city upon its back. 
he grumbled that it was a tortoise representing the patience and inevitable victory of knowledge. Now it is a watery necropolis. The great dam has broken, the pulse fields likely failing during the storm. The rush of water left a path of destruction across the city so thorough it would be a wonder if anyone survived. Carrion birds rule here now. There are no medical teams from either army, only bands of refugees across the flooded valley and plains beyond, trundling north in lines by the thousands. I sit down, finally feeling the exhaustion of the last week in my bones. Darrow has broken the planet. A sense of futility rises in me. What could anyone do to fix this? Resolving to refill my water and connect with one of the refugee trains, I stumble down the foothills, passing through forests entirely scalped by the wind. Not a tree stands. I wade through fields of lavender, where bees still pollinate, and draw to a halt. At the foot of the Via Gloria, a peculiar arrangement sprawls around the Arch of Octavia, which leads into the city. Even with my blurry vision, I know what it is. I walk down the hill. There beside the great archway, I find a scene of horror. Amongst a sea of lavender, the remains of more than four hundred humans hang upon metal poles, blistering and naked, but for the wake of buzzards that clothe them in feathers of yellow and scarlet. The poles that puncture the humans are as thick as my wrists, sharp at the point and tapered. Each has been driven into the anal cavity of the victim to the point of perforating the mid-torso. In death the legs droop, the back arches, the arms wing out and downward, and the head reclines backward, as if each victim perished in exultation. Sockets picked clean by the birds stare at the sky. A great hunk of stone stands at the entry to this atrocity, bearing the message— here lie Martians all, thralls of the slave king, who thought with wicked delight to take your planet's treasure and break their master's might. All ye who enter here witness their work and despair. The flooded city is their work, and the impalement ours. Is this what the society thinks will inspire the people to return to the fold? Atlas was no monster in the court of my grandmother. He was odd, always rather cold to me, and quick to leave the room when I entered. He despised children. Though he and Aja made Ajax together, their coupling entailed no relationship from what I understand. In fact, Aja could barely stand the sight of the man. But I cannot believe my father's best friend would be this new monster. Though he was formerly a hostage— my grandmother trusted Atlas without equal. He spurned galas and festivals, and seemed only to stir himself from his library when my grandmother required his unique services. What they were, I never saw until now. I have always held in respect those golds who do not relish their station. Atlas never seemed to. Yet he has let his gorgons loose in ways that demean any claim we have to dignity. So my judgment on him is harsh. 
I stumbled down the line to see the faces of the dead, thinking obscurely that someone should witness them here. All the families they represent, all the strands of life that are linked to theirs. Cruelty will travel down those lines, ensnaring more and more. No one has come to take them down. No footprints have even come within a hundred meters. There is a whispering. It comes from a young red man. A sound comes from one of the red bodies, a whispering. He is alive. Barely more than a boy, a faint bit of hair covers his top lip, his cracked lips part, trying to say something more. I give him the remaining water from my pouches. Most of it spills down his chest. He tries to speak again. I edge closer to hear him. The veil. Send me. It's then I notice perhaps as many as a dozen still wheeze, their burned skin rising and falling with each insidious breath. I do not care if there are enemies, if impaling is an effective tactic, or even if they deserve this judgment, it is not the jurisdiction of any man to deliver it. I go closer to the boy. My mouth is so dry I barely manage the words. Are you certain? He cannot reply until I spill some of my water into his mouth. Send me. There, so close to him, I can see the flecks of copper, brown, and even gold in his red irises. I feel a terrible sadness. I wish I knew that the eyes of his spirit looked upon his veil, that his ancestors were waiting for him in their cool highland valley. But I know it is not so because I know the veil was created and cultivated by the Board of Quality Control in order to provide an important sociological prerequisite for obedience, a carrot at the end of a hard life. That very same belief that made them able to endure untold hardship in the mines has become a militant faith. He begins to whisper as I draw my razor, My love, my love, Remember the cries, when winter died. He is joined by the others, until there is a rasping chorus there upon the pale. The Bologna razor's leather hilt is warm from the sun. Tension travels down my arm as the blade penetrates his chest and then his heart. Go to your people, I whisper. He jerks and then is still. More men and women beg for mercy down the line. I move to the next man. He's an older red with a thick beard shot with white and a face like a bulldog's. He begs for mercy. But when I stand in front of him, he and several others begin to laugh. I blink in confusion. Their faces swim in the heat. Why are they laughing? Burn with us, you golden cunt, he manages from a mouth crusted with blood, burn with Mars. Then I understand the trick. I do not move. I look down, knowing what it must be. I push lavender out of the way and blow down into the dirt. A thin mat of pressure-sensitive material lies under the topsoil. If I move my foot, the mine hidden beneath will make me a shower of meat. Even if I dive away, only two minds of the hundreds this war employs have a blast radius I'd be able to clear. I was trying to help you, I say, 
I was trying to be decent. The red just laughs, through teeth shattered to the nerve. Without a way to apply equal pressure to my weight on the pad, I dig a small tunnel through the dirt adjacent to the pad to reach the mine. Blindly reaching into the hole, I graze the side casing of the munition. It's a Lotus 13, judging by the octagonal top rim. If I can slide my razor between the pressure pad and the mine, I should be able to sever the hard wire connection. With hands shaking from adrenaline, I toggle the razor's edge to the thinnest setting possible, so the blade is narrow as a piece of paper, a hand's width wide. I slide it sideways down into the hole and trip a countermeasure. Bwee, bwee! Dirt and shredded lavender explode up into my face. I'm blasted upward. I lose my razor. The air rushes out of me as I land hard on my back. Something constricts around me, ensnaring. I push at it, but it cuts my fingers, and the more I push, the more it constricts. A tack net, I realize in relief. Not an explosive. But the relief is short-lived, as I realize my predicament. I lie there in the morning sun, the only shade cast by the poles, the lavender stalks, and the bees. The meters to my razor and water might as well be a thousand. Every time I try to roll or wiggle closer, the net constricts more until it breaks the skin of my scalp. Soon I am immobilized, with blood trickling down my face. For hours I lie there as the sun traces its way across the sky, leaching my body of water as it forms blisters on my exposed skin. I'm the color of a tomato. The lavender sways, the bees buzz, the buzzards chew— I drift in and out of consciousness, woken only when the buzzards engage in a hearty squabble for a choice piece of thigh meat. The red man is dead. They feed on him and watch me. If I could laugh, I would. Heir of Selenius, eaten by birds at the feet of reds, because he tried to be merciful. Lesson learned. It was my guilt for the Vindabona and the helpless people I left for the Obsidians that distracted me. I should have known about the mines. I see those victims I abandoned now on the hill, lying in tacknets, watching me with smiles, waiting for me to join them in death. All those lives lost, so I could save Seraphina, who ran to her own slaughter with a smile. Well, look at this fresh cat one of the victims says to me. "'And a blood traitor by the looks of it,' says another. "'He killed some of the bait. "'Scar!' Heavy desert boots stop in front of me. A child's face bends down from the sky and peers into mine. Something is wrong. It is the colour of a dust moth's wings. Oh, it's a mask. Purple works its way into the mask as its wearer crouches near the lavender.' He's missing half his gory damn face. Eyeballs all mush. A gloved hand twists my head. No scar. We got ourselves a pixie, lads. They're gorgons. Rising? Who else? We don't send unscarred boys to battle. Let's leave him to bubble. This trap's done. Shit to show for it. 
Stragglers are all herded into Heliopolis for the big hammer. One of them whistles. Look at the detailing on his big iron. Skiantus made, bet my life. Slag off. How would you know what a Skiantus blade looks like? You wouldn't even be able to afford the hilt. The Minotaur had one. Treated it like a thirsty lady. Always running his fat mouth about it. See the flower petals? Where? Over the wing. If you say so. What's a pixie doing with a piece like that? If it don't fit, it's howler shit. Searching for trackers and let's ride. Fear will sort it. The child's face looks down at me again as I try to speak. Time to take a nap, traitor. The last thing I see is his boot coming down. Chapter 43 Lysander The Enemy The Gorgons travel via grav bike. The ride is long and covers several hundred kilometers back the way I walked, back into the damned desert. In the late afternoon they make a stop in a high desert town surrounding a large mine. I watch, tied to the back of a grav bike, as low-color townsfolk run out to greet the butchers like heroes. Children run along as we trail out of the town, heading toward the snow line of the mountains. Clouds eddy across the darkening sky as the grav bikes slow to go single file along a mountain track. We come to an abrupt halt. Boots crunch the snow, and something hits me again on the head. When I regain consciousness, I am cold and wet. The floor is stone. I do not open my eyes yet. My hands are chained above me, bracketed into the wall of a cave. Streams run to either side. Hushed voices converse. He never asks us any questions, never any. He just takes something away. I told him all I could think of. I just wanted it to stop. The man sobs. Spare us your weeping, Hadrian. It's bad enough already without you bubbling like a Venusian harlot. Let him be, Ignatius. We've all told him something, Hadrian. It's prime, brother. He made time slow down. Something he gave me, I could feel every molecule as he took, as he... The words are lost in the sobs. How many guards have you counted, Drusilla? He hoods me every time. What's it even matter what we've seen? We know he's listening right now. That's the only reason he'd let us stay together. How many howlers has he caught? How many have been retrieved? One, and Orion was so mad he fucked a continent. We're dead, good men. Go with dignity, at least. Soon we'll be upon the pale. Sure, dignity with a metal pole up your ass. Sounds like a Tuesday for you, Ignatius. A beat of silence. The boss will come for us, the leader says. Faithful to the end, Alex. Your red god is drowned by now, or blasted to bits. The only grace we'll receive is the void. But that's prime. It's just nothing, after all. He's not dead. You really did go full lupus. The whole army is dead, because of the Senate Vox... "'Taking our ships, the tiny bastards. "'Heliopolis will have fallen in the siege, "'and the army will have been trapped in the desert "'under the guns of the Ash Armada. "'They're probably already nailing Darrow "'to the bow of the Anielo to sail on Luna. "'Then why are we still in a cave?' "'There are at least five around me, "'all of them golds. "'Martian accents, mostly, 
Elysian, with a faint flavour of the Jovian moons. I listen a little longer. Europan dialect? Howlers? Darrow? Alex? The accents. It leaves little left to guess. There are two others sleeping. How many more I can't tell because of the sound of the stream. I would guess nine. Scarface is awake and listening to us, the one called Ignatius says. Are you awake, my good man? Another asks with more authority. The leader. His accent would be near cultured, but for how he mumbles. Don't be afraid. We're all fucked here. Eyes open or closed. Doesn't much matter. He laughs with thin confidence. I make a show of opening my right eye. There are ten other prisoners chained as I am against the wall. Two are sleeping. Two gorgons sit about thirty metres off in the throat of a tunnel. That is the room's only exit. Told you he was awake, Ignatius says. He's a huge, handsome brute. I don't see a scar, the woman says, Drusilla. Like they weren't wise to that after year one, Ignatius says. What's your name? Drusilla asks. Her face is darker than the rest. Kind eyes watch me from swollen eyelids. Easy now, my good man, Alexander says. You've been mauled rather gruesomely. Even with both his ears missing and half his face grotesquely swollen, I can tell he is around my own age and that he used to be a handsome man. Staggeringly, I wager. His shoulders are incredibly broad for his frame. Legs meant to eat kilometres are folded under him. The last time I saw him was in a hollow Cassius and I watched on the Archie as he stood behind Darrow during a speech. Alexander our Arcos, Lorne's grandson, my estranged cousin, and Kalindora's nephew on his mother's side. What's your name? he asks. Take your time. Concussions befuddle the best of us. I heed Octavia's ministrations, and fall back on an identity with long-term upside, which I can defend, and they will be unable to verify. Can't be rising, can't be society, I have no scar on my face, and can properly emulate the Mercurian dialect popular in what counts as high society in Erebos. The identity is natural, and a little hilarious, but I'm half mad from dehydration so I dive in. Cato our Vitruvius, I say. The identity I used for security reasons when I would visit Glerastes for studies. It belongs to a fictional son of a real local family of high history and middling future. Salve, Cato. I'm Alexander, Drusilla, Ignatius, Crastus, Hadrian. In turn he nods at the kind-eyed woman, the giant, a pretty man in his thirties, at a squat bull of a gold male. The Knights of Elysium, at your service, such as we are. Oh, now you're a Knight of Elysium, Drusilla mutters. Arcosian Knights, one corrects. Who are you? Ignatius demands of me. He means, how did you end up in this hell? Alexander asks. He smiles crimson. Not one of his teeth remains. I'm surprised by the kindness of him, considering. He looked haughtier on camera, and Grandmother's Securitas file said he was incredibly arrogant, intelligent, if not too creative, with a paternal deficit complex after the death of his father. His defensiveness of the Reaper suggests the complex's newest placeholder. 
I tell the Minerva's story of the dam breaking at Erebos. Ordnance falling on the city accounts for my burns, trying to rescue survivors for the sunburns, and trying to take the impaled victims down for the tacnet wounds. Drusilla asks me sly trick questions about my home, suggesting she's been to Erebos. But so have I, and I trapped it all in amber. I can still see the silk market and the bright belts of the citizens and the gold filigree in every single street sign. I pass their meagre tests. You have been here a while, haven't you? I ask. Yet, Alex replies with another trap. Pardon? I ask, flummoxed. You're not a soldier, are you? Alexander says. Another assumption trap. I don't understand. Never mind. I hardly know a single mate who's enough money to pull the institute, I reply. My parents are, were, silk merchants, and not grand ones by any judge. Then what did you do? Drusilla asks. Drank, mostly, I reply. My father bribed the magistrate to let me stay in Erebos after the conscription, as a civil engineer magistrate. War is such a ghastly affair. I give a little shudder. So he's a duty-dodging pixie. I'm not swallowing this snake shit, Ignatius says. He's a plant, or at the very least a slaver by participation. So's every person on Mercury, according to you. They all act like it. Anything you get out of hugging a Mercurian is a knife in the back. They're all swindlers and drunks, the sun-dark lot of them. I'm darker than him, Drusilla says. Semantics. Will you two hens stop pecking? Alexander snaps. Why do you want to know how long we've been here, Cato? It's just that Heliopolis hasn't fallen, I say. You said it must have. Even Ignatius listens intently. I heard from a man who'd been in the Ladan that Darrow led his army across the desert under the cover of the storm. He hit Ajax Algrimus as he was besieging the city. That madness worked, Alexander asks. He grins hideously with empty gums at Ignatius. I told you, the boss has everything under control. Or he's lost control completely. Chapter 44 Ephraim Hunt of the Last Light Xenophon leads me into the scoogie hangar with a bored expression on that wan face. Gods is quiet, I mutter. Not in the city below, where construction crews work night and day to bring Olympia to its former glory, or in the lands around, which vibrate with the sound of obsidian flocking to the Vogueland, or on the coasts, where all tribe rip wings eye republic fighters across the thermic, or in the mines, where reds and oranges hijack Quicksilver's robots to continue helium operations. It is quiet in Eagle Rest, and only Eagle Rest, because Sefi and Valdir have taken the children to hunt. My Scoogie are off on missions, and I am left, like an old man, to rattle around an abandoned house. Walk faster, please. We mustn't be late to the kill, the Logos says. Maybe we should be heading to the landing pads then, genius. We are, in a way. 
We turn the corner and I stop, dead in my tracks. One of the most beautiful ships I've ever seen sits beside ugly, scoogy, tactical ships, like a two-comma pink in a front-line brothel. She is sixty metres long, sleek-hulled, equipped with twin ion engines, two railguns, sensor-resistant hull, and is shaped like a sideways hammerhead shark. She's painted jade green. Apollo's cock, that's a beauty. A gift from Her Majesty, Xenophon says, handing me the slim Omnicard. No, it is in your contract, a top-tier flyer. It was collected from Quicksilver's mansion in Nike. I dare say you'll get more use out of it than he will. I put in the contract because I thought I'd need an escape route out of here. I never expected to actually get it, just when I'm thinking I may not need it. Still, I snatch the Omnicard and practically levitate toward the ship. She's not just a racer, she's a deep space tigress. Could probably run from Mars to the sun in two weeks flat. Well, maybe not that fast. Keep in mind, tracking measures have been installed and the children aren't allowed within a kilometre of it. Uh-huh. I run my hand over the hole. What's the catch? Xenophon smiles as a gaggle of dignitaries comes around the corner. I fear her maiden voyage will be as a taxi. What will you call her? I turn back to grin at the white. Snowball. It's green. Still a snowball. As the South Pole slumps toward the gloom of winter, a wind the obsidians call Breath of the Underdark moans through the glacial valley. This slow, incessant current will freeze the eyelashes off a man and blacken the skin in twenty minutes. It signals the beginning of darkness for the pole. From the warm confines of my thermal gear, two-thirds the way up a young mountain, all I feel is a gentle tug of nature telling me I don't belong. I look around, and the crouched braves behind me give a nod and murmur. Kalt Granier! Near Granier! Kan Niek Kalt! Another says. Fair Ronier there! En la! I dust snow off my shoulder. Cold. Grey fox? Nah. Grey fox. Can't get cold. God fire burns inside him. I'm a walking, talking totem of invulnerability, a spirit warrior, proof of the existence of gods. Only Osgod knows I was under major psychotropic influence during the mine heist. The obsidians either don't know or don't care that the hunter killers didn't fire on me because I had grey DNA and held a mop. I wasn't touched by the gods. I just wasn't a threat, according to their software. All they know is that when Sefi and Valdir caught up, I stood amongst the enemy howling like an ice-veined banshee. Sefi and Valdir hit like the hammer of God five seconds after I landed. Can't rid myself of the sight of armoured obsidians hacking at tripod robots or how their meat smelled as a robot lasers cleaved through five braves at a time. Thirty-five thousand obsidian crack troops died, 
cleaning out the hunter-killers in the mines of Samaria. And me? Not a bloody scratch. Osgard got me drunk for three solid days. Pax stood in amused silence when he saw me being carried on the shoulders of Valkyrie. Electra literally almost died laughing when I told them what's what afterwards in my rooms in Olympia. I thought she'd be jealous, but she thinks it's the funniest thing she's ever bloody heard, though the mop jokes are rather overdue. Now she actually talks to me without looking like she wants to cut my balls off. That's all it took. Freyhild and the Skoogie are drunk with valour for their part in taking the mines. Several of the females have even been given the honour of taking part in the hunt. The men stand on the ledge with me, Valdir and the highest-ranking male Jarls, tribal leaders. They were no less brave in battle, and they know it. It's always been this way, but that doesn't mean they like it. Sefi and Pax peer off a ledge not twenty metres away, amongst a long pack of Valkyrie hunters. The furs they were are crusted in a shell of ice from days of tracking. It crackles when they move and twinkles when light from the shoulder lamps of the mechanised guards catches in the gloom. For six days, the Valkyrie have stalked their prey, while Electra accompanied Freyhild on the stalking expedition to the White Shards, Pax accompanied Sefi to find scale trace of the sundered peaks. The know-it-all could tell you the molecular structure of obsidian arrowheads, but couldn't have cared less the day of their departure. The boy misses his mother. Apparently, Sefi knows something about children. It's difficult to hold on to grief after six days of white-out conditions, frostbite, saddle sores, and sleeping in seal-hide lean-tos. Pax knows how lucky he is to sit in the saddle behind her. Of the obsidian braves, not even Valdir ever has mounted a griffin for a hunt. Pax's melancholy has been replaced by intense focus. His head snaps back when a high-pitched whistle echoes across the glacial valley, several notes higher than the screaming wind. Xenophon, wrapped to his nose in thermal gear, explains to the political guests I ferried on the snowball, Valdir is in motion. The chasers are out. The beast is flushed from its alpine cavern. The killwing waits. Sefi waits. The snow settles on her shoulders and bone helmet. She looks like a god of winter, a permanent and unyielding feature of the mountain. A second whistle trills. The younger Valkyrie look to her in expectation. The older hunters know the queen's patience and stay motionless. The guests murmur in excitement. A third whistle sounds, impatient, urging her forward. Sefi resists. Pax shoots her a glance. Seconds tick past. And then Sefi raises a clenched fist. Slear! She whispers, jumping off the ledge. A horn moans. Slear! 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 shout the Valkyrie and fifty women slip over the edge. Pax goes with. Hunt! Xenophon parrots. The Valkyrie disappear, and a moment later a series of screams rises from the other side of the ridge. Sefi's pale steed bursts off the ledge beneath. Pax rides in the archer's saddle behind her, not out of place or afraid like I thought he'd be. A rush of air forces snow into my mouth 
as several griffin banking overhead dislodge snowdrifts above. Two red allies stumble into each other, laughing and marvelling at the mounted Valkyrie, careening down into the valley keening death. Bare-armed in the cold, Valdir steps forward and watches with a practised eye and a purity of awe, love and jealousy. Anyone could see how much he wishes to fly upon the beasts of his people. I don't like the man. He's a closed book, but I feel for him. No longer a slave of Grimace, but still not quite free. Your first hunt? Xenophon asked me, taking a pause from the narration so the onlookers can collect themselves. I nod. Not yours, it seems. My third. During the war, Her Majesty would return when she could to honour the Sundeath. I believe she feared she would forget who she was if she spent too long away from the ice. I advised her against this hunt, however. Osgard and Valdir seemed bullish enough. They would. It may invigorate the spirit of the shaman and satisfy Valdir's expectations of a queen, but such considerations are specious for a modern head of state, given the unnecessary exposure to risk. Not to mention the details of state which pile up in her absence. I designed her government to function with a monarch. Without one, it functions at fifty percent efficiency, not that Valdir or the madman would care for such trivialities. Xenophon looks around. Have you seen the madman? He's probably drunk in a cargo hold somewhere, I say, growing annoyed. I want to watch the hunt. It is a high probability. The sexless mammal squints to the west as Valdir points and calls out to the others. Ah, the drake. Excuse me. I look west. Scales glint in the gloom, rippling low against the snowy boulders of the valley floor. The glint becomes a blur that becomes a leviathan of the ice. Though I know its ancestors were carved by mad violets in conjunction with yellow geneticists, the ice drake seems an ancient creature, something older than we are. I realize I've forgotten to breathe. This specimen is a black ice drake, of the Nidhagger strain, one of the rarest and most revered creatures in obsidian mythology, Xenophon explains to the guests. He who strikes with malice is said to be the bringer of winter. This one is an old bull, as can be divined by the nine lateral tusks and triple horn which mark his decades. Of course, the hunting of sows is forbidden and punishable by the blood eagle. The guests whisper with awe, as if the creature were magical and not thirty tons of lab-engineered death. Pursued by Valdir and her chasers, the bull tears through the mountain valley. Even at our distance, I feel a chill. The obsidian guards watch in appreciation, Valdir in pure love. Few would have ever seen a drake in flight or slipped into a lair to kill and drink the blood of a hatchling to begin the way of stains. The drake spots Sefi's hunting band ahead and banks right, thinking to escape over the north side of the valley. 
thunder crackles from the peaks. Obsidian youths, who summited the mountains with hooks and rope, light sulphur-based charges into their braziers and launch them into the clouds with slings. Used claps of sound frighten the dragon back and forth across the valley as it seeks some escape, only to be herded again and again by small explosions from surrounding peaks. Someone screams as it banks our way. Amidst the guards, Scoogie light fuses on the brazier and hurl the clay bombs into the air. They laugh as the pots explode. Goodkind tosses me too. I light them and hurl them skyward. Boom! Boom! The rush of air from the drake's wings nearly knocks me off my feet. It passes a stone's throw from us. Debris and rocks the size of a man's head are crusted in the ice along the worm's belly. Attendants scatter, laughing in relief as it pinballs back down into the alley toward the queen. Valdia rushes to the cliff's edge to lean forward and watch. Scores follow him. Above a frozen alpine lake, an inverted V of Valkyrie hunters forms around the drake. Sefi waits at the far tip of the V to deliver the killing stroke. But as the first arrows from the obsidians fly from their flanks, the drake uses an updraft to go into precarious climb. It knocks two griffins from the air. Their riders flail from the saddles, but their safety ropes snap them back toward their tumbling steeds. One recovers. The other collides with a mountainside below as her griffin is bisected by the razor tips of the drake's wings. The guests are horrified. Valdir touches his heart. A good death. His eyes search the chasers, young griffin riders with more spirit than experience looking for Freyhild, I reckon. My optics pick her up by the green plumes of her headdress. Electra sits in the archer saddle behind her, priming combustible arrows. Sefi blows a horn, and the griffin V inverts as the riders kick their griffins into motion. The beasts bank upside down and race beneath the drake as Freyhild leads the chasers to follow it to the higher altitude. Huge sounds rattle the valley as they shoot arrows with combustible tips to herd it back down. The sound scares the dragon off its ascent, forcing it back towards Sefi's reformed V near the ground. The first of Sefi's hunters begin to harry the drake, soaring past to hurl spears or shoot arrows into its side. Only Sefi continues flying away from it, pushing her griffin two hundred metres past the rest before she banks back around. Her wing sisters pull taut ropes connected to the spears and arrows embedded in the creases of the dragon's scales. The first riders are jerked sideways by its mass, but soon more than twenty ropes are secured, and together the sky hunters anchor the drake along its path toward their queen. The weakest scale is just beneath the dragon's eyes, Xenophon explains as I switch to long-range optics. A difficult shot for even the most skilled archer. Sky hunters aid their daughters in crafting their first bow from god-tree wood and the gut string of leopard seals. Only when the daughters are strong enough to draw this bow do they begin to practice marksmanship. Two more bows will they make before they fashion their sky bow from the horn of a Tangrisnir goat. In her time, Sefi killed six ice drakes with her bow, named in honour of her father, 
promise of pale horse, the same bow which slew two gold overlords of this province on the day of breaking. Harnessed from the sides, the dragon continues its course towards Sefi, not yet noticing her. Two hundred meters, one hundred, Pax hands her the sky bow from her saddle. It is twice as long as a man. She knocks a great arrow. The drake will be slowing from the marrow-fish venom in its veins, Xenophon says. But the drake seems, if anything, even angrier. Sefi stands in her stirrups. The drake is at eighty metres. She draws back on the bow. And then... Nothing. She seems to freeze. I zoom in with my hood's optics. She draws back on the string again and again stops halfway, unable to summon enough strength to draw the arrow back to her face, much less her ear. Xenophon has gone silent. Valdia stands. Something is wrong. The drake is fifty metres out and sees only Sefi and Pax blocking his escape atop God-Eater. Sefi's given up trying to shoot and veers her God-Eater swiftly down and to the left. The drake follows, lashing out with its wings and severing half the ropes while hurling other sky hunters, including Freyhild, through the air. Electra nearly falls from the saddle. Something's gone terribly wrong. The drake closes on Pax and Sefi, extending its neck to impossible length. Its teeth snap off the back of their saddle, almost tearing Pax in half. God-Eater slashes futilely against the hard scales. The drake coils its neck for another lunge when Freyhild slashes past and buries a spear in its eye, just missing the sweet spot. She hurls herself from her griffin and lands on the dragon's head, burying two climbing hooks. She's tossed sideways, almost losing her perch. The drake ignores her and bears down again on Sefi and Pax, trapping them against the valley's side. God-Eater scrambles along the sheer walls, unable to escape. I act without thinking. I rush to a stupefied brave and demand his rifle. The creed forbids it, a guard growls. Fuck your creed, I jerk at the rifle. But in his hardened grip it goes nowhere. Give him the rifle, Valdir orders from behind. Grudgingly, the guard surrenders it. Praying I've not run out of time, I rush past the gawking onlookers and fall prone, steadying the barrel on a divot in the rocks. This energy pack whines as it charges up. The targeting computer is slow to start. I go analogue. Thanks to the guard's delay, I've lost time. The lights from the nearby shuttles reflect against the optic. They disappear. I glance sideways to see Valdir blocking them for me with his body, not his first time as a spotter. For a moment, I think he won't let me take the shot. I could hit Freyhild but he nods. Wait for it to turn its head. I peer back into the optic. God-Eater has gone to ground, trapped by the drake on a rocky scree, as the other Valkyrie fruitlessly try to regroup and bypass its razor wings. Only Freyhild protects her queen, stabbing in vain at the thick scales of the drake's head, but her efforts dirty my shot. I sink into my breathing and try to forget Valdir looming over my shoulder, as I settled the crosshairs on Freyhill's back. The dragon's head is faced away. She blocks the shot. Move! Move! My hands shake from nerves. 
her arms raised to plunge the spear into the back of the dragon's neck. I wait for it to sink deep. It bites into the meat behind the ear slits. The drake whirs its face around, snapping at her. I aim two hands above her shoulder and squeeze. A beam of white light divides the gloom. A city forms around the downed drake on the frozen plain. It is called a Drekenhauger, a dragon mound. Tribeswomen and men of the Valkyrie spires, along with a great many of their allied tribes, bring huge logs for the bonfire on sleds pulled by aurochs. Lesser shamans ferry vats of hard grog, bury liquor called azag, and sweet mead and leather gourds the size of bathtubs. Chanting and drums resound from a train of thousands as they flow into the valley to witness the last harvest of light. They chant Freyhill's name and mine, protectors of the Queen. The young Scoogie sways over to where I stand with Pax and Xenophon, in a great bear cloak, and wraps me in a hug. They sing of us, Granir. They sing of the glory of our arms. No sound is sweeter. Here I thought they'd pin me to a rock and splay open my ribs, I say to Freyhild. A poacher's gun is not a poacher's heart, she says, then draws close. But I would have killed it on my own. She sees me eye the cooked skin of her right shoulder. Close shot, close shot. She saunters away, laughing and shouting encouragement to the harvesters. Did you know you would hit it? Xenophon asks. I knew I had a chance. The white considers that. And if you had killed her while Valdir stood over your shoulder? I doubt we'd be having this conversation. True enough. Now I believe I've had enough excitement for the day. I must return to my functions. See you at the party. First drinks on me. I am not invited. The white looks me up and down. Your assimilation isn't surprising. You display traits any martial culture would value. I, on the other hand, will always be an alien. Enjoy the sun death. I am told its colour composition can be quite moving to the warrior spirit. The white sways away toward a flyer to be taken back to the echo of Ragnar, which Sefi disappeared inside as soon as it set down on a mesa overlooking the valley. The destroyer more a mobile city of war than a ship, makes even the mountains look small. That's one sad human, I say to Pax. They're not sad, Pax murmurs, more focused on the harvesting than our blathering. If anything, they're sad that they're not sad. I soon forget about Xenophon. The harvest is a sight. Young braves climb the dragon's flank, wedging climbing hooks between the slippery scales to carve the most flavorful meat from the sides of the spine. Electra races several obsidian youths up the side and has them beat by ten meters when a dead scale sheaves off and she plummets back down the flank, hits the elbow of a dragon's broken wing, ricochets and plunges into a gaping incision made by harvesters. When she emerges covered with gore, the obsidians whoop with laughter. Poised on the ridge of the dragon's back, 
The crews use levers to dislodge the scales and long saws to butterfly the spine. Great hunks of meat are stacked in steaming piles atop a parade of sledges, brought in ceremonial fashion by youths as the elders drink and call capricious instructions. Pax whispers the destiny of each body part to me. The scales are for ceremonial rites and griffin battle armour, the joint fluid and eyes for poultices and elixirs, the blubber for candles and lamps, and to be mixed with berries to make a dish called artukai, the liver and brain to be eaten frozen or raw. Obviously, cooking would destroy the vitamin C. Obviously. I poke his hip. You're not wearing your harness. We were hunting. I slap his head. I told you to always wear your harness, the harness he made himself in his garage. After all, I got a ship now. Which? he asks. The jade one. He whistles. Too good for you. A group of sky hunters with pierced noses and tattered ears stomp over to me to give a sign of respect. The women look at Pax and cover their eyes in shame. He pretends not to care as he examines my ship in the distance. Looks like you're the foreman, I say. Naturally. What happened up there? Why could Sefi not draw her bow? He focuses on the harvesting, pretending to not notice the scornful looks passing braves give him. The cord has an immensely strong molecular composition, but can contract if not protected from the cold. I forgot to keep it in its heat sheath during the stalks. Is that true? He makes no expression. Of course. I am a heatlander and a man. It was expected I would draw the god's ire by joining the sacred hunt. I forgot my duties to my wingleader. When was the last time you forgot anything? He looks over with a chiding expression. Sometimes it's better to let a wheel squeak than break the cart trying to fix it. The truth sits unspoken between us. Either the bowstring was tampered with, which seems an awkward way to assassinate Sefi, or something is wrong with Sefi herself. But how wrong? Oh, shit! What is that? I cry as harvesters pull two brain-sized gelatinous sacks from the drake's belly. The testicles, of course. They have intense hallucinogenic properties when dried and ground down. Berserkers use them to summon the winter rage. Now they are forbidden per Sefi's decree. I wince as the testicles are tossed onto a fire by a shaman. No wonder the men never speak up around here. At a jingle behind us, Pax's face lights up. Lo, Osgard, he calls, as the shaman arrives on a sleigh pulled by two blue-painted aurochs, each with tiny bells hanging from their great ivory horns. The shaman drinks from a hollow tusk, and jumps down from a bed of furs to greet us. Stupid Heatlander, he snaps at Pax, striking at him with his riding crop. Everyone talks, brave to pup. You forgot Stringard. You embarrass me. You embarrass all men. You nearly killed our queen. He gesticulates drunkenly. They think I am stupid. Teach you nothing. He tosses Pax a hooked blade as long as Pax's leg. 
Do not sit back in shame. Go, harvest. Unless you forgot my instructions. I need two kilos liver, ten kilos lung, one kilo spleen, two ounce flame ichor, and four gonad veins. Do not embarrass me again, stupid boy. Without objecting, Pax departs at a jog, good little soldier. Bit late, I say to Osgard. Should have used boots or ships. Osgard sighs and punches his most muscled aurochs on the flank. Preparing for my godspeak in ruins of spires. Nethelfjar sensed evil spirits within a crag. Became frightened. I gave him grog, and he found his courage. The aurochs sways back and forth drunker than his shaman. Osgard squints at Pax joining the harvesters, who make a show of excluding him. It is sacrilege to kill a high beast with a firearm, Osgard says. Valkyrie nailed two poachers to a rock, and had a buzzard eat their liver for just that two weeks past. I've been told, I say, as another group of sky hunters come to pay their respects to me. What's wrong with Sefi? I ask as they depart. He doesn't hear me. What was the alien doing during this? What is it with you two? I mutter. Xenophon didn't cast a spell. And you know as well as I do that Pax can draw Olympia by memory from a single glance. Kid didn't forget to warm a stupid string. So what's wrong with Sefi? He pours himself more grog and pretends not to have heard me. When the sun dies tonight, I go to read the firebones. It is custom for the drake slayers to bear the bones. I expect you will observe this custom at least. That night, in the small city that has grown about the remains of the dragon, the children of the spires, last of Ragnar's people, throw one hell of a party for the dying sun. They light a great bonfire of dragon fat and mountain pine. In the flames, great hunks of flesh are roasted on long skewers and served with wild tubers, mountain berries, oysters, and great horns of grog passed out by a stout obsidian man with no nose. Freyhild and I are given fresh necklaces of dragon's teeth to mark us as the drake slayers. Mine is given with a degree of comedy and grumbling from Valdir's conservative cohort, but not Valdir himself. As the obsidians feast and laugh, Osgard leads a troop of braves wearing masks made from the bones of sacred tribal creatures. They pretend they are ice sprites, dropping little diamonds in cups or tucking thin bars of gold behind ears. The warriors wheel about, trying to catch the sprites, only to snag empty air and roar with laughter. If they are caught, the sprites must drink until their captor is satisfied. I catch three, including poor Goodkind, and send them reeling from grog to pass out by the fire. Sprawled on furs, Electra listens to obsidian veterans tell stories about their days with the goblin. Pax bickers back and forth in Nagal, with one of Sefi's war chiefs, about the strategic necessity of his father using the storm gods on Mercury. 
I sit in comfort, warmed by the fire, light-headed from the grog, and satiated by the meat from the hunt. I've not felt this tranquil in years. There is a joy here, a sense of eternal family, with no worry of the world that seeks to destroy them. They are home and free. Is this what it is like to be them? Mars is not what I expected, neither Olympia nor the ice. It is simpler here, sure, but my mind is quieter without the peripheral madness of Hyperion. There the current demands you to do something to define your own essence, to rise above the human rivers in the street or be drowned under them. Here you can simply be. I wish I could give this to Volga. Poor girl has always feared her own people. What would they think of her birth? But maybe she would find this to be the home she was always looking for. Hell, part of me wishes Lyria could feel this again, what with her family all gone. I'm in such damn good spirits that I wish even Xenophon could share the feast. The poor creature is always standing to the side, never included, unless Sephi needs information or a task fulfilled. Not that Xenophon seems to mind. This warm peace is an illusion, I know. My time in it is fleeting. It won't last. Not the night, not the celebration, not the hunt, not my friendship with the Obsidians, not Cimmeria's acceptance of Obsidian rule. They give them jobs, a percentage of the mine profits, chase the red hand north, but more and more Obsidians flock to Mars by the day. How long till the Reds resent them, or Aegea feels the power balance shift? In the morning, the echo of Ragnar will absorb us and lift off. Then back to Olympia we go, Sefi to her government, Valdir to his hunt of the Red Hand, the children to their lessons and grim future. Me to being me. Part of me wonders if I can't stay in this moment, find a place in Olympia with these people who have welcomed me. They have a dark spirit in their nature, sure, we all do. At least here seems a people, seems a leader, intent on finding their better virtues. I play with the dragon's teeth and watch Sefi across the fire for some sign of ailment. There are none, except the long glove she always wears. She pulls it up as she watches Freyhild hold court from behind her chalice of wine. Sefi's eyes wander to her mate. Valdir is drunk and worse than ever at hiding his lust for Freyhild. It's so obvious why the big man watches her. While Sefi is by nature reserved and seems aged prematurely from the weight of her crown, Freyhild brims from life. She fends off long-haired suitors with a stick, swatting them towards the fire, before twirling around to lead the braves in song. Sefi is the past, the present, but more and more it seems Freyhild is the future. Dizzy from ale, I use Pax's head to help me stand and excuse myself to take a piss. I wander away from the fires to where their warm light licks at the darkness beyond. It's so cold, I pull up my hood and watch through the thermal vision as my piss carves runes in the snow. I hear the jingle of metal behind me and pull off my hood. 
Valdir unbuckles the huge ruby clasp of his belt. I step back in surprise. Do not fear, the big man rumbles. I am not here to rape you. That is a very odd thing to say. He drops his pants. Oh. His huge thighs are moon-pale in the gloom, as thick as tree trunks. As he squats to shit, long muscles ripple beneath Tattoo's skin, notched and striated from the wounds. Drunk, he drinks more from a huge horn and nods to my hood. Does thermal vision make it look bigger? It's not the bark that counts, old boy, it's the bite. I'll leave you to your defecation. What is Horn for? Surname of the seed donor. Your father? The earthy scent of his shit wafts over to me, more or less. Was he a great man? No. He wipes his ass with snow and pulls up his trousers. He considers me and nods in approval. You come from no one. I, too, come from no one. Then he turns and stumbles back to the fire. The Queen knows about you and Freyhild, I say. He wheels back and with one step closes the distance. I have to step back to look into his eyes. It's not my business what you do with your cock, but at least have the decency not to undress Freyhild with your eyes like a titanium-hard teenager. Your queen doesn't seem the forgiving kind, and others notice, even if they're too afraid of you to say it. I slip past him and leave him to his dung.